This is Heisenberg. This book contains up to four sides per cassette. Side 1, RC48966, Marlfox by Brian Jakes, illustrated by Fanghorn. Text copyright 1998 by the Redwall Abbey Company Limited. Read by David Palmer. This book contains 386 pages on eight sides. If you would like to skip over any remaining announcements or introductory material, place your cassette player and fast forward until a beep is heard. Stop at that point to hear the table of contents, or at the second beep to locate the beginning of the book. Library of Congress Annotation Redwall Abbey is attacked by the Marl Foxes, who plunder a wondrous tapestry for their mother, Queen Silt. Young squirrels Dan and Song and the shrew Dippler are joined by the water bull, Burble, in their perilous quest to return the wall hanging to its proper place. Companion to Redwall, RC 29729, for grades 5 through 8, 1998. From the book jacket, a villainous new presence is a prowl in Mossflower Woods, the Morrow Foxes, stealthy, mysterious, they can disappear at any time and any place, and they are out to plunder and destroy everything in their path. And when they reach Redwall Abbey, they ruthlessly steal the most precious treasure of all, the tapestry of Martin the Warrior. It takes Dan Raguba and Song Swifteye, children of warrior squirrels, to follow in their father's heroic footsteps, and together with the young shrewd Dippler and Burble, the brave water bull, they embark upon the seemingly impossible quest to recover the famous tapestry. Enemies and danger greet their every move as they make their way to the ominous island domain of the evil Marlfox leader, Queen Silt, and her children. But they are met most dramatically by themselves as they prove their own courage and worth and discover the hero's spirit that lives within each one of them. Once again, Brian Jakes expands the marvelous world of Redwall, introducing a host of new characters, and this time celebrating the courage of the very youngest heroes. About the author, Brian Jakes began writing his beloved Redwall tales to entertain the children at Liverpool School for the Blind. Unbeknownst to him, a former teacher showed one of his manuscripts to a publisher who saw the genius in it. Thus began the Redwall series, of which Marlfox is the eleventh volume. A consummate storyteller, Mr. Jakes lives in Liverpool, where he continues to spin his magnificent tales and is now at work creating another chapter in the Redwall saga. In addition to this series, he has written Seven Strange and Ghostly Tales, a collection of ghost stories, and The Great Redwall Feast, an illustrated storybook with pictures by Christopher Denise. Other books by Brian Jakes Mossflower, Matameo, Mariel of Redwall, Salamandistron, Martin the Warrior, The Bellmaker, Outcast of Redwall, The Pearls of Lutra, the Long Patrol, The Redwall Map and Riddler. To the memory of a true Redwall friend and talented illustrator, Alan Curlis. Act 1, Enter the Players, Side 1. Act 2, Four Chieftains Going Forth, Side 3.
Act 3, The Queen's Island, Side 6 Reader's Note The map found in the print edition is not included in this recording. End of note. To where will they go? This is a secret no beast may know. Marlfox. Plundering, murdering, vulpine thieves who blend with stone or meld with leaves. Marlfox. See the pale eyes and swirling cloak appear like nightmare, vanish like smoke. Marlfox. What steals upon the silent air, gleaming fangs, mottled fur, a deadly axe-blade lying there? Marlfox. No beast living can hide from thee, O thou who treads invisibly, cross hill and vale, through woods and rocks. Marlfox, Marlfox, Marlfox. Prologue. Who are we but strolling players, wandering through the long ago? Joys and sadness, hopes and longings, keep us traveling onward, though the laughter and applause of others who view the passing cavalcade leave echoes hovering some far summer, floating round a woodland glade. Twas but a tale for your amusement, like my small unworthy rhyme, gone, alas, into those realms the land of once upon a time. Act One. Enter the Players. One. Eternally serene, the moon ruled over star-strewn vaults of cloudless sable night, like a round shield of flecked amber, casting pale light to the earth below. Vagrant breezes from the distant sea drifted idly through moss-flower wood's southwest margins, cooling the heavy warmth a bright summer day had left in its wake. Janglor Swifteye sat at the edge of a well-worn trail, his back against the broad trunk of a fallen elm, savoring the calm summer night. He was an unusual squirrel, half as tall again as most of his species, with dark terracotta fur, untypically long and thick. A huge bush of tail added to the impression of his size. Beneath the fur, Jangler's limbs were hefty and robust, with a stomach of considerable girth, which his mother constantly chided him about. His eyes were hooded and long-lashed, giving the impression he was always half asleep. However, any beast who knew Jangler Swifteye was careful not to be fooled by his air of easy-going idleness. He was renowned as a quick and dangerous warrior, immensely strong and wise in the ways of battle. But there was another side to him. He was also an obedient son, a dutiful husband, and a fond father. In the woodlands behind him, his family slept in their little traveling tent, his mother, Elayo, his wife, Rimrose, and Songbreeze, the daughter who was the apple of her father's eye. From beneath half-closed lids, Jangler Swifteye watched, missing nothing. Clusters of flowering dock nodded lightly against gnarled oak trunks. Orange-varied arums and spiking-flowered sedge swayed lazily between elder, chestnut, and sycamore trees. Nocturnal insects trundled or winged their various ways through the darkened forest. From somewhere deep in the thickets, a nightingale warbled its short, rich trill. Jangler whistled a reply to it on his reed flute aware that some beast was creeping up behind him. The only move he made was to blink away a midge from his eyelashes. He knew who the intruder was by the way she approached. Jangler chuckled. I hear you, missy. Couldn't sleep, eh? His daughter Songbreeze climbed slowly over the elm trunk and slid down beside him. No beast could ever surprise you, old swift eye. Phew! It's far too hot to sleep and Grandma snoring like a score of hedgehogs after a feast. 
Jangler winked lazily at her. Ha! Huh. Listen who's talking. You should hear yourself snoring some nights. Drowns your grandma's poor efforts out completely. She shoved her father playfully. I do not. Young squirrel maids don't snore. Ask mom. Jangler snorted softly. Your mother's worse than both of you put together. The nightingale warbled its short melody again. Jangler picked up his reed flute. Listen to that feller. Thinks he can sing. Come on, song, show him. No creature who knew the tall, pretty squirrel ever used her full name. Jangler played a brief introduction, then Song's voice rang out with such sweetness and clarity that a tear coursed its way down her father's cheek. Her voice never failed to move him. Flowers of the forest are bright in the spring. Wake with the dawn, hear a lone skylark sing. Brooks gaily babble o'er hillsides so green, streams ripple secrets of what they have seen. Small birds give voice mid the leaves of great trees, which rustle softly in time with the breeze. I'll add my music for what it is worth, and sing just for you, love, the song of the earth. As the last plaintive notes died away, Jangler put aside his flute and wiped a paw quickly across his eyes. Song nudged him gently. Big tough warrior, eh? Crying again? Her father sniffed aloud, looking away from her. Don't be silly. It was just a midge went in me eye. But I couldn't play for you and wipe it out at the same time. Had to wait till you were finished singing. In another part of the woodland, two foxes ceased their prowl through the undergrowth and listened to the sweet, plaintive melody floating faintly on the night air. Both beasts were identical. Apart from the fact that they were brother and sister, they were alike in every other aspect. Askrod and his sister Vanan were marl foxes, pale-eyed with strange silver-white coats, heavily mottled with patches of black and bluey-gray. They wore swirling cloaks of drab brown and green weave. Askrod's lips scarcely moved as he muttered to his sister, That singer warbles more sweetly than any bird I ever heard. Vanon's pale eyes glimmered in the moonlight. Aye, brother, and would trill even better at the court of our mother, Queen Sylph. Come on. In the space of a breath, both marl foxes were gone, melted back into the night-shaded forest like tendrils of smoke on the wind. Song plucked a blade of grass and tickled her father's ear tip. Big old softy, come on, play a lively tune, and I'll put a smile back on your face, eh? But Janglor was not paying attention to her. He stiffened, both ears twitching as he sniffed the breeze. Song caught the urgency of his mood. What is it? Can you hear something? Janglor's hooded eyes flickered. He watched the trees on the opposite side of the path, talking quietly, not looking at his daughter as he continued scanning the woodlands. Go quick to your mama, Song, and tell him to be silent, and stay put. Hurry now. Song had seen her father like this before. She knew better than to stop and argue with him. Wordlessly she slipped away to the tent. Jangler took a dangerous-looking thorn dart, tufted with dried grass, from his belt pouch. Placing the missile in his mouth, he tucked it against one cheek, then sat back against the elm trunk. Idly he began playing his reed flute. Outwardly the big squirrel appeared calm, but inside he was poised like lightning, ready to strike. In a short while he made out the two foxes, moving expertly from a patch of fern to the cover of some bushes, coming closer to him by the moment. Jangler took the flute from his lips, calling out sternly, Quit sneaking about, and walk on the path like decent creatures. 
Askrod and Vannon had thought the squirrel was unaware of their approach. They hid their surprise by putting on a bold front, swaggering up to where Jangwa sat. Askrod kicked the squirrel's footpaw, just hard enough to warn him that he and his sister were well in charge of the situation. You there, who was that singing a short while ago? Jangwar did not bother to look up at Askrod, though his voice was menacingly low. None of your business, Snipe Nose. Now get going, and take that other one with you. Bannon winked at her brother, and smiled nastily as her paw began to stray toward the single-bladed axe she carried beneath her cloak. Jangler appeared to ignore them, and went back to playing his flute. Askrod leaned close to the squirrel, baring his teeth. You're very insolent for a fat, lazy squirrel. Shall I show you what we do to beasts with insulting tongues? Phut! Jangler's swift eye shot the dart from his flute, burying it deep in the tip of Askrod's nose. As the fox shrieked out in agony, Jangler sprang upright. Whipping forth a loaded sling from around his waist, he hurled himself upon Bannon, who had her axe halfway out. She went down in an unconscious heap, as the hard oval river pebble and the sling's tongue thwacked heavily across her skull. Askrod was hop-skipping about wildly, both paws clapped across his muzzle, as he screeched with pain. Yeek! Yareek! Tails and scuts preserve us all. Who's kicking up that awful din? Shaking with anger, Jangler turned to see his family dashing toward him, with Elayo in the lead, brandishing a blackthorn stick. Jangler stared accusingly at his daughter. Song, I thought I told you to stay put and keep them quiet. Rimrose placed herself between them. Twert no fault of songs. You just try stopping that old mama of yours when she starts swinging that stick. Jangler's paw shot out. He caught the tip of his mother's stick and held it tight. Heaving on the blackthorn and stumbling on her long apron hem, the old squirrel wife berated her son. Let go of me stick, you great boulder-bellied tree walloper. Let go, or I'll spank ten seasons' daylights out of ye. Song giggled and clapped her paws. That's the stuff, Grandma. You give him a good spanking. Rimrose wagged a paw at her daughter. That'll be quite enough of that, Missy. Show some proper respect for your elders. Then, unable to prevent herself, she fell against Song, laughing helplessly. Oh, hee, hee, hee. It'd be a funny sight to see your grandma given that great lump a spank or two. Hee, hee. Grandma Alayo let go of the stick and turned on Song and Rimrose, attempting to look fierce as she hid a smile. Ha! Don't you two think I couldn't tan his tail if and I took a mind to do it? I'm still his mother, you know. Jangler lifted his mother clear of the ground, hugging her fondly. You can scalp the fur off of me any time you wants to, my lovely old bark belter. Why, I'll bet you could— Song interrupted suddenly. Look, the foxes are gone. All that remained of the Marl Fox's visit was a few drops of blood from Askrod's muzzle, glistening darkly amid the disturbed dust of the path. Jangler peered into the dark woodlands. Aye, they've got away somehow. Won't catch them now, they've vanished. He put a paw about his daughter's shoulders. Mark what I say, Song. They're Marl Foxes. Strange blood runs in their veins. They can disappear like no other living creature. Come on, ladies. We best break camp and get traveling. Jangler's family had been wanderers since he was in his infancy, and breaking camp was a simple affair to them. Once the canvas they used as a tent had been folded, their few cooking implements were rolled in it to form a backpack. 
In the pre-dawn light they breakfasted on clear stream water and a traveling fruit and honey cake that Rimrose had baked two days before. Grandma, what's a marl fox? asked Song between mouthfuls. Alayo tried to explain. The story goes back a long ways. Tis far too long to tell in a short time, but I'll tell you this much, Missy. Somewhere there's a forgotten lake, a great stretch of deep water, almost an inland sea, some beasts say. That's where the marl foxes live, and the most cunning of them all, if and she still lives, is Queen Silth. Aye, they call her the most powerful magic creature alive. Tis said her island is a place of great riches and beauty. I heard all this from a poor creature who was set upon by a bunch of magpies while fishing off the island. Alayo fell silent, and Jangler said, Don't bother your grandma further, Song. If marl foxes are loose in the land, you may learn more than you bargained for. Pick up that linen now. We need to be traveling. North and east to touch, I reckon. Song folded the small tablecloth, which she had embroidered herself. What lies in that direction, father? Jangler shouldered the tent-pack, settling it comfortably on his back. The Abbey of Redwall. The young squirrel-maid's eyes grew wide with delight. She had never visited there, though she had heard tales of the fabulous place. Redwall Abbey! How wonderful! Oh, Mama, will it be as nice as you told me it was when I was little? Rimrose smiled at her daughter's excitement. Even nicer, I imagine. Words can't fully describe a place like Redwall. Song took Grandma Elayo's paw, supporting her as they walked. With Jangler in the lead, they set off as dawn was breaking. It promised to be another hot summer day, but the tree canopy was thick and would shade them as the sun rose higher. Song could not resist a final question to her father. Why are we going to Redwall? Jangler tucked the reed flute into his broad belt. Because we must warn whoever rules at the abbey that there are marl foxes roaming the land. Two. Farther south, on the flatlands, close to the woodland fringe, a gaily painted cart stood propped straight on its two large wheels. It had a single shaft, cross-treed at the end by a well-worn pushing bar. Stretched over willow hoops, a canvas cover was copiously painted in once bright colors, now faded by sun and seasons, though the lettering still read clearly. The Sensational Wandering Noonvale Companions Troop on the nearby stream bank, a motley collection of creatures were preparing for a rehearsal. One of them, a theatrical-looking hare, stood forward. He was clad in a rumpled frock coat of lilac silk and a wide-brimmed straw hat, through which his enormous ears poked. He wore floppy yellow boots and carried a silver-tipped cane. The hare's outfit had obviously seen better seasons, as had the cart and the entire troop. Nevertheless, the hare twirled his cane and boomed out in fine dramatic fashion, as if addressing a vast audience. Good morrow, one and all. I am Florian Dugglewolf Wolfachop, impresario and hector manager. I present to you the sensational wandering Noonvale Companions Troupe, descendants of a talented tradition unrivaled throughout the entire land, death-defying feats, hilarious comical plays, Music and magical virtuosity, jocular jigs and delightful dancing. Come one, come all. Witness our mellifluously marvelous, perfectly pleasurable educational entertainment. Entirely free of charge. He smiled winningly and continued in a loud stage whisper. Homemade cakes, pasties, and sundry comestibles. 
purely for the nourishment of the artistes, gladly accepted with profuse thanks. Um. From the cover of the cart, a gruff voice interrupted Florian's speech impatiently. Oh, go on with it, afore us all falls asleep. The hare shot an outraged glance at the cart and snorted. Turning back to his imaginary audience, he beamed. And now, my bucolic friends, good wives and rustic spouses, not forgetting your charming young'uns, we reach our finale, the very climax of our prodigious performance. Baracle Iron Chest and Elicum Oakpaw, the two strongest hotters ever born, will attempt a daring display of muscle power, which I myself have seen kill ten other lesser beasts. If you have a nervous nature, kindly look away, as swooning and fainting may distract the heartiest's attention. These two mighty marbles will lift the entire, I repeat, the entire, disregarding the good self, of course, they will lift the entire wandering Noonvale Companions troop off the ground. Two burly otters, wearing tawdry gold-fringed pantaloons, skipped athletically forward, flexing their muscles and bowing, puffing forth their chests and showing rows of white teeth and daredevil smiles. They performed a few limbering-up exercises and then went about their business. Seizing both ends of a long wooden bench, they started, with a great show of huffing and puffing, to lift. Standing on the bench were two moles, one dressed in spangled red bloomers, the other in a cloak and turban of jade green. Lying gracefully across the heads of the two moles was a mouse wearing a coronet of imitation flowers and a flowing sky-blue gown. Skillfully perched on one paw, placed upon the mouse's midriff, a hedgehog balanced precariously, his spikes tipped with a mass of pennants, small flags and bunting. Up, up went the bench, with all aboard it wobbling perilously. The hare, Florian, muttered encouragement in a loud stage whisper. Keep it going up, chaps. That's the ticket. Every beast remains still now. Hold your positions. Up she goes, what, what? Baracle and Elicum grunted and strained artistically until they had finally lifted the bench over their heads. Suddenly Baracle gave out a tremendous bellow. Yahoosh! He released his hold on the bench and grabbed at his rear. Amid howls of dismay, the troop and the bench came to earth in jumbled disarray. Florian dashed forward, furious. Down on all fours he berated Baracle, who lay trapped by the bench, still clutching his bottom. Great seasons of sausages, you blithering bang-tailed buffoon! Why did you let the valley bench drop? Crimson-faced, Baracle gasped. Because that perishing mouse-babe shot me with a sling-stone! Florian Dugglewolf Wiffachop drew himself to his full height, ears twitching, teeth grinding audibly. Oh, ho, he did, did he? Well, tis high time I had a serious encounter with that blistering, undersized miscreant. Dwopple, come out of that cart, front and center, this instant. Out, I say, sir. Florian strode resolutely forward, but the mouse in the blue gown suddenly flung herself dramatically in front of the cart. One paw outstretched, the other across her brow, she declaimed, Oh, Mr. Florian, I beseech you, sir, touch not a hair of that babe's tender head. Do nothing you will reproach yourself for in the sunlit seasons lying ahead. Hear a pitiful mother's plea, and punish not the harmless innocent. Spare him, I beg of you. 
Runktip, the hedgehog, chortled bitterly as he removed the bunting from his spikes. Dwopple, a harmless innocent. Huh. That one's about as harmless as a bucket of serpents and a sack of stoats. And you ain't his mother, Deesom. You're only his auntie. Deesom shot Runktip a haughty glance. A mere detail. Do not quibble, sir. No mother could love a babe as I love Dwopple. Come to me, my precious little mite. Clambering into the cart, she grabbed a small fat mouse babe, who wore a stained oversized smock and a wicked scowl. Hanging from one of his grubby paws was a miniature slingshot. He wriggled and kicked desperately as Deesom smothered him with kisses. Grrrah! Let go a dwapple! Stop a-kissing me! Brrr! Elikin the otter massaged a bruised paw as he glared at the infant. You steaming little nit, dwapple! You ruined our rehearsal! Florian interrupted sternly. Indeed you have, you young rip-curdle. Apologize to the entire troop this very flippin' instant. Say you're sorry, sir. From over Deesom's shoulder, Dwopple grinned fiendishly at the company. A soggy. The hare squinched his eyes at Dwopple. Beg pardon, what did you say? Deesom stamped her paw impatiently. He said he's sorry. Isn't that good enough for you? Would you like the little fellow to shed salt tears and roll in the dust? Isn't the word sorry satisfactory to a heartless driving taskmaster like you? Florian threw up his paws in despair. Cha! I suppose it'll have to be, what? Deeson patted the mouse babe's back reassuringly. There now, my little treasure. They've all forgiven you. Isn't that nice? Will you give them all a big kiss? The hedgehog, Runtip, backed off with a horrified face. Let that little savage kiss me? No thanks. He'd probably bite the snout off in me. Florian waggled his cane severely at Dwopple. Absolutely no need to go kissing and hugging every beast. Just behave yourself in future, Milado. Particularly at rehearsals, what? Turning on his heel, the hare strode grandiloquently off, only to be hit sharply on his bobtail by a missile from Dwopple's sling. Yowooch! Bandit, fiend, pollywoggle, scallywag! I'll have your tail for breakfast, sir. The sight of Florian's enraged face set Dwopple crying in distress. Maha! Nasty wabbit gonna eat Dwopple's tail! Boo-hoo-hoo! Me only a lick a baby! Waha ha Deesom hugged the mouse babe closer to her as she rounded on Florian. You callous monster! Fancy frightening the poor little fellow like that! Florian flung his hat down and danced upon it. Madam, I'll have you know that wretch shot me in the posterior and called me a rabbit to boot. Deesom stamped her paw hard. Enough. One more word, sir, and I'll resign from your troop and take baby Dwopple with me. Roop, the mole, and the spangled bloomers shook his head dolefully, grumbling in his curious mole speech. Her, no such luck, I don't suppose, Burno. Muggle, the other mole, gathered up a pail and trundled toward the stream. She wrinkled her velvety snout at her companions. He can stand your arguing all day. I'm going to get breakfast vittles readied. Bite going to wear more jaws out of shouting. Florian, who liked to issue all the orders, coughed officiously. Ahem, rather. Just what I was about to suggest myself. Right, troop, breakfast. Elicum, get a fire going. Run tip. See to the larder. The rest of you make yourselves busy, what? Quicks the word and sharps the action, what, what? Runk-tip spread the meager rations on the backside, 
where Muggle was boiling water over the small fire Elikum had kindled. The hedgehog scratched his head spikes. Ain't enough grub left to keep a fat bumblebee going. Deason glanced at the two shriveled apples, dandelion stalks, a stale loaf of rye bread, which had crumbled into pieces, and some half a dozen withered field mushrooms. Oh, seasons of mercy on us. The babe will starve. Ever the optimist, Florian began chopping the scanty provisions up and tossing them into the pail of bubbling water. Nonsense, ma'am. Fiddlesticks. Nature's bounty has provided us with sufficient food for a nourishing broth. Let's all eat hearty and look forward to better, more prosperous times, what? The soup was dreadful, but knowing there was nothing else, the wandering Noonvale companions spooned it down in stoic silence until Runktip began eulogizing on past dishes he had eaten, as hungry hedgehogs will invariably do. Crispy hot white bread, straight out of the oven, that's the stuff. Goes down a treat with some good yellow nut cheese and young onions fresh picked, all washed down with a foamy beaker of dark ale. Ho, ho! A feast fit for a king, I say. Boracle, the otter, closed his eyes dreamily. Piper not scones, matey, spread with meadow cream and served with fat, juicy strawberries, coated in honey, with a flagon of cold cider, of course. Now that's a feast fit for a king. Rupe picked something dubious out of his soup bowl, wrinkling his nose as he flicked the offending item into the stream. Or I, well, seeing as how you and two bite kings, why don't he use your mouths for eatin' and not making us-uns hungrier? The mouse-babed Wapple picked up his bowl and began toddling off. Deesom chided her charge brusquely. Dwapple, come back here. Where are you taking that soup? Dwapple nodded to a rock-strewn knoll along the stream bank. This soup not good for babies. Gonna give him to the Foskers. Delicum stared at Dwapple quizzically. Foskers? Deesom translated. He means foxes. Florian was immediately on the alert. Foxes? What foxes? Where? Another pair of Morrow foxes, identical to the two who had accosted Janglor, rose up from amid the rocks where they had lain watching the companions since dawn. Their names were Jeltor and Predark, brother and sister. Seeing they had been spotted, the pair approached the camp boldly, their drab cloaks flapping slightly in the light morning breeze. Boracle cautioned his friends, keeping an eye on the strange pair. Careful, mates. They're carrying axes under those cloaks. Florian stood up. Steady in the ranks, chaps. Leave this to me. I'll do the talking. See those strange markings? I reckon I heard about these creatures, but I never thought I'd have the bad luck to see them for myself. Marl foxes, they're called. Bad beasts. The foxes stopped a few paces short of the group. Florian walked cautiously out and greeted them. Good day, friends. Beautiful summer morning, what? Joltor and the male fox nodded slightly before speaking. Who are you and where do you go? Florian bowed eloquently, sweeping off his hat with a flourish. As you can see by our, ahem, cart, we are the wandering Noonvale Companions, a purely theatrical group of talented creatures. Predark, the female, moved closer to the fire. What's in the pot? Deesom dipped a short curtsy. It's a sort of soupy broth. You're welcome to join us. Predark leaned over the pot and sniffed. She wrinkled her muzzle disgustedly. Slops! Boracle picked up a large pebble and tossed it from paw to paw. 
No beast's forcing you to eat it, and you aren't asked to insult it either. Good manners don't cost much, Fox. Predak's paw edged toward her cloak. Mayhap I'll teach you a few manners, River Dog. Florian was quickly between them. Tush and pish, what's all this? Predak drew her paw away from the axe beneath her cloak. You've told us who you are, but you never said where you were going. The hare waved a paw airily. Oh, thither and yon, you know, thither and yon. A traveling show like ours doesn't actually go anywhere. We roam as the mood takes us. But you, friend, will you tell us your names, and where you are bound on this summer's day, what? The marl fox's pale eyes stared insolently at the hare. What we are called is not your concern, and where we go is no beast's business. Florian Dugglewolf Wolfenchop's ears quivered with indignation. So ho! It's bad manners and insult time, is it? Well, listen to me, you pot-bellied, pickle-nosed, louse-bound patch-quilts. You can both take a run and dive into that stream and boil your fat heads. And furthermore, you can take your mange-ridden hides out of our camp before I assist you with a stout right boot. Good day to you both. Jeltor had his axe half-drawn when the otter Elecum picked up a thick pole used in a balancing act and flicked the air in front of the fox's face with it. I wouldn't draw that axe if I was you, matey. This pole cracks eds easier than it does eggs. Predak found herself facing Barakal, holding his big pebble ready to throw, and backed by the two moles brandishing burning sticks from the fire. Runktip dashed across to the cart and dragged out a long shining sword, a stage prop that bent and flopped about comically. Now back off, both of you, or get ready to find out the color of your own insides. Move! The Marl Foxes knew they were outflanked and outnumbered, and backed off toward the rocks. Joltor pointed at the troop and snarled, We'll meet again, but we'll be different next time. Florian threw the hem of his frock coat up across one shoulder and called back in an outrageously dramatic voice, Indeed it will be different. The land will be rid of two rogues when next we cross paths. Mock my words, you spotty villains. Predak pointed beyond the troop and shouted, we're not the only two here. There are others behind you. The entire troop turned and scanned the landscape. After a moment or two, Florian scoffed. Not an earthly sight of any beast. What do they think we are to fall for that one, a bunch of oafs? What? When they turned back again, the two marl foxes had vanished, as if into thin air. Florian sighed. Wish we could learn that trick. Ah, oh, well, comrades, onward, ever onward. Deeson was still looking about fearfully. Onward to where? With a great flourish, the hare kicked the cooking pot over, letting the meager broth spill into the stream. Why, onward to Redwall Abbey, of course, my dear. Where else? Brute chuckled and rubbed his stomach gleefully. Her, oh, I dearly loves ye vittles at Redall Abbey. Florian issued the orders. Attention, troop! Load up the cart. Boracle, Elecum. In the shafts, please. Rung tip, you and I will walk behind, armed with poles to protect our rear. The rest of you ride in the cart. We must get the news to Redwall. There are marl foxes in the land. As late morning heat shimmered on the flatlands, and grasshoppers chirruped dryly beneath the hot summer sun, the cart trundled off toward Mossflower Wood, with the entire company singing. Oh, for the open road, no dullard's life for me. The world is my abode, performing endlessly. I'm free, I'm free, companions we. Travel the highways happily, performing deeds of daring do. 
and plays of heroes good and true, tumbling, singing in merry attire, pray tell me, sir, what's your desire? Come fiddle-dum, twiddle-dum, derry-down day, a harem, scarum, hoopala hay, come one, come all this day to see the wandering Noonvale Company. At the very heart of moss-flower country, the vastness of lordly, wide-trunked trees gave way to an expansive water-meadow, formed in a wide, shallow basin at the juncture of two streams. Mid-afternoon heat haze shimmered on the far margin as Logalog, chieftain of the Gwasim, stood waist-deep at the fringe of the tall reeds with his shrews. Though usually a loud, argumentative band, the guerrilla union of shrews and moss-flower were unusually quiet. Each small, scruffy, furred fighter equipped with vari-colored headband and short rapier, watched their leader as he parted bulrush and marshwort. Raising himself on tip-paw, Logalog shaded his eyes, peering about over the reaches of water-lily, crowfoot, and brookweed. A large striped dragonfly hovered near the shrew chieftain's face, investigating him. He growled at it. Buzz off! Surprisingly, it did. He watched a brown trout fin idly by him, just beneath the surface. Logalog wished that he could forget his tribe's troubles and go fishing. Behind him a young shrew chewed noisily at some watercress, and Logalog turned and fixed him with a severe stare. The young Wassum shrew stopped chewing and swallowed guiltily. An older shrew pointed across Logalog's shoulder. Over there, chief. Logalog's eyes narrowed as he turned and stared searchingly out over the sun-stilled reaches of the water meadow. Over at the eastern edge, by a stand of weeping willows, an oar poked itself in the air, waving back and forth thrice. He cupped both paws around his mouth and let forth a long, ululating call. Logga, 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 logga! Immediately the shrews behind him relaxed and began chattering. That'll be Bargle and the others. Then the coast may be clear, eh? Well, the chief wouldn't have called if twasn't, Stump-Ed. Logalog followed as they waded back onto dry ground, still disputing and debating. Stumphead yourself, Wobble Snout. How do you know they ain't still around? Wobble Snout. Listen, matey. If I had a snout like yours, I'd keep me gob shut about others. Maybe Bargle was alone. The others might have been ambushed. Nah. Splicker was with him. He wouldn't let himself get ambushed. Oh, wouldn't he then? Remember that time by the South Rapids? Stow the gab and latch your lips, mates. Mayan, see to the vittles. Logalog stamped up onto the bank, shaking water from himself. The shrews were seated in a circle three deep when Bargle and his scouts came in. Logalog motioned them to sit and help themselves to a beaker of rough cider each and some wedges of white celery cheese with shrew bread. When they were comfortably settled and eating, Bargle made his report. We saw the two marl foxes just before noon, chief, west of here, over by Widestream. Then they vanished, right in front of our eyes. Logalog undid his shoulder belt and let his rapier fall to the ground, rubbing the back of a paw wearily across his eyes. No sign of those rats or our longboats, I suppose. The shrew named Splicker shrugged. Never saw them, but we tracked their sign, and they're bound west and a point south, chief. By the seasons, they can paddle boats as well as any shrew can, believe me. Logalog shook his head despairingly. Stands to reason, doesn't it? They're water rats. West and a point south, you say? Aye, chief. But there's a lot of them, so the log boats will be overloaded. I saw keel scrapings in the shallows. 
They can't be traveling very fast, weighted down as they are. Logalog drained his beaker and sat a while, gnawing worriedly at his lip. The Guasim watched him in silence, until a scuffle broke out behind his back. Logalog whirled around in time to see a hulking shrew deal the young one who had been eating the watercress a hefty blow. As the young shrew fell back holding his face, the hefty one began to kick him, rumbling bad-temperedly. It was you, Dippler, sleeping on guard, while those foxes and rats stole the boats from under your nose, you worthless tailed dragon. Logalog was up in a flash. Launching himself sideways, he caught the hefty one a flying double kick to the stomach, sending him sprawling. The chieftain stood over him, quivering with anger. Lay a paw near Dippler again, and I'll boot your guts through your backbone. That's if you've got any. The hefty shrew, who was called Fenno, glared up at his chief. His eyes filled with unspoken rage. Logalog was older, smaller, and lighter than him, but he was not chieftain for nothing. Logalog smiled, nodding back to his rapier on the ground. Come on, Fenno. You're a fine big beast. Carrying a blade, too. I'm not armed, but if you figure you're brave enough to carry out the beatings in this tribe, then why not try me? Come on, mate. Let's see what you're made of, eh? There was tension in the air as the Guasim watched both shrews. Then Fenno, still lying flat, placed a paw across his eyes, a sign of submission. A few chuckles broke out from the Guasim. Old Fenno did the sensible thing there, mate. All right, so he did. No beast messes with Logalog. Leastways, no beast that wants to grow old in one piece. Logalog helped Dippler up. Throwing a paw around the youngster's shoulders, he gestured for silence. Harken now. I don't want any shrew complaining about young Dippler or trying to rough him up. We was all young once, and we all made mistakes. Some of them worse than others. Dippler slept on guard and lost our log boats, all six of them. Good craft, too, they were. So the young un'll learn better. He'll try harder. You will, won't you, matey? Dippler wiped mud from his bruised face, smiling through his tears. I won't let the Guasim down ever again, chief. That's a promise. Logalog patted Dippler's back heartily. Good feller. Now, Guasim, here's the bad news. Those boats of ours can only go one way on wide stream, and that way takes them too close to Redwall Abbey for my liking. I know we ain't used to walking, but we've got to get to the Abbey and warn them. I never saw water rats in Mossflower afore, but I know that their leaders, those marl foxes, are evil beasts. Magic, too. They've got tools, wood, and carpenters at the Abbey, so the sooner we're there, the quicker we'll get new boats built. Right? The bass-voiced shrews roared back agreement gruffly. Right. Logalog smiled as he buckled his rapier back on. So what are you sitting round like a crowd of butterflies with wet wings for? Let's get trapping. They formed up into six lines, one for the crew of each boat. As they marched away, Bargle called out to Logalog. I know we ain't sailing, chief, but could we sing a paddle song to help us keep paw step on the way? Logalog nodded and roared out a fast paddle song with the rest as they stamped away through the dim tree aisles of Mossflower. Woom chaka oom chaka chum chaka woom. Wassum dig your paddle deep. Hurly burly river wide and curly. There's no time to sleep. Woom chaka oom chaka chum chaka woom. Rapid wild and fast do go. Hurly burly river wide and curly. Bend your backs and row. Woom chaka oom chaka chum chaka woom. 
Keep her bows up in the foam, hurly-burly river, wide and curly. Log boat, take us home. Woom chaka oom chaka choom chaka. The rousing boat song echoed through wooded glades and grassy clearings as Logalog and his guasom shrews marched to Redwall. Three. Extract from the writings of Old Friar Butty, squirrel recorder of Redwall Abbey in Mossflower Country. I had a twinge in my left footpaw a moment back. I hope that's a sign of rain. We could certainly do with a good shower. Everything seems to be drooping or wilting. Badger Mom Craiga says tis the driest summer she's ever known, and she's seen more summers than the rest of us put together. Redwallers have had to form a chain from the abbey pond to the orchard, bringing pails of water for the thirsty trees and vines that produce our fruits and berries. A pity we haven't more able-bodied creatures. Redwall Abbey seems to be populated by the elders or the very young these last few seasons. I can remember in the times when Abbess Tansy ruled, there seemed to be no end of willing otters, moles, mice, squirrels, and hedgehogs to perform the daily chores of Redwall. But that was a long time back, when I served as an assistant cook in the kitchens under old Mother Buscall. Who would have thought the days would arrive when I would be called old? Yes, old Friar Butty, that's me. Too old to cook and far too rheumaticky to serve as abbot, even though there was a time when every beast seemed to keep asking me to take up the position. Tis a sad reflection, Redwall Abbey, without abbot or abbess, but that's the way things are this season. Poor old Arvin, who was once abbey warrior, served as abbot for three seasons, after abbess Tansy had gone to her rest. Unfortunately, he passed on to the sunlit pastures during the spring, having survived a rough winter. So now there is only myself and Badger Mum Craiga, with the good mouse Sister Slowey running the infirmary. Troglo Spearback, our hedgehog cellar-keeper, Diggum and Gerbo, his mole helpers, and Gubio, who is now four mole. All that is left of our old friends. The sword of Martin, our founder and first abbey warrior, hangs on the wall in Craiga's room. His brave guiding spirit is blended into the ancient red sandstone of our beautiful abbey. Seasons have been kind, and peace has reigned here many, many summers. I think it is thanks to the spirit of Martin. Oh, I forgot one other still here from the old days. In fact, I can see him now, from the gatehouse window where I am sitting. Nutwing the Owl. He was one of three born here at Redwall. His brother and sister have long flown off, but Nutwing has stayed and remained faithful to the Abbey. He is, how shall I put it, an unwise old owl, having great lapses of memory in his latter seasons. You will pardon me, I am sure, but I feel I am about to be lured away from my recording duties. I just hope tis nothing too strenuous. The owl waddled right up to the gatehouse window and peered in through tiny thick crystal-lens spectacles perched on his beak curve. Hmm, hmm, is that you, buddy? The old squirrel poked his head out of the open window, facing Nutwing nose to beak. Who else would it be, pushing a quill pen, ink-stained paws, buried among scrolls on a beautiful summer morn like this? Certainly not yourself, you feathered old fraud. Nutwing shook his head absently. Hmm, um, no, it wouldn't be me. Don't like writing one little bit. Do you think it's likely to rain soon? But he nodded toward the hot blue cloudless sky. I've had one paw twinge today. 
but that could mean nothing. Look up and tell me what you think. Nutwing flapped his wings resignedly. Hmm. Sky's too far up for me to see. I don't bother with it. Friar Butty came around outside the gatehouse to where the owls stood. Well, friend, I'm sure you didn't come this far just to chat about the weather. What do you want? Nutwing thought long and hard, blinking and moving his head from side to side. Hmm. Um. Er. Let me see. Was it something to do with... No, that wasn't it. Perhaps it was... No, I'd forgotten about that. But he smiled indulgently. Was it anything to do with strawberries, perhaps? Nutwing looked astonished. How did you know? Because when you flapped your wings, a strawberry fell out on the grass. There it is. It was a giant of a fruit, shiny red, plump, and speckled with seeds. Nutwing grinned happily. Retrieving the strawberry, he gave it to the squirrel. I brought this beauty over for you, friend. They're taking the berries to the kitchen, and your advice is needed. Friar Butty bit into the fruit, wiping juice from his whiskers as he chewed. Oh, delicious. I hope they're all the same quality as this one. What a wonderful thing a strawberry is. It has a flavor and fragrance all of its own. The taste of a good summer. Right, let's go to the kitchens and see how I can be of help. Badgermum Kraga was totally blind, though it did not seem to hamper her greatly. She waited at the Abbey's main door to greet the pair. Ah, well done, Nutwing. You remembered your errand. Come on, Butty, finish eating that strawberry and get along to the kitchens. The old friar was amazed. But how did you... Redwall's blind Badgermum forestalled the question. I notice you, because you limp a bit on that rheumatic paw. And any creature with half a nose and one ear can tell by the aroma and the sound of chomping when some beast is enjoying a big strawberry. Now hurry along before the Dibbons decide what to do with the entire crop. Dubio Formol and Sister Slowey had their paws full, trying to control the greedy Abbey babes, the Dibbons, from ravaging the baskets of fruit that were piled up everywhere around the kitchens. Your, your rascal, get any paws out in yon basket. Formol lifted a tiny mouse down from the shelf top, where she was rummaging in a basket to find the biggest berries. Sister Slowey menaced two small moles who were stained from ear to smock with crimson juice, shaking a wooden spoon at them as they stuffed strawberries into their mouths with both paws. Not another one, do you hear me? Stop immediately! Through a mouthful of the fruit, one of the mole babes explained patiently to the infirmary sister why they had to complete their self-appointed task. Nay, marm, usins be only heatin' the ones that'll go bad soon. Her, it'n our job for he likes of us infants. The sister did not share their viewpoint. The only things that'll go bad are your tummies. You'll be sick as stuffed frogs, the pair of you. Now stop it this instant. All the Dibbons froze as Craig's voice boomed severely through the kitchens. Just point out any Dibbons who've been pinching strawberries, and I'll deal with them. By the thundering seasons of strife, I will. The mole-babe wugger tugged Friar Butty's habit cord and whispered, Your Zer Buddy, don't e tell Badger Mom I been pinching strawberries, and I want tell on e. The old friar winked secretly at Wugger and spoke out loud. Craig, marm, how could you say such things? 
I'm sure none of the Dibbons would be so villainous as to pinch strawberries. They're merely helping to carry them in and stack the baskets. A chorus of agreement burst from the Dibbons. Yes, Friar be right, marm. Usins be good and honest beasts. No, no pinch of strawberries, not ever. Gregor nodded solemnly. Well, I'm very glad to hear it, because once, many seasons before any of you were born, we had a Dibbon at Redwall who... Do you remember what happened to him, Sister Slowey? Slowey pursed her lips forbiddingly as she continued the tale. Oh, I recall that one right enough. He ate strawberries from dawn to dusk on the day of the harvest, never listened to a word when he was told to stop, kept on pinching and scoffing all the biggest and juiciest ones. Guess what happened to him as he was on the stairs to the dormitory? Slowey gazed around at the wide-eyed divins, hanging on her every word. Suddenly she clapped her paws sharply and shouted out, He went, Bang! Just like that! Exploded! Was never seen again. Isn't that right, Friar Buddy? The old squirrel nodded sadly. Ah, that's what happened, sister. You can still see the red mark he left halfway up the stairs. Poor greedy little mite. Shocked and horrified, Dibbons unloaded strawberries from their smock pockets back into the baskets, stunned by the fate of the gluttonous Dibbon in that far-gone season. Then they rushed from the kitchens, squeaking and shouting as they headed for the dormitory stairs where the incident was reputed to have taken place. When they had gone, Craiga popped a strawberry into her mouth, chuckling, Ha-ha! That story works every summer. I wonder what that bright red mark on the stairs is, though. It feels quite smooth. Probably a lump of quartz in the stone. Nutwing watched Craiga feel around in the basket beside her for another large strawberry. Hmm, hmm, I've seen it. A bit too big for a dibbon. Must have been a greedy badger who wouldn't stop pinching strawberries, eh? Troglo Spearback, the cellar-keeper, an immense hedgehog, lumbered in. Stuffing both paws in his wide canvas apron pocket, he grinned and winked at Nutwing. Aye, mayhaps twere a badger. Now then, old buddy, which ones are mine? Make sure they're good and juicy enough to brew into a barrel of strawberry fizz. Friar Buddy did his rounds of the baskets, sniffing and prodding gently at the fruit they contained, and marking certain ones with a charcoal stick. Those should be enough for you, Troglo. A dozen good baskets. Sister Slowey, you take this one to sweeten up those herb potions you give to sick gibbons. Brother Melodot? A fat dormouse emerged from an unlit oven with scrubbing brush and pail in his paws. Last time I let moles make damson jam in my oven. Sticks like glue when it bubbles over. Did you want me, Friar? Buddy indicated the unmarked baskets. These are all yours. What do you plan on making? Strawberry tarts, obviously. I noticed a pot of red currant jelly cooling on the windowsill as I came in. Bellalot took off his greasy apron and began tying on a freshly laundered one. Strawberry tarts, for sure, with good short-crust pastry and lots of whipped meadow cream on top. I'll probably do some strawberry and pear flans, too, and a big strawberry trifle, if you'll be good enough to help me, Friar. But he agreed willingly. Oh, yes, an extra big trifle, with plums and raspberries in it, too. Every beast began contributing its ideas of what made the perfect trifle. And lots of flaked almonds and hazelnuts sprinkled on top. Aye, with a good beaker of elderberry wine poured in. Be sure to set it in blackberry jelly, with lots of honey sponge slices, to make it nice and soggy. 
Sweet arrowroot custard, too, good and deep. Burr her, and Gert Globitz a clotted meadow cream atop of that. The discussion was interrupted when a stocky older squirrel strode in, a younger one on his wake, both carrying pails in either paw. The older squirrel, Russell, was obviously hot and rather irritated. Any beast interested in lending a paw to fetch water from the pond for that orchard out? Hmm. Glad I'm not the only creature who forgets things. Russell had been at Redwall less than three seasons. He had been a wanderer and a warrior, but when his wife died, he'd come to stay at Redwall, bringing with him his son Danflor, a quiet young squirrel. Both were strong and good workers, but Russell had changed since the death of his wife. He was no longer the happy-go-lucky creature of former days, but was often quick to take offense and sometimes difficult to get on with. He nodded at the creatures assembled in the kitchen, then turned to Danflor. Let's put these pails away and get washed up before lunch, son. Outside, the abbey pool seemed to cool Russell down a bit. Danfor washed his paws in silence, watching his father sluice water across his face with both paws, blowing and snorting as it entered his nostrils. Danfor glanced up at the sky. Wish it had rained, then there'd be no need to carry water, eh? Russell wriggled a paw in one ear to get the water out. Aye, son. Wouldn't have been a bad idea for some beast to tell us the orchard had enough water and all. Danflor shrugged good-naturedly. It's not the badger mum's fault, she forgot. She carried as much water as both of us earlier on. Russell nodded grudging agreement. Maybe she did. But this place needs a leader, an abbot or an abbess. I liked old Abbot Arvin. When he was alive, things seemed to run smoother. Danflor dried his paws on the grass. That's cause Arvin was a warrior one time, just like you. Probably the reason you got on so well together. Russell smiled one of his rare smiles and flicked a pebble at his son. True enough, Dad. Me and you are the only warriors left in Redwall now, and we get on well together, don't we? Danflor caught the pebble and skimmed it out over the pond. Of course we get on, cause I'm your son and you're my dad. But I've never been in a fight or seen battle, so you couldn't really call me a warrior. I was only a divin before we came here, you know. Russell's eyes hardened. He took his son's paw and held it tight. But you are a warrior, Danflor. I know it. The blood of warriors runs in your veins. Never forget that, son. They rose together and walked toward the orchard, where lunch was being served in the shade of the trees. Danflor paced easily beside his father. But Redwall Abbey's the most peaceful place a creature could wish to be. How will I know when I become a warrior? Russell stopped and stared at him. Your name is Danflor Raguba. In ancient squirrel language, the Raguba was the greatest warrior in all the land. I am called Raguba, as my father was before me. When danger threatens and you have to face the foe beast, then you will know you are Raguba, bravest of the brave. Lunch was a fairly simple one. Sliced fruits, apple, pear, green gauge, and plum, some fresh-baked scones and damson jam, and dandelion and burdock cordial, foamy and cold from Troglow's cellar hog's vaults. Russell sat chatting with Troglow, while Danflor chose to sit next to Kregga. The badger mum reached out a huge paw and ran it gently over his face. You are troubled, Dan. What's going on in that mind of yours? The young squirrel sucked foam noisily from the top of his beaker. Not so much troubled as puzzled, marm. They say you were once a great warrior. My father likes the company of warriors. 
But he never seems to talk at any length with you. Why's that? Craiga shrugged lightly, her blind eyes facing straight ahead. Probably because I never talk about my seasons as a fighter. That is all in the dead past to me. Peace and this beautiful abbey are what matter in my life now. Do you like Redwall, Dan? Aye, I like it a lot. It's really home to me. Craiga smiled, nodding her great striped head. Good. Tis my home, too, though I've never seen it with my eyes. I was blinded in battle before I ever arrived at Redwall. Do me a favor, Dan. Look at it and tell me what you see. You can be my eyes. Go on. Let's see if we both live in the same place. Danfor held the blind Badgermum's paw as he spoke. A path runs from north to south, and Redwall stands by the side of it. Mossflower wood grows around the north and east walls, and partially on the south. A big main threshold gate faces the path, with a little gatehouse just inside. The outer walls are high, thick, and solid, built from old red sandstone, like the rest of the abbey. Battlements and a wide wall top run round the outer walls, making it like a safe fortress. Inside there are gardens and lawns, a pond, and this orchard. But in the middle of it all stands the abbey. It is a huge old building, very high, with a weather vane atop the great long roof, and marvelous stained-glass windows, great arches and columns. Built against one side is a bell tower with two bells inside, which are tolled at dawn, midday, twilight, and softly at midnight. I like the bells. They have a warm, friendly sound, as if they're watching over us. Gregor squeezed the young squirrel's paw gently. You have a good eye and a kind heart, Danflor. Your picture of our abbey is the same as the one I carry in my imagination. While they had been talking, the sky was starting to cloud over from the southeast, gradually at first, but the clouds increased as a breeze sprang up to drive them along, blotting out the blue summer noon. Friar Butty felt his footpaw twinge again. Ah, I knew it. We'll have rain before long, friends. Splat, splack. Two large raindrops hit the leaves of a plum tree, one of them rolling down to burst on poor Mulgubio's nose. E rain bite a waitin' on your word, Butty. It be your right now. As the mole spoke, long-awaited rain came splattering and battering suddenly down, a proper summer storm, driven sideways on the wind. Thunder rumbled afar, with a distant lightning flash flaring briefly in the east. Dust turned immediately to mud. Dry, yellowed grass was flattened against the wet earth, and a tremendous din of countless large drops pattered against foliage, and rapping upon tree trunks as it hissed around the abbey virtually drowned out all other sound. Brother Melodot and Russell swept the linen spread off the ground, and knotting it loosely into a large sack with foodstuffs and dishes inside, they bore it off between them to the abbey. Craig of Badgermom boomed out over the den. Every beast inside! Ambling sideways, she shielded many elders and young ones with her bulk. Sister Slowey tugged at Troglo's apron, rain pouring down her face into her open mouth as she called to him. Mr. Troglo! There's two dibbons not here. Danflor joined them, his fur plastered flat by the downpour. That'll be the two mole babes, ma'am, Wugger and Blinny. They went off toward the gatehouse as my father and I were coming up from the pond. Troglo Spearback shooed his sister slowly off to the abbey. You get yourself indoors, ma'am. Me and young Dan'll find them. Danflor and Troglo dashed across the lawns, heads down. 
footpaws sloshing and slapping through the wet grass. As the thunder boomed closer and a great fork of jagged lightning rent the sky asunder, both creatures were driven flat against the gatehouse wall by the wind, and stood there a moment regaining their breath before finding their way around to the gatehouse door. It was flapping back and forth, for Buddy had left it open, and they hurried inside out of the storm. Troglo cast a quick eye about. Little rascals! They ain't here, Dan, and we never passed them on the way here. The young squirrel wiped rain from his eyes on a window curtain. Let's think. I know. Maybe they're up on the wall top. Dibbins are always being told not to go up there, so that's the likely place for them to be. Cheating rain swept the ramparts, dancing across the stones and gurgling noisily out of small downspouts, so heavy that visibility was virtually nil. Troglo and Downfloor were running almost doubled up past the north battlements when a peal of thunder exploded with frightening force directly overhead. In the crackle of chain lightning that followed, the hedgehog pointed to the northeast gable end, and the two small figures huddled there. Ha ha! There they be. It was hard to imagine two more saturated and frightened little creatures. The mole babes wailed and threw themselves at their rescuers. Wow! How? Usins be girtly drowned, sirs. Proglo untied his stout canvas apron and placed it over the divans. Then between them, he and Danflor picked them up and started down the east wall steps, watching carefully where they trod as the steps were awash. Reaching the lawn, they skirted the rear of the abbey, almost blown around the corner of the bell tower by the increasing wind. Wogger and Blenny held tight to the canvas apron covering them as it ballooned and flapped. More thunder banged sharply overhead, and lightning sheeted the scene. Illuminating it momentarily in an eerie white flash, Craig and Sloy were waiting at the door, holding it open against the weather's onslaught. When the four of them rushed inside, breathless and bedraggled, Sister Sloy gave Danflor and Troglo a towel apiece. "You found them! Thank goodness! Where were they?" The hedgehog rubbed vigorously at his face. "Just where you'd expect the rogues to be, Sister. Top of the bloomin' wall at the northeast corner, wetter'n waterweed, and yellin' to be saved from a drownin'." Anyways, they're safe now. As the little group passed through the great hall, more lightning flashed outside, throwing cascades of bright pattern from the colored stained glass onto the worn stone floor. A fire was burning in the cavern hall, where all the red wallers were gathered, towels flapping wetly about and steam rising from damp fur. Sister Sloy and Gerbol Cellarmole dried the two divans off, none too gently. Wugger's head shook from side to side as the sister rubbed at it, scolding. Time and time again, you've been told not to go up on that wall top to play. So what were you both doing up there, eh? Speak up. Her, usins was only talking to the funny beasts and he woods, marm. Funny beasts? What funny beasts? There were two of 'em, marm. They was white and black and blue. A wearing girt cloakers. Danflor had trouble keeping a straight face. Wugger was obviously making up some kind of story to justify his visit to the wall top. Two funny creatures, all white and black and blue, wearing great cloaks. What did you say to them? Usins didn't say naught. They am asked if Oid come down and open a little wall gate for em. And what did you say? Her, Usins was a going to when he rain comed. Then Usins was too affrighted to move. So what happened to the two funny beasts? Wugger spread both paws and blinked. They am gone, just vanished like that, sir. 
Danflor smiled and winked at Troglo, who nodded understandingly at the mole babe as if it all made sense. All right you be, Wugger. The two funny beasts just vanished, you say? Wugger nodded, his little face completely serious. Aye, sir, that's right. Sister Slowey wagged a severe paw under his nose. You've eaten too many strawberries and made yourself ill. Straight up to bed for you, young mole. You too, Blinny. Both of you have had quite enough for one day, pinching strawberries, playing on the wall in that thunderstorm, and telling a pack of fibs. Now not another peep out of either of you. Straight upstairs this instant. Looking the picture of dejection, the two tiny moles, first still standing up from their toweling, were led off to the dormitories by Sister Slowey. Friar Buddy smiled at Nutwing. Black, white, and blue creatures with great cloaks that vanish into thin air. What'll they think of next? The owl dried his spectacles off on a towel corner. Hmm, hmm. I blame their elders, telling tales of strawberry thieves who just went bang and were never seen again, save for the red patch on the stairs. Little wonder that Dibbons grow up telling fibs after hearing stories like that. Outside, the mid-afternoon resembled night, as the storm roared around Redwall Abbey, lashing its ancient stones and causing the moss-flower treetops to sway wildly in its grip. Snug inside their comfortable abbey, the creatures of Redwall, now warm and dry, took their ease in safety and calm. 4. Jangler Swifteye unfastened the tent canvas from his back and tossed it expertly across two rocks that stood a small distance apart on a knoll overlooking a storm-swollen stream. Rimrose and Song weighted the canvas down with flat slabs of sandstone placed on its edges where they lapped the ground, working quickly their heads bowed against the pelting rain. Grandma Elayo hurried into the covered space between the rocks and swept out the wet leaves, creating a dry floor inside the makeshift shelter. Jangler dropped the last large slab on the rear of the canvas, making sure it was stretched taut so that it would not fill up and belly inward upon them. Straightening up, he blew rainwater from the tip of his nose, blinking hard against the scything curtains of wind-driven wetness. Rimrose and Song were already inside under cover, and Elayo called out urgently to her son, Get you in here fast, before that thunder bangs again. Dropping on all fours, the big squirrel scrambled into the confined shelter space, the others moving aside to make room for him. Elayo jumped instinctively as a thunderclap sounded overhead. Jangler put a paw about her comfortingly. There now, Mom, no need to be jumping about like a toad on a cinder. Thunder won't harm ye. But Grandma Elayo was not to be placated. Maybe thunder won't, but lightning will. Take that knife of yourn and bury it, son. Lightning has a way of finding knives. Jangler knew there was a lot of truth in old wives' tales. Drawing the long blade he carried sheathed sideways across the back of his wide belt, he scratched a shallow trough, placed the knife inside, and covered it. Lying flat on his stomach, he rested his chin on both paws, watching the stream being peppered with torrential rain as it pounded furiously on its course. Song joined him, while Rimrose and Elayo snuggled down at the back of the shelter. Jangler nodded in their direction. Take a tip from them, Song, and rest while you can. Not else to do but sleep this storm out. The young squirrel watched the rain glumly. When's it going to stop so we can get to Redwall Abbey? Her father shrugged. It'll stop when tis ready to. Must be getting towards eventide now. If it ceases later on, we may be able to travel by night. You have a good nap. 
I'll wake you if it clears up. Song tried to sleep, but the longer the bad weather continued, the less she felt like sleeping. Twilight lent a strange aspect to woodland and stream, and a weird gray-yellow nimbus hovered over the bank sides, cast through with a dull lilac glow. Gradually she began to drift toward slumber, lulled by the sound of rainfall and swishing treetops, but then a sharp movement from her father brought her back to instant alertness. Be silent, Song, and don't move. Look at the stream. A long log boat thundered by on the roiling current. Seated in the prow were two marl foxes, identical to the two they had encountered, and large scrawny water rats, some brown, others black or gray, packed the boat from stem to stern. The majority of the rats were paddling oars, skimming and sculling to keep the craft upright and on course, while the rest were kept busy bailing out stream and rainwater with any implements they could lay claw to. Jangler muttered to Song out of the side of his mouth, Just as well they can't hear your grandma snoring in this little lot. Be still now. Here comes another. A second logboat forged along in the wake of the first. Jangler moved forward, poking his head out into the rain, peering upstream. There's more of them. Another four, if I ain't mistaken. Never seen aught like this afore. I'm going to take a look. You stay put, Song. You know where my dagger is if you need it. Don't wake your mom or grandma. What they don't know can't hurt em. Be back soon. Not far from the knoll where they had camped, a big gnarled cracked willow overhung part of the stream. Jangler Swift-Eye climbed it with surprising speed and grace for a squirrel of his size and weight. Skipping nimbly out along one of the main limbs that bent over the water, he tested it for firmness. Two more logboats had passed beneath the willow, their occupants unaware of the presence of a squirrel overhead. Jangler looped his tail and footpaws firmly around the sturdy bow, hanging downward almost as if he were part of the tree. Another logboat bobbed past on the turbulent waters. He let it sail by beneath him, noting that all the vessels were packed with water rats, but the only mile foxes were the two in the lead boat. Unwinding the sling from his waist, Jangler readied himself as the final craft shot toward the willow, a foaming bow wave curling either side as it plied the water. Three rats in the stern were bailing busily. As the logboat sped past beneath the watching Jangler, the hindmost rat bent to scoop up a bowl full of water. Suddenly a noose settled around his neck, and a paw clamped around his mouth like a vice. The rat's footpaws were hauled swiftly clear of the scuppers, and the logboat shot on without him, his companions not even noticing his departure. Jangler flopped the water rat up over the willow limb like a landed fish, dealing him a sharp blow between ear and jaw side. Working efficiently, he sat him on the branch, whipped the sling from the stunned rodent's neck, and bound his middle to the tree. A soft moan escaped the rat's lips as he began to come around. Jangler patted his cheek playfully. Hush a by now, me old cully. You sit there a while until you're ready and willing to do a bit of talking. Song watched her father emerge out of the sheeting rain. He was carrying a bundle and whistling cheerfully between his two front teeth. One of the lazy hooded eyes winked slyly at her as he ducked to enter the shelter. Found some nice dry pine wood back there. Must be the only bit of timber left in moss flower that ain't wet this evening. Song unearthed the knife and took tinder and flint from their pack. Striking the flint against the spine of the blade, she blew softly on the bright sparks that fell on the dry, mossy tinder. A thin blue column of smoke rewarded her efforts, followed by a glow and a tiny flame. Jangler began eyeing pine splinters until they had sufficient fire going to pile on some of the pine billets. 
Wakened by the smell of wood smoke, Rimrose held her paws out to the flame gratefully. A nice fire. Would you two like something to eat? Grandma Alayo's voice came from the back of the shelter. Aye, us three would like a bite, if you don't mind. The last of the provisions was made into an acceptable meal. Song sliced up the final piece of Rimrose's traveling fruit and honey cake, while her grandma brewed a kettle of mint and comfrey tea. Rimrose had saved four oat cakes and a small wedge of cheese. She toasted the cheese and oat cakes together. The family sat by the fire, staring out into the rain-swept night as they ate. Later Janglor took out his flute and played, encouraging Song to sing. I once knew an aunt, and I knew him right well. This aunt he lived in a hazelnut shell. He had relations to count by the score. They used to come knocking on his tiny door. One was called Distant. He lived far away. Another was Pleasant. He bid you good day. A third was Constant. He was never away. Then there was Hesitant. Not sure he'd stay. And poor old Reluctant. Not sure, too. And one called Valiant. Stout and true. Now I'll tell you the reason they all came to call cause this aunt was the most important aunt of all. As the final echo of the ballad died away, a gruff voice called from the stream bank, causing Elayo to jump with fright. Well sung, young missy. You've got a fair pretty voice on you. Song immediately grabbed for her father's knife, but Jangler stayed her paw, a smile flitting across his half-closed eyes as he replied, Aye, better than any old Scragford shrew could sing, I'll wager. Surrounded by a party of Gwasim, Logalog strode up to the shelter. Ha! Jangler Swift-Eye, you great fat branch-bounder. I heard you was dead three seasons back. Jangler shook his old friend's paw heartily. Logalog Gwasim, you big-bellied brook-beast. I heard you died more than four seasons ago. The shrew threw a paw about the squirrel's shoulders. Well, we must be the two healthiest ghosts in the woodlands. Introductions were made all around. The shrews joined their old logboat sails, which they carried with them, to Jangler's shelter. Using oars and dead branches, and taking advantage of nearby bushes, they soon extended the covered area. Logalog sat by the fire, gratefully accepting a bowl of tea from Alayo, while he told Janglor of what had befallen him and his tribe. The squirrel listened intently, then told Logalog of his first encounter with the marl foxes. The shrew scratched his ear thoughtfully. Do you think the two you met are the same two who stole our boats? Jangler shook his head emphatically. Impossible. We were too far apart. But I saw the two foxes that took your boats this very evening. Logalog's paw grabbed his rapier hilt. You saw them? Where? They sailed right by here, round about twilight. Six boatloads of them, water rats, with the two foxes sitting forward in the first boat that passed. So I went to take a look. So tell me, what did you see? The squirrel's long lashes flickered idly. Wasn't much to see. I figured they wouldn't stop to chat with me, so I worked the old rear ambush and captured one. Logalog leapt up and drew his rapier. You captured one? Why didn't you tell me this earlier? Jangler rose with a sigh. Because you called me fat and said I was three seasons dead. Come on, stop looking so injured, and I'll take you to him. The water rat was fully conscious, but his face showed little emotion as Jangler loosed the bonds and hauled him down from the crack willow. Logalog's rapier point was swiftly at the rodent's throat. The shrew's voice dripped menace. Now, matey, you're going to do a bit of fast talking. 
Who are these Marl foxes? How many of them is there? And what are you doing in these parts? Make it easy on yourself and speak. The rat's face was blank, his eyes devoid of either fear or hatred of his captors. Jangler prodded the rat's chest with a hard paw. Where do you come from? Are you from the same place as those foxes? I hear they come from a secret island at the center of a great lake. Tell us about it. Who rules there? The rat's expression never changed, though Logalog noticed that his paws were trembling visibly. The shrew leaned close to Janglor and spoke in a whisper, so the water rat would not hear them. What do you make of this one, mate? Mayhap he's a mute. Look out! Before either creature could stop him, the rat dashed back a few paces and flung himself into the swift-flowing stream. Logalog and Janglor rushed to the water's edge and stood helplessly, watching as the rodent was swept away on the wild racing surge. It was far too rough and speedy, even for a water rat, and his paws struggled feebly against the surging mass until a broken rowan tree came hurtling like an arrow on the current. It struck the unfortunate rat, and he sank instantly. Logalog screwed up his face in disgust. "'Tis always bad when a life's wasted for no reason. Even the life of a vermin like that, and—' Jangler fastened the sling back around his waist. "'I wouldn't say the rat's life was wasted for no reason, mate.' We mightn't know why he did it, but no creature could live in that current, so he knew what he was doing. He must have been really terrified if he killed himself rather than betray any information. The shrew stood staring at the spot where the rat had gone down. You're right, Swift Eye. Let's go and get some sleep. Mayhap we'll find the answer to all this when we reach the Abbey of Redwall. The wandering Noonvale companion's cart was stuck up to its axles in mud. Florian wrung rain from the hems of his frock coat and bellowed mournfully, "'Oh, calamity, folly, and woe unto us! Abroad on a night like this in the midst of a hurricane, nay, a typhoon, a veritable deluge, and now, to cap it all, we are sinking slowly into the muddy oblivion of a bottomless quagmire. Brave hearts and faithful friends, tis a night for lamentations.' Ooh, lack-a-belly day, what? Runktip tried unsuccessfully to block a rip in the canvas of the covered cart with a pennant he had plastered with mud. Aye, we could do with lack in this day right enough. Pesky rain'll drive me off my spikes if it don't stop. Oracle, who was caked in mud up to the waist from trying to get the cart unstuck, grinned mirthlessly. Cheer up. We're only lost, starving, and likely to be drowned by morning. At least there's plenty of water to drink out there. Roop twitched his nose at the otter. I bite thirsty, thank ye, sir. Though tainty weather I'm worried over, tis dwapple. The young meister's gone very quiet, and I do it like it. Deesem instantly leapt to the defense of her charge. You're quite heartless, Mr. Roop. See, the dear little chap is slumbering innocently. Alicum, the other otter brother, who was trying to sleep at the same end of the cart as the mouse babe, shifted his position, muttering, "'Slumbering innocently. The wretch is snoring like thunder, and he keeps trying to eat my tail in his dreams.' Muggle flung her soggy turban at the otter. "'Grr! Don't e munchin' eatin' again. My poor stomach is a growglin' and a rowglin' like thunder and lightnin'. Dejectedly, Florian pulled out his battered one-string fiddle and plucked at it experimentally. Cha! Confounded wet weathers knocked it all out of tune, what? 
Nevertheless, he scraped away at it with a tattered bow and began singing a song that he composed as he went along. Dear mother, I am hungry, hungry, and starving as well to boot. Oh, to be back home in your orchard, so full of delicious fruit. If I perish and die before morn, and my last thought will be of you, and a smile on father's whiskers, and a whackin' great bowl of stew, are grandpa's teeth still missin' the way I'm missin' you? You're the nicest ma a son could have, and I've had quite a few. Fare thee well, my dearest parents, for quite soon now I must die. But if I get home before midnight, don't let Grandma eat all the pie. Florian's song was abruptly cut off when a soggy tunic flopped in his face. He removed the offending article, which had become tangled with his ears and whiskers, and held it up. Which wrought her through this? Own up immediately, what? he demanded with an air of injured dignity. The troop stared at him in blank innocence. Baby Dwopple shook with malicious mirth, but kept his eyes tight shut, pretending to be asleep. He even threw in a couple of lusty snores for good effect. Deesom stroked his head fondly, murmuring, So young, yet so talented. One day you will be a great actor. Night closed in around the little cart in the woodland as the rain continued to batter down. Five. The lake was so huge that no beast standing on any part of the shoreline could tell that its sweeping vastness held an island at its center. Not even birds, because they knew better than to try to fly across the lake. Whipping up the surface into a frenzy of crested waves, the storm raged throughout the night hours. Rain howled like a wild thing, driven by the winds. From the billowing masses of black and purple-bruised cloud that obscured the moon, Thunder crashed, and lightning ripped down in a flickering dance across the heaving waters. Inside Castle Marl, a grim-faced band of brown-liveried water rats were trying to drown out the storm noise with music. They plucked at stringed instruments, struck small gongs, and played strange melodies on flutes and pipes of varying sizes. From cellars to attics they paraded up and down the fortress's many ramps. There were no stairs inside Castle Marl, just steeply sloping ramps, winding or angled everywhere. The odd group followed a curtained palanquin, a long box-like affair with silken tasseled drapes around its sides, borne on four thick poles running beneath its length and width. Over a score and a half rats bore the odd conveyance, treading with carefully measured paces so that the box was kept perfectly steady at all times, and by the side of the palanquin strode a marl fox, when a sharp tapping noise issued from within the covered box, the carrier stopped moving instantly. A harsh, rasping voice sounded from behind the silken curtains. Lontour, tell them to play louder. I will not be disturbed by weather noises, for I am mightier, more powerful than storms. These fools must play louder. The storm stopped me sleeping, so they must outplay it. That is my command. The Marl Fox Lontour strode back to the musicians who had already heard the order. Nevertheless, she repeated it in the imperious tone of one used to commanding others. End of Side One To continue, turn the cassette over. Side Two, Marl Fox by Brian Jakes Continuing on page 53 
The High Queen Sylph decrees that you play louder. If you disobey the royal word, you will all answer to the teeth of the deeps. Play louder. You there, bring the chanters, so they may add to the music by singing the High Queen's praises. More water rats were quickly brought to join the band. At a nod from Lontour, the procession continued, the chanters droning along in time with the musicians. All-powerful mighty queen, whose beauty has ne'er been surpassed, far brighter than the sun, whose rays it will outlast, we live to serve you truly until our final breath, knowing you hold all secrets, the power of life and death. Wisest of wise, greatness sublime, rules o'er our isle for all time. Rats with incense burners scurried ahead of the bearers, wafting sweet smoke into the air, so that it would drift down between the curtains. Lontour drew close to the palanquin, and spoke in a comforting, wheedling tone. You see, O oh Queen, whatever your heart desires is yours. The harsh, rasping voice came back to her, childish and complaining. I cannot bear not to be surrounded by beauty and calm. Oh, my head hurts with the noise of the thunder, lightning flashes through my brain. Tell them to play louder, Lontour, louder. The Marofox smiled as she bowed low. She resembled the four who had accosted Jangler Swift Eye and the Noonvale companions, but was slightly smaller and finer featured in a sinister way. Silkily she said, Your wish is my command, all powerful one. Outside Castle Marl, the storm raged on, oblivious of the pathetic sounds from within, as they strove to drown out the greatest sound of all the power of the weather, combined with the forces of nature. Below in the rear courtyard, lines of manacled slave beasts, squirrels, otters, hedgehogs, and mice, stood with weary heads bowed in the downpour, waiting for the barred pens to be unlocked. The sadistic slave captain, the water rat Ulleg, lounged under the protruding roof shelter, jangling a bunch of keys at his belt. So then, my lucky lot, you're getting off easy today. Darkness arrived early, cause of the storm, and I ain't standing out in the fields getting drenched. But you'll work twice as hard tomorrow, or you'll feel my whip round your backs. Shrugging his heavy cloak closer about him, Ulleg smiled wickedly at the tired, saturated slaves. Ain't that right? Come on now, let's ear your speak up. The wretched beasts were forced to call out in a chorus, Aye, right, Captain. Ulleg tossed the bunch of keys to a water rat guard. You, open up and get them under cover till dawn. Shuffling through the deepening puddles, the slaves crowded into the pens, throwing themselves down on the damp straw bedding, grateful to be under cover. Locking the pens, the guard returned the keys to Ulleg. Two more guards staggered from the barracks nearby, carrying between them a cauldron of boiled maize porridge, which they placed close to the bars. Ulleg watched the slaves thrusting their paws through and scooping the rapidly cooling mess into their mouths. He shook his head at the pitiful sight. I'm far too kind to you lot. Must be getting soft with me long seasons. Laughing to himself, he strode off to the cover of the barracks, where a warm fire and good food awaited him. Song slept heavily. It was long past dawn when the young shrew called Dippler flicked rainwater at her head. Come on, dozy chops, wake up, or you'll snore until autumn. The squirrel maid had chummed up with the guasome shrew, who was roughly her own age, on the previous evening. Now Song opened one eye and lay unmoving as she threatened her newfound friend. You've just done three things that really annoy me. 
One, you flicked water on me while I was asleep. Two, you called me dozy chops. Worst of all, though, is number three. You said I snore. For that, my friend, you're going to take an early bath in the stream. Leaping up, she dashed after Dippler, who was very agile and could duck and dodge with ease. They flew past Jangler and Logalog, showering them with the wet bank sand churned up by their paws. Aye, aye, steady on there, you young rowdies. The shrew chieftain shook sand off himself, grinning at Jangler. Wish I had the energy of them two. Tis good that your songs palled up with Dippler. That youngin ain't got many friends. He was the one doing guard duty when our boats went missing. Jangler dodged smartly aside as the pair chased by him again. Well, he won't go far wrong with Song. She's a good un, mate, and she don't make friends lightly. Song and Dippler dodged about a bit more on the bank, then flopped down on the ground, grinning at each other. Dippler held up a paw, panting fitfully. Truce! Song nodded. Truce it is. Look, the rain's almost stopped. Last night's high wind was gone, and the downpour had slacked off to a fine drizzle, though the skies were still slaty gray. Logalog called out to his shrews, Break camp, mates. Grub's all gone. We'll be heading for Redwall and company with Swift Eye and his family. Mayon, Bargle, stick with Grandma Olio and lend her a paw. Fenno, douse the fire. Splicker, take two scouts and march ahead of us. Bit of luck, and we should make the abbey sometime in the late noon. The woodlands dripped water all morning, as the party followed a trail left by Splicker and his scouts. Song and Dippler walked slightly ahead of the main group. Suddenly a big otter emerged from the trees and approached Logalog. The shrew scarcely gave him a glance. "'Morning, Skip,' the big otter returned the greeting noncommittally. "'Morning, Log.' Logalog nudged Jangler. "'This is Skipper of Otters. Skip, meet Jangler Swifteye. We're going to Redwall.' Jangler nodded at Skipper, who winked back in reply. "'So am I, matey. Me and the crew went over the waterfalls three days from here, cause of the hot, dry weather. Huh. Hot and dry? Never expected this little lot. Anyhow, I've left the crew at the falls having fun. I decided to drop back this way and see if everything was shipshape over at the abbey after the storm. Where's your boats, mate? Tisn't like the Gwassum to be hoofing it through the woods.' Logalog rolled his eyes skyward, making light of his misfortune. Oh, we lent them to a crowd of water rats and a couple of marl foxes. Don't worry, though, we'll get them back and make those vermin pay for the hire of six good log boats. Take my word for it. The conversation was interrupted by Splicker, who came trotting back on his own tracks, gesturing with a paw over his shoulder. Left the scouts further along the trail, chief. There was all sorts of noises coming from the edge of the marshy area. Come and see what we found. You won't believe your eyes. He turned and ran off the way he had come. Their curiosity roused, the entire party hurried after him. Florian Dougalwolf Wilfelchop made a brave figure as he stood on the seat of the half-submerged cart like the captain of a sinking ship. In one paw he held the long sword with which Runktip had menaced the Marlfoxes. It was only a trick stage prop and kept bending in the middle of its blade. Notwithstanding this drawback, Florian brandished it at the grinning shrews. "'Laugh all you like, you scurvy villains. You'll not take me alive. By the cringing fur you won't, not while there's breath left in this poor body to defend the ladies and the infant, what?' One of the slaves laid his rapier on the ground. "'We ain't gonna hurt you, mate. You've got my word on it. Youch!' 
Dwapel hung over the back of the cart, loading another stone into his small sling. He announced with an innocent smile, "I'm a henfant. I shooted your wimmy slinger." He he he. The shrew rubbed furiously at his swelling nose. "You little pot scraping, that ain't fair. We came here in peace." Florian waved the flapping blade of the sword at him. "A likely story, sir. Peace me flipping whiskers." I'll have you know, you are dealing with a band of expert warriors trained to slay with a single bally swipe. What? Skipper Logalog and Jangler arrived on the scene at this point, closely followed by Song and Dippler. Song immediately went to the injured shrew and held a pawful of damp moss to his nose. What's going on here, may I ask? She said. At the sound of a sweet musical voice, Florian was transformed. Sweeping off his straw hat, he bowed so low that he almost fell into the mud surrounding the cart. Faith, miss, your tones are music to my ears. What? Pray dissuade those small surly rogues from attacking us. We are innocents lost, a simple troop of strolling players ravaged by an unseasonable quirk of the weather and unjustly menaced by savage spike-furred persons. The shrew took the damp moss from his nose long enough to argue back. You flop-eared old fraud! You was the one going to attack us. Deesum showed herself. Ringing a large flowered kerchief anxiously, oh, desist from bickering and help us, please. Gallantly, Skipper and Jangler helped the troop from the cart, taking care to swing them out clear of the mud. Introductions were made all around as the Guasim rolled their canvas sails into long bands, attaching them to the cart like tow ropes. Skipper and Jangler found a good stout yew limb to use as a lever. The cart rocked back and forth, making wet sucking noises as the team of Guasim pulled. And Skipper levered. Jangler found the shaft and the cross tree beneath the mud and hauled. With their combined efforts, they soon had the cart back on firm ground. Skipper shook mud from himself as Florian thanked him. My, my, what a stout feller you are! Stout fellers all, in fact. Let us put on a performance for you in gratitude for your sterling services in recovering our jolly old transport. What? Skipper could not help smiling at the effusive hair. Lucky you never went any further. Before you got stuck, matey, that's a swamp out there, and there wouldn't have been a trace of you creatures or your cart in the middle of the marshes. Ooh, Deesum did a graceful swoon and fainted. Jangler indicated her prone form with a nod at Alayo. Bring her round, mum. Mister Florian, your performance'll have to wait till another time. We've got to get to Redwall Abbey before dark. Florian did a comical double take. Redwall Abbey, sir. Capital, the very place we are proceeding to. Mayhap we can wend our way together, strengthen unity. You know, I can defend you from any blackguards, rogues, or hard paws we may encounter on the way. Lead on, my good fellow. Lead on. Deesum gave a yowl and sprang upright. Boracle looked in awe at Alayo. You soon brought her out of that faint, Marm. You must have good medicine. Alayo clambered up into the cart. Good medicine, nothing. I could tell she was faking, so I just bit the tip of her tail. That brought her round all right. This is a good little cart. Save my old paws a bit. Move over, youngin. Dwapel moved, scowling at the old squirrel. She scowled right back. Just put a paw near that slingshot of yourn, and I'll bite your tail clean off to teach you good manners. Elikum the otter yelled. Here's the good old sun come to chase the dull clouds away. After the prolonged rain, wind, and dark skies, a bright summer sun set every beast's spirits soaring. 
Cheering and laughing, they continued their journey to Redwall. Late afternoon found Troglo and Danflor out on the path by the abbey, gathering dandelions and the sticky-budded burdock. The cellar-keeper explained the finer points of the plants as they culled them into a rush basket. Dandelions now, you can use them for brewing or in salads. Pick the young uns with plenty of buds on. They're the sweetest. Danflor smelled the lemony fragrance of a young bud and nibbled it. Right, Troglo. They do taste good. Which burdock do I pick? The hedgehog pointed them out. Those smaller ones. They're the lesser burdock, much better than the biggins, which are called greater burdock. Good juice and lesser burdock. You can use it for treating burns and bruises, or you can take the whole plant for brewing, or use the stalks and salads, too. Hold hard there, young Dan. Who be they coming up young path? Danflor shaded his eyes against the sun, watching the strange assortment of creatures and the canvas-covered cart approaching the abbey. An otter out in front raised his paws and called out, Red Wall! Troglo climbed out of the ditch where they had been gathering plants, wiping his paws on his apron. He chuckled. Me old pal Skipper, and some friends by the look of them. Go and give the bells a toll, Dan. Let every beast know we got company. The young squirrel scampered off, delighted to have the privilege of being bell-ringer. Hurrying into the ground floor of the bell-tower, he grabbed the two ropes, one in each paw, high up, and pulled with all his might. Bong! Boom! Danflor's footpaws shot off the floor. He dangled there a moment, then came down to the ground again as the bells tolled a second time. Releasing the ropes, he ran outside and joined the redwallers, who were hurrying toward the gate, eager to meet the visitors. Danflor's father recognized a friendly face instantly. Hugging and back-patting, they greeted one another. Janglur Swift-Eye, you haven't changed a hair since the old days. Ha, ha, ha! Neither have you, Russell Raguba, you old warrior. Alayo Rimrose, you look well. Ha! I'll wager that's your daughter, Janglur. A lot prettier than you, but she's got your long eyelashes. Come here, son. I want you to meet my old pal Janglur and his family. This is Danflor Raguba, son of a warrior. Song shook Danflor's paw. I'm Song Breeze Swifteye, but they all call me Song. Pleased to meet you, Song. I'm Danflor, but they call me Dan. Where's your mother, Dan? Is she here? Danflor looked down awkwardly. She died when I was very small. I don't even remember her. There was a moment's embarrassed silence. Then Dippler bounded up. Hello. You found another pal for us, Song. Don't introduce him. I'll guess his name before the season's done. Song gave the shrew a playful shove. This is Dippler. He throws water on squirrels when they're trying to sleep. Dippler, meet our new friend Dan. Brother Melalot had been holding a whispered conversation with Badger Mom Krega. She nodded in agreement with him. Melalot banged the main gate timbers with a copper ladle to get attention. Friends, guests, travelers, whoever you be, welcome to the Abbey of Redwall. Now, do you want to stand out here gossiping and backslapping until dark? Or would you like to come along inside and get something to eat? Florian's voice rang out over the general chorus of approval. Eat, sir. Did my ears deceive me, or did some beast mention victuals? Lead me to the jolly old table, and I'll show you what a peckish thespian can accomplish, armed only with a mouth and appetite, what? Poor Mole Gubio murmured to Gerbil Sellermole, Her, will be usins. Oil wager yon creature's girtly ungered. Sister Slowey, who had heard the remark, nodded agreement. 
That hare looks as if he could strip the orchard bare on his way to clean out the kitchens. The visitors were seated on the lawn, close to the abbey pond, while numerous redwallers hurried off to the kitchens to prepare food for them. Logalog, Jangler, and Florian sat apart from the rest, and quietly reported the Marl Fox sightings to Craiga, Friar Butty, and Nutwing. The blind badger listened carefully to what they had to say before giving her verdict. I'd always thought Marl Foxes were a legend, some kind of bogey beast, whose name is used to frighten naughty dibbons. But in the light of what you have told us, I think there could be great danger in their presence around Mossflower. Nutwing preened his wing feathers thoughtfully. Hmm, <clears throat> what's to be done about them? Logalog says that they've got a considerable number of water rats, and that means extra trouble. Friar Butty looked around the group. We need the advice of an abbey warrior. Trouble is, old Abbot Arwen was the last Redwall champion, but he's passed away. Er, uh, I don't suppose any of you creatures would have a suggestion. Jangler's slitted eyes betrayed little as he spoke his piece. Here's what you do. First you shut that abbey gate tight. No beast leaves Redwall except for scouting patrols. Our friend Logalog can organize his Gwasim shrews for that. Meanwhile, we'll use what warriors we have to organize defenses. Skipper, Russell, and myself. Craig's heavy paw patted Jangler's shoulder. Thank the seasons we're not without sensible warriors. You arrived at Redwall not a moment too soon, friend. Friar Butty, what do we know of Marl Foxes? Is there anything in the Abbey recordings that might help us? I'll take a look, Marm. Mayhap you'll help me, Nutwing. The owl began polishing his spectacles on his breast feathers. Hmm, hmm, of course I will. I'll do my best to remember all you say. Jangler had another suggestion to make. If you want to know about marl foxes, I'd start by asking my old mum, Elio. She's never spoken too much about it, but I'm sure she's got a couple of tales concerning such beasts. Meanwhile, over by the pond, Dan scooted a flat pebble out over the surface, counting the number of times it skipped. I make that five. Of course, I'm pretty used to this pond. See how many times yours bounces, Song. The flat brown pebble Song had found skimmed out while they watched it. Four. No, four and a little one. Oh, go on, then. We'll call it five. Right, O Dippler. Let's see if you can beat five. The young Wassum shrew picked up a pebble, not bothering about its shape or weight, and slung it almost haphazardly, turning to face his friends as the stone skipped on its journey across the water. Eight. But you must remember that I was born around water, been skimming stone since before I could speak. Danflor was watching the main abbey door from the corner of one eye, and now he noticed Brother Melalot emerge with a ladle and a flat pan. The young squirrel smiled slyly at his companions. Hmm. You two are pretty clever at most things, aren't you? Well, let's see how good you are at being first in for scoff. He took off from them at a dead run, on the same instant that Melalot began banging the ladle against the pan and shouting, Vittles ready in Great Hall! Come and get em, one and all! Song and Dippler pursued Dan, berating him. You crafty rotter, wait for us! Tree Walloper, least you could have done was give us a level start. Mokan, the marl fox, pointed to a sheltered creek at the streamside, raising his voice. This should do. Pull in here and hide the boats under those trees. The female marl fox, Zyro, leapt ashore and watched until the last log boat had turned into the inlet. 
When the water rats had disembarked, she called two of them. Alag, Ruhad, take six trackers apiece. Spread out and go separate ways. Find our brothers and sisters and bring them back here. Mokin stretched wearily out beneath a spreading sycamore, glad to be free from the confines of a logboat's prow. He snapped out orders to the water rats standing to attention along the bank. Get the nets. Find fish. Archers, bring down some birds. You four, collect wood and get a fire going. Dry wood, mind. We want as little smoke as possible. Bring fruit and berries, only the ripest ones. You, spread my cloak carefully over that bush to dry out. As the rat scurried to do his bidding, Zyral sat down beside him, nibbling at a juicy grass blade. The Abbey of Redwall is not far west of here. Mokin closed his eyes, savoring the sun's warmth. I know that. But we don't make a move until the trackers find Vanon, Askrod, Jeltor, and Predak, and bring them back here. Relax, Fixen. There's no hurry. However, Zyral was unable to rest. She paced the bank, honing her axe blade on a sliver of shale. I'll relax when we're back on the island with that mother of ours. Half-witted old fool. You'd think she has enough possessions. But no, all she does is witter on from morn till night. I must be surrounded by beauty. I must be surrounded by beauty. I don't know how our sister Lantua stands it. I'd like to surround her with a couple of boulders tied to her neck and drop her in the lake. Then she could be surrounded by fishes. Mokin opened one eye. It's treason to speak about the High Queen in such a manner. You know that? Zyro snorted contemptuously and flung her axe. It buried its blade deep in the sycamore trunk. Mokin sniggered dryly. Temper, temper, sister of mine. That sort of behavior won't do you any good. Zyro's pale eyes blazed. She pushed aside a water rat, sending the creature staggering into the shallows as he tried to hold on to the bundle of kindling wood he was carrying. The vixen Marlfox jerked her axe blade viciously from the sycamore trunk. High Queen, Sylph is naught but a doddering old wreck who hides behind silken curtains. Why doesn't she die and leave the island to us, her own brood? Mokin raised himself on one paw, smiling. That's when the trouble will really start. There's seven of us. We'd never be able to share all that wealth and rule the island together from Castle Marl, not without killing each other off. Remember, we're Marl foxes, born to stealth and deceit. Only one of us could ever rule the island. Zyral made as if to sheathe her axe blade beneath her cloak, then instead she suddenly brought it about in a scything swipe, only to find it locked against the curve of her brother's axe. Mokin forced the vixen's axe to the ground and trapped it beneath his football. He continued smiling at Zyral. You see what I mean, sister? 6. Jangler Swifteye gazed in awe and admiration at the tapestry hanging on the west wall of the Abbey's great hall. It depicted vermin fleeing in all directions from the figure standing boldly at its center, Martin the Warrior. The armor-clad mouse leaned upon the hilt of his fabulous sword, a friendly, reckless smile on his striking features. Jangler whistled softly. Now there stands a warrior among warriors by the seasons. He looks so confident and strong. Small wonder those vermin are fleeing for their lives, mate. Russell pointed to the name embroidered on the border. Aye, that's Martin the warrior. He was the creature who freed Mossflower from tyranny and helped to found this abbey of Redwall. I felt just as you do when I first saw him. This tapestry means a great deal to any creature calling itself a Redwaller. But come and join the company at Vittles. 
before that hare and his performing troupe do a vanishing act with all the food. Twist me tail. Those actors can put it away. Florian Dugglewolf Wolfachop was on his fourth bowl of summer salad with celery cheese and barley bread. Between salads he had demolished a number of strawberry cream tarts, a mushroom and leek pasty with gravy, and a portion of woodland trifle topped with meadow cream that would have fed four dibbons for two days. The hare waggled his ears appreciatively. I say, you chaps, this spread is absolutely inscrunchable. My compliments to the cook, Lady Craigamarm. The badger mom put aside her apple turnover with maple syrup. Tell him yourself, Mr. Florian. He has just resigned at the thought of having to cater for you again. The entire table of guests fell about with laughter. Florian looked slightly baffled and attacked a wedge of plum pudding pensively. Flippin' strange feller. You'd think a cook would enjoy serving up dinner to a chap who enjoys his tuck, what? Danflor sat between Song and Dippler, advising them on the fare. Here, Dip, try some of this candied fruit sponge. You'll like it. Song, here's some deeper never turnip and tater and beetroot pie. Poor Mole winked broadly at the pretty young squirrel. Her, you'm going to like it, Missy. Usins hate it night and day. Tizzy Mole's favorite grub, or I. Russell treated Jangler to a tankard of October ale and a thick slab of yellow cheese studded with hazelnuts and carrot, with a small farrel of hot brown bread. Get that down your famine-fed chops, mate. Twill make yer feel like a real warrior. Jangler's hooded eyes gazed around at the scene. I came here once when I was but a mite. Have you ever seen a more cheery and welcoming bunch than these Redwallers? No wonder travelers tell tales and legends of this abbey. Dwaffle was sitting on Skipper's lap, in company with Blinney and Wugger. The otter chieftain allowed them to sample his soup. Eat arty, mateys. Tis called water shrimp and ot root soup, full of dried water shrimps, bulrush tips, ransoms, watercress, and special spices. Otters like it, cause it makes them big and strong. Sister Slowey wrapped Skipper's paw with her fork. You are naughty, Skipper. Those divins won't be able to cope with your dreadful hot spicy soup. The big otter chortled as he saw the divins ladle soup from his bowl. Marm, begging your pardon, but I'm a great believer in letting young'uns find out things for themselves. This'll learn him a lesson. However, contrary to expectations, Dwaffle and the mole babes thoroughly enjoyed the fiery concoction. Burr, e soup be lovely and warm. I dearly likes good soup. Mmm, Dwaffle have more of this soup, tasty nice. The delicious repast continued until late evening, when candles and lanterns were lit in Great Hall. During a lull in the proceedings, Logalog hailed Florian. Ahoy there, matey. How's about you and your troop putting on that show you promised, when we rescued your cart from the swamp? The hare stood and bowed to the assemblage. Why not indeed? The wandering Noonvale companions would be churlish in the extreme, not to return the compliment of such fabulous fare— but I know that seated here at table this evening is one among us who possesses a voice of pure gold, Jangler's daughter, who is aptly named Song. Mayhap she would honor us? In anticipation of this, I myself scribed a small ballad. Florian produced a scroll with a resounding flourish. Ahem! A few simple lines I recorded, while in the pause of the muse, what-what, goes to the tune of Breeze in the Meadow. Do you know that one song? The young squirrel took the scroll and studied the lines. I'd be pleased to, sir. 
These words fit the tune nicely. Father? Jangler smiled proudly as he played the introduction on his reed flute. Song clasped her paws in front of herself and took a deep breath. All eyes were riveted on her as the first heartbreakingly sweet notes poured forth, echoing slightly through the ancient hall. Our thanks to you, friends, our thanks to one and all, for kindly asking us to join you at Red Wall. We saw from afar, just as we thought we should, your abbey like a gem set in moss flowers green wood. The welcome you gave us was like we'd never known, like family you treat us, as if we were your own. The bells tolled so pretty out o'er the countryside, a message of friendship and echoed far and wide. The food and drink you gave us was wonderful, and yet tis you and your friendship that we'll never forget. Song's parents and Grandma Elayo congratulated her heartily as the rafters rang with admiring cheers and applause for her singing. Florian and the two brothers, Boracle and Elecum, took the floor next. The hare reversed his frock coat and tied the sleeves about his neck so that it hung down behind like a cloak, stuck a golden twirling moustache to his upper lip, and struck a noble pose. The otters fitted brass rings to their ears, put on ragged breechcloths, and brandished a pair of floppy stage swords. Florian explained the scenario to his audience. And uh, now, good creatures of this awesome edifice, we wish to present a historical entertainment, the duel of insults. This was a actual incident involving my great ancestor, one Balo de Quincewald, and two vermin ferrets, who would not let him pass. Picture the scene, then, a narrow trail running through a woodland glade, and here comes I, the gallant hair Balaw. Florian strode breezily across the floor, stopping short of the two otters, who were trying their best to resemble a pair of evil ferrets. The hare greeted them civilly enough. Good morrow to you both, sirs. Pray stand aside and let me pass through the woodlands, for I am but a travelling gentle beast, what? The two otters paced toward him, waving their swords savagely. Ha-ha! No beast passes here and lives to tell the tale. Aye, to pass safe you must first defeat us in combat. Draw your sword! The hare spread both paws dramatically wide. Alas, I am unarmed. But stay, I shall defeat you both, though not with any mere weapon. Nay, I will use only my thunderous voice and sparkling wit, and they will suffice to vanquish you both. In short, I challenge you to a duel of insults, you foul and feckless ferrets. Elecum and Boracle scowled wickedly and began their insulting. You rotten, rip-eared rabbit! You lanky, lopsided lettuce leaf! Florian appeared to sway slightly, but stood his ground, jaw outthrust. Ho, ho! Is that the best you can do? Well, let a champion show you a thing or two. Wugger shouted out encouragingly. Go on, sir! You am showy vermins! Others began egging him on. He held up a paw for silence, then launched into his tirade. You misbegotten, muddle-headed mudmuckers! Slop-pawed, fiddle-faced, bottle-nosed, baggy-bottomed, bucket-bellied, beetle-brained beasts! The two make-believe ferrets looked aghast, falling back several paces under the onslaught. Then they recovered and retaliated. Stinky, string-pawed, snaggletoothed slop-swiller! Aye, filthy, frog-faced, flippin', foozle-backed fop! The hare threw a paw across his brow and reeled about, as if wounded by the barbed words. Excitement broke out among the onlookers, as Elecum and Boracle swaggered about triumphantly. Fight back! 
Don't let vermin shout things at you like that. Dwapple shook a clenched paw at the ferrets. Nut nose, knocky need smelly paws. Deesom covered his mouth, shocked. My dear, where did you learn such horrid expressions? Florian, alias Valaw, was back insulting gallantly. Toothless, twuggle-tongued, twitterin' tripounds? Slack-gutted, slime-sided, sludge-hearted, spiritless spit-spatterers? The ferrets began to sink to the floor under the weight of insults. Redwallers rose, clapping and cheering as they urged the heroic hare on to greater efforts. Don't stop. You've got em now. Aye, carry on, sir. Give it to em hot and heavy. Show the villains who's boss. For her, you em tell em what you em think of em, sir. Florian strode bravely forward, cloak swirling as he finished off the retreating po-beasts with resounding phrases. Addle-tongued, apple-necked amateur animals, baldy-backed, bumptious, bird-brained bootlickers, craven-tailed, crumpet-faced curs, despicable dungeon-eared doodlebugs, entrail-eaten, egg-headed eyesores, foul-furred, frog-fearing felons, nit-nosed, chop-cheeked, dishwater drinkers, loppy-lugged laggards, begone, fatuous ferrets. As Elikam and Barakal dropped their tails and scrabbled off on all fours, the hare swaggered victoriously through the imaginary woodland glade. Every creature in Great Hall cheered him to the echo, leaping up on the tables and applauding wildly. Florian took a jug of strawberry fizz from a passing mole server and drained it at a single draft. He bowed deeply, trying modestly to prevent himself from belching. The Dibbons thought it great sport to dash about the tables, trying out newfound insults on their elders. You am a girt baggy bum beetle, sir, her, and a foozle face, too. Hee-hee, <laughs> and you a flitty nose and a doogle duck figgle face, so there. Stifling a smile, Kreger rapped on the table for silence. That's quite enough for one night. Up to your beds, Dibbons. Grandma Alayo agreed wholeheartedly. Aye, and bed for you, too, Mr. Florian. Shame on you teaching little uns language like that. Go wash your mouth out. Florian protested volubly. But, madam, t'was only an entertainment, a historical play. What about the two otters? They said some jolly dreadful things. Elikam and Barakal sipped cold mint tea innocently. What, us? Oh, marm, Mr. Florian beats us if the insults don't sound bad enough. So he does. We never used words like that afore we joined up with Mr. Florian's troop. We were brought up to be gentle beasts. Sister Slowy shook her paw reprovingly at the bewildered hare. Double shame on you, sir, for teaching these poor creatures dreadful things. What would their mother say if she could hear them? Gathering his cloak about him, Florian strode off in a huff toward the dormitory stairs. He turned and paused on the bottom step, his voice quavering with emotion. Culture is wasted upon such as you. I am injured, ma'am, deeply and sorely injured. I bid you good night. He tripped upon his coat hem and fell flat on the stone stairs. The Redwallers were in hoots of laughter, as Runktip called out, Which is the most deeply injured, sir, your feelings or your bottom? Skipper of Otter's face was almost purple. The hedgehog had made the remark as Skipper was downing a beaker of cider, and now he spluttered and choked as he tried to stop laughing. Russell pounded his back. I think we'd all be better going to bed afore any beast else injures theirselves too deeply. Badger Mom Kraga never slept in bed, but propped herself up with pillows on the armchair in her room. 
Redwall Abbey was peaceful and quiet after the feast and entertainment, but the blind badger could not prevent her thoughts from straying. With marl foxes and water rats roaming mossflower, how long was the peace and quiet destined to last? Janglor and Russell, like the instinctive warriors they were, were light sleepers, and both squirrels were up and about in the hour before dawn. They met in the kitchens, where Jangler found his friend lifting a few hot scones from under the noses of three slumbering night cooks. Russell was armed with his favorite short javelin, which he tipped toward Jangler, who crept over to join him. "'Good morning, mate. What are you up to?' Jangler quietly lifted a small flask of elderflower cordial from the stone cooling cupboard. "'Just a feeling I had. Thought I'd take a bite of breakfast and a stroll around the grounds, you know. A sort of patrol.' Russell added a few scones to the ones he already had stowed in a clean napkin. He winked knowingly. Shows how a warrior thinks, eh? I had exactly the same idea. Well, I've got the scones, and you've got the cordial, so what are we waiting for? The three night cooks, who were taking an early nap on a heap of empty sacks, slept on, unaware that the squirrels had been and gone. Starting at the gatehouse, Jangler checked the main gate bars, ensuring the heavy oak bolsters were secure in their slots. He joined Russell at the gatehouse window. Main gate's well locked. All quiet here? His companion peered through a gap in the curtained window panes. Not exactly quiet. Old Friar Buddy and Nutwing are in there snoring like thunder in the middle of all those scrolls and volumes. Jangler shook his head disapprovingly. Should have at least one able-bodied beast who can stay awake in charge of this entrance. Shall we go up on the battlements? Russell swept the inner grounds with a wave of his javelin. Best cover the inside first, then we'll take a turn around the wall tops. They headed toward the southwest corner, Jangler munching away at a scone. Mmm, hot and fresh, like a good scone ought to be. I never tasted anything nicer than Redwall Abbey Vittles in all my life, mate. Russell passed him the cordial flask. Then why don't you stay? There's always a place for a useful squirrel like yourself here. I gave up wandering when I lost my poor dear wife. Redwall's home to me in Danflor now. Jangler gave the matter serious consideration. Aye, I've still got my family about me, though my mom's getting too old to be traveling these days. I know Rimrose likes the Abbey. She said so last night, hinted that it'd be a good place to bring our song breeze up in, and I agree with her. Pretty young maid like Song shouldn't spend her seasons roaming the woodlands and dales, Redwall's a place she can meet nice friends and grow up good. They continued in this vein, strolling along the south grounds, conversing quietly, but checking carefully around bushes and shrubbery, their keen eyes constantly searching for things other beasts would miss, disturbed dew on the grass, or a freshly broken stem. Everything was in order. As they approached the small wall gate set in the center of the east wall, both stopped talking and stood still. Jangler's heavy-lidded eyes fixed themselves on the wall gate. He whispered, Listen, can you hear that scratching noise? Russell nodded, pointing his javelin tip at the door jamb. Look! The door was a solid little affair made from close-jointed elm planks painted green. It had a single heavy iron bolt securing it. The scraping noise started up again, and a narrow strip of soft metal, hooked at one end, poked through a fresh gap made in the door jamb by a knife. Jangler looked at the wood shavings on the ground and took in the full situation at a glance. Some beast trying to push the bolt back and open the wall gate. 
Now they could hear gasping and muttering from outside. Humph! Grumph! Should have cut a wider gap for this to go through. Ouch! You've trapped my paw. Let go, I can do it. Russell pointed silently to the wall top. Careful to make no noise, they hurried back and dashed up the southeast wall steps. Dropping flat on the ramparts, both squirrels wriggled swiftly toward the center of the east wall. Straightening cautiously, they peered down between the battlements. Four water rats were at the gate, one with his body flattened sideways against the door as he strove to hook the metal device over the bolt and push it open. The others were either urging him on or telling him to let them try to do it. Mouth close to Jangler's ear, Russell whispered, Four of them. Jangler scoured the scene thoroughly, eyes flicking from side to side. Russell, wait. There's five. See the Marlfox leaning on that ruin? The Marlfox Jeltor, unaware that he was being watched, struck the tree trunk impatiently. Hurry it up, Thatcher. What's the matter? I thought you were supposed to be good at opening locks. A rattle of metal upon metal sounded out. The rat Thatcher straightened up confidently, assuring his master, I think I've got it, sire. The hook's over the bolt end. Jangler nudged Russell urgently. Best put a stop to this before they're in. I'll take Thatcher. You pick off the Marl Fox. Now! Jangler leaned out over the battlements and whirled his sling. Thwock! Thatcher was slain instantly as the big round river pebble struck him square between the eyes. Russell threw his javelin. It was only Jeltour's swiftness that saved his life. He saw the rat fall as the slingstone struck, and glancing up at the wall top, he could see Jangler, sling and paw at the battlement, with Russell to one side of him, launching the javelin. The Marlfox threw himself to one side, but not fast enough. The javelin, which was aimed at his chest, missed any vital spot, but took a chunk of flesh from his shoulder, pinning his cloak to the rowan. Stifling a shriek of pain, Jeltor ripped the cloak free as he fell on all fours. Not waiting to see what fate befell the other three rats, he took off through the undergrowth, crouching low and clasping his wounded shoulder. Instantly the remaining rats fled, sent on their way by another stone from Jangler's sling, which cracked the tail of the last one, stumbling into the cover of the trees. The squirrels immediately hurried from the wall top back down to the gate. Jangler unlatched the metal hook from the protruding bolt end and inspected the device. That rat knew what he was doing. A good shove or two, and they would have been in. Let's see if he's still alive. They unlocked the gate and stepped out into Mossflower Wood. Russell turned the rat over, placing a paw on the creature's heart. Humph! Won't get anything out of this and dead as a doornail. The rat was long and thin. He wore a gray tunic with a wide belt in which were stuck a dagger and a curved sword, the only other item he possessed being a half-length black cape. Russell rolled the carcass into some deep loam beneath a spreading buckthorn bush. Jangler heaved on the javelin, tugging it from the ruin trunk. You had tough luck there, mate. He moved a bit too fast for you. Russell cleaned his javelin tip by jabbing it in the earth. Maybe, but one thing I'm sure of now, Marlfoxes ain't magic. They're quick, but they can't vanish like some say they do. Don't worry, I'll get him next time. Dawn was up now, rosy and clear. They strode back to the abbey, finishing the last drop of cordial. Jangler licked his lips. I'm ready for a proper breakfast now. Don't mention what happened back there, to any save those who have to know. Oh, and we'll have to see if in those wall gates can be locked up more secure. 
Mokan, the self-appointed leader of his brother and sister Marlfoxes, sat eating a meal of trout cooked over the fire. Jeltor plastered stream mud on his wound, binding it with dock leaves and sorrel. Mokan spat a fishbone at him, curling his lips scornfully. Blithering oaf! You made a right mess of that plan. Now the Red Wallers are sure to know we're about. The vixen Predak helped herself to a portion of the trout. They probably already knew we were in Mossflower, if they have half a brain between them. Don't blame Jeltor. I don't think you could have done any better. Mokan wiped his paws in the grass, taunting his wounded brother. A marl fox getting himself wounded by a squirrel, and losing a good water rat into the bargain? Tell me, Jeltor, do you think I could have done better? Jeltor winced as he tied the dressing with green reeds. They'll get back more than they gave when I start on them. I'll slay ten for killing Thatcher, and twenty for injuring me. Mokan shook his head in disbelief. You don't understand, stupid. We came to steal, not to start a war. Where's the profit in that? Jeltor whipped out his axe and gripped the haft tightly. Blood for blood, I say. Who's with me? Zyro raised her voice. It's not blood for blood unless some beast kills a marl fox. That's our law, brother. Mokin's right. We came for plunder, and Redwall Abbey is the only place worth thieving from. You messed things up. Got yourself wounded and lost Thatcher. None of us is with you. Mokin picked his teeth with a fishbone, sneering at Jeltor. See, for the moment we're robbers, not killers. Haven't you got it into that thick skull of yours? High Queen Sylph must be surrounded by beauty. Rich, wonderful things. That's what we need to bring back to the island. Imagine what she'd do if we staggered back to Castle Marl with half our number dead because we'd started an all-out war with the beasts of Redwall. Jeltor slumped against a tree, nursing his wound. Arr! I don't see the sense to it. Tramping round the woodlands just to rob stuff to please that crazy old relic. It's daft! Askrod, who had remained silent until now, spoke up. Listen, brother, we're storing up these valuables for ourselves. Remember, one day our mother will be dead. Maybe sooner than we think, considering her age. When that day comes, we will rule the island together. Castle Marl, everything will be all ours. Cyril chuckled mirthlessly. Not according to Mokan. He says we'll kill each other off until there's only one left to rule, right, Mokan? Mokan shrugged. Who can tell? I say let the future look after itself, and for now we concentrate on that abbey. Listen, I've got a plan that's a lot wiser and less warlike than Jeltor's was. Let's get the rats on the march to Redwall. I'll explain to you as we go. Mokan was the toughest and most resourceful of all the brothers and sisters. Even Jeltor went along with the scheme when he heard it. 7. Troglo Spearback and his cellar helpers were good carpenters. By midday they were fitting hinge locks to the wall gates, bolts that doubly secured the doors and could only be opened from inside. Russell and Janglor were in conference with Logalog, Skipper, and Krega, deciding what the next move should be in the light of that morning's attempted break-in. The wandering Noonvale companions were rehearsing out by the pond, watched by the Abbey Dibbons. Dan was strolling in the grounds with Song and Dippler when Grandma Elio passed them, hobbling toward the gatehouse. Song and her friends took the old squirrel's paws to assist her. You're in a bit of a hurry, Grandma. Where are you off to? I'm going to the gatehouse, Song, my dear. 
Your dad said Friar Butty needs me to tell him all I know about those marl foxes. Oh, can we come too? I love to hear you telling tales. The old squirrel looked at the three eager young friends. She paused a moment as if undecided, then gave in to the request. Oh, if and you wish. But you must sit still and don't fidget. I can't abide fidgety beasts. Oh, one of you nip back and tell that nice brother Melalot that we'll all be taking lunch in the gatehouse. Dippler sped off, calling back. Leave it to me, ma'am. I'll go. A few minutes later, seated comfortably on an old sofa, Elio faced Nutwing, who was perched on an armchair opposite her. Buddy sat on the desk with quill, ink, and parchment. Song and Dan settled themselves on the arms of the sofa. Friar Butty began. Now, ma'am, I want you to speak slowly and clearly. Address my friend Nutwing as if you were telling him a story. I'll sit over here and record all you say. You may begin if you're ready, ma'am. Alayo stroked the smooth top of her blackthorn stick. Hmm. Marl foxes. Now let me see. When I was a maid, young as song here, my father told me of a secret island at the center of a great lake somewhere. Foxes had discovered the island and claimed it for their own. Of course, that was after the lake monster was slain and the white ghost left the island. Friar Butty cut in on the narrative. Excuse me, ma'am. What lake monster, and what white ghost? Grandma Alayo sniffed at him irritably. How should I know? I'm just telling you what was told to me. Can you remember everything from your early seasons? Buddy held up his paw respectfully. My apologies, ma'am. Please continue. Where was I? Oh, yes. Father said that a tribe of foxes, with water rats to serve them, took over the island and built a big castle there. Then the story went that there was a war. You see, most of the tribe were ordinary vermin, save for two, a male and a vixen, who were mild foxes. It was them who were magic. They could make themselves invisible, to was said. Anyhow, the mild foxes got the water rats on their side and wiped out the other foxes, slew them all. Then nothing more was heard of, or from, that island. Now, when I was a bit older, I had a mate, Gaujo, and a little and two. That was Song's daddy, Janglor. Gaujo was a real adventurer and a great wanderer, and one day he went off in search of the Marl Fox's island, and that was the last any beast ever seen of him. I was left to bring Janglor up. We became wanderers, always hoping we'd find Gaujo again some day, but we never did. Song took in every word. She felt sorry for Grandma Alayo, bringing up Janglor alone, always searching for her lost husband. It must have been a hard life. She put a paw around her grandma's shoulder as the old squirrel continued. One winter, when Janglor was still only a little and we were camped in a hole on a string bank, with naught to eat but a few roots and late berries and a fire to warm ourselves by. Then one night a young kingfisher, half alive and freezing, crawls out of the stream and up the bank to our dugout hole. Poor little bird! I took him in and shared our fire and what vittles we had. This kingfisher told me he'd come from the great lake. He lived on the island and was fishing off it when he was set on by a bunch of magpies. They chased him far and left the little bird for dead in the lake shallows. But he wasn't dead, you see, and one way or t'other he managed to get away and survive. 
I tell you true, I owed me and Jangler's life to that kingfisher. When he got well and could fly again, he brought food to us all winter long. At night we'd all three of us sit together by the fire to keep warm, and he told me what he knew of the island, said it was ruled by one mile fox now, a murderous vixen calling herself Queen Silth. The kingfisher said that she had a brood of seven cubs, all mile foxes, and she slew her mate, because he wanted to call himself king. So then, what do you think of that? Old Friar Buffy shook his head to think that such wickedness existed. Song crept down off the sofa arm to sit beside Eloyo. What happened to the little kingfisher, Grandma? Eloyo stared into the dust motes, swirling in a shaft of golden sunlight from the window, remembering that winter long seasons ago. I recall one morning, to a spring, me and little Janglor woke up, and the kingfisher was gone. I never set eyes on him again, but I always hoped that good bird had a happy life, cause we owed him a lot. Dippler breezed in with Roop, the mole from the troop, pushing a trolley laden with food between them. The Gwasim shrew bowed. Lunch is served. Summer vegetable soup, leek and mushroom turnover, an apple and black currant flan, with a nice flag and a rose-hip tea to wash it all down. I hope you ain't started telling the story yet, Marm. Nothing better than eating lunch and listening to a good yarn. Alayo heaved herself up with a groan and began dishing out the food. Started? I've done all the tale-telling I'm doing for today, young feller, Mishrew. You're too late. Friar Buddy put aside his quill. So that's all you know about Marl Foxes, Marm? You can't tell us more? Alayo passed him a plate of food. Aye, right enough, tis all. You'd best wash those inky paws before you eat lunch, Friar. Nutwing, who had dozed off halfway through the narrative, awoke with a start, blinking repeatedly. Hmm, um, lunch? Did some beast mention lunch? The mouse-babe Dwapple and his two new friends, Wugger and Linny, young redwall moles, were making thorough nuisances of themselves at the wandering Noonvale Companion's rehearsal. Runktip was going through his conjuring act, in spite of their constant barracking and interruptions. The hedgehog spread both paws wide, a pebble had vanished, and Florian announced the trick's next stage. Hunda now, before your very eyes, the great Runktipo magic spike will turn the pebble into a long string of flags, which he will produce from his magical mouth while I give a roll of the drum. Most of the Dibbons were silent, gazing awestruck at the performance. But Dwapple sniggered villainously as he called out, Well, hurry up! Dare a hon with it! Florian shot him a glare that would have shriveled lettuce. Silence, please. This is an extremely delicate and dangerous illusion. Kindly refrain from shouting aloud. Dwapple whispered something to Wugger, who immediately yelled out, Rump Tippo dropped the pebble on the ground. Tis under his footpaw. Florian picked up the drumsticks, eyeing Wugger icily. Any more interruptions, huh? And I will eject you from the audience. Great magic, Rump Tippo. Are you ready? The hedgehog nodded as Blinny announced what Dwapple had told her. He can't talk, cause his mouth be girtly full of flags and string. The final straw came when Florian tried a drum roll, only to find that the drumhead merely gave forth a dull, sticky thud. Sabotage! Some rotten cads poured honey over my drum! Dwapple! The mouse babe and his companions sensed the game was up. 
They took to their paws and fled, with Florian hurling dire threats after them. Fiends! Show-wreckers! I'll have you roasted with turnips. I'll chop off your tails with a rusty saw. I'll... I'll... Deesom twitched her nose at the furious hair. Mr. Florian, you'll stop this unprofessional behavior in front of your audience and continue with the rehearsal. Behind the bushes by the north wall gate, Groppel sat with the mole babes, wondering what mischief they could accomplish next. He pointed to the battlements. We go play up on a wall. But Wugger and Blenny would not hear of it. Brr, nay, sir, usins bain't a goin' up there again, ho oh, no. They contented themselves with banging on an old cooking pot that Blenny kept hidden in the bushes. The mole babes whacked it gleefully with sticks, as Dwapple mimicked the troop's act. I'm a magic Dwapo, pull a loss of flags out me nose, he he he. They marched about behind the shrubbery, banging and yelling. Us want cake and starby fizz, lots of lots of cake, or we don't dar a wash. On the other side of the wall gate, the vixen Zyral had no need to press her ear against the wood. She turned to Moken. You were right. The young ones are there. Ahmad, bring the others round here from the south and east wall gates. Jeltor winced as Moken patted his injured shoulder. I told you, sooner or later they play by the gates or on the wall tops. Now, we only need to snare one, and we won't have to worry about thieving. Those red wallers will give us what we want when they hear what we could do to a little hostage. Jeltor moved out of range of Moken's paw. Well, let's see you get one of them on this side of the wall. Moken loosed the drawstring on a bag he carried beneath his cloak. Easy. Just watch me. Dwapple and his friends eventually grew tired of marching and shouting. They were about to run off and see if there was any fun to be had around the gatehouse when several loud knocks sounded on the wall-gate door. The little ones went to the door, listening curiously as the knocking continued. Dwapple picked up a stick and knocked in reply. Who's there? What you knock for? The answer came back in a soothing, homely voice. Who do you think I am, little friend? The mouse babe pondered a moment, then made up a fictitious name that he liked the sound of. Stickabee! A slice of preserved apple thick with crystallized honey, slid under the narrow gap at the bottom of the door. The voice chuckled. How did you know my name is Stickabee? Well done. Dwapple stuffed the delicacy into his mouth. Wugger crouched down and called under the gap. Some ver Wugger. I want some Stickabee, sir. Of course you do, Wugger. But you must open the door so that I can give you the whole bagful. Mogan listened to the sound of tiny paws scraping on the door, followed by the voices of disappointed dibbons. "'Us can't open the locks, Mr. Stickaby. They's too tight!' Joltor smiled mockingly at the Marl Fox leader. "'Oh, dear, what are you going to do now, Mr. Stickaby?' Mogan's paw strayed beneath his cloak. "'One more word from you, and I'll introduce you to Mr. Axehead.' He turned back to the door, his voice cajoling the dibbons. Oh, come on now. I'm sure you can open one little lock. Dwapple sounded impatient at the Marl Fox's ignorance. It not one little lock, there be's two. One's too stiff, and another one be too far up to reach. Push a more candy fruit under the door, Stickaby. But I can't, my little friend. The fruit slices are too thick to fit under the door. They'd get all dirty and squashed. Look, 
Why don't you come up to the wall top, and we'll think of a way to get the whole bag up to you. Good idea, eh? Dwopple jumped up and down with excitement. Aye, good idea, good idea. We go up on a wall. Wugger and Blenny backed off, shaking their heads vigorously. Her no, usins bain't going on a wall. You um catch great trouble if any go up thur, Dopple. The mouse babe headed boldly for the north wall steps. Yeah, you two fraidy frogs. The moles trundled off to the gatehouse. They had learned their lesson about wall tops. Dwopple looked down at the assembly of rats and marl foxes below on the ground. Where must a sticker be? Moken held up the bag of crystallized fruit. Gone to his house to get more candy sweets like this. Are you the friend he was telling us about? Aye, my name Dwopple. I'm Mr. Stickerby's friend. Oh, good. He said I had to give these to you. Here, catch. Moken tossed the bag, which rose only a short way before falling on the ground. The Marlfox shook his head sadly. I can't throw them high enough for you to catch, little friend. Dwopple spread his paws expressively. So what do we do? Moken paced back and forth, as if deep in thought. Suddenly he clapped his paws and smiled broadly. Of course, you can come down and get them, Dwopple. Yah, silly. Dwopple no can climb down a wall. Moken took off his cloak, gesturing to several rats to get around and hold the edges. They held it high, stretched tight in a great triangle. The Marl Fox pointed to it, grinning brightly. Now you can, Dwopple. It'll be great fun. Just jump, and all my friends here will catch you safely. The Mouse Babe clambered onto the battlements and looked down doubtfully, not sure whether he would enjoy the experience. Moken leapt onto the cloak, bounced on the taut material once, and jumped back off nimbly. Ho ho, that was great. I wish I were up there with you, Dwopple. I'd really enjoy jumping down onto the cloak. That's unless you don't want the candy sweets and you're a fraidy frog. That did it. Dwopple swelled his fat little tummy out and scowled. Me nor a fraidy frog. Dwopple jump high, higher than that, right off atop of Mr. Florian's cart. You watch me. Yee! Dwopple launched himself off the ramparts. He landed in the center of the cloak, bouncing twice. Moken deliberately trod on Jeltor's footfall as he passed. What have you got to say for yourself now, Mr. Oafhead? The water rats had Dwopple wrapped and bundled in the cloak before he could make another move. 8. Craig of Badgermom and Rimrose completed their after-lunch stroll by calling in at the gatehouse. Grandma Alayo and the owl, Nutwing, sprawled on the old sofa, fast asleep after the amount of food they had eaten. Song, Dan, and Dippler had joined Friar Butty at the table, searching through ancient scrolls and dusty volumes of Abbey records. Rimrose guided Craig to the armchair and seated her. Phew, tis warm out there today. Song filled two beakers with rosehip tea. This is nice and cool. Where's Dad? Craig sipped her tea, the beaker almost lost within her huge paw. Taking up a new career, I think. He's with Troglo and the cellar moles, learning all about October ale and such. When your mom and I passed there earlier, he seemed to be enjoying himself. Rimrose glanced at the books and documents on the table. And what are you up to, Missy? Song flicked idly through the pages of a hefty tome. We're helping Friar Butty to look for more information about marl foxes. Grandma told us all she knew, but it's not enough. 
The blind badger held out her beaker for more rosehip tea. But she did tell you a few things that you didn't know before? Friar Butty re-rolled a scroll neatly. Indeed she did. Although at first her story was a bit muddled, she began talking of a white ghost and a lake monster that lived in a great lake until it was slain. Then she said that the white ghost left the hidden island, but she said she didn't remember much about it. I think it was probably some figment of Elanio's imagination from her young days. Craig sat up straight. Maybe not. I was once badger ruler of the hollow mountain by the sea called Salamandastron. Badgers always rule there. I recall seeing some rock carvings in a chamber on the mountain. I never really paid them much attention. Strange how it comes back to one at the mention of certain words. A lake monster means naught to me. But a white ghost, I remember that. You see, those wall carvings told of all the great badger lords who had held sway on Salamandastron. Two of these were twins, Earthstripe and Earthwhite. I think the tale goes that they were separated at birth and lost to each other. However, Earthstripe discovered his brother Earthwhite on an island in the middle of a vast lake. There Earthwhite, who was born completely white of fur, became known as the White Ghost. They both traveled from the island to Salamandastron, where Earthstripe was badger lord. There was a great battle against vermin hordes, and Earthstripe was slain. Earthwhite became badger lord in his stead, and was often known to the hares that served the mountain as White Ghost. That's all I can tell you, but it may prove Elayo wasn't imagining things. Craigus stopped talking. Holding up a paw for silence, she listened, and after a while she smiled. Come out, you two. Blinny and Wugger, if I'm not mistaken. The two mole babes crawled from behind the sofa. Her, you am serpently bain't mistaken, tis usins. Her, how did he know twas usins, Mum? Craig had judged they were within paw range, and swept both dibbons up onto her lap. I just knowed, that's all. Now, what are you two after in Friar Butty's gatehouse? We am horful thirsty, Marm. Be sun be aught out there. Song poured them a beaker each of the cool rosehip tea, smiling as she watched them noisily sucking it up. Been playing hard, I suppose. Where's your pal got to? That rascally mouse-babe Dwapple. Blinny drained the last of her drink, wiping a paw across her mouth. Usins never go Donny Waltotten is. Honest we am didn't. Buddy wagged his quill pen at the mole-babes. But Dwapple did, eh? What was he doing up there? He am talking to Mr. Stickaby. We am told him not to go oop there, but doppel a little naughty beast, her eye. Friar Butty shook his head wearily. He certainly is. Song, would you and your friends like to go and get that little wretch down off the ramparts before he does something silly and injures himself? Which wall was it, Lenny? North wall, sir. He am oop there... A talkin' with Mister Stickaby. Danflor patted the mole babe's velvety head. Don't you fret, youngin. We'll get Mister Stickaby down too, whoever he is. Come on, Dip. The three chums mounted the wall top by the gatehouse steps and trotted along the north wall. Song searched carefully around the angle of each battlement, while Dippler and Dan covered the east wall adjoining. There's no sign of him here, Song. No, he's not here either, Dip. What do you think, Dan? Oh, the little wretch probably got fed up and got down by himself. Perhaps he's by the pond. Let's take a look over that way. 
Florian and the troupe were singing a comic song for their audience, who were not just Dibbins, but many Redwallers who had finished their chores. The onlookers were in pleats, laughing at the antics of the Noonvale companions as they performed funny walks in time to their song, encouraging the Dibbins to get up and join in with them. The little creatures needed no second urging and paraded joyfully with the troop. Oh, come along, dearies, follow me. I'll take you down to the sycamore tree. Plum puddin' and turnover, apple pie. Beneath its spreadin' boughs we'll lie, with vegetable pasty and damson tart. We'll wheel it along in a little cart. The birds will sing, give us some, do. Oh, the food's for us, and the crumbs for you. So empty the cupboard out, what do you see? A fruitcake for you, and trifle for me. There's bread and cheese, and what do you think? A jug full of raspberry cordial to drink. A rodal teetotal and turalaye. What do you think our old mother will say? Riddle-dum-diddle-dum-dairy-down-dare, when she comes home to find her cupboard all bare. Dan caught up with Florian, who leaned against the cart, wheezing after the performance. My word! Not as young as I was last season, what? Sir, have you seen Baby Dwapple lately? Florian mopped his brow with a red-spotted kerchief. That's scutterbug. Can't say I have, young laddo. But with a bit of luck, an eagle may have flown off with the blighter. Deesom was immediately in the midst of things. Eagle? What eagle? Where? Oh, my poor little treasure. He's been carried off in the talons of a huge eagle. The hare rolled his eyes skyward and sighed. Dwapple was not borne off by an eagle, marm. T'was merely wishful thinking on my part. Huh. Pity the poor eagle that had the nerve to try and make off with that miniature rotter, what? Song reassured her. I'm sure Dwapple is safe, Miss Deeson, somewhere within Redfall. But we can't find him. Blinny and Wugger, the mole babes, were the last to see him on the north wall top. We've looked, but he's not there. Deeson snatched the kerchief from Florian and wrung it distractedly. Then we must search until we find the sweet little mite. Every beast, stop what you are doing and search the entire place. Look high and low, drag the pond and scour the cellars. Florian could not resist a dig at the mouse's dramatics. Right you are. I'll turn out my pockets and comb my fur. He wilted as the tough-looking rustle caught him tight by the paw. A babe is missing. Tis no joking matter, and you do well to quit play-actin' and join the search. Janglor and Troglo searched the cellars. Brother Melalot and formal Gubio checked the kitchens. Song and her friends accompanied Sister Slowey through the infirmary and dormitories. The three otters, Boracle, Elicum, and Skipper, waited until the coast was clear before diving in the abbey pond and covering every fraction of it carefully. Skipper thwacked his wet rudder on the bank, sending droplets cascading wide. Thank the seasons the little feller ain't in there. Runktip and the two moles, Roop and Muggle, had patrolled the orchard twice. They tried to comfort Deesom, who wept pitifully. There, there now, Miss Deesom. Don't go getting yourself all of a tizzy. That mouse-babe's bound to be somewheres in the abbey, or the grounds. Stands to reason, don't it? Were I. All the gates be well locked oop. Any walls be do I for Meister Dwapple to clamber o'er. Don't he fret, marm. Us'll find him afore long. Evening came, and still they searched, finding no trace of the mouse-babe. Badgermum Kraga and Friar Butty questioned Wugger and Blenny patiently. What time of day was it when you last saw Dwapple? Er, just afore lunch, sir, on a north wall top. Right. 
Now, what about this Mr. Stickaby? Did you see him? Oh, no, marm. Usons didn't see him. Then how do you know there is such a creature? He um talked to us and give Doppel a candy sweet. Friar Buddy scratched his ear distractedly with the quill pen. But how could he do all that and you still didn't see him? Cause he were outside, sir, back a ye little wall gate. Stickaby slided Doppel a candy fruit under the door. Stickaby say he give usins a girt bag of candy fruits if an us go oop to Walltops. But you two never went up there. Only Dwopel did, right? Both mole babes nodded, but he tried to hold his patience. Why did you not tell us all this before? Cause you never axed us, sir. Craigot could not help smiling despite her anxiety. Well, friar, there's a bit of true mole logic. Wugger's right, though. We should have thought to ask them a lot earlier. Come on, you two. Tis dark out and way past your bedtime. Friar Butty walked back to the abbey with them. Craigot, marm. I don't like the sound of this. Sounds like the Marl Foxes to me. Remember the night of the storm? These two practically described Marl Foxes to us, but no beast believed them. Craig felt for the abbey door handle. Aye, that's true, Friar. But I want no mention of what they've told us made to any beast yet. There's no need to cause alarm. Dwapel may be found hiding somewhere before morning. We'll just have to keep searching. But what if we can't find him? Then we'll just have to search the whole of Mossflower. Moken and the other marl foxes sat around a fire on the creek edge, roasting a couple of plump waterfowl. The rats sat farther away, cooking fish over their own fires. Moken blew a feather from his muzzle tip and watched it float off into the night. Plenty of good victuals in this part of Mossflower. Nothing like a roasted bird after a good day's work, eh? The cloak, with its top tied securely, hung from the bough of a beech tree close by, bobbing about as Dwapel kicked and protested from inside his prison. You fib a liars! Where Mr. Stickaby? Let me go! I want a bag of candy sweets! You let Dwapel go! Jeltor slapped the bag lightly. Quiet in there, or I'll give you something to shout about. The mouse babe did a dance of rage inside the cloak. Rotten Foskers! Touch a dwapple, and I get you where I'm a slinger. One of the vixens, Predak, stared across the flames at Moken. You're very confident this is going to work, brother. Moken tested the roasting bird with a knife tip. Why do you say that? No reason it shouldn't work. You'll see those abbey beasts would part with anything rather than have one of their babes hurt. But speak up if you have a better idea. Predak watched a moth shrivel as it ventured too near the firelight. Though your idea's a good one, but wouldn't it be better if we had another plan to fall back on in case anything goes wrong? Moken's pale eyes glimmered as they reflected the flames. Tell me, I'm not like our brother Jeltor. I'm always ready to listen to other schemes. On the island, two rat guards marched up a ramp toward the main chamber. One of them whispered irately, Well, what is it tonight? There's no storm to disturb her. The other rat's eyes flickered from side to side among the gloomy recesses and curves of the winding stone passage. Keep your voice down, mate. You never know who might be listening. Queen Silth will let us know what's on her mind soon enough, and you can bet your tail it won't be good news. It never is. Outside the great lake was calm, 
and the island quiet in dim, peaceful summer night. But the main chamber was lit like noontide, with banks upon banks of thick tallow candles ranged from floor to ceiling, their light reflecting amber and gold against the long brass wall plates the Marl Foxes used as mirrors. Threescore rats of the guard command stood stiffly to attention, their black livery marking them apart from the brown of lower ranks. Each carried a leaf-bladed short spear and a small round buckler shield. Above, in the crisscrossed roof beams, more than fifty magpies swaggered and strutted, hopping boldly about, some even venturing to perch on the big circular candle-laden wheels that served as chandeliers. These were the tribe of Athrock, feared favorites of the High Queen. The two water rats from the shoreline patrol hurried to stand in formation with their fellow guard commanders, flinching as drops of hot wax from the ceiling fell on them each time a magpie caused one of the wheels to sway. After a while, even the magpies became still and silent, and an uneasy quiet fell over the chamber as Silth made her entrance. The carriers bore their burden with exquisite care, setting the silken-curtained palanquin slowly down on a raised block of speckled marble at the chamber's far end. All eyes were now centered on the stone, though they had seen it many times before. A gasp went up from the onlookers, as the vixen Lontour seemed to materialize from the speckled marble block. She had been standing there since the first rat entered, completely undetected, camouflaged by the stone's pattern. Lontour held her paws wide as two water rats hurried forward and draped the brown-green cloak about her shoulders. At a nod from her, the guard commanders raised their spears, calling out as in one mighty voice, O eternal sylph, high queen, live forever! Beauty be yours alone! The harsh, rasping voice that issued from behind the curtains held a petulant note, like that of a spoiled young one. Noise! All night long! Noise! I hear the waters of that lake trying to eat away the rocks of my island. I hear the night breeze whispering like death, swirling about my castle, trying to find me. But what have you done about these things? Nothing! Sleep will not come. It flies away from me on dark wings. I cannot catch it. Why? The water rat commanders stood rigid, not daring to move a muscle, watched by the bright searching eyes of the magpies above them. Lontua strode up and down between the ranks, chastising the hapless rodents with her tongue. You are growing fat and idle while your queen suffers. There are no excuses for your stupidity. At night, while you are shirking your duties, the white ghost wanders the rooms and corridors of Castle Marl. The queen's voice interrupted Lontour, shrill with fear. Fools! I know what you are thinking, but I have seen it. At that point one of the unfortunate guard commanders dropped his shield. The clang of metal upon stone echoed through the chamber. Athrock launched himself from a crossbeam, calling his tribe. Raka, Raka, Raka! Jerem Claw! The magpies zoomed down like lightning upon the wretched creature. Talons and beaks gripped fur, paws, tail, and tunic cruelly, lifting him bodily from the floor. Knocking other rats aside, the magpies rushed their prisoner forward, chattering gleefully as they dropped him in front of the marble block and stood surrounding him. The water rat lay cringing on the floor stones. Silth's voice was harsh and accusing. Have you seen the white ghost? A thin smile played about Lontour's features. She adopted a tone of reasonable inquiry. Well, friend... Have you seen the white ghost, or haven't you? Answer your queen. The rat was in a quandary. If he said he had seen the white ghost, Silth would make him describe it. 
If his description did not ring true, then what? His only hope was to tell the truth. Oh, High Queen, I have not seen the white ghost, I swear it. It was the wrong answer. The tasseled silk curtains shook as Silt raged insanely. Of course you haven't, because you've been sleeping on duty and idling your time away. Athrak, tell my protectors of the skies to remove this worthless heap of offal from Castle Marl. He shall answer for his laziness to the teeth of the deeps. The rat gave a pitiful moan as Athrak's magpies seized him with wicked joy and bore him off. At an upstairs window the curtains of the palanquin parted slightly. Silt watched the scene below on the lake shore. Blazing torches had been spiked in a semicircle into the rock at the water's edge. The head of the guard command chopped a dead fish into chunks and hurled them into the dark waters. There were no shallows. The island was a massive, steep-sided mountain, its bottom resting on the lake bed. Unfathomable depths below. The water rats stood watching the surface, their stomachs knotted in terror, mouths dry with fear, as the waters began to thrash and churn. Dorsal fins and gold-green scales, hooked jaws and curved sets of ripping teeth flashed in the torchlights. Pike! The great freshwater predators set up bow waves as they stormed to the spot, whipping themselves into a feeding frenzy as they fought for gobbets of the dead fish. The condemned water rats screeched as Athrox's ruthless birds lifted him out over the depths. No, no, I lied. I've seen the white ghost. Eeya! Sylph listened to the splash as the rat's body was dropped to the waiting pike shoal. She shut the curtains with a triumphant chuckle. I knew he was lying all along. If I've seen the white ghost, then others have. Right, Lontour? The vixen Marlfox smiled slyly. It is as you say, O oh Great One. Two water rat guard commanders unspiked the torches and extinguished them, sizzling in the lake. Is she still up at the window watching? I don't know. Keep your eyes front, mate, unless she wants to feed the fish. You know tis death to look upon the queen. Huh, tis death to do anything on this cursed rock. In fact, you can get slain for nothing. Look at poor old Riglent. All he did was drop his shield. That old queen was just looking for a chance to pick on some beast. This place gets worse. The other rat finished stacking the torches in a pile. Don't tell me, Cully. Why don't you leave? Lake full of pike and the sky guarded by magpies. What's to stop you, eh? In the slave pens there was speculation over what had taken place at the lakeside. An ancient mouse rubbed the area above his footfall where the manacles had worn through his fur, causing a sore. Sounded like one of the water rats being fed to the teeth of the deeps. Better one of them than a slave, that's what I say. A lean, tired-looking otter stared longingly through the bars at the water rat barracks. Ah, you're right there, matey. I don't suppose there's any chance that the one who got slung in the lake was Ullig. Sitting up in the straw, a sturdy hedgehog maid muttered, No such luck, friend. You best keep quiet. Here comes the bully himself. Slave Captain Ullig rattled the bars with his whip-butt. Silence in there, or I'll pick a few of you lot out to feed the teeth of the deeps. Those pike ain't fussy what they eat. Even a couple of scrawny slaves would taste good to them. Ullig sauntered off back to the barracks, watched by the silent slaves. When he had gone, a gaunt-eyed squirrel smashed his chains against the bars in helpless rage. Swaggerants come! 
I'd teach Ulig a lesson if I was free of these chains just for a moment. The ancient mouse shook his head in despair. Free? There ain't no such word for a slave. I've been on this island so long I've forgotten what free means. And you've never seen any slave break free in all that time? The old mouse smiled grimly at the young hedgehog, who had asked the question. I saw lots of slaves break free, like that and in the corner. He pointed to an emaciated bull, lying in a huddle, shivering so hard that his chains rattled constantly. Two other slaves were bathing his feverish brow with damp rags. The bull's eyes rolled wildly, and he whimpered and coughed, as another tried to force water between his trembling lips. The old mouse nodded knowingly as he explained to the hedgehog maid, That poor beast'll be free afore dawn. Dead free. That's the only way you'll leave the marl foxes and slave captains and this island, matey. Tail first. 9. Florian Dugglewolf Wolfachop walked along the west wall top, calling out for Dwapple at the top of his voice. They had searched all morning, but not a trace of the little one could be found. Stopping briefly at the threshold over the main gate, the hare breathed deeply. Despite his constant chastisement of the mouse babe, he was secretly very fond of him. He did not notice the marl fox emerge from the ditch until the creature hailed him. Hey, rabbit! Florian stared regally down his nose at the marl fox. Huh! Rabbit yourself, you speckled scrap of jetsam! I'd come down there and grub some manners under your hide if I had my bally stick with me, what? Count yourself lucky, measle features! Rustful, who had just emerged from the gatehouse, heard Florian's voice and called up to him. Hi there, Mr. Florian. Who are you talking to, yourself? The hare was in no mood to be bandied with. Myself? Pish tush, sir, never. Actually, I'm exchanging insults with one of those mile fox types down on the path, don't you know? Rustful dashed off, roaring at the top of his lungs. Marl fox out on the path! Marl fox outside the gate! The abbey bells boomed out in alarm. In a short time, most of Redwall was atop the wall, armed with anything that came to paw, ladles, shovels, curtain poles, and sundry everyday implements. Moken, the Marl Fox leader, backed off to the ditch edge on the path's far side, ready to flee if things got more dangerous. Craig's voice was low and menacing, but quite clear as the exchange took place. You've got a mouse, babe. One of our young'uns. Aye, that's right. Had him since yesterday noon. Clever of you. And now you've come to bargain. What do you want? Oh, I don't know yet. What have you got in there? A rich abbey like yours should be something valuable enough to save a life. End of Side 2 To continue, change side selector switch and turn the cassette over. Side 3, Marl Fox by Brian Jakes Continuing on page 101 We do not hoard treasure at Redwall. If you need victuals, we can give you a supply of the best food prepared anywhere. Moken shook his head, almost pityingly, at the simple offer. No, no, food doesn't interest us. 
There's plenty in Mossflower. Let me gather my brothers and sisters. We'll come into your abbey and take a look around. I'll wager Marlfoxes could find something of value as a ransom for your babe. Skipper of Otters wiggled a paw in one ear. Did I hear that right? You want to bring a pack of your kind inside Redwall and take a root about? Listen, Snotnose, there's only the grass that's green round here, not the abbey beasts. Moken drew his axe and tested the blade edge. You have until midnight. After that, you won't see Dwapple again. Shouts of indignation rang from the wall tops. Don't you dare touch that, Dibbon, you stinking coward. Her big brave beast like e slaying little uns, you'll not but slime and mud. Harm not my precious might, sir, I beg you. Take my life instead. For shame. You, sir, are not but a scum wallower. Jangler Swift-Eye held up his paws for silence. Save your breath, friends. Tis wasted on the likes of that'n. Listen, Fox, we'll meet you at the southwest corner of this wall at midnight. I'll see these red wallers bring lots of pretty things to trade for Dwapple. Agreed? Moken smiled up at the squirrel. I'm glad there's one creature at Redwall with a bit of sense. I accept your offer, Squirrel, but make sure whoever comes is unarmed. One false trick will cost the mouse babe his life. As the marl fox vanished into the ditch, the abbey gates burst open. Logalog and his blossom shrews came pouring out, rapiers drawn. They leapt into the ditch, but there was not a trace of the marl fox. Russell patted the shrews back as he returned through the gate. Tough luck, matey. It was just a smidgen too slow there. The shrew chieftain sheathed his rapier and helped to bar the gate. The fox just disappeared, vanished. Russell snorted. They ain't magic. I know, cause I pierced one of them through the shoulder with my javelin. Ha! That didn't look too magic, scrabbling off on all fours. Jangler bounded down the wall steps. Let's go to Cavern Hole. I've got a plan. Russell called Dan, Song, and Dippler to him. Right. Tis about time you three started to grow up a bit. I've got a meeting with Jangler and the others in Cavern Hole, so that means we need to mount a guard on the ramparts, in case marlfoxes or water rats come back. How do you feel about some sentry duty? The three friends were proud to accept. Dan spoke for them. You can trust us. We won't let Redwall down. Russell nodded approvingly at his son. Spoken like a raguba. See what old Buddy has at the gatehouse in the way of weaponry and arm yourselves. Keep a sharp eye on the woodlands, and don't be afraid to yell for help if you needs it. In the gatehouse, Friar Buddy was poring through old record books. He indicated a long, narrow corner cupboard. There's weapons in there, I think, though they've not seen the light of day in many a season. Help yourselves. Personally, I could have done with your assistance and my researches. But if you three are needed on the wall tops, then so be it. I'll come up and let you know if I discover anything about the Marl Foxes or their hidden island. Hardly a breeze stirred the treetops of Mossflower Wood. Grasshoppers chirruped and butterflies winged placidly in the shimmering midday heat on the western plains and flatlands. Beneath Dan's footpaws, the broad sandstone walkway was pleasantly warm as he paced back to the threshold from the east wall top. The young squirrel had outfitted himself with a long spear and a dented copper helmet, which he had dusted off and polished. Song had found something that fitted her paw as if it were made for her, 
a short solid stick with a ball of green stone mounted on one end. She twirled it skillfully, feeling its balance as she returned from her patrol of the south battlements. Diffler was waiting at the threshold for them. The young shrew looked comical. He had found a chain-mail tunic and a crested helmet complete with visor, and was practically staggering under their weight. Beside his shrew rapier, Diffler carried an immense halberd, the heavy long-poled weapon that is both spear and battle-axe combined. He threw up a clanking salute to his friends. Anything to report, mates? Dan took off his helmet and mopped his brow. Phew! All I've got to report is that tis roasting under this helmet. Aren't you hot under that, Dip? Dippler was, but he would not admit it. Oh, no, matey. I'm just fine, fine. Song could not resist laughing at the small overdressed shrew. Ha, ha, ha. There's a little cloud of steam coming from under your helmet, Dip. Are you cooking a stew in there? Dan joined in the laughter. Diffler gave them both a haughty glare from beneath his rusty visor and clanked off, calling back, Laugh all you like. Outfits like this and have saved many a warrior's life. Hi, who goes there? Friend or foe beast? Sister Slowey clambered up the gatehouse wall steps, lugging a basket covered with a white cloth. She snorted at the challenge. Foe beast indeed. Do I look like a foe beast? Craiga and Brother Melalot decided that you guards had best take lunch up here on the wall tops. Here, take this basket, Song. My paws are old and tired. The three friends felt very grown up and privileged to have lunch sent out to them as they spread the cloth and laid out the food. Diffler even removed his helmet. Well, this is the stuff to give the troops. Good old Melalot. That dandelion and burdock cordial looks nice and cool. Pour me a beaker, Dan. Look at this. Mushroom and celery turnover, leek pasty, apple and blackberry crumble, and a bowl of nut cream. They certainly know how to feed us wall guards at this abbey, mates. Friar Buddy joined them, carrying a big ancient volume. Deary me, Song, I wish you'd have a word with that grandma of yours. She's turned my gatehouse into a dormitory, and she and Nutwing have taken to coming there for their afternoon nap. Between them, they've driven me out with their snoring and snuffling, Song poured the old squirrel a beaker of cordial. Never mind. Fresh air is better for you than in a dusty old gatehouse, friar. What's that book you've brought up here? The red-walled recorder opened the volume at a place he had marked. This is a chronicle from the time of Abbess Vale. I couldn't even begin to guess how many long seasons ago it was written, but it seems that two red-wallers, a squirrel named Samkim and a mole called Arula, actually found the great inland lake and knew of the lost island. Dan cut himself a slice of pasty. Is there anything in the book about marl foxes? Friar Butty flicked a few pages, indicating the state of them. I wouldn't know, Dan. Some beast left this volume outdoors and open in the rain during bygone seasons. The chapters that are of interest to us have been ruined by water. Parchments flaked, and the ink has run... "'Tis a real mess.' "'Dippler pawed through the spoiled pages. "'Bit of a shame, friar mate. "'So you didn't find out anything?' "'Butty stared pensively at the book. "'Maybe not about the foxes. "'But I think there's directions to the lake. "'Bit of a puzzle, though.' "'Song was intrigued. "'She loved nothing better than solving mysteries. "'Here, let's all take a close look at it. "'We've eight sharp eyes and four good brains between us.' Friar Buddy, get ready with your pen and parchment to record whatever we find. 
In Cavern Hole, a desperate plan, calling for deception and daring, was being outlined by Jangler Swifteye. The squirrel warrior drew a square on the tabletop with charcoal. This is the outer walls. This mark here is the main gate. Tonight we meet the foxes and water rats outside at the southwest corner by the path. Make no mistake, mates. They'll come in force. Well armed, too. Show them one sign of weakness, and we'll all be slain. Craig's blind eyes seemed to stare straight at him. You're right, of course, Jangler. Treachery is the hallmark of foxes and vermin. So what do you propose we do? The squirrel's hooded eyes flicked idly around the table. We take every beast who can wield a weapon. Remember, I said to the fox this morning that we'd bring a selection of valuables to trade for Little Dwapple. Well, we'll be carrying four or five bundles, though only one will contain trinkets. The rest will be bundles of weapons. Me and Russell will open the bundle of trinkets, and when we gives the word, you'll all pull out the arms and attack. Me and Russell will snatch Dwapple and pass him to Kraga. She'll protect him. Logalog, some of your Gwasim shrews will be with us. But as soon as it goes dark tonight, I want you to take half your tribe out quiet-like. Go straight out onto the flatlands and sweep back so that you're well below the abbey to the south. Then get in the fields and woodland fringe. When you see the attack started, I want you to charge their rear and take them by surprise. Troglo Cellarhog scratched his head spikes. But why, Jangler? If we get the babe back, what's the point of fighting further? We'd be best getting back inside of the abbey, quick and safe as possible. Why stay and fight with them? Murmurs of agreement with Troglo's reasoning came from all around the table. Jangler sighed and tossed down his charcoal stick. Tell him why, Russell. Russell Raguba pounded the tabletop slowly as he spoke, as if driving every word home. Because they'll slaughter us if we don't get them first. To fight vermin, you got to think the same way they do. If they lose the babe and don't get no ransom for him, then believe me, they won't just pack up and go away. Oh no, mates. They'll be out for revenge on Redwall, and they won't rest till they gets it. Russell's paw rested on the table. Skipper's closed over it. He's right. Take my affidavit on it, mates. Craigie Badgermom nodded her huge striped head. It's a perilous plan, but I trust our warriors. All in favor, say aye. Every creature in Cavern Hole gave their answer without hesitation. Aye. Moken had one hundred and ninety water rats and five other marl foxes under his command, and he planned to use them well. They sat about on the creek bank as he issued final orders. You all know what to do. Any beast who does not do it right answers to me. We move out at twilight. Rest now, but see that your weapons are attended to. Make sure those blades are sharp and ready to serve the High Queen's brood. Askrod, Bannon, which two do you need? Askrod sought out the two they wanted. Dackle and Belu. You will accompany me and my sister. The two rats in question saluted. Moken went and sat next to Jeltor, who was changing the dressing on his shoulder. How goes it with your wound now, brother? Jeltor bit his lips as he peeled off a dock leaf that had stuck to the fur around his injury. None the better for your asking. Moken lay back and closed his eyes, the sunlight making him almost invisible as it dappled leaf patterns down upon his body. Don't worry. You'll have your revenge tonight on the Redwallers, a much quicker vengeance than your idea of all-out war.
10. Florian Dugglewolf Wolfenschop had decided that the best thing for creatures going into action was to inspire them with a stirring ballad. Accordingly, he kitted himself out on a heroic toga, brandished a floppy sword, and glared at his audience ferociously through a monocle with no glass in it. The Red Wallers sat about in a semicircle by the Abbey Pond, while Florian pranced about on the water's edge and treated them to a rendition of The Battle for the Final Crumpet. Roop, the mole, accompanied him on a small accordion, and Runktip sang the refrain. Florian scowled savagely at a few tittering dibbons as he launched into the opening lines of the song. Oh, it was on the umpty ninth of spring, when a duck blew on a trumpet. I led me army from behind to the battle of the final crumpet. Some wore boots, and some wore clogs, and some wore big long faces, and two fat moles fell down with coals before we'd marched ten paces. At the battle of the final crumpet I very near lost my life, when I got punched upon the nose by a big bad hedgehog's wife. Then all broke out in mutiny, when a mouse with a mustache said, Lie down, me lads, afore they charge, so they'll all think we're dead. Well, there we sat, while all around the spears and shafts were thuddin', a-drinkin' goose-dog cordial wine, and eatin' cabbage puddin'. We finally defeated them, when the duck tripped on his trumpet, and I got a feather in me cap, cause I ate the final crumpet. Florian sang the final two lines while waving his sword and dancing energetically backward for effect. He stumbled on one of his outsized boots and fell into the pond to riotous applause. Skipper shook tears of helpless mirth from his eyes. Sink me, rudder mates, we're in for a lively time if a natin's defendin' the abbey tonight. On the wall top there was great hilarity. Song, Dan, and Dippler chuckled aloud, watching the two moles, Roop and Muggle, trying to haul the ungainly hair from the pond. Friar Butty tapped the tattered volume with his quill. Can we get back to our work, please? Still smiling, the three friends turned to the parchment the old recorder had translated from the washed-out, ink-stained journal of Abbas Vale, a wise creature who had ruled Redwall in the far-off seasons. Dippler was no great scholar, and he stared at the friar's neat rows of writing blankly. What does it all mean? Friar Butty flicked the pages of the ancient book. As far as I can make out, it was written by a squirrel called Samkim in his latter seasons. He must have been a tricky creature, though. He wrote directions to the great lake in the form of a riddling rhyme. Listen to this. At the rear of Redstone Wall, find me o'er where breaks the day. You cannot, shall not walk at all. Just follow as I run away. Discover the speechless hidden mouth. Alas, my friends, our ways part there. Go down green tunnel, bound and south, through trees with blossoms in their hair. Then when the sky shows blue and light, and clear down to the bed you gaze, be not deceived by rainbows bright. Beware tall stones and misted haze. Leaping, boiling, stealing breath, none can stand against this might, which sweeps the traveler down to death in caves of grim eternal night. And should you live to seek the lake, watch for the fish of blue and gray, betwixt those two's the path you take. Good fortune wend you on your way. Dippler scratched his fur beneath the weighty chainmail suit. The young Wassam Shrew was still puzzled by the cryptic words. Sounds pretty enough, but I still ain't got a clue, mates. Friar Buddy smiled at Dippler's inexperience. Fiddly dee, young feller. You'd be the wisest creature around if you did. Riddling poems are not written so that we may solve them at a glance, right, Song? 
The pretty young squirrel nodded as she scanned the verse. That's correct, Friar. We need to study this thing hard, take it a line at a time, and concentrate upon the words. Dan settled his chin on both paws, staring hard at the puzzle. Hmm. By the look of it, this doesn't mention anything about marl foxes. Dippler struggled out of the chain mail, which had finally become too uncomfortable for him. Maybe it doesn't, Dan, but it might lead us to know them better. Where they come from, why they made such a journey, and so on. Friar Buddy patted his young friend's back heartily. Well said, Dippler. I think you've the makings of a great scholar. Accompanied by Logalog and some of his shrews, Jangler and Russell were collecting together all the serviceable weapons they could lay paws upon. Carrying bags made from old curtain grapes, they approached the gatehouse, where Kregger had told them there was a cupboard full of disused armaments. Suddenly Russell stopped so sharply that Jangler almost collided with him. Logalog looked at the warrior squirrel, who was glaring grim-faced at the wall-top. "'Russell, what's the matter, matey?' Ignoring the shrew chieftain's question, Russell shouted angrily, "'Dan Floriguba, what in the name of blazes do you think you're playing at up there?' Still sitting, poring over the writings, Dan waved cheerily down to his father. "'We're trying to solve a riddle. "'Tis all about that isle on the Great Lake and how to get there.' Russell slammed his javelin point hard into the ground. "'A warrior who's put on guard duty should be doing just that, "'guarding the wall-tops, not fooling about with games.' Jangler cautioned his friend in a quiet voice. Go easy, mate. Dan's still only a young'un. But Russell's unpredictable temper allowed no margin for reason. Supposing the foe beast launched an attack on the east wall, while you're sitting fooling about on the west wall, what then? Friar Buddy hastily bundled up the rhyme and passed it to Song, who stowed it in her tunic as all four stood up. The friar spread his paws wide, bowing slightly to the party below. You mustn't blame them, friends. Twas all my idea. I thought that young, fresh minds would help me with my investigations. The burly shrew Fenno pointed an accusing paw at Dippler. Ha! Might have known he'd be part of this. Remember what happened to our log boats when he was supposed to be guarding them, eh? Fenno found that he could say no more, because Logalog's rapier point was beneath his chin, forcing his head back. The shrew chieftain spoke calmly. Who asked your opinion, loudmouth? Keep out of this, or I'll pin your big tongue to that little thing you call a brain. Song tried to calm things down by addressing her father. We really were guarding the walls. It was only when lunch arrived that we took a little break and had a look at the friar's rhyme. Jangler Swifteye winked lazily at his daughter. I ain't complaining, Missy. I felt good and safe down below in Cavern Hole, while you and your pals stood sentry up there. He shrugged and nudged Russell playfully. Wasn't you ever young yourself, mate? Come on, let it be. Dan's a fine son, just like my song's a good daughter. We should be proud of him. But Russell would not let it be. He pointed an accusing paw at Dan. A guard's a guard, and a warrior's a warrior. Not some kind of dusty scholar. More so, if your name is Raguba. That's a title to live up to, son. Always remember that. A voice boomed out behind them. Stop all this. I will not have arguing and bad feeling within these abbey walls. Craig of Badgermum strode up, with Skipper at her side. The big otter stood forward and spoke for her. Logalog, put up your blade, mate. 
"'Tis against Redwall's rules of hospitality "'to draw steel again another while you're a guest here. "'And the rest of you, hear this. "'If you got any grievances while you're at Redwall Abbey, "'then the Council of Elders will sort them out. "'All must live in peace here without arguing or fighting. "'So, settle any differences or forget them. "'Show an example to the young'uns, eh?' Logalog sheathed his rapier and shook Skipper's paw. Sounds like good sense to me, messmate. Right, let's get on with gathering weapons, so we can show a little good manners to those marl foxes and water rats tonight. The dispute broke up amid chuckles and laughter. Kreger reached out a paw and halted Russell as he moved off. The good badger spoke to him out of earshot of the rest. You have not been here many seasons, Russell, and I know you had a hard life. "'but you should not have shamed your son "'by shouting at him in front of other beasts like that. "'Dan is a fine young creature, "'but like us all, he is bound to make mistakes. "'It's part of growing up. "'I know you honor your title of Reguba, "'and the way of the warrior is not an easy one. "'However, it is no bad thing for a warrior "'to have a scholar's knowledge. "'It can bring wisdom to his judgment "'and shrewdness to his thinking.' Russell patted the badger's wide paw. "'You're right, of course, Marm.' But tis no easy thing to be both father and mother to a young'un. I'm more used to fighting than to parenting. Gregor turned her eyes toward him as if she could see him. Good. Then show us what you are made of out there tonight. Five sacks of weapons had been collected, blades and short arms that were easily concealed within the curtain bags. Supper was taken early in Great Hall, and before it was served, Skipper gave final orders. Logalog, straight after you've eaten... Take some guasim out. Go from the main gate across into the ditch. Follow it north a bit. Then sweep out and come back down to the south woodland fringe. We'll give you a shout when we're ready for your lot to attack from the rear. Jangler and Russell, you'll lead the party carrying the sacks of arms. Proglo and Gubio, you'll be in charge of our own redwallers and the rest of the shrews. When you see Jangler and Russell open the sack of trinkets, that's when you grab the weapons out of the sacks and attack. Make sure you shout and yell plenty to confuse him. I'll grab Dwapple and pass the little one safe to Kreger, and we'll get him back to the abbey. Friar Butty, have the gate ready. And soon as Kreger and Dwapple are inside, lock it. I'll come back and join the rest of you. Tis a scrap I'd ate to miss. If all goes well, we should be soon banging on the gate to get back in, so listen for us, Friar. Now, Sister Slowey, Melilot, and Nutwing... You take all the elders and dibbons down to the wine cellars. Stay there safe and silent. You'll be fine. Dan, Song, and Dippler, you three will stay guard here in Great Hall. Make sure none enters here, save Redwallers. The safety of our abbeys in your paws. So, that's the plan. Good luck to all, and blood and vinegar to our foes. Alayo looked uncertainly at Skipper. But they are so young, Skip. Are you sure they are ready for such a great task? Don't worry yourself, Marm. With our plan, no rat or fox will find its way inside these walls. Every beast pounded the tables and roared approval, though none more than Dan, Song, and Dippler, who were flushed with pride at the enormous responsibility Skipper had bestowed upon them. Badger Mom Cracker spoke when the den had died down. I think a warrior's grace is in order before we eat. Fate and fortunes, seasons fair, be kind to us this day. Let no beast here whom we hold dear see comrades borne away. May the strong defend the weak, protect those who take part, 
grant victory of truth and right to warriors brave of heart. Banish the foe beast from our land, and when new seasons fall, leave not an empty space of grief amongst us at Redwall. There was silence for a moment, then Florian Dugglewolf Wolfachop added a few lines in a stage whisper that could be heard by all. And if on an empty tummy I'm slain, then I'll jolly well never get killed again. So pass the puddin' and fetch the pies, and I'll give the foe beast a rotten surprise. Deesom wrapped the hare's paw sharply with a spoon. Mr. Florian, what a dreadful thing to say! Florian wrung his paw and blew upon it. Ouch! Save your aggression for the enemy, Marm. I say, what a super pasty. Is that all for me, what? Gerbil, the cellar mole, sliced off a wedge of pasty and presented it to the gluttonous hare. This your pasty bees full of wild garlic, Meister. You may not like it. Tis powerful strong, hoer. Much to the amusement of every beast, Florian ate a double helping with great relish. Exceedingly tasty, my good mole. Garlic, you say? Well, at least I won't have much trouble bowling the enemy over. I'll just shout in their faces like this. Who are you? Deesom fell back, clutching a serviette to her nose. Really, sir, do you have to do that? Rimrose helped herself to some mint wafers and maple sauce. Were you ever in a battle, Mr. Florian? Boracle the otter paused, a ladle half in and half out of a bowl of summer vegetable soup. Oh, don't start him, Marm, please. But Florian was in fine form. Piling his plate high with woodland trifle and plum tart, he put on a brave face. Battle, did you say, Marm? I once frightened off a thousand flippin' frogs, armed with naught but a pail of wet blackberries. Troglo Spearback squirreled the October ale in his tankard. Don't tell such whackin' fibs, you great furry fraud. Deesom looked up from a slice of strawberry flan she was nibbling. Oh, but he did. Let me tell you how it happened. We'd been picking blackberries, and had collected a small pailful, but unfortunately Baby Dwapple upset them in some mud. Mr. Florian took them down to the stream to wash them clean while we set up camp. It was in deep woodlands down southwest. While he was away, we were suddenly surrounded by masses of frogs. There must have been a thousand of the dreadful things, and they looked very aggressive and pretty angry with us. I think it was because we had done our washing in a pool full of their tadpoles. Anyhow, they had us captured and looked as if they were planning something ugly as a punishment for the whole troop. Go on, you tell them what happened next, sir. Florian smiled modestly from behind his heaped platter. Oh, twas nothing, really. You see, I'd spotted what was going on. Those frog chaps looked rather peeved, and I thought they might harm my troop. I had the jolly old pail full of water with the blackberries in it. They'd got messed up a bit and looked rather mushy, but still jolly tasty, what? So I comes trundling up, pulling the dripping blackberries out of the water pail and scoffing them by the pawful, shouting out loud in a fearsome voice, Tadpoles! Ha-ha! Tadpoles, says I. Nothing nicer for lunch than a perishing pail full of tadpoles, except a nice juicy green frog or two. I say, you chaps, hello there. Saved some frogs for me, what-what? Elicum shook with laughter as he recalled the incident. Ho-ho-ho! You should have seen those frogs scatter. Some of them leapt clear over big bushes. They thought old Florian was coming to scoff them. 
Ha, ha, ha. And there he stood, cool as you like, shoving wet blackberries down his face and pretending they was tadpoles. Florian mused around a spoonful of trifle. Hmm, maybe some of them were. That stream was full of all manner of small black wriggly things. Blackberries, tadpoles, who could jolly well tell? Silly bloomin' frogs. Fancy taking a perfectly respectable cove like myself for a cannibal frog scoffer. Cha! Waking broadly at Nutwing, Friar Butty shook his head sympathetically. Indeed, how could they have made such a dreadful error? The lively meal progressed into the evening, with the wandering Noonvale Companions troupe rendering one of the songs from their repertoire in three-part harmony, with the hedgehog Runktip acting as conductor. Logalog watched Abbey lamplighters illuminating the candles and lanterns around Great Hall as daylight's last clean deserted long stained glass windows. Rising silently from the table, he nodded to his chosen group of Gwasim. Quietly they checked their rapiers, slings, and stone pouches, then slipped off into the gathering night, with the melodious strains of the singers echoing around the hall after them. I paint my face or wear a mask, for I'll be any beast you ask, as I wander on my way. A skillful tumbler bounding high, a pitiful mope who'll make you cry. My actor's part I play. And what care you if I am sad, or if ill fortune I have had? Tis just a clown, you say. I just a droll who plays a part, who travels in a painted cart, from dawn to dusk each day. An actor can be young or old, figure of fun or hero bold. From tears to laughter without pause, I strut the stage to your applause. Then I look in my mirror and say, Hey, what fool shall I play today? Eleven. Moken glanced up at the waning moon, setting itself behind a rambling cloud bank. Somewhere off in the woodland, a lone nightjar warbled, while a warm breeze stirred sedge and rye grasses on the ditch top. It was a night perfect for ambush. The water rats and marl foxes crouched in the ditch bed, spears and blades blackened by fire smoke so they would not betray a glimmer. The vixen Predak moved silent as a night shadow down the ditch to where the main force waited with Moken. She gestured back toward the main abbey gate. Askrod and Vannon are in place with their two rats. Moken ventured a swift peek over the ditch top. No sign of the red wallers yet? Predak scratched her muzzle, betraying a slight nervousness. Maybe it is a trick. Perhaps they won't come? The Marlfox leader's teeth gleamed in the darkness. He kicked the bundle containing Dwapple, who had been fed a potion of herbs to keep him in a drugged sleep. Oh, they'll come, take my word on it. Those abbey beasts are far too honest and dull to risk any tricks. This mouse babe is their main concern. Being the virtuous fools they are, they'll expect us to play by their rules and return the babe in exchange for a few trinkets. Oops. They'll learn that dealing with marl foxes is like trying to hold a pawful of smoke. Logalog stood with his gwasm shrews, well hidden by the bushy southeast fringe of moss flower. Dodging from fern clump to long grass, the scout Bargle arrived and nodded over toward the ditch. Vermin are still there, chief. They ain't made a move back or forward. Couldn't get close enough to hear what they was saying. The shrew chieftain peered through the night toward the ditch. It doesn't make any difference, mate. We never came to chat with them. Bargle pawed his rapier hilt thoughtfully. You know, they don't know we're here, but we know exactly where they are. 
Mayak, twouldn't be a bad idea to sneak up behind them and pick off a few to thin their ranks, eh? Logalog sighed regretfully. I was thinking the same thing myself, matey. But we'd best stick to the plan and wait for the signal. Bargle was weighing the land up. That's a fair distance to charge, from here across open ground to the southwest wall corner. We could become targets in plain view. Logalog ruffled his scout's ears fondly. Then we'll just have to spread out and duck and weave. Aye, and get ourselves killed for creatures who ain't even shrews. Logalog turned to the speaker. I knowed it wouldn't take long for you to pipe up, Fenno. When all this is over, me and you are going to take a stroll in the forest, outside, where we won't be abusing Redwall's rules. Fenno glared at the smaller and older figure. I'll look forward to it. I'm sick of you pushing me around. Logalog's paw shot out and dragged Fenno forward by his ear. So be it. But until then, you can stay in front where I can see you. I don't want you behind me when the action starts. Dan, Song, and Tipler watched as Sister Slowey and Brother Melalot guided elders and Dibbons downstairs to the wine cellars. Melalot waved to them from the stairwell. They're all accounted for. You can leave them to us now. Song saluted him with her greenstone-tipped stick. Thanks, brother. We'll be up here if you need us. Dippler crossed Great Hall to where the main party were assembled. Skipper hid a smile as the small chainmail-laden figure trundled up. You're a fearsome sight, matey. Now don't forget, and bar the door as soon as we leave. And don't lift that bar to any beast, except us, when we gets back. Clear? Dippler tried a fancy salute and almost tripped over the huge halberd he was toting. Clear, Skip. I won't even let an ant pass. Craiga placed her paw on the wonderful tapestry, touching the spot where stood the likeness of Martin the warrior. Guide us to victory this night, and let us bring the mouse babe back to Redwall unharmed. Russell, Jangler, lead on. They passed through the main wall gate, treading carefully to stop the weapons clanking in their sacks. Friar Butty and Nutwing held the gates open, wishing the rescuers good luck as they went. Let's hope all goes well, Troglo. Oh, it'll be all right. Just make sure you stay awake, Nutwing. Hmm, hmm. Stay awake yourself. You'll need your wits about you out there tonight. Aye, we will that. See you later, eh, Friar? I certainly hope so, my friend, with all my heart. Standing out on the path, the old squirrel recorder and his owl companion watched the procession start south down the path. They did not even feel the draft from the swirling cloaks of Askrod and Bannon, as the two marl foxes, accompanied by the rats Dackle and Belu, slipped into Redwall like poor dark wraiths. From the shadows of the wall steps, the vermin intruders watched while Butty and Nutwing secured the gates, chunnering away at each other as old friends always do. Come on, you ancient feather bag, lift your end of the bar. Hmm, um, I am lifting. For. This bar gets heavier every day. Are you sure you're lifting your end, old Bushtail? Of course I am. Right. Up, two, three. There, that does it. What's the matter now? You've got a face on you like a squashed pie. Hmm. Hmm. Got something sticking in my leg. Let me see. Oh, tis only a splinter. Come in the gatehouse and I'll get it out. Stop hopping about like a one-legged duck. Hmm. Only a splinter, he says. Feels more like a log to me. The trespassers waited until the gatehouse door closed, 
before making their way across the silent lawns toward the abbey. Craig was not too familiar with the outside path, and allowed Skipper to guide her toward the southwest corner, where the rendezvous was to take place. Are they there as they said they'd be, Skip? Russell's voice murmured low to one side of Craig. I see the scum. They're lying in the ditch, spear-tops poking up. Jangler's eyes shifted under their heavy lids. Right, mate. I sees them myself now. There's that Marlfox climbing out, two rats behind him. They're carrying something. Looks like the mouse babe done up in a sack. The Redwallers halted at the southwest corner. As Moken walked forward, the other three Marlfoxes led the water rats out of the ditch and the pincer movement to form a semicircle in front of the Redwallers, standing with their backs to the wall. Jangler nodded curtly to Moken. Well, Fox, got a little in with you? At a signal from Moken, two rats dumped the sack containing Dwapple in front of the Marlfox. He placed a footpaw on it. He's right here. Brought the valuables with you? Jangler indicated the red wallers bearing the curtain bags. We brought them, but you don't get to see one trinket until you show us the mouse babe unharmed. Moken smiled thinly and bowed slightly to his adversary. My compliments. You show good sense. Show them the mouse babe. One of the water rats sprang forward and slit the sack expertly with a small thin dagger. Baby Dwapple rolled out, curled in a ball and snoring uproariously. Moken pointed to the curtain bags. Now let's see the ransom. Janglor winked at Russell. Open her up, mate. Between them, the two squirrel warriors ripped aside the ties on the bag of trinkets they were carrying, smashing it in the faces of Moken and his companions with a mighty roar. Red Wall! Then the action began at an alarming rate. Skipper hurled himself headlong at the ground, snatching Dwapple and laying flat two rats with flailing footpaws and thwacking tail rudder. Redwallers tore open the bags of weapons and went straight at it. Skipper placed Dwapple in the paws of Kraga, and between them they battled their way through a sea of water rats, regardless of slashing blades and stabbing spears. Kraga, who had once been the mightiest of badger warriors, roared like thunder splitting the skies. With Dwapple's tunic gripped in her teeth, she lashed out with both paws, ripping, wounding, and slaying every beast that came within the range of her frightening destructive power, snapping spears like matchwood and bending blades like green twigs. Troglo Spearback had a large bunghammer, which he swung with both paws, and the rest grabbed what they could, yelling wildly, Red wool! Blood and vinegar! Marlfox axes slashed the air, and spears bristled in the night as the vermin pressed in. Any beast unfortunate enough to fall was trampled flat in the melee. Though they were heavily outnumbered, the Noonvale troop were giving a splendid account of themselves. Florian had formed them into a tight circle, standing at its center, wielding a long grass rake, dealing out devastating blows over the heads of his companions to the rats who pressed them in on all sides, the lanky hare boomed out his challenge. Come on, babe-stealers, try me for size, what? I'm the son of the rip-snortin', rap-tippin' will to chop. Try stealin' me away in a sack, and I'll peel your hides to the bone and feed you to each other. As soon as he heard the war cry of Redwall being shouted over by the southwest corner, Logalog drew his rapier and roared out the battle call of the Gwasm Shrews. Log-a-log-a-log-a-log-a-log! Charge! The shrews took off at a dead run across the open land, whirling slings and slashing the air with their short rapiers. Gripped by the heat of the charge, Logalog sped past Fenno, 
who had conveniently stumbled and tripped. The brave shrew chieftain had made a fatal error, and the coward seized his chance. Jumping up, he threw his rapier like a spear, straight into the unprotected back of his chief. Logalog staggered on a few paces, then fell unnoticed in the night, by the other shrews who were running eagerly into battle. Sudden panic at the ruthless murder he had committed gripped Fenno. Turning, he fled back into the cover of Mossflower Wood. Meanwhile, Skipper pounded on the main abbey wall gate, calling urgently to the gatekeepers, Open up, mates! We got the little un. Hurry now! Craigamarm's wounded! It took a moment or two for Buddy and Nutwing to lift the heavy crossbeam out of its holders. Then the gate squeaked open. Skipper pushed Craiga and Waffle inside, baring his teeth in a ferocious grin at the two elders. Take care of him. I'm off back to the fightin'. Mokin knew that his side had the upper paw. Triumphantly, he was shouting orders to his marl foxes. Predak, keep them pinned to the wall. Jeltor, attack those two squirrel warriors. Keep them busy. Zyro, take more rats. Stop that hare and his creatures breaking through the cordon. Swinging his double-headed axe, Mokin pressed forward savagely, fully intent on inflicting total retribution on the Redwallers, whose courageous but foolish ruse had gone awry. Twelve. The water rat Bilu stood on the lawn at the back of Redwall Abbey. His keen eyes soon spotted what he was after, a small dormitory window, below which was a protuberance in the shape of a gargoyle head carved onto a thick spur of sandstone. Bilu unwound a plated hide rope from around his waist, freeing the three-pronged grapnel hook hanging from it. The water rat gave the tough, thin rope a few swings, paying it out as he whirled the grapnel in a wide circle. When he was ready, he released the rope at the crucial point, allowing the hook to soar upward and latch over the gargoyle with a dull clank of metal striking stone. Bilu stood stock still and waited for several moments, listening intently. When he was sure no beast had heard the noise, he began to climb swiftly, hauling himself up paw over paw, with both footpaws braced firmly against the wall. Once up to the window, he chose a tiny pane. Opening his belt pouch, he drew forth a piece of bark, plastered with a thick compound of honey and soil, which he stuck to the window pane. There was virtually no sound as he dealt the bark a sharp tap with his dagger handle, but still he paused and waited. After a short time, he peeled the bark from the thin glass, shards of broken windows sticking to it like crystal. Cautiously, the rat loosened more broken pieces from the pane, dropping them to the grass below. When he had enough space to work, Bilu put his paw through the hole he had made and undid the catch. A moment later he was inside the abbey and on the dormitory staircase. Dippler sat in the big ornate chair that had been used by all the abbots and abbesses of Redwall. The young shrew impudently placed his footpaw on the table and leaned back, lifting the visor of his heavy-crested helmet. Wonder out is going out at the southwest corner. Dan had his old copper helmet full of hazelnuts, which he was lining up on the floor stones and cracking with light taps of his spear-butt. He winked confidently at the shrew. I'll wager those marl foxes and their water rats are sorry they ever captured Dwapple. Our side will be giving them blood and vinegar and their own tails for supper. What do you think, Song? The young squirrel was standing in front of the tapestry, admiring the heroic figure of Martin the warrior. Oh, there's no doubt that the vermin are on to a good hiding, and a lesson they won't forget. With warriors like your father and mine, and Skipper, we can't lose. Just look at this picture of Martin. I'll wager he could have cleared up the lot single-pawed. Dan stooped to gather the hazelnuts. 
No beast could stand against Martin. Do you know his sword hangs in Craig of Badgermum's room? Funny, though. The elders say that he often appears in dreams to Redwallers to give advice and warn us if the Abbey's in danger. Wonder why he never appeared this time. Dippler tried unsuccessfully to straighten the rusty fold of his chain mail as he sprawled in the big chair. Oh, I suppose Martin knows we can take care of ourselves. Don't forget, besides your father's, there's my chieftain Logalog and a few score of Gwasim fighters to deal with. What's that? Song turned from the tapestry. What's the matter, Dip? Did you hear a noise? Dan tossed a hazelnut and caught it in his mouth. No. What sort of noise was it? Dippler struggled out of the big chair. Sort of like a clanky sound. Song stole a pawful of Dan's hazelnut kernels. Ha, ha, ha. That'd be yourself, Dip. You make clanky sounds every time you move in all that old armor. Vilu passed by the three young friends, hugging the shadows at the north end of Great Hall. When he reached the abbey door, he stood still a while. Song and her companions had their backs to him, but there was no sense in taking chances. Pulling a small flask of vegetable oil from his pouch, he dripped it onto the bolts and hinges, and then, ever cautious, he gave it another couple of moments, listening to the gossip and laughter of the three youngsters out of the hall center. The lock slid back smoothly, with scarce a sound or scrape. Velo held his breath as he swung the door slowly open to admit the two marl foxes, Askrod and Vannon, who had been waiting outside with the other rat, Dackle. Velo placed a paw on his lips, indicating the three youngsters who had been left to guard the abbey. Dackle nodded, but Askrod and Vannon were not paying any attention to Velo. Their eyes were riveted on the wondrous tapestry that graced the west wall. Friar Buddy inspected the ugly gashes that had slashed through Craig's paws when she had been grabbing sword and spear blades. He dabbed at them with a cloth that he was dipping in a water pail. Be still now, Marm, please. You'll have to stay here in the gatehouse a while yet. There's no question of moving you, I'm afraid. Nutwing spread a curtain across the mouse babe, Dwapple, who was still snoring in the armchair. Hmm, hmm. Been given lots of motherwort and a smidgen of valerian, I suspect. He'll probably sleep a good while. Hmm, nasty. It looks like our badger has lost an ear. Friar Buddy took a peek, drawing in his breath sharply. Great season, so she has. And will you look at this broken arrowhead sunk into her shoulder near the neck? Gracious me, Craigamarm, didn't it hurt you at the time? Spread out on the couch, the huge badger snorted wearily. I never felt a thing. In the old days, when I could see... They called me Craigor Rose Eyes, you know. My rage was so great in battle that nothing could stop me. I was possessed by a thing called the Blood Wrath, like most badger warriors. The friar shook his head worriedly. I'll have to go up to the abbey. Twill take Sister Slowey's herb satchel, sewing twine, and clean dressings to patch you up right. Now stay there and don't move. Nutwing ambled out of the gatehouse, muttering as he went. I'll go. Hmm, hmm. I can still flap these stiff old wings a bit. You stay here, buddy, in case any beast of ours comes knocking on the gate. I won't be long. The old owl hopped and flapped, sometimes touching the ground, other times with the grass tops brushing his talons. Faintly upon the night air he could hear the sound of conflict from over the outer wall at the southwest corner. Surprised to find the main abbey door half open, he shuffled in, blinking his eyes against the lantern and candlelights, and walked straight into the backs of Dackle and Belo. 
Still blinking, he called out, Hmm, um, who's there? Is that Melilot? Nutwing, look out, get away! At the sound of the owl's voice, Song had looked up. She saw the four vermin in plain view, creeping toward them. Askrod grabbed Nutwing. Using the flapping owl as a shield, he and his cohorts rushed the three young guards. Song was dashing towards the marl foxes, her greenstone stick raised. Dan and Dippler seized their spears and charged after her. Dippler's helmet fell over his eyes, and the monstrous halberd he was lugging slipped sideways. Both he and Dan tripped on the shaft and went sprawling on the floor. Song was almost upon the marl foxes, her eyes glinting with the light of battle. Askrod swung his double-headed axe, slaying Nutwing with a single blow. He pushed the owl's still-flapping body at Song, bringing her down. The young squirrel's scream of horror was cut short as the axe handle cracked down on her head. Vannon and the two rats were upon Dan and Dippler before they could rise. Vannon's axe crashed down on the young shrew's helmet, leaving a long dent in it. Dan struggled to get up, but both rats jumped on him, cracking his head back hard upon the floor stones. Askrod sped across to the tapestry and began pulling it from the wall. A hubbub came from somewhere below, and the marl foxes heard the sounds of red wallers on the wine cellar stairs. Bannon glanced about at the three fallen friends. What about these? Shall I finish them off? Askrod had pulled a chair across to the tapestry so he could reach the top hooks that held it to the wall. He snarled at his sister. Idiot, what concern are they to us? This is the most valuable thing we've come on in many a season. Help me with it. Bilu, get outside and open the small east wall gate. Dackle, lend a paw over here. Move, you fools. Those abbey beasts will be on our heels in a moment. Hurry. At the southwest corner, the fortunes of war had changed. Mogan fought his way back through his own ranks until he was close to the ditch. It was the Gwasim Shrews who had saved the day. Charging wildly in at the rear of their foe's left flank, they swept all before them. As the enemy turned to intercept the Gwasim attack, Skipper, Janglor, and Russell led a push away from the wall into the ranks of the water rats. Mokin was shouting now, realizing he had lost. Retreat! Get across the ditch onto the flatlands! Retreat! Russell went down with a spear in his side, but Jangler stood over him, swinging his loaded sling. Russell was half up when he cried out, Behind your mate, quick! Jangler spun like lightning, his whirling sling wrapping itself around the handle of the killing axe that the vixen Zyral was swinging at his head. He pulled sharply, dragging the short double-headed axe from her paws. Quick as a flash, the warrior squirrel caught the axe and swung at Zyral with all his might. That single blow finished the battle completely. The water rats who saw the beheaded Zyral lying on the path set up a wailing scream. A marl fox is slain! A marl fox is slain! In the blink of an eye, the remaining marl foxes and water rats had abandoned the fight, leaping over the ditch and dashing headlong across the flatlands. Florian Dougalwolf Wolfelchop waved his garden rake and started after the routed enemy, haranguing loudly, Villains! Fiends! Pollywoglin babe-snatchers! You shall feel our wrath. We will pursue you to the very cracks of doom. Come on, you chaps. Charge! Skipper grabbed Florian's frock coat tails and hauled him back. Leave it, matey. They still outnumber us two to one. Let him go. We got our own to tend back here. Victory over the foe beast had been won, but at a terrible price. The Noonvale Otter Boracle sat wounded, cradling Elikam's head in his lap, repeating over and over, my brother won't wake up. Wake up, Elikum, please. 
Rocktip took the slain otter gently from his grieving brother. He ain't going to wake up, friend Barnacle. Leave him to me. Jangler hauled Rustful upright and supported him. You all right, Cully? That's a spear you got growing out of your side. Rustful grasped and winced as Jangler removed the weapon. Never went in too deep. I'll live, mate. But that's more than I can say for some who weren't so lucky. Skipper stooped over Troglo's spearback, patting the cellar hog's face and talking gently to him. Trog, come on, old lad. Don't go sleep in there. We'll get you back home to a nice soft bed. Wake up now. The old hedgehog's eyes fluttered open, and he smiled weakly. Slingshot. Must have been a bit of metal. It's still stuck in my head. A heart-piercing cry came from out on the open ground to the south. Logga, 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 log. Our chieftain's down. Florian, who was helping Runktip to carry Alicum's body, looked around at the sound of the voice. What in the name of seasons is that? The Gwasim shrew man strode up, ashen-faced. Tis the Gwasim death cry. Logalog is slain. Bargal found him. Surprisingly enough, it was Florian who restored order and got things moving. Now there's been terrible battle done here this night, you know, chaps. But we must attend the living first. Right. Pick up the wounded and let's get them inside the abbey. When that's taken jolly good care of, I'll organize a party to return for our fallen comrades. Come on now, please. Can't sit about here weeping all night. What? Skipper shouldered Troglo's spear back, regardless of his spikes. Mr. Florian's right, mates. Come on, let's get inside. There'll be elders and young'uns waiting to hear whether we won or not. Emerging from the cloud shadow, a pale moon cast its soft radiance over the dusty path at Redwall's southwest corner, where so much had been won and lost that night. Thirteen. Song felt a cool, damp cloth bathing her brow as Grandma Alayo soothed away at the red-hot hammers of pain pounding inside her temples. From somewhere above she could hear her mother's worried voice calling her back to consciousness. Gradually her eyelids flickered open. She was lying on the floor of Great Hall, with her head resting on Rimrose's lap. Jangler hovered anxiously in the background, pacing to and fro. When she spoke, Song's voice came from far off, as if it belonged to some other creature. Ung, um, foxes, where are they? Nutwing? Jangler breathed a sigh of relief. He knelt by his daughter. My little song breeze, thank the seasons you got a head as hard as your old dad's. Groggily, Song allowed herself to be led to a chair. She sipped a potion which Sister slowly pressed upon her, gazing over the beaker rim at her two friends. Dippler's head was swathed in bandages, and poor Mulgubio was showing the dazed Gwasim Shrew a massive dent in the big helmet he had been wearing. Hur, hur, Meister, you have lucky young Emlet saved thee. Your head was like to have been sliced in two, poor I. Dippler touched his bandaged pate gingerly. Ooh! It feels like this here lump has another head growing atop my own. Aye, aye, Song. You awake at last? Where's Dan? The young squirrel was sitting hunched on the form, bent forward as Brother Melilot tended an ugly swelling at the back of his head. He winced silently as a compress was applied. The good brother finished binding the damp herbs and patted Dan. Pity tisn't winter. Ice would have worked well on that bump. But there you are, Dan, good as new. You'll live, young'un. Dan stood shakily and stared about, seemingly unable to remember. 
Phew, I feel terrible. What happened? Russell pushed aside two helpers who were dressing the wound in his side. Pulling himself upright on his javelin, the warrior squirrel glared contemptuously at his son. What happened? I'll tell you what happened. You were left to guard the abbey, and you let yourself get knocked silly by a couple of vermin. Nutwing was slain, aye, and the great red wall tapestry was stolen from the wall. That's what happened. Were you playing more games, solving puzzles, was it? No, twas cracking nuts, I see, by the shells all over the floor. Well, while you were doing that, the foe beast got in here, cracked your nut, murdered an abbey bird, and robbed the very symbol of Redwall. Called yourself a raguba? Ha! Huh. Quivering with rage, Russell snapped his javelin in two pieces and flung them from him, tears of anger glittering in his eyes. I wish that spear had gone right through and slain me, rather than stand here and see the raguba blood shamed by a son of mine. Coward! Turning his face from Dan, Russell limped off, out to the orchard to sit and brood while he tended his own injury. Brother Melilot put a paw about Dan, shaking his head in disgust at Russell's outburst. How could a creature say that about his own son? Dan tried to keep his face straight as tears poured unchecked down his cheeks. Jangler hurried across and threw a comforting paw around the young squirrel's shoulder. Shush now, Dan, mate. Your dad didn't mean it. You couldn't have done any more than you did, all three of you. The Gwasim Shrew man marched in and threw a salute to Bargle, who was acting as temporary logalog. They left by the east wall gate, chief. I made sure it was all locked and secure. Ahoy there, Dip. Still alive, eh, mate? Dippler smiled sheepishly and held up his battered headgear. Aye, but they killed this helmet. Was there any sign of a man? The shrew poured himself a beaker of October ale and blew off the froth before drinking. No, not a hair. They're long gone. All's quiet out there now, except for Mr. Florian and the others. They're putting our lost ones to rest altogether, just by the southwest wall corner inside the abbey grounds. Tis a sad business, mates, very sad. Dippler looked away, scrubbing at his eyes with a spare bandage. Ah, oh, poor Nutwing. If only we'd been faster. You mustn't blame yourself, said Man. Three young ones against that evil scum? You didn't stand a chance. And you've heard that Logalog is gone? The Logalog was like a father to me. That old shrew will live forever in my memory. Wish I could get me paws on the vermin who slayed him. I'd make the scum pay, matey. Bargle looked up, surprised that Dippler did not know the truth. Twarn't no vermin that killed Logalog. He never made it as far as the battle dip. The scum that murdered him was Fenno. We found that in his rapier buried in the chief's back. Despite his injury, the young shrew's teeth ground together hard. Fenno, that big bully, where is he? Bargle accepted the beaker from Mayon and took a swig. No beast knows. Fenno ran off like the slime that he is. Dippler drew his rapier and licked the blade as a true Gwasim warrior does before making a solemn oath. Then I'll find Fenno someday, and when I do, this blade will be wetted with something else. My name is Dippler, and my word is as true as my sword. Gerbil Sellermole came bustling down from the dormitories, shaking her head as she counted off bed spaces for the wounded on both paws. You young uns, Danflo, Dippler, and Miss Songer, you am all in Mom Craig's room, while she am a laying in a gatehouse. Though dearie oi, I don't know how she's going to go on when she yours about poor Nutwing. Song's mother took charge. Right. 
Come on, you three, upstairs with you, and rest those heads. Jangler took a stroll out to the orchard, where he seated himself beneath a pear tree next to Russell. So, me old mate, you reckon your son shamed the name Raguba? Russell stared straight ahead into the moon-shadowed stillness. Well, what do you think? Reaching out, Jangler plucked a pear and rubbed it on his jerkin. For what is worth, I think you're a great warrior, strong in paw and brave in war. We carved a few paths in our younger seasons, you and me. We're still good pals and always will be. But let me say this to you, Russville Raguba. I never knew you was a foolish beast until tonight. Our young'uns are the hope of the future. They need to be helped, not humiliated. It took no bravery to call Dan a coward. He loves you too much to answer back. So all you did was to bring shame on yourself, by the way you talk to Dan. No, don't answer or argue. Just think about it, matey. And that's the advice of a friend. Without further comment, Jangler Swift-Eye rose and walked off, leaving Russell to wrestle with the problems of his own stubbornness. The three friends lay on Craig of Badger Mom's big sofa. All three felt terrible about Nutwing. Dan felt it most. It was clear his father's onslaught had hurt him deeply. They sat a while in silence, heads still throbbing, unable to sleep. Dan's eyes wandered to the sword of Martin the warrior, hanging upon the wall. And suddenly he sat bolt upright. Yes, now I remember. Dippler cringed, putting paws to his ears. Well, you don't have to shout about it, mate. What do you remember? Dan got up and went to the sword, as if drawn to it by a magnet. When I was knocked senseless, he spoke to me, Martin the warrior. Song was curious. She watched Dan attentively. Well, don't stand there gawping at the sword. Tell us, what did he say to you? Dan automatically spoke the words triggered by the sight of the marvelous blade that Martin had once wielded. Four chieftains going forth to bring back Redwall's heart. Vengeance, honor, friendship, each will play their part. The flower bears my blade, and Greenstick, warrior's daughter, join with the short-sword-bearer, and one who lives by water. Before the herald lark, ere night's last teardrop falls, with none to bid you fond farewell, go, leave these old red walls. Dippler stared at his two friends. Sounds great, but what does it mean? Song shook her head in despair at the young shrew. Honestly, Dip, you're the blinking limit. It means we three are going to go out there and bring back the tapestry. Dippler thought about this a moment. But we're not four chieftains. The pretty squirrel maid shrugged. Well, I can't help that. If Martin has spoken, we must obey. Though you're right, Dip. There are one or two things about the verse that puzzle me. For instance, Dan said... The flower bears my blade. Who in the name of acorns is the flower? Well, don't go shouting it all around the abbey. But it's me. Song stifled a giggle at Dan's reluctant confession. You? I never knew you were called flower. Dan looked defiant. Twas my mother's idea. Dad wanted me named Dan Blood, said it was a proper warrior's name. But Mom wouldn't hear of it. She insisted I be called Dan Flower. So that's my real name. But Dad and me shortened it to Danflor after my mother died. Well, Song, you carry the green stick, and you're a warrior's daughter. Dip, you got the rapier, that's a short sword, so that's the three of us. 
even though we ain't chieftains. Who the fourth is? The one who lives by water, huh? Who knows? But as plain we three must go. Dippler brightened up as the poem's meaning began to sink in. Aye, Redwall's heart is the tapestry. I understand now, mates. We've got to leave the abbey before dawn. Song interrupted the young Wassum excitedly. Of course. Listen, here's the first few lines from an old song, one of the first I ever learned called Daybreak. Before the herald lark, ere night's last teardrop falls, like dewdrop from a rose, the rising minstrel calls. That's the first bit. Oh, dear. I wonder why we've got to go with none to bid us farewell. Dan snorted mirthlessly at his friend's innocence. Tis obvious. Cause they'd stop us, that's why. Huh. Imagine my father. He'd say we were off to play some silly games. Then there's your mom and dad and Grandma Alayo. You think they'd be pleased to see you wandering off into a woodland full of water rats, marl foxes, and who knows what else? Song nodded ruefully. They'd stop us for sure. Dan reached up carefully and took down the sword from its pins on the wall. Martin the warrior's weapon felt like wildfire in his paws. He held the black-bound crypt with its red pommel stone and cross-tree hilt, feeling the perfect balance of the lethally sharp blade. Double-edged, strangely chased and patterned down to the perilous tip, keen as an icicle honed by midwinter gales. Song and Dippler touched their paws to the sword as Dan's voice sounded firm and resolute. We bring the tapestry back to Redwall Abbey. Dippler looked from one to the other. And if I can, I'll avenge my chieftain Logalog. Song smiled at them both. I go with you because you are my friends. Dan picked up a broad old belt from the shelf and fastened it across one shoulder to his waist belt. He thrust the sword through the broad belt so that it was flat across his back, the hilt showing above his other shoulder. Well, what are we waiting for, mates? T'will be dawn soon. Come on. Act Two. Four Chieftains Going Forth. Fourteen. Camouflaged by the morning sun-tinged leaves of a horse chestnut tree, the Marl Fox Moken sat in a fork amid the high branches, watching the scene below on the stream bank, listening carefully to all that was said. He was cunning and highly intelligent, always cautious to know which way the wind was blowing among his brothers and sisters. Accordingly, Moken had made it back to the camp shortly after dawn, and finding that he was first to return, he hid in the tree and watched the reactions as the rest filtered back to the camp in small groups. First to arrive were Askrod and Bannon, with the rats Dackle and Bilu. They draped the tapestry over some bushes, prepared a scratch meal, and sat back to gloat over their plunder. Predak the vixen came next, heading a group of rats, followed by her brother, Jeltor, at the head of a second band. Cooking fires were lit, and some prepared food, while others tended their wounds. By the time the sun was fully up, the final few had returned. Askrod and Vanon, with their two rats, were the stars of the day, proudly showing off the wondrous tapestry. How's that for a nice bit of thieving, eh? Aye, we were right inside that abbey for a good while. Wounded three, killed one, and trotted off with this beauty. Pity we never had time for a proper look around. I reckon Redwall's stuffed with treasures. They're not so tough. I slew a big owl, stupid creature. Huh, the three we laid out are probably dead by now, too. I whacked a shrew wearing armor so hard that my axe paw still tingles. Askrod stood over Jeltor, smiling whimsically. So... How did the attack go? Not too well by the look of you lot. 
Jeltor flexed his shoulder to get the movement back in it. Grim-faced, he spat viciously into the fire. Alag, what's the head count? Farther down the stream bank, the water rat called back to Jeltor. 173, sire. I'm just numbering the wounded. Jeltor lay back, watching the blue-gray campfire smoke wreathing among the shafts of sunlight between the trees. That's nearly a score of rats lost. Then there was Zyro, too. Bannon tossed aside her food and stood upright. What? You mean our sister Zyro was slain? Oh, she was slain, sure enough. I saw her head lying on the ground. The one who did it was a big squirrel. Looked as if he was half asleep. Janglor, they called him. I'll remember that one's name. Asgard stroked the tasseled tapestry border thoughtfully. A Marl Fox slain. High Queen Sylph won't be well pleased to hear that. What about our glorious leader, Mokan, and his grand plan? Jeltor kicked a branch hanging from the fire, sending sparks showering as the dead pine crackled. Mokan, don't talk to me about him. He left it too late for a quick ambush, wanted to stand round chatting with the Red Wallers. It was them who attacked us. There's no doubt about it. They got some fierce warriors, and they were quick, too. For a while there, we thought we had them. They were outnumbered. But then we were hit from behind by gangs of those Gwasom shrews. Don't know where they came from. That was when we lost the advantage. Next thing, Mokin's yelling for every beast to retreat. And we had to run for it, like a ragtailed bunch of amateurs. I'm not surprised Mokin hasn't shown his face around camp yet. Bungler. As Joltor finished speaking, Mokin hobbled into camp, bent almost double and limping badly, his face creased with pain. He held up a paw for silence before any creature could speak further. All right, all right, was all my fault. I messed it up by taking those red wallers for fools, which they weren't. But hear me. You all fought a gallant fight. I couldn't ask for braver beasts in my command, particularly you, Brother Jeltor, and you, Sister Predak. Here he paused for effect, shaking his head sadly. And our dear Sister Zyro, so treacherously slain after I had called retreat. How can I go back to our mother Queen Silt and tell her that poor Zyro is with us no more? Jeltor, you were right, brother. I should have listened to you. The Marl Foxes were slightly bewildered. Mokin had never spoken like this before, but had always been arrogant and imperious. Bannon tapped the handle of her axe against the tapestry. It wasn't a total loss. Look what we took from the abbey. Mokin had been looking at the thing for over an hour from the tree limb, but he put on an expression of awed astonishment and approached the object reverently. You stole this? Wondrous, beautiful. It must be beyond price. Well, congratulations to you. Our mother will be overjoyed to see such a splendid and magnificent prize. At least poor Zyral didn't give her life in vain. But remember what she said here only a day ago. Blood calls for blood. It is the code of Marlfoxes, our law. Redwall and its creatures must pay dearly for our sister. Jeltor drew his axe and brandished it in Mokin's face. Like I said at first, we should have gone to war. Mokin sat down by the fire with agonizing slowness, biting his lip. Aye, brother, you were right. I was the fool. Now I am sorely wounded and unfit to lead. Leave a few good rats here with me so that we may guard your plunder. I need rest. I may never walk again with these injuries. Split our forces up between the four of you and take vengeance upon those red wall scum. 
Go quickly before they become confident and begin combing the woodlands for our blood. Surround Redwall Abbey. Kill them one by one with the cunning that is the pawmark of a marl fox. Snipe at them. Starve them by keeping them penned up inside their abbey. Make them prisoners inside their own home. Jeltor's eyes lit up, fired by plans of conquest. We'll besiege them until they crawl out begging to be spared. Then I'll execute the one that wounded me, and we'll take revenge on the squirrel Janglor for Zyril's death. Those whom we spare can be dragged back to our island in chains to serve us. Mokan clasped his brother's paw with feigned fervor. Ah, ever the wise warrior, Jeltor. But you must hurry and set up your siege while they are unaware of your brilliant plan. Within a short time the army was ready to march again, each of the Marlfoxes commanding two score water rats apiece, while Mokan stayed behind to recover and protect the tapestry with a guard comprising the thirteen remaining rats. Mokan lay back as if he had fainted away listening keenly to Vannon, murmuring instructions to the water-rat Bilu. I leave you here to guard our prize with your life. If Mokin recovers and tries anything odd, you must hide the tapestry and make your way to Redwall, where you will report to me only. As the army marched out of camp, Mokin turned on his side, chuckling under his breath. Never trust a vixen. It was close to noontide when Song called a halt at a shady glade in the moss-flowered depths. This looks like a good spot for our lunch. There's some fat, juicy berries on those blackberry brambles round the dead oak. Dippler unshouldered the pack he had loaded from the kitchens. Lunch? What happened to breakfast, miss? And just one other thing. When did we sleep? Last time I closed my lids was when I was knocked unconscious. We missed a full night's shut-eye, you know. Song threw her haversack down and began picking blackberries. Oh, give your little face a rest, Dip. Stop moaning. Dan took off his sword and food pack and sat down gratefully. Dip's not moaning, Song. He's arguing. Gwasim shrews aren't happy unless they've got something to argue about, right, Dip? The young shrew opened his haversack, fishing out three of Brother Melalot's new-baked scones and a slab of cheese, which he cut into three pieces with his rapier. I'm not arguing or moaning. It's called debating. That's how us Gwasim get to be so wise, by debating. Song aimed a berry at him, but Dippler ducked it. You greedy little hog. I notice you've given yourself the biggest slice of cheese and the largest scone. Dippler grinned, popping the blackberries Song had thrown into his mouth. But I need extra vittles, so I can grow big and strong and stronger, like you two. If I gave you the big bits, then you'd both grow bigger and stronger, and I'd be little and thin. Song prodded his small round stomach as she passed. Thin, huh? You're about as thin as a hedgehog who's been locked in a larder for two seasons. Dan opened a flask of pennycloud cordial. Will you two pack in debating and let me have lunch in peace? Song watched Dippler split open his scone. He packed the inside with blackberries closed it, and bit into the whole thing so enthusiastically that juice squirted out from either side. Dan flicked drops of it from his nose. You greedy savage! You'll never grow any taller, just rounder and fatter. Don't you Blossom have any table manners? Dippler shrugged as he crammed cheese into his mouth. Mm-mm. Of course we don't, cause Blossom never used tables. How'd you get a table on a log boat? We got shrew manners, though. Song wiped her lips daintily on a dock leaf. And what, pray, are shrew manners? 
Dippler glugged down cordial to clear his voice. Simple. Tis one of the first things a shrew babe learns. Listen. If you eat too much, you'll sink the boat, burst your boots, and split your coat. Just scoff enough so you stay afloat. Tis manners, good manners. If you pinch the vittles from another's plate, wait till he's looking the other way, mate. And when fish are biting, don't eat the bait. Tis manners, good manners. If you're a shrew of the Gwasim clan, you must be sure to think of a plan to share your matey's puddin' or flan. Tis manners, good manners. Remember to chew everything in sight. If it don't bite back, then get first bite. And always take a basin full to bed each night. Tis manners, good manners. Song was chuckling so hard she nearly choked on a bite of scone. Dan sent Dipper sprawling with a playful shove. Away, you rogue! Your mother never taught you that lot. Dippler stole a piece of Song's cheese as he patted her back to restore her breath. He winked cheekily at Dan. I don't dispute that, mate. I made it up myself. Shh! What's that? Get down. At Dan's urgent whisper, the three friends dropped down behind the fallen oak trunk. There they stayed, silent and motionless, for several moments, after which Song stood up slowly. What was it you heard, Dan? The young squirrel rose, turning his head this way and that, as he tried to pick up a trace of the sound he had heard. I don't know. I heard something, but tis gone now. Not much farther out from where the three were sitting, Jeltor, Predak, Askrod, and Vanon passed with the army of water rats, traveling in the opposite direction, toward Redwall Abbey, to begin their assault. Dippler finished up the remains of any food his friends had not eaten. Dan shouldered his pack and sword, weighing up the woodland surrounding them. Which way now, Song? The young squirrel maid walked to the east end of the glade where they had camped. Using the knowledge her father had passed on during their wanderings, she cast about carefully. This way, I think. The ferns have been disturbed. See? One or two are broken. Grass looks flattened, too. Ha! Look at this! Hanging from a broken hornbeam spur was a strand of red thread. Dippler and Dan studied it as Song voiced her thoughts. That's from the tapestry. At a guess I'd say it was being carried shoulder-high by two or more creatures. See here amid the grass? One of them stumbled on this blackberry creeper and narrowly missed walking into the hornbeam tree. But the heavy roll of tapestry they were carrying snagged on that broken branch. They've gone this way. Dippler wrapped the thread around his paw. Stupid vermin! They're leaving a trail a blind moth could follow. Dan pressed forward, calling back to the shrew. Marl foxes aren't stupid, Dip. You must remember that they were running with a weighty object. It was still dark, and maybe they thought redwallers might give chase. Stands to reason they'd want to put as much space between themselves and the abbey as possible. Dippler pushed the bushes aside roughly. Murdering thieves. They won't get away from me, matey. Song cautioned her friends. I suggest from now on that we keep our voices down... Don't talk unless it is necessary, and tread quietly. Best not leave a trail. Goodness knows who might follow it. The vast woodland was unusually still and silent, even the sporadic bird song sounding as if it came from far away. Moving quietly eastward through the dense undergrowth, Song and her companions became cautious, realizing that behind the beauty of stately trees and summer-flowering bushes, danger might lurk in the shape of the foe-beast. At Redwall Abbey, a brief ceremony had been held over the resting place within the southwest wall corner. Four shrews, Elicum the Noonvale Otter, 
Nutwing and Logalog were honored with small gifts, flowers, and verses. Friar Butty sighed heavily, wiping his eyes on a spotted kerchief as they walked back to the abbey, where Deesom and Brother Melalot were preparing lunch. Skipper spoke loud enough for all to hear. When we get time, there'll be a good stone marker carved for our poor mates back there, so they'll never be forgot by Redwallers. But for now, messmates, let's get back to the business of living and surviving. Jangler, Boracle, Mr. Florian, and myself will move Craig of Badgermum out of the gatehouse and up to her room. Bargle, will you and your guassum guide the walls? Arm yourselves with slings and bows and arrows. Runk tip, stow yourself in the bell tower, and if the shrews tip you the signal that vermin are about, be ready to toll the alarm bells. Roop and muggle, will you be kind enough to help Gubio Formole and Sister Slowey check on the wounded? Slowey fussed with her apron distractedly. Oh, dear, what with looking after the dibbons and getting things tidy, I almost forgot about our injured ones. Still, a good quiet rest's what they need most. We'll take them up some lunch, soon as tis ready. A few minutes later, Florian entered the gatehouse and swept off his big floppy hat with a double flourish at the wounded badger. The friends were determined to cheer Craiga and not let her dwell on her sadness or her injury. Ahem, ma'am. "'Tis only my good self, Wilfachop, come to inform you that your carriage waits without. Craiga turned her face in his direction. She was not in the best of moods after an uncomfortable night. "'I know tis you, Hare, and stop waving that hat about. You'll disturb the dust and have me sneezing. Now, what's all this about a carriage outside? Do you think I'm a helpless dibbon?' Janglor nudged Skipper gleefully as he popped his head around the door. He announced in a loud, officious voice, as if talking to no beast in particular, "'One actor's cart waiting to transport a wounded abbey beast. Er, is there a passenger in here?' The big badger struggled upright from the couch, grabbing a broken spear shaft, which she waved threateningly. "'Just let any beast try to get me into a rickety actor's cart, and I'll give them a headache they won't get over for ten seasons.' Changlor clapped a paw to his mouth to stifle laughter, while Skipper called out in a voice dripping with sincerity, "'Oh, Mom, how can you say such things? All's we're thinking of is your health. After you've had a nice ride in the cart, we'll carry you up to your room and let Sister Slowey feed you on a nourishing lunch of herb broth and elderflower water.' That was enough for Craig. A deep rumble of anger burst forth from the mighty badger. Grabbing Florian and lifting him as if he were a babe, she stumped resolutely out of the gatehouse, with the helpless hair protesting volubly. "'I say, Marm, bad form. Put me down, what? Don't stand there grinning like ticks at a tea-party, you chaps. Help me!' Craiga almost walked straight into the cart, which was drawn up just outside the gatehouse door. Feeling its contours with her paw, she dumped Florian unceremoniously into the seat and gave the cart a mighty shove. It flew off across the lawn, with the hare still yelling. "'Most uncharitable of you, Marm! I'll make a note of this peevish behavior. You can jolly well bet I will. Ouch! Help!' His pleas went unheard, as Craiga raised a threatening paw at the other helpers. "'If you've got any sense, you'll stay clear of me. I'll walk back to the Abbey alone. Oh, and you can tell Slowey if she wants to see another season, she'd better not mention herb broth and elderflower water while I'm around.' I need proper food, and the comfort of my own room for a day or two. Skipper fled past her, tugging Jangler with him. Put a move on, matey. 
Dan and Dippler and your song have taken over Craig and Marm's room, so we'd better get there afore she does and shift those young'uns out sharpish-like. Baby Dwopple was wide awake, and none the worse after his ordeal. He elbowed his way in between Blenny, the mole-babe, and Florian at the dining-table for lunch. Where are Vickles? I starvin'. The hare rescued his summer salad and apple pie, scowling at Dwopple. Have a care there, young wretchlet. I need all the nourishment I can lay me flippin' paws on. Recover him from a nasty cart accident, you know. I say, is that beechnut sponge I see? Chuck it this way, William, a good mole, what? I needs feedin' too. I escaped. I fighted off those bad beasts. I frighted Mr. Stickaby. Craiga felt her way up the stairwell and gave the unlatched door of her room a light push. As it swung open, the badger entered, feeling about with outstretched paws. Some beast's there. Come on, who is it? Jangler's reply was tinged with foreboding. Only me and Skipper, ma'am. But I ain't certain what's going on. Craiga lowered herself into her favorite armchair as he continued. Last night my song was put in here with young Dan and the shrew Dippler. You heard about what happened to them. They was injured. But they ain't here no more, and Skipper says that Martin's sword is missing from the wall yonder. The badger mused over this information for a moment before replying. Hmm, it sounds a bit strange, but let's not dash into anything. They must be about somewhere, probably still within the abbey. Jangler was not convinced. But what if they ain't? The door behind them began creaking slowly shut before a slight draft. Skipper pointed to it. There's some marking scratched on that door. Jangler inspected it closely, telling Craiga what he could see. Fairly fresh scratches, ma'am, done quick-like with a sharp point. Tis only four letters, G and T and G and T. Skipper opened the door. I'll go down and see if they're at lunch, or they might be in the orchard. You two try and figure those letters out. End of Side 3 To continue, turn the cassette over. Side 4, Marl Fox, by Brian Jakes. Continuing on page 153. Craig rose from her armchair. Wait! Crossing to the door, she pressed her muzzle gently against the scratches, sniffing, as she moved over the markings. G, T, G, T. I've a feeling those marks were made hastily by the last one to leave this room, carrying Martin's sword. He or she scratched them. G-T, G-T. Janglor nodded as the solution dawned on him. Aye, that'd be young Dan trying to prove himself after Russell shouted at him last night, and the other two have gone with him. We'd better get searchers out, Skip. Find them, and get them back inside this abbey before anything bad happens to Song and her pals. I just figured it out. Those four letters mean 
Gone to get tapestry. Skipper stared at the letters. Of course, that's what they've done. Taken Martin the Warrior's sword and gone to get our tapestry back. Only beasts with not many seasons under their belts would try a thing like that. Young, brave, and foolhardy. Wish my otters was here. We'd get them back before you could blink. Trouble is that I think my tribes left the falls and gone north on the stream down to the seaside. Lots of good vittles there during summer. Janglor untied the sling from his waist. Can't stand here jawing all day. They might be in danger. Come on. Bong, boom, bong, boom, bong. Skipper dashed past Jangler down the stairs. Go beasts at the gate. Fifteen. By mid-noon, Moken seemed well on the road to recovery. He had sat up after a long nap and eaten food. The water rats did not stray far from the camp, but sat awaiting his orders. Moken made a great pretense of trying to stand, but sank back down again, grimacing. He beckoned to the rat Bilu. You're a good strong beast. Help me up and walk along the stream bank with me, while I get these paws working properly again. Bilu helped the marl fox to stand upright, and Moken leaned heavily on him, smiling his satisfaction. Ah, that's better. Let's try a short stroll downstream, shall we? Silently, the water rat obeyed, trying hard not to stumble as he guided his charge along the bank, close to the water. It was not long before they were out of sight of the others. From behind the trunk of a crack willow, Fenno the shrew watched them. Weary, hungry, and red-eyed from lack of sleep, he had blundered round moss-flower until he was hopelessly lost. The shrew groveled down in the earth at the base of the willow and tried to meld himself with the tree, not knowing what to make of the incident that followed. He saw the paw that Moken had about Bilu suddenly lock around the rat's neck and tighten. Moken spoke gently, soothingly, as he slowly throttled the life from his victim. Will you tell my sister Vannon now, rat? This is the last lesson you'll ever learn. Never try to outsmart a marl fox. Bilu's paws kicked wildly. Then his struggles lessened until he finally went limp. Moken hurled him into the stream and stood watching the rat's carcass being swept away. He chuckled. Never learned how to swim, eh? Typical water rat. They're not much use at learning anything. Fenno drew in his breath sharply with fear. The marl fox melted back into the trees and was gone. The shrew scrambled out of his hiding place and threw himself flat on the bank. Thrusting his head into the stream, he drank, sucking in water greedily. Then, to his horror... A strong paw pressed itself down hard on the back of his neck. Fenno tried to lift his head clear of the water, but he could not. His limbs thrashed about helplessly as water rushed into his ears and eyes and up his nostrils. Just before he blacked out, he was dragged clear of the stream and smashed up against the trunk of the willow. Fenno found himself staring into the pale, ruthless eyes of Moken. Where are the rest of your tribe? Fenno shook his head as he coughed up water in stream-bed sand. Garg! I don't know! Quach! Believe me, I don't know. Moken's double-bladed axe pressed none too lightly between the gagging shrew's eyes. Oh, I believe you. Only a complete fool would dare lie to Moken. Now listen carefully to my next question. Your life depends on the answer. Are you good at steering and guiding a log boat? Not daring to nod with the axe so close, Fenno managed to gasp out, Hi, chief, I'm good at it. Moken's paw was like a clawed vice. It dug savagely into the back of Fenno's neck as he was propelled forward. Good. I have work for you. 
The twelve remaining water rats rose to attention as Mokin strode into camp, apparently fully recovered and thrusting a terrified shrew before him. He nodded to a rat. Keep your spear on this shrew. If he moves, gut him. The rest of you, take your weapons to those log boats. But save the stoutest one. Here, shrew, which is the best of these craft? Thinno scrabbled across and laid his paw on a boat without hesitation. Listen, chief, t'was Logalog's boat. Belonged to a Gwasim leader. The Marl Fox inspected the fine craft, nodding his approval. I'll keep this one. You rats, chop the rest to splinters. Swords, spears, and daggers hacked and slashed at the other five vessels. Vulcan took a braided thong and noosed it about the neck of Fenno, locking off the knot so it could not be removed quickly. He dragged the bewildered and trembling shrew down to the boat he had chosen, bidding him sit in the stern. The Marlfox prized a towing staple from one of the wrecked log boats, knotted the thong end to the staple, and drove it into the thick beechwood stern until the curve was embedded level with the wood. Fenno sat with his neck pulled to one side by the short thong. Moken smiled. If the boat sinks, then so do you. Right, rats. Gather up all the supplies and stow that tapestry carefully amidships. High Queen Silt will be happy to see us when we bring Redwall's treasure to her. Dan went first along the trail, leading his friends in the direction of the noise. Sounds like an army of woodpeckers having a mid-season feast, Dippler panted as he ran. Song wielded her greenstone-tipped stick. Hardly likely, Dip. Slow down, Dan. We don't want to rush into the middle of something we can't back out of. Dan slowed until they were traveling abreast. It stopped. Listen, is that a stream I can hear? They skirted the wide pool formed by the end of the inlet. Stooping low and taking advantage of the bush cover, the three friends pressed forward along the deserted stream bank. Dippler saw the wreckage of his tribe's log boats first. With a sob of dismay, he threw himself down by the shattered prow of the first one. Waterfly! "'Tis me old boat. I paddled that in many a long day. What filthy villain would wreck a good craft like her? Song had run ahead to where the main broad stream flowed. She called back to Dippler and Dan. "'Hurry, come and see this.' They both dashed up in time to see the surviving log boat speeding out of sight around a distant bend on the fast-flowing current. "'A marlfox and some other beasts, with one bent over in the stern. I'll wager the tapestries aboard that boat.' Dippler scrambled up a pine tree as far as he could climb. Clinging on with one paw, shading his eyes with the other, he watched until the vessel was lost to sight. Climbing back down, the Gwasim Shrew stamped his paws angrily. We just missed the scum. Guess who the other beast was. I'd know that stinking bully anywhere. It was Fenno. The one that murdered Logalog? Dippler slashed the air with his rapier. Aye, the very one. Dan undid his sword and pack and flung them down moodily. Not much we can do about it now, mates. They've wrecked the other boats and left us stranded here. Besides, who knows where they're bound? They could be sailing anywhere. Song drew Friar Buddy's parchment from her tunic. That's where you're wrong, Dan. I'll wager an acorn to an oak. They're away to the island in the Lost Lake. We can, too. I've got the route right here. Listen. At the rear of Redstone Wall, find me oar where breaks the day. You cannot, shall not walk at all. Just follow as I run away. Dippler shrugged and sat beside Dan on the bank. You've lost me again, Song. You'll have to explain. 
Song translated the lines she had read. The rear of the red stone wall is the back of the abbey, where we left from. Now, we traveled east through Mossflower, and day breaks in the east, so we found it, the river. Obviously, we cannot walk on water, and the last line tells us to follow whichever way the water runs. That's the way Fenno and the Marl Fox have gone, don't you see? Dan jabbed his sword point into the shallows. Of course I see. But how do we do that, Song, eh? The Marl Fox wasn't stupid. He smashed the other boats to pieces so no beast could follow him. Because, like I said, we're stranded. Song glanced hopefully at Dippler. No way we could knock up a boat from the bits of broken ones, Dip? You know about boat building. The young shrew shook his head mournfully. All you can make of that lot now is a good fire. It'd take me days and days to make the roughest old boat, and that's always providing we could find the right log and drag it down to the waterside here. No, we're stranded, matey. Song looked amazed at her disheartened friends. Ha! Huh. So you give it all up, just like that. Well, not me. I can follow a riverbank whichever way it flows. She dashed off down the water's edge, shouting, I'm not letting them get away from me. Oh, no! After a moment, the young squirrel maid chanced a backward glance. There were Dan and Dippler running after her. Wait for us, mate, wait for us! Jeltor stood on the flatlands outside Redwall Abbey, out of range of arrows or missiles. Skipper jumped up onto the battlemented threshold top above the gatehouse and called out to the figure on the sun-shimmered plain, Well, what is it today, Snipe Nose? What are you after? Jeltor had to cut both paws around his mouth to be heard. Blood for blood! The one you call Jangler killed a Marl Fox. Give him to us, and after that we'll talk. Skipper scratched his tail in amazement and winked at Jangler. Ho, ho! Hear that, matey? They want yer. The warrior squirrel's heavily lidded eyes flickered but once. Grabbing the otter's javelin, Jangler leapt on the battlement top above Skipper and threw out a challenge to the Marl Fox. Are you the beast who wants to meet me? Stay right there, Patchbottom. I'll come down and sort it out with you, just me and you. Jumping from the wall, he made for the wall stairs, only to be stopped by Brother Melalot. I know tis hard for a warrior to resist a challenge, Janglor, but only a fool rushes into an ambush. You'd be slain as soon as you stepped outside our gates. Let Skipper do the talking. Rusful Raguba patted Jangler's back. He's right, mate. Skipper called out to Jeltor. Sorry, mate, you can't have old Janglor. We need him at Redwall to slay any more Marl foxes who come calling. So what now? Jeltor pointed dramatically, letting his paw sweep the walls. So now you must all die as a penalty for the death of a Marl fox. As Jeltor let his paw fall, there was a brief pause, followed by a loud whirring noise. Skipper flung himself down onto the parapet. Lay low, tis archers. A flight of arrows, like angry wasps, buzzed viciously over from all points, most of their shafts thudding into the lawn inside the abbey walls. Jeltor waved his axe aloft. Now tis war. Your abbey is surrounded, and we will stay here for as long as it takes to slay you all or make you surrender. Skipper reappeared on the wall, holding an arrow. The otter chieftain's face was a fearsome sight to see. He snapped the arrow contemptuously, tossing the pieces down onto the path. Hearken, fox! You want war? Then by the thunder you'll get it. Red wallers are peace-loving creatures until they're attacked. Start digging your graves now, cause we ain't going to dig them for ye. 
Bargle detailed his guasum back to their wall guard, then followed Skipper and the others down to the gatehouse. Rimrose and Elayo were waiting for them. Did they mention our daughter or her friends? Song's mother inquired anxiously. The lazy-lidded eyes smiled comfortingly at her. No, my pretty one, of course they didn't. They don't even know Song and her pals are away from the abbey. Now, they would have used him to try and draw us out. Ain't that right, Skip? Correct, mate. Those youngins have got the sense not to get themselves captured. They know what they're doing. Rustful went out. Sitting on the wall steps, he buried his head into his paws. Alayo came and sat by him. No good fretting, Rustful or Aguba. You can't do nothing about your son now. We're stuck in here, for better or worse, surrounded. The squirrel warrior wiped a paw across his eyes. "'Twas me drove Dan to it. Do you think he'll ever forgive me for the things I said to him? Alayo took Rusville's paw and squeezed it. "'Course he will. Dan's a good young creature, like our song. He ain't stubborn and unmoving like his father. But it takes all kinds, friend. And what we're going to need in the days that lie ahead are warriors, stubborn, unmoving warriors, like yourself.' For the first time since the Battle of the Southwest Corner, Rusville smiled. He stood up and bowed courteously to the old squirrel. I thank you for those kind words, Marm. When there's fighting to be done, and warriors need to stand firm, you'll find me the most stubborn and unmoving of all. Tis just the way I am. Because of the danger from further volleys of arrows, Skipper requested that any beast not on wall guard stay inside the abbey. Florian decided that the time need not be wasted. If the Red Wallers were to defend themselves from outside attack, they needed drill and weapon training. Knowing nothing whatsoever about either matter, the hare made it all up as he went along. Armed with a motley selection of ladles, window poles, brooms, and any domestic item that came to paw, elders and dibbons were lined up in Great Hall, together with the Noonvale troop, and Florian swaggered about in what he imagined was true parade-ground manner. Right-ho, troops. Let's see if we can't knock you into shape, what? Form yourselves up in four ranks here. Jump to it now. Brother Melanot and Diggum Cellarmole were edging away when the hare challenged them. I say, you two chaps, where do you think you're jolly well off to? Back in line this very instant. Melanot put down the feather duster he had been shouldering. Excuse us, but you'll have to let us go. That's if you want dinner tonight. We're on kitchen duty. Florian waved them away hastily. Oh, right you are. Can't have starving troops. What, what? Sister Sloe and Gerbold grounded dustpan and window pole. Sorry, afraid we've got to tend to the wounded in the infirmary. Florian blew a sigh of frustration. Off your pop, then, you two. Excuse drill. You there, Dwapple. I said form four blinking ranks, not five. Come up front here, sir, where I can keep my beady eye on you. Saluting furiously, the mouse babe charged up front, dragging behind him a long-handled oven paddle which cracked against footpaws and tripped all who came in contact with it, causing widespread chaos. Youch! Go easy with that paddle, you wretch! Oof! And you watch that ladle near him put me eye out! Ach! Me footpaw! Get away, you villain! Florian grabbed the paddle and tried to wrestle it away from the mouse babe, who was quite proud of his weapon and not prepared to give it up without a struggle. As he fought for possession of the paddle, the hare kept shouting orders. Steady in the ranks there. Stand up straight, you chaps. Pick up those weapons. No squabbling at the back. That's an order. Where in the name of seasons are you three going, eh? Her usin's got to set e tables for victuals, sir. Oh, quite. 
Give me that paddle before you lay every beast low, you fiend. You lure a paddle, go, Mr. Flory. It mine. Mutiny, is it? I'll have you locked up in the vegetable cupboard. Mr. Florian, how can you shout so heartlessly at a tender babe after all he's been through? Fie and shame on you, sir. These are marm. Don't interfere, or you'll be locked up with the blighter. Stand fast there, you lot. I haven't told you to move. Dormitory duty. Beds won't make themselves, you know. Dishwashing. Brother Melalot needs clean pots and pans. Ale and cordials to be brought up from the wine cellar. Candles and lamps need attending before evening. Dropping their makeshift weapons, Redwallers scurried off, left, right, and center. Florian managed to drag the paddle from Dwoffle, who threw himself on the floor, kicking all four paws and howling inconsolably at the loss of his beloved weapon. Waha! Rotten old rabbit, pitch a Dwoffle's paggle! Waha! Deason picked him up, comforting Dwoffle and castigating Florian in the same breath. There, there, now, my little soldier, did the cruel rabbit steal your paddle, nasty, wicked beast? Madam, cruel, nasty, and jolly, well, wicked I may be, but I am a hare, ma'am, not a rabbit. Indeed, sir. Well, you show all the sense of a rabbit, a two-day-old one. You are not fit to command that paddle you have stolen. Florian sat down dispiritedly upon the floor stones, staring about at the empty hall. Huh. Bloomin' paddle's about all I've got left to command, what? Evening shades were stealing over the western horizon, scarlet sun rays reflecting off the undersides of heavy dark clouds drifting eastward. Skipper ducked low as he led a party of redwallers along the ramparts. Meeting Bargle, the otter beckoned at the group he was heading. Evening, mate. Brought the rest of your guasum and some redwallers to relieve the sentries. What's happening out there? Bargle took a quick final glance over the parapet. Oh, nothing much. They're shooting off the odd arrow to keep our heads down. But apart from that, tis fairly quiet. What's for vittles? Skipper grinned at the tough little shrew, whose stomach was growling thunderously. Sorry I never sent any tucker out to you, but I couldn't chance no poor kitchen beast getting hit by an arrow. Don't worry, though, messmate. There's food aplenty for you and your shrews. Leek and celery soup, tater and mushroom turnover, sweet cider and plum duff. Bargle grimaced longingly as he tightened his belt another notch to quiet his rumbling gut. Did I hear you mention plum duff, mate? Skipper winked. Aye, with sweet arrowroot sauce. Bargle grabbed the otter's paw fiercely. Plum duff and sweet arrowroot sauce. Don't say another word, Skip, or my stomach'll perish for I'll make it to the table. Each shrew who left the wall was replaced by a relief sentry. Skipper did the rounds of the wall top, whispering words of advice and encouragement. He gave special attention to Friar Butty, who was positioned at the center of the north wall. Are you sure you can keep your eyes open all night, Friar? You won't drop off to sleep, will you, sir? The old squirrel patted his friend's sturdy paw. I'll be fine, Skip. You just leave me here. Funny, but I don't feel the least bit sleepy tonight. I couldn't face a night alone in the gatehouse without Nutwing. His snores always lulled me into a slumber. Ah, like a day... I miss the feathery old rascal. Skipper looked away and blinked. So do I, Friar. We all miss him. He was distracted by Florian, waving from the battlements over the south wall gate. Skipper scurried across to the hare. Keep your ears down, Mr. Florian, sir, or they'll spot you. The hare ducked and seated himself, 
gesturing over the wall. Something rather odd going on down there. Vermin chaps dashing back and forth, carrying bits and pieces and what not. Skipper crouched alert. Bits and pieces of what, sir? Oh, I don't know. Twigs, brush, wood, and what have you. Must be out of their bally mines. They're dumping the stuff in front of the wall gate and scampering off. What'd they want to do that for? Florian looked around, but Skipper was gone, rushing along the ramparts and down the wall steps to the small wicker gate at the center of the south wall. Jangler and Russell were already there. The two warrior squirrels had been carrying out their usual patrol of the inner grounds. Skipper joined them, keeping his voice down to a whisper. What are those vermin up to, mates? Jangler watched the door through half-closed eyes as he replied. Me and Russell were passing here when we smelled vegetable oil and pine resin. Then we heard those rats pushing dry brush and wood up against the door. You know what that means, Skip? The big otter nodded grimly. Fire. They're going to try and burn their way in here. Jangler, go to the wine cellars. Over the door there you'll see three great longbows and quivers of big cloth-yard shafts. Bring them here quick. Russell, get Gubio Formo and some of his crew. Fetch buckets, too. Start filling them from the pond. We'll put a spoke in their wheel if they want to play with fire, mates. Sixteen. Night had fallen along the fast-flowing river. Dippler sat at the water's edge, bathing his footpaws. Dan trotted back and tweaked the shrew's ear lightly. Come on, Dip, you can't stop here. The young blossom shrew let the cold water flow over his weary paws. Why not? They've got to rest, too, you know. Don't suppose they could travel far on fast water like this at night. Too dangerous. Song walked back to join them. He's right, Dan. Perhaps we'd better find some place where we can take a bite to eat and sleep till dawn. They continued walking along the river bank until they found a likely spot. Song was loosing her pack when Dan called to her. Song, come and look at this. What do you make of it? He was standing in the shallows, hanging on to the trailing branches of a willow and gazing down river. Song waded in by him. See, further down the bank? Looks like firelight to me. Song peered at the glow in the far darkness. Aye, it is fire right enough. Dip said they've got to rest, too. Maybe it's them. Let's go and take a look. Best go armed. Steering back from the bank a bit, they stole swiftly through the woodland, Dippler and Dan with drawn swords, and Song with her greenstone-topped club. Drawing near to the light, they could make out a warm glow, but no sign of the flames that made it. Careful now, they measured each pace, avoiding dead twigs, dry ferns, or anything that might make a noise and betray their presence to the enemy. Song gripped her weapon tightly, whispering to Dan, What do you think? Is it them? A huge, bushy, brown-furred, mouse-like creature popped up in front of them and began chattering in a shrill voice. Ah, yes, yes, it could be them, though to be sure it's not. Why, tis only ourselves, and we're not them, unless by them you mean us— and if tis ourselves you're after, then we're them, yes, yes. The three friends were taken aback. Dan was first to recover. Menacing the creature with his sword, he backed it up to a tree, only to have Dippler jump in and place himself between them. Leave him alone, mate. Tis a water vole. They're friendly. The shrew held both paws out and wiggled his nose in a strange greeting to the newcomer. Grinning cheerily, the water vole returned the salute and continued chattering. Oh, yes, yes. And you'll be one of the Gossam. Knew it as soon as I saw your spiky little head. Up and down, up and down this river, your tribe used to go all the time. Oh, yes, yes. 
Don't see many Watson these seasons, though. No, no. River's too fast for shrews, I think. Whew! Aren't I the terrible one for Gavin, though? Yes, yes. You can spit in the river and not make much difference to it. That's what I always say. Yes, yes. Dippler thrust his chin out aggressively at the water bowl. Who do you think you are talking to, Bushhead? No river's too fast for a guasom shrew. Then we should know, cause we've sailed them all. Still grinning, the bowl rattled on. Ah, well, yes, yes, I see what you mean, so I do. And you're a fine figure of a shrew, so you are. And I take back any lie I uttered about your yes, yes, so I do. Cause an egg in a duck's belly is neither under nor over the water, and that's a fact, so it is, yes, yes. All through his ceaseless babble, the water bull's eyes were fixed greedily on Song's greenstone stick. He was making her uncomfortable, so she quickly hid it behind her back. Excuse me, but could I fit in a word sideways? I'm Song, this is Dan, and the shrew's Dippler. We're just looking for some place to eat and spend the night. We don't wish to stand here and be talked to death, if you'll forgive my saying so. Springing forward, the water bull began shaking Song's paw vigorously. Oh, yes, yes, you're well forgiven, Missy. I'm called Burble. Me mother had a sense of humor, you see, yes, yes. Food and rest, is that all you'll be needin'? Well, follow me. The riverheads can supply that. You can be sure as an onion's a sour apple with too many coats, yes, yes. Song had great difficulty extricating her paw from Burble's ceaseless paw-shaking, but the moment she did, the bowl shot off like an arrow. They had to follow him at a headlong run. Why they could only see the firelight's glow soon became clear. It emanated from a great cave hewn deep into the river bank, slightly above water level. Burble bowed to them as they stood panting outside. Ah, yes, yes, tis only an old bit of a hole, but tis home to me, and has been to my father and his father before him, and his father before him, and his father before him, and his... Mm, a big old gray-furred water bowl had come out and clamped a paw over Burble's mouth. He nodded at the newcomers. You know, sometimes us riverheads say that the river'll stop babbling before young Burble does. Do you all come in now, and welcome? Inside the cave there were upward of twelve or more water bowls, seated round an enormous fire, eating bowls of stew. The old one called to them, Our Burble's brought some travelers for a bite of supper, so he has. A fat, motherly-looking bowl in a woven rush apron bobbed a curtsy. Yes, yes, so he has. Sit ye down, and a thousand welcomes to ye. Song touched the green stick to her forehead in a salute. And a thousand thanks for your kindness, ma'am. Suddenly all the water bowls threw themselves face down, paws outstretched. They set up a wailing din. Ooh-ah-gora-ma-hoogly. The leafwood, the leafwood. Did I say something wrong? Dan looked perplexed at the prostrate Riverhead tribe. I don't think so, Song. Wonder what a leafwood is. Burble was only too willing to explain. Do you not know what a leafwood is? Ah, tis a wonderful thing. Yes, yes, so tis. The leafwood is carried only by the highest chiefs and greatest bold warriors who live on the waters. Dippler, you're a water creature. Shame on you for not knowing of the marvelous leafwood. Why, myself has known of it since I was born, and my father and his father before him, and his father before him, and... Burble caught the look in Song's eye as she raised her leafwood. He went silent with a meek grin, but only after having the last word. And so on and so on. The old gray water bull's voice trembled as he addressed Song. Ah, a leafwood could surely make the Riverhead tribe famed and feared by all. We would give anything to be owning such a marvelous thing. 
The young squirrel's reply was instant. I would trade it for a good boat, sir. The old one's face lit up with joy. Now isn't that a wonderful thing to be saying? For tis myself who owns the greatest boat ever to sail on water. Diffler gave Song a warning glance, then stepped in to take charge of the trade himself. Let's take a look at your boat first, sir. No offense given, I hope. The gray vole's stomach wobbled as he chuckled. Yes, yes, and none taken, I'm sure. For who better to look at a vessel than the Grand Guasim himself? Follow me, young travelers. Taking them out onto the back, he passed a lantern to Dan. Here now, great sword-bearer, hold on to that while I show you my boat. Pulling aside clumps of bog-willow and saxifrage, the oldster heaved forth a type of oblong coracle fashioned from osier boughs, covered with rowan bark and held together by layers of pine resin. He tapped a paw alongside his snout, winking slyly. Never leave boats moored out on water for all beasts to see, like the dreaded old Marlfox and his water rats who passed here today. Oh, yes, yes, it pays to keep your boats hidden. Song glanced down the fast night-dark river reaches. So they passed here. Where do you think they went, sir? The oldster scratched his chubby cheeks and shrugged. Ha! They could have been sailing to the moon, for all I know, missy. Well, Gwasim, what do you think of a boat? A splendid craft, eh? Dippler had been inspecting the vessel, and now he said, Oh, it's not bad. Not good, but not bad. But seen too many seasons' service on this river, for my liking, sir. Ah, here we are. This is the boat for us. My friend will trade the leaf wood for this and the young shrew dragged forth another vessel, far newer than the first, which shone like a honey globule from the many coats of pine resin that had been melted down and applied to its sleek sides. Unlike the other, this craft had a proper pointed bow and butted stern, and patterns and symbols had been painted beneath the resin with colored dyes, giving it the look of a very special boat. The old water bowl shook his head and waved his paws furiously. Ah, no, ah, no, you can't be having that one. Sure, and tis never the sort of boat you'd be going after Marlfoxes with. No, my bold Gwasim, I'm afraid I can't be letting you have that one. Song twirled the leafwood idly. Lantern light gleamed off the round, shiny green stone implanted at its end. She nodded to Dan and Dippler, and all three sauntered off, Dippler smiling back regretfully at the gray water bowl. Pity. We'll just have to trade the leafwood with some other tribe. The bowl dodged in front of them, hopping back and forth to stop them wandering off. Whoa, now, young buckos. I've got other boats, you know. Yes, yes. Good ones, too. Let me show you them. Song shook her head. Feigning boredom, she wagged the leafwood under the old bull's nose. No, I'm sorry, sir. No other boat will do. That's the one for us. Same as this leafwood is the thing you want. Here, hold it. The bull took hold of the object reverently, covetousness shining in his eyes at the symbol of power. Song judged the moment right. Now, do you want to give it back to me so that when we're gone you'll never see it again? You look to me like a skilled creature, well able to build a boat, probably far finer than that one. What's it to be? The gray water bowl looked from the leafwood to the boat, from the boat to the leafwood, and repeated the performance. Ah, singe me whiskers and sink me tail. Tis a bargain done. He threw back soil in the air, stamped his footpaw down thrice, and spat on his outstretched right paw. Spitting on their paws, the three friends shook heartily with him. He grinned ruefully. A true trade. 
Though you do strike a terrible hard bargain, yes, yes. That's a riverhead bull chief's boat you've got there. Light as a feather, true as an arrow, and faster than a brown trout. There's not a craft on any water that can keep up with it, let alone try to beat it. Tis sorry I am to part with yonder vessel. Dan whacked him heartily on the back. But now you own the leafwood, sir. The power is all yours. The vole did a little jig of delight. Yes, yes, so I do. Every good trade calls for a camalia, so here goes. He raised his head and called in a loud, piercing yell, Camalia! Startled, the three companions jumped back as water voles materialized from seemingly everywhere, all crying aloud, Camalia! Dippler took their haversacks and tossed them into the boat. Looks like we're invited to some kind of celebration, pals. Later, the big cave on the bank was packed tight with water voles, nearly every one of them holding either a little fiddle or a small paw drum. Song and her friends sat by the fire, spooning down thick, delicious river stew, comprising cress, water shrimp, turnip, carrot, mushrooms, and several other vegetables and herbs that they could not identify. Bowles made sure that their beakers of honey and blackberry cordial were never empty. Soon every paw in the place was tapping to a lively jig, well played and heartily sung by the Riverhead tribe, Oh, there's some fools take a bath each day by rolling in the morning dew, and others who won't wash at all, but that ain't me nor you. Others some take dry dust baths and reckon that they're clean. But if a water bowl you be, well, you know what I mean. Ho, ho, yes, yes, ho, hoo. Don't sit and shiver beside the river. Dive right in with a splosh. Grab hold of a good old soapwort root and give yourself a wash. Scrub hard, scrub soft, scrub lively, mate. Good health you'll never lack. And if your paws can't reach around, a fish'll scrub your back. Ho, ho, yes, yes, ho, hoo. The ditty finished amid great merriment, with the old water bowl acting as master of ceremonies, pointing the leafwood at the three. Come on now, travelers, sing for your supper. Dan flushed with embarrassment. Singing isn't a thing I do best. You have a go, Song. Dippler helped himself to another bowl of stew. Ah, you're a good singer, Missy. If they hear my voice, that old feller's liable to cancel the bargain. Song stood up and called out to the musicians. Do you know the one called Green Rushes and Lilies So Pale? Several of the old bull wives threw their rush aprons up over their faces, calling out warnings to the pretty young squirrel. Ah, sure, don't try it, Missy. Tis too fast. They'll leave your verses behind, pretty maid. Water bowls play speedy. Song took a sip of cordial to wet her lips. Oh, they will, will they? Well, let's see him try. Ready? One, two, three. Water bowl fiddles and drums started the music at a cracking pace, but Song was right up there with them, her sweet voice ringing out. Green rushes, green rushes, and lilies so pale, pray sit ye down, friend, now and list to my tale. For the rivers flow fast, and the mountains are tall, and across the wide moorlands the curlews do call, dearie wallaker, willaker, doddle rum day. Green rushes, green rushes, and lilies so pale, bring me bread and cheese and some dandelion ale, and light up a fire now to warm my cold paws. I'll sit here all winter till that river thaws. Skitter riddle, I fiddle, I rumble tum hay. Green rushes, green rushes, and lilies so pale, I've traveled so far over valley and dale, stale bread and hard cheese, and the ale isn't here, and the fire isn't lit, so tis good-bye, my dear. Routle, dowdle, rye toodle, I go on my way. 
Green rushes, pale lilies, I'll bid you good day, for where I'm not welcome I never would stay. And to all you musicians I'd just like to say, if I've sung out too fast, your indulgence I pray. Amid wild cheers and resounding whoops, song was carried shoulder-high around the cave. An old bull-wife shook a ladle at the paw-sore panting musicians, some of whom had stowed their fiddles and drums away, having been left far behind by the final verse, with song completing the last four lines unaccompanied. The bull-wife cackled, Ha-ha! You lot had better learn to play proper, yes, yes. The squirrel-maid sang the paws off in your right sweet and clear, too. Burble raised his beaker aloft. Yes, yes, let's drink the elf of the best bargainer and finest singer, the bravest-looking sword-bearer, and the starvinest guassum ever to come inside Riverhead Cave. Good luck and fine fortune be theirs wherever they travel. Yes, yes. The water bowls raised their drinks and roared out, Yes, 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 yes. Dippler licked the rim of his bowl. Any more of that stew left, matey? No point in letting it go to waste. Moken lay back in the stern of the log boat, trailing a paw in the water as he issued orders. Ship those oars and let her drift, and pass some vittles back there. Fennel, my friend, keep our boat out in the middle, away from the banks. The shrew sobbed miserably as he maneuvered a paddle oar in the stern behind the marlfox. This noose is strangling me. I can hardly keep me eyes open, sir. Stern-faced, Moken tested the double-headed axe blade on his paw. You'd better keep your eyes open, shrew, or I'll shut them for good. The log boat drifted on into the calm summer night. 17. A luminous white figure with black pits for eyes and a gaping blood-stained mouth drifted spectrally around the bedchamber of the High Queen Silt. Its voice seemed to come from afar, like the spirit of one lost upon a dark and distant shore. Silth, I see you, I hear you, I will not rest until you are dead. Die, Silth. From within the curtained palanquin, which served her every purpose, Queen Silth's voice screeched hoarse with terror. Go away, leave me in peace, white ghost. Guards, guards! Immediately the bedchamber door started to open, the figure vanished upward. Water-rat guards bearing torches dashed into the already brightly lit room. Obediently they searched every corner as the queen ratted on. It was here again, the white ghost. Where's my daughter Lantour? I want her here right now. Lantour, Lantour! In the room directly overhead, the vixen Lantour hauled up a sheet through the wide floorboard joints. It was heavily flecked with fish scales to make it appear luminous with black charcoal and red dye marking out the face. Folding the sheet carefully, Lontour stowed it in a corner cupboard. The vixen replaced some loose boards in the cupboard's bottom, but before doing so she directed a final spine-chilling moan into the bottom section, which connected with a similar cupboard in the queen's bedchamber below. Closing the cupboard carefully, Lontour listened to the commotion set up by her mother as it echoed upward. There it goes again. I told you, fools, the white ghost has been in this room. Not a moment back. Find it. Lontour! I want Lontour! A moment later the vixen strolled calmly into the queen's bedchamber. She dismissed the guards, who were only too glad to get out of Silt's presence. Now what is it, mother? Bad dreams again. Don't talk to me like that. How can I have dreams if I don't sleep? 
The white ghost was here again, just before you came in. If you say so, mother. I am queen here. You will address me as queen. It was here. I saw it through the gauze curtain. You don't believe me, do you? Oh, queen, if you say it was here, then it must have been. But where is it now? Why does no beast save yourself see this white ghost? I don't know. Do you? Perhaps, O oh queen, it is something from your memory. Some enemy you slew long seasons ago. A restless spirit coming back for vengeance upon its killer. Lontour narrowly dodged a drinking chalice that was hurled out at her from between the curtains. Silt's voice was shrill with rage. Get out! Out! I won't have you talking to me like that. The vixen bowed and turned to go. Silth subdued her voice to a whine. No, stay with me, daughter, stay. I fear being alone here. This room is far too ugly. It needs more light, more beautiful things in it. Lontour bowed again and continued toward the door. I will stay, Majesty. With me you need have no fear. Wait while I dismiss those fools who are supposed to be guarding your door. Lontour stepped outside and dismissed the guards. When they had gone, she tapped lightly on the far wall. A female water rat emerged from the shadows of the upper stairs. Lontour nodded at her. Wilke, keep an ear to the floor of my room. When you hear me snore as if I'm asleep, then send down the white ghost and start moaning. When you hear the queen scream, pull it back up again. The rat Wilke bowed to her mistress. I know what to do, my lady. Lontour re-entered the bedchamber and installed herself in a chair. Rest, O queen, I am here to protect you. Janglur and Russell stood in the battlement shadows, watching the moon-patched landscape of open field that skirted half the south wall. Each of the squirrel warriors gripped a massive yew longbow with a gray-feathered arrow on its string, half as long and heavy again as a normal shaft. Something moved near the woodland fringe. Here they come, mate, two of them, Russell murmured. Over by that high sycamore. Jangler followed his friend's direction, sighting the enemy. Aye, I've spotted him now. Water rat and a marl fox. See the little glow? They're carrying a piece of smoldering rope. Let them get closer afore we take a shot. The vixen Bannon bent double, taking advantage of every bracken patch and ground swell. Beside her the rat Drackle kept pace, blowing lightly on the glowing end of a tow rope to rid it of ash. Don't blow too hard, Bannon cautioned him. We'll burst into flame. Leave it now until we're at the wall gate. Dackel uncrouched slightly as they moved forward, raising his head a fraction to survey the wall top. Looks fairly quiet up there, Marm. We'll warm things up a bit for them soon. As soon as the long shaft struck Dackel between his eyes, Bannon was off, rolling to one side into a patch of fern. Thunk! Another arrow embedded itself in the spot where she had crouched a moment before. Flattening herself, she wriggled away through the ferns. Two more arrows followed, the last grazing her footpaw. Bannon sprang up then and ran for the trees in a zigzagging rush, tripping and falling flat by the sycamore as a cloth-yard shaft buzzed overhead like an angry wasp into the woodlands. Jeltor grabbed the vixen and dragged her to safety behind the tree. We'll have to think of another way to burn that door down. Bannon tried to regulate her panting breath. What about using fire arrows? Jeltor looked at her pityingly. Fire arrows? Did you see the length of those shafts the Red Wallers are shooting? You need a great longbow to fire such a shaft. We don't have anything like that. Our bows aren't powerful enough. 
We'd be well within their range long before we could loose off a shot. The vixen settled her back against the sycamore, pouting sulkily. Well, why don't you think of something, brother? You're supposed to be the one with all the good ideas. With a wave, Jeltor summoned his rats from the underbrush. No need to look so smug, sister. As it happens, I do have an idea, a good one. The otter Boracle made his way over to Skipper from the north wall. Bargle says that they're raining stones and arrows heavy on the north side, Skip. He thinks they're planning some kind of move over that way, using their firepower to keep our heads down. From his position by the south wall gate, Skipper called up to Jangler. You hear that, mate? What do you think they're up to? The warrior squirrel called back confidently. Ha! Huh, that's the oldest trick in the book, Skip. They're trying to decoy us away from here so they can burn the wall gate. Boracle, tell Bargle to sit tight there and keep low. Rusville had spotted movement at the woodland edges. Notching a shaft to his bowstring, he murmured calmly to Janglor, Here they come again, matey. Spread out this time. About eight of them, I count. They're going to take some stopping this time. Jangler called to the otter on the ground below. Best make your move now, Skip, while they're still far enough away. Skipper gave the nod to Gubio Formol and his crew, half of whom were carrying pails of water. You ready, Goob? Say e word, sir. Usson's bees never readier her eye. Skipper unbolted the wall gate and swung it open. Go! Those moles, not carrying pails, scuttled outside and cleared the gateway of inflammable wood and brush, heaving it inside, while the rest doused the outside of the gate down with pails of water. Skipper stood out in front of them, his long bow bent with a big arrow resting on its taut string, protecting the moles from attack. Now vermin were about halfway across the open ground. Jangler watched them pause, spread wide in a half-circle. Suddenly the night blossomed with orange flame as the water rats sat burning tow to spear-tops, bound with oily rags, and charged for the gate. Front and center, Skip! The otter heard Jangler's warning. Gritting his teeth, he strained the longbow to its limit, letting the middle rat run straight at him. So strong was Skipper's shot that the arrow passed clean through the charging rat, who fell forward upon the burning spear. When the door was clear of brush and soaked well with water and all the moles were inside, Skipper jumped back in and slammed the bolts home. Jangler let his bow drop, unwrapping the sling from about his waist. They're close enough for stones now, Russ. Don't need these longbows. He had already dropped one rat before Russville could load his sling. Come on, scum, my name's Raguba! Another rat fell to Russville's whirling sling. The rest broke and ran back to the tree cover, all except one who carried on charging forward. Seconds before both the squirrel's sling stones laid him low, he threw his spear. It thudded, blazing into the wall-gate door. Pail of water on a rope, quick! Russell yelled out. Skipper hurled the rope end up. Russell hauled the water pail to the battlements and then lowered it over the top until it struck the outstretched spear shaft, upsetting its contents over it. Rewarded by the hissing sound of extinguished flames, Russell winked at Janglor. No sense taking chances, even if the door is soaked. Jangler's swift eye retrieved his longbow and loosed off an arrow, quivering. Ah, you're right there. Let's turn the tables on them and keep their heads down for the night. Formal gathered pawfuls of the bracken and wood that had been intended to burn the gate. Noise of ye vermits to gather kindling for a kitchen oven, sir. Joltor stayed well back in the woodlands, issuing orders to a rat. Tell Ascrod and Predak to pull back from the north wall and meet me back here. 
Vanna, this is no time to be dozing. Liven yourself up. We've got to plan our next move. The vixen grinned maliciously at her brother. Oh, given up the idea of burning our way in, have we? What's the matter? Didn't your good idea work? In the gray hour before dawn, Song came awake. All around her in the packed cave, water bowls were snoring and snuffling in the hot, stuffy atmosphere. The squirrel maid shook Dan lightly. Startled awake, he instinctively touched his sword hilt to make sure it was still there. Song gestured for him to make his way outside, then prodded the sleeping dippler. Rolling over, the guasum shrew muttered drowsily, Mmm, any of that stew left, mate? Song stifled his mouth with a paw, whispering in his ear, Wake up, Dip. We're going, if the boat's still there. Luckily it was. Dippler grumbled as they carried it to the water's edge. What's all the rush for? I liked it in there. That stew was nice. Dan tugged the shrew's tail sharply. Keep your voice down, and stop thinking of just your stomach. Song's right. We'd best get going while the going's good. I don't trust that old gray water bowl. He'd like it fine if he could hang on to both the leaf wood and his boat. Those bowls seemed friendly enough, but you never can tell. Yes, yes, you could never tell, especially with a crafty old beast like the gray one. They whirled around as Burble emerged from the willows, carrying a sack of food and two extra oars. Dan eyed him levelly. Where do you think you're going? Brushing past them, Burble slid the boat into the water and threw his gear aboard. He leapt in after it and held the vessel still by grabbing firm hold of overhead branches. Going with you, Odysseus. Ain't living in some old hole on the riverbank till I got gray whiskers like the rest of them. Stir your stomps and get in here. We've got to get going quickish before the river eds wake up and find their swallow gone. Dippler was about to debate the point when Song shoved him unceremoniously into the boat and thrust a paddle at him. Don't argue, Dip. We haven't got time. Something tells me Burble's right. Let's get away from here. We can argue all you like as we paddle. I'll take this side with you, and Dan, you and Burble take the other side. Don't waste time. Dawn'll soon be up. With the two oars already aboard, the friends had an oar each. They steered their vessel out into the fast-flowing center of the river, heading downstream. Wise in the ways of boats, Dippler praised their new craft immediately. Even with their limited knowledge, Song and Dan had to agree with him. The water bowl's boat was a traveler's dream. The Guasim Shrew watched happily as the boat responded to their paddles. Light as a feather she is, mates. This and don't sit in the water. She skims it like a bird. So that's why you called her Swallow, eh? Burble nodded vigorously, casting worried glances behind. Yes, yes, Dip. Now, less of the tongue and more of the paddle. Song peered suspiciously across at the young water bowl, even as she took his advice and paddled harder. Burble, I've got a feeling you haven't told us all. The way you talk, any beast would think we stole the swallow. Burble explained in part as the swallow shot along the river like a glittering arrow. Ah, well, you see, Missy, that gray one is a real sly beast. The swallow don't belong to him. She belongs to the Riverhead tribe. But they all think gray one traded his old boat for your leafwood, and he never told them different. They'll come after us soon. Oh, yes, yes, sure as trout like mayflies. The Riverhead'll want their swallow back. Dan dug the paddle deep, his jaw tight with anger. So we're sailing a stolen vessel. That old water bowl tricked us. He gets the leafwood, but if they catch up with us, we get nothing. The prow dipped and rose beautifully, 
skirting a rocky outcrop, poking from the river as they feathered their paddle blades. Rotten old swindler, Song burst out, expressing her dislike of the gray one. However, Burble was smiling fit to burst. Now that he had judged there was some distance between themselves and the riverhead bulls, he, 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 don't get your paws in an uproar, pals. Gray one thinks that cause he's old it makes him smart. But I'm younger and smarter than him by a good stretch of river. Yes, yes. Song eyed Burble curiously. How so? The little fat creature shook with unconcealed glee. Cause I tricked him. When that old barrel belly wakes up, he'll find himself clutching a stew ladle in his paws, not a leafwood. Yes, yes, I pinched it back off him. Your leafwood is inside that sack of grub I fetched with me. He, he, he. Song looked sternly at the water bowl. That was very wrong, Burble. Gray one deceived the tribe, but we kept our part of the bargain. Now we've got double trouble. Dawnlight had begun filtering over the river in a pale wash of cerise and gold when a cry rang out faintly from behind them, echoing down the tree-shaded banks. Wailahoo! Burble's chubby face blanched with fright. Riverheads, paddle for your lives, pals. But I thought this swallow could outrun anything on the river. Dan called out as they wielded their paddles furiously. Burble blew spray from his face. Maybe, but they got eight rowers to a boat, and riverhead bulls know these waters a lot better than you do, Squirrel. They'll take every shortcut, fast current, and river dodge the gray one can think of. Look for a cutoff. We gotta get off the mainstream. Bending their backs, the four young creatures labored at their paddles, mouths wide open as they sucked in air, every muscle and sinew of their bodies throbbing with strain. Behind them the cries of the riverhead bulls grew louder. They were getting closer, gaining on the swallow with their river skills in greater numbers. Shaking perspiration and river water from his eyes, Dan gestured with his chin, nodding forward to a spot farther upriver on the south bank. Looks like a side stream ahead up yonder, he gasped out. But the water bowl did not seem to fancy the idea. No, no, not that un. Tis a dead end, I think, full of slime and gnats. It would be stupid to go up there, Dan. Way-lay-hoo! Death to boat robbers! Song chanced a quick glance back up the river, her mind made up. Head toward that side stream before they come round the bend and sight us. If tis a stupid idea to hide up a slimy dead end, then mayhap they won't look there. Don't argue, just do it. As they cut across the stream, Burble scattered some supplies from his sack, bread and clay dishes, into the water. They'll find those in the rapids downstream. Perhaps they'll think we was wrecked. Duck your heads and ship those paddles. Weeds, tall rushes, and overhanging bush raked their backs as the swallow glided into the cutoff. The water was dark, murky, and fetid. Gnats, mosquitoes, and all manner of winged pests shrouded the four fugitives. Dippler grabbed some bulrushes and held the boat still. Sloppy green water vegetation swirled briefly on the surface and then settled again, as if no boat had ever disturbed it. Song's heart was pounding like a trip-hammer. She was sure it could be heard if any beast passed too close. Fighting to get their breathing under control, they flattened themselves in the well of the swallow. Dippler slapped at a large flying beetle that was trying to settle on his face. Dan shot him a warning glance, and then they heard the riverhead tribe. It sounded as if they had a dozen or more boats out in pursuit. Old Grey One was in the lead craft, directing them. Way, lay, hoo! Straight ahead, they can't outrun us much longer. Bend your backs, riverheads. 
Keep to the middle current. Yes, yes, but we ain't sighted them yet. What if they've shot off up inside water, like that nor there? Ah, don't talk daft, Bull. They've gotten a guasum shrew with them. That and know enough not to do anything so silly. Can't you see? 'Tis a dead end up there. Has been for many a long season. Maybe we'll overtake 'em at the rapids. Even guasum shrews ain't so crafty when it comes to rocks and rapids, eh? Ah, you could be right there. Wait till I get some paws on 'em and that little turn fur barbel. I'll beat his brains out with a leaf wood before I toss him into the rapids with his thieving friends. Yes, yes. Flaming cheek of 'em, stealing our swallow like that. Pirates, that's what they are, matey. River pirates. Well, mark me word, they'll suffer the same fate as any pirate would. Onward, River Reds, straight course ahead now. The shouts died away on the still air as the Riverhead tribe paddled downstream. Dan sat up and began slapping at the winged pests that assailed him. Garoff, leave me alone, you rotten villains! A big insect flew right into Song's eye, so hard that it caused her to see colored stars. Dippler was tearing at his fur, moaning. We must have been mad coming in here to Ide. The boat rocked as Burble performed a little dance. Ouch! Ouch! I'm being ed alive. Back out onto the river. Song squinched her eye, rubbing hard with a sweaty paw. No, we can't go out there. Twouldn't be long before we'd be running right into the back of them. Let's go a bit farther up this creek. Maybe it won't be as bad farther along. Swatting and slapping at the insect hordes, they dug paddles into the muddy creek bed and pulled the swallow south up the vile-smelling inlet. At mid-morning, they called a halt. Though there were still a few insects about, most of the myriad from the creek mouth had given up following the four friends. Shipping the paddles, they looked around. Fungus-bedecked and pulp-soft dead trees lay across the creek, preventing them from going any farther. The water was black and peaty. With odd bubbles rising here and there, leaving a foul odor hovering in the air. In the bank shallows on one side, there was a riot of blue flowers—bit scabious, brooklime, butterwort, and skullcap—sprouting thick. Dippler moored the shallow midships to a slender sisal oak on the shaded side of the creek. Song and Burble unpacked apples, some scones, and a flagon of cold dandelion and burdock cordial that had been stowed deep in her haversack. Wearily they hauled themselves onto the mossy bank and began eating, groaning as they stretched aching backs. Ooh, my paws'll never be the same again after gripping that paddle so tight, mates. I can hardly pick my beaker up. Dippler winked at the water bowl. Leave it there, then, Burb, and I'll drink it for you. Dan polished an apple on his tunic. Phew, that was a narrow escape earlier. Those riverheads wouldn't have accepted any excuses. We'd be dead beasts now if they'd caught us. Burbel lifted the beaker in his cramped paws. Oh yes, yes, that's true, pal. Old Gray One's missing both the swallow and his leafwood. There'll be no mercy in that one's heart. Song bathed her eye with a drop of the cool cordial. No, I don't imagine there would be. Why did you do it, Burbel? The water bowl made a derisory gesture with one paw. Yeah, that old Gray One was far too big for his coat. Riverheads never had one leader, just a council. But he appointed himself head of the council, and now he calls himself chieftain. Taint right. Gray one was always a cheat and a liar. Bullied his way in, he did. Miss Song, here's your leafwood. Take care of it. The young squirrel caught the greenstone-topped stick. Verbal tossed to her. She looked at it pensively. All that trouble just for this. Strange, isn't it?
Last night we were the best of friends with the Riverheads. This morning they're out for our blood, all because of a boat and a stick. Dan made a pillow of his haversack and lay back. Great seasons, but tis warm hereabouts, heavy-like. Ah, well, if we must wait here till the coast's clear, I'm going to get a bit of shut-eye. See if you can't keep your debating down to a dull roar, will you, mates? Dippler tossed an apple core into the water. Good idea, Dan, but don't snore. It keeps me awake. Song flicked a drop of cordial at the young shrew. Listen, who's talking? The champion snorer of Redwall. Dippler opened one eye, murmuring sleepily. Oh, spare me, missy. I'm only a dibbon compared to you at snoring. Before another half hour had passed, all four were curled up on the mossy bank, deep in slumber and snoring gently. Raventail and his band of roving ferrets watched the four sleepers from their position behind the fallen trees across the inlet. Peering slit-eyed between a gap in the rotten trunks, Raventail slowly drew his scimitar, smiling wickedly at the scruffy rabble surrounding him. Kyar, brethren, don't a doze looky peace-laden, a lion dare? Cruel, cruel shame twould be to wake ye up dem. They only be younger beasters. Cruel, cruel shame, me say. One of the ferrets slid a long knife from a sling at his back. No, no need to wake ye up dem. I make em sleep long forever. Raventail's scimitar tip pricked the speaker's narrow neck. You do dat only when Raventail say so. Kayar, I want a much, much fun with younger beasters, for they be death still. 18. Brother Melalot and Gubio Formol had decided, war or no war, they were going to prepare the traditional Red Wall Midsummer Feast. What else could fire their tired spirits? Their only problem was that Dwapel, Blinny, Wugger, and several other rascally divins saw no reason why they should not help with the preparations. Formol put the finishing touches to a great hazelnut and elderberry pudding he was creating, crimping the edges round the basin top with a fork. Brushing the pastry with a mixture of green sap milk and honey, the mole twitched his button nose with pride. Yer, look at he puddin', brother. Yem be a fine-lookin' beast. Melalot left off preparing his apple and strawberry crumble to admire the mole's delicious-looking pudding. It certainly is a beauty, friend. You'd best light the back oven to cook one that size. There's plenty of wood and charcoal in the burner. Just put a light to it. Gubio lit a taper off a candle, shuffled across to the oven, and poked the light under. Still the light went out. Grumbling to himself, the mole lit the taper from the candle again. Her, they am bain't make any taperers like they am used to, burn no. When he poked the lighted taper beneath the oven a third time, Formole distinctly heard the puff of air, accompanied by a giggle. Throwing open the oven door, he confronted the divan seated inside. Good job I never lighted ye oven, lest we'd be avin' baked dibbins for ye party, hor-hor. The mouse-babe Twopple dismissed Formole with a wave of his paw. Go away, Molly. Us and bees livin' in here now. Go away. Brother Melalot came to his friend's aid, a big oven paddle in one paw. And what, pray, are you dibbins doing inside our oven? Dwopple wagged a small mixing spoon under the good brother's nose. We makin' a shrimpberry pie. Don't disturb us. It very dissipult. Without another word, Formol and Melanot exchanged glances. Between them they pushed the big wooden loaf paddle beneath the busy dibbins and slid them out onto the floor, bowl, mixture, and all. Melanot's obedience. What's this? 
dried water shrimp, black currants, hot root pepper, pears, and radishes. You can't make a pie with that lot. The mole bay blinny glared at him challengingly. Who em says us can't? We em inventors making et furry skipper. Formal advanced on them with a long baton loaf. Ruffians, rascals, out before I make see into a sandwich. The divins fled, hurling dire threats at both cooks. Rimrose and Elio passed them as they dashed from the kitchens. Rimrose shook her head, smiling as she watched the tiny figures scurry off. I remember when my little song breeze was like them. What a powerful Dutton was, I can tell you. Brother Melalot bowed to them both. Ladies, we can always use some extra help down here. Would you be willing to aid us with Redwall's midsummer feast? Rimrose returned the bow with a pretty curtsy. That's what we came for, brother. I was thinking of making a cheese and celery flan with sage and parsley trimming. My mother is very good at baking blueberry and almond turnovers. Oh my goodness! What's all this mess? Melalot threw up his paws in despair. Those wretched babes were inventing a pie with it for Skipper. A slow smile crept across the face of Grandma Elio. Hmm. Maybe we'll finish the job and serve it up to that great lump of an otter. He's always putting ideas into the young'uns' heads. Twill serve him right, if you ask me. Out on the south wall, Skipper was scanning the woodlands and company with Jangler and Russell. Ha ha! Tis too quiet, mates. I don't like it. They're up to something. I'd take me affidavit on that. Jangler twirled his sling idly, the longbow resting at his side. All's we can do is to keep our eyes peeled, Skip. Ahoy, Mister Florian. How are things over your side? The noon-veiled hare was guarding the east wall center with Boracle. Both of them crouching down behind the battlements. When he heard the squirrel hailing him, Florian beckoned the three comrades over with a silent wave. Curious to know what was going on, they hastened across. Keep your heads down, you chaps," Florian whispered. "We've hit on a super wheeze. See this long pole? My troop use it for their tight rope walking act. Now pay attention. As you see, me and the sturdy Boracle have tied this dagger to one end. Matter of fact, we've just finished sharpening the jolly old knife on the battlements." Feel that edge and tell me what you think. Skipper tested the blade, pulling his paw away and sucking it. Whoa, that's what I call sharp, matey. What's the game? With a nod, Florian indicated an unusually tall ash growing not far from the wall. It was a huge, stately tree. See that ash? No, don't gawp and stare like frogs at a fry-up. Merely take a peep at quickly. Good. Now, what did you see? A pipette, as Florian called it, was all that the sharp eyes of Jangler needed. The squirrel saw it right away. There's a rope tied up there near the top. The lanky hare chuckled. Well done, that squirrel. Let me tell you, I've been watching that since mid-morning. Blinkin' water rat climbed up and tied the rope there. Ha ha ha! Confounded oak was slippin' and trippin'. Took the blighter an absolute age to get the bally rope fastened in those top branches. Now they've let it off back a few trees. Good job you chaps have got me on your side. What? I've twigged the whole blinkin' plan, of course. Didn't take long for a great mind like mine. Now lay low and watch like good chaps. Wait for the fun to start. What? Three trees back, a rat named Stuckfur perched on the highest limb of an elm. Jeltor and Askrod stood gripping the heavier branches below him. Jeltor called up to the water rat in a loud whisper. 
Is the top of the wall empty? No beast there? Stupfer raised himself on tip-paw. He had a good head for heights. None that I can see, sire. Though there's one or two shrews over on the west wall, but they're facing the open ground in front. The marl fox hissed impatiently. I'm not concerned with the west wall, as long as the east wall is clear and empty. Can you see your way clear through to it? Stupfer leaned slightly to one side, balancing capably. Aye, sire, I can do it from here. Tis a straight enough path. Askrod did not like being so high off the ground. He clung tightly to the trunk. Remember, hold a rope as far up as you can. Just swing out, and you should go in directly over the battlements. Don't worry if you can't make it first try. As long as it stays quiet, you can have a few more goes if you don't manage first time. Extending his paws above his head, Stuckfur took a vice-like grip on the rope and drew in a deep breath, listening to Jeltor's final instructions for the risky plan. When you land on the wall top, pull the rest of the rope over. It's plenty long enough. Shin down it, open the wall gate bolts, then get clear and lead the rest to us. Do this right, and you'll be well rewarded, Stuckfur. I'll see to that personally. Right, take off. From where they crouched below the battlements, Jangler saw the rope go taut. He nudged Florian. Looks like the fun's about to start, mate. There came a swishing noise, like a wind through the forest, which increased in volume. Boracle was watching between the battlements. Ho, ho, you was right, Florian. Here he comes, flying like a bird. The hare stood up in clear view and leaned out from the wall top with his long blade-topped pole at the ready. Stuckfur could do nothing to stop himself. Whipped by small twigs and spitting leaves, he watched in horror as Florian lashed out, the razor-sharp blade severing the rope at a single blow. Then the water rat really was flying free as a bird, not up, but down, though still traveling forward. Yai! The immovable sandstone blocks of the east wall cut short his flight. Boracle winced at the sound, but Florian's concern was not for the rat. Huh! Hope that chap didn't damage the wall, what? From all around the wall top, sentries came running to see what the disturbance was about. The Marlfox vixen Predak was waiting in the ditch near the west wall. The moment she saw the shrewd guards desert their posts, she made her move. Climbing stealthily from the ditch, she hurried to the base of the wall, unwinding a slim length of rope with a stone tied to one end. It took four throws before a satisfactory cast was made, but on the fourth try the stone soared upward and over the top of an ornamental spur jutting from the wall, just below the battlements near the northwest corner. Predak caught the stone as it fell. Now she held both ends of the rope in her paws, and she pulled each in turn, testing it. The rope ran free over the stone spur, backward and forward. Moreover, it could not be seen from the wall top, unless a sentry were to lean out too far for safety. Leaving the rope with both ends touching the ground, Predak stole away, back to the east side, where Jeltor and Askrod awaited her. The vixen radiated satisfaction as she made her report. No beast saw me. The rope's in place, and all we have to do now is get the siege ladder nearby in the ditch, wait for nightfall, then haul it up to the wall. How did the diversion go? Jeltor twirled the severed rope idly. No, it worked well enough. But they were on to us, more or less, as I expected. That hare slashed the rope with a device he'd thought up. Stockfer never made it over the wall, but it provided the decoy we needed. Predak inspected the shorn rope end. Stockfer was a good soldier. 
A fool, but obedient. Pity he's gone. Askrod interrupted her. Surprisingly enough, Stuckfer wasn't killed. He must have a head made of solid bone. Look, there he is. Stuckfer was wandering in a daze around the rats who were busy building the siege ladder. Both paws were still held high over his head, grasping a long piece of rope, which he stumbled over as he meandered willy-nilly. There was not a single tooth left in Stuckfer's mouth, and beneath the bulging lump on his brow both eyes were black and blue. Bumbling about, the water rat muttered to himself, "'Must drop ober dwalsh, oben dwalgach, must doot.' Bargo led his relief column of guasum shrews up onto the wall-top, where Florian greeted him huffily. "'Well, hurrah, and hang out the jolly old flags. Relief at last, what? The chap could fade from the famine waiting up here. Have a good night's sleep, did you?' No doubt you breakfasted well. Early lunch, too, by the look of you. Fiddle-dee-dee, sir. Tardy in the extreme. Bargle baited the hare unmercifully, yawning, stretching, and patting his stomach. Slept like a mole and snored like an og, Mr. Florian. Woke to a wonderful breakfast. Honey, hot scones, fresh mint tea, and a little preserved fruit with meadow cream. Pray there's none left. Very partial to meadow cream, us shrews are. Mind, though, we did ask the cooks to save you some crusts, didn't we, Mayon? Turning his face to hide a grin, Mayon agreed. Oh, yes. Why, I said to the cooks myself, I said, You be sure and save a crust or two for Mr. Florian and his gallant sentries, a garden those walls out there while the likes of us are sleeping safe in our beds and filling our stomachs. Florian Dugglewolf Wolfenchop's ears stood erect with indignation. Cads, the lot of you, what? Small, spiky-furred, grub-wallopin' bounders. Nothing worse than a grub-walloper. Come on, chaps. Form up in a line and march off smartly. We're not stopping in the company of grub-wallopers and tuck-scoffers. As Florian led his sentries off down the wall stairs, Bargle called cheerily to him. Grub-wallopers I don't mind, but tuck-scoffers is the worst kind of beasts. You be sure and hurry back now, sir. Florian's whiskers bristled with outrage. Unmitigated impudence, sir. Confounded brass-necked cheek. Deesom popped her head around the kitchen serving hatch to warn the cooks. Just thought I'd better tell you, Mr. Florian and the sentries are coming in from the wall tops. They look pretty hungry, too. Brother Melalot clapped a paw to his forehead. Oh, dear, so they should be. I completely forgot to send out their breakfast this morning. They haven't eaten since last night. Grandma Alayo rescued her turnovers from the window ledge on which they were cooling, whisking them out of sight into a cupboard. Gracious me, if that ten-bellied hare is hungry, we'd best hide everything, or he'll eat us out of house and home, and there'll be no feast at all. Rimrose counted her cheese and celery flans. Florian must have already been here. There's one missing. Formal removed his hazelnut and elderberry pudding carefully from the oven, shaking his head at Rimrose. Ain't no Florian tuck that in, Marm. He Dibbins beat him to it. Rimrose busily stowed the flans away, chuckling. Ah, well, who could begrudge those little rogues a bite to eat? Hope they didn't burn their mouths, though. These flans are still hot. Oh, Brother Melalot, is that shrimp-berry pie the Dibbins put together for Skipper ready? Melalot pulled the pie from an oven. Done to a turn, Marm. Then why don't we serve it to Florian instead? Melalot grinned at the thought of Florian tackling the highly unusual pie. 
Why not indeed? Askrod sat in the woodland glade the marl foxes were using as a siege camp, watching the water rats testing the ladder. It seemed sturdy enough for the purpose. Furrowing his brow, he tapped his paws distractedly on a nearby oak. Vannon slid into camp like a wisp of smoke and seated herself next to her brother, observing his mood. You seem out of sorts today. What is it? Ah, we're getting nowhere with this siege. We'll never get the best of those red wallers. The luck's on their side every time. So what do you propose we do, brother? Cut our losses and get out of here, back to the island. Hmm. I only wish we could. What do you mean, sister? What's to stop us going? Listen, and I'll tell you, Askrod. While you lot have been playing with ropes and foolish ideas, I took a trip back to see what was happening at our camp, out by the river. Bilu was watching Milken for me, and I wanted to hear his report. But guess what? What? There's not a trace of any beast. The camp was deserted. Milken and the rats we left with him, all gone. Gone? What about the tapestry we stole from the abbey? Humph. Of course, that's gone also. Six shrew log boats we had. Five of them are smashed to pieces on the bank there. That means Moken took the sixth boat, the rat guards, and our tapestry with him, bound for the island, I'll wager. The traitor! I'd like to skin the deserter's hide from his back with my axe. Aye, me too, brother. But it looks like we're stuck here for now. We can't go back empty-pawed. So what do you suggest we do, Vannon? Only one thing to do. We put all our cunning into defeating Redwall. Once the abbey and its treasures are ours, we can force the shrews to build us new boats. We'll fill them with treasure, and then play the waiting game. Then one fine day we'll start back for the island, when Brother Moken's least expecting us. And then there'll be a reckoning, I promise. 19. Martin the warrior strode through Danfor's dream. He pricked the young squirrel's footpaw with his sword tip, uttering only one word. Awake! Danfor woke and sat up. The sword he had been holding loosely in his sleep had slipped free and nicked his footpaw. The first thing he saw was a big scraggy ferret with a raven's feather braided to his tail, brandishing a scimitar, as he and a band of about twenty other ferrets crept up on their four friends. Dan shouted a warning to his companions. Look out! Ambush! Dan had never been so frightened in his life. The ferrets had them outnumbered by five to one. Moreover, they were a savage, murderous-looking bunch, yellow-fanged, heavily armed, and red-eyed with bloodlust. He heard Song yelling, Run for it! Dan plunged off into the trees, pounding along as fast as his paws would go. He briefly saw the others begin to run. Song was fleet of paw. She ducked two of the vermin and fled into the thickets. But Dippler and Burble were not so lucky. Still sleepy-eyed, they were cut off and brought down by a group of the fastest ferret runners. Sobbing with fear, Dan ran as he had never run before, dodging around trees, dashing through nettle beds, stumbling and tripping through roots hidden beneath deep, damp loam. Behind him he could hear the wild, barbarous screeches of the ferrets, and their swords slashing at the undergrowth as they came after him. Chest burning, heart pounding, breath torn from him, and ragged gasps, Dan blundered onward, still clutching the sword of Martin. They were getting closer, shouting now. Round around Daraway! We's Gorham now soon! Kyar! Desperately, Dan looked about as he ran. Then he saw it, a four-topped oak with thick limbs and an impenetrable profusion of leaves. 
Dan shinnied up it, scraping his paws and barking his shins. Thrusting the sword between his teeth, he swung up through the thick boughs and stowed himself amid a clump of leafy twigs. Moments later, his pursuers grouped below the oak, brandishing an ugly array of bladed weapons. They slashed at the bushes, hunting this way and that. Where does Squirrel go to? You beseed him? Caraba! Two de Squirrels get away! Quicky quick, those Squirrelers! Garavoler and a shrew beast! Kayar! Goodyear! Scarcely daring to breathe, Dan lay flat on a limb, surrounded by oak foliage. He watched the jabbering ferrets arguing and thrashing at fern and bush alike with their curved scimitars. When they had searched around a while, one of them bared his stained fangs and pointed in the direction of the creek bank. We go back now, back now. Lots of fun, Voler, shrew beast. Rabagak. Screeching and whooping excitedly, they dashed off. Half sliding, half scrambling, Dan came down from the oak onto the ground. Burying the sword deep in the soft earth, the young squirrel sank into a crouch, lowering his head into both paws and letting hot tears of shame flood down his face. Coward! His father had been right. He had run like a frightened dibbon, leaving his friends to the enemy. It was the sound of his fitful sobbing that led Song to find Dan. Rounding the trunk of the massive oak, she sat down beside him. Dan, are you hurt? What's the matter? Still weeping, he shook his head. I was frightened, Song, so frightened. Song angled her head so that she was looking upward into Dan's face. Goodness, so was I. I nearly jumped out of my skin. Dan thrust the sword point deeper into the soil. You don't understand. I proved my father right. He called me a coward, and I am. I deserted Dippler and Burble, left him to be captured by those ferrets. I was terrified, and I ran. Song gave him a hearty shove and sent him sprawling. Oh, I never. I stayed and got killed, defended him. Dan shook tears from his eyes angrily. Oh, stop talking stupid. The pretty squirrel maid smiled and clasped her friend's paw. I will if you will, Dan. We did the only thing we could do. We escaped. Imagine if we'd stayed and got gallantly slain. Now that would have been a great help to dip and burb, wouldn't it? Dan wiped his eyes with the back of a paw and sniffed. Didn't take much bravery to run away, though, did it? Song was beginning to lose her temper. She emphasized her words by prodding Dan in the chest with her leafwood stick. No, it just took a bit of common sense, mate. We're still alive, you see. And now we're going back there to be brave when we rescue our two friends from those dirty vermin. Come on, Raguba. There's other things to do with that warrior's sword than stab the earth. Dan stood up then and pulled his sword from the ground. He wiped it clean on his tunic front, gritting his teeth. I'm glad I've got you for a friend, Song, Swift Eye. Let's go and deal with some vermin. Dippler and Burble were hanging upside down by their footpaws from a thick willow bough, swathed practically from neck to tail in vine ropes. Raventail stood in the swallow, flicking his scimitar in front of their faces. Well, well, little friends, you like him to drink more? At his signal, four grinning ferrets leaned down on the bough, causing it to bend so that Dippler and Burble's heads were forced down under the water, which amused the ferrets greatly. Give him lots and lots of drink for a longer time. Kayar, voles and shrew beasts bees much thirsty now. After a while they released the branch, and the two captives' heads came clear of the murky water. Both were coughing and gagging. 
Raventail flicked the scimitar closer to their faces. Tell me now when you beasts got enough drink drink. Then Raventail cut you loose. From you necks, from you necks. Burble spat out creek mud and wrinkled his nose at Dippler. Don't give us much choice, do we, mate? One of the parrots by the bow suddenly sighed and flopped down for no apparent reason. Raventail cocked his head quizzically. What mara we're a datin? Before he could inquire further, another ferret went down. This time the thud of the slingstone was loud and obvious. Redwa! Raguba! Even as the piercing war cries rang out from the cover of the trees, another two ferrets were laid flat by paw-sized river pebbles. Slingstones began thwacking in, hard and heavy, and the undisciplined remnants of the ragged ferret horde fled. Scrabbling and biting at one another, they clambered over the fallen trees that blocked the inlet and dashed off into the thick forest. Raventail stood swaying in the friend's boat, waving his scimitar and yelling at them, Kai-ar! Get your back! Back ear, Raventail, nor afraid! Then Dan came thundering across the bank, swinging his sword and bellowing like a badger in full blood wrath. Raguba! There was no stopping the young squirrel. Like a bolt of lightning, he flung himself on Raventail. The force of the impact was so great that both Dan and the ferret lost their swords and crashed into the water. End of Side 4 Chain Side Selector Switch This book is continued on the next cassette. Side 5, Marl Fox by Brian Jakes, continuing on page 203. Still hanging upside down, Dippler and Burble watched in awed silence as the warrior blood of Raguba rose in their companion's eyes. Spitting water and roaring, his weapon forgotten, Dan hauled Raventail almost clear of the creek and dealt him a fierce blow. Flinging the screaming ferret from him, Dan dived after his enemy pummeling with all four paws, kicking, punching, and baring his teeth as he thrashed the vermin unmercifully. Raguba! 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 Song ran out to the backside to watch the spectacle. She had never seen another creature take such a ferocious beating. Dan, leave him alone! He's had enough! But Dan was past listening. Grabbing Raventail, he hauled him over his head and flung him bodily into the marshy border of the creek's far side. Black with sludge and unable to stand, the ferret crawled away up the bank. Dan went after him, 
But he stumbled and fell in the mud among clumps of blue-flowering plants. Swiftly, Song untied the boat and leapt in, giving a hard shove against the willow trunk with her paddle. The swallow shot smoothly out across the dark surface, slowing neatly as it nosed into the blue flower surrounding Dan. Song passed him the mooring rope. Here, mate, grab this. Total exhaustion suddenly enveloped Dan. Gratefully, he held on to the rope and lay back while Song paddled back to the bank. The Raguba warrior was hauled dripping onto the mossy sward by Song and sat shivering as reaction to his wild charge set in. Song found his sword in the shallows. Great seasons, what a fighter you are, Dan. I never saw anything like that in my whole life. You are like a badger lord in bloodwrath there. I was sure you were going to slay that vermin bare-pawed. Yes, yes, but are you going to talk about it all day and leave us two poor creatures hanging here like apples waiting for autumn? Song turned to the two wet bundles hanging from the willow bough. Oops, sorry, pals, I completely forgot you there for a moment. Hang on, I'll soon get you down. Viewing the scene from his upside-down position, Burble winked at Dan. Ah, well, isn't that decent of the young missy now? She's getting round to releasing us. If and she don't put a move on with it, we'll both have great fat purple heads with hanging this way. The irony of the water bowl's remarks was not lost on Song. Smiling mischievously, she crouched with her face level to Burble's. Hmm... Then again, I might just leave you to ripen and drop off like two damsons in the orchard. How long is it till autumn, Dan? Struggling upright, Dan swung Dippler in so that Song could cut his bonds, and together they lured him onto the moss. The Gossam Shrew had not said a word throughout his ordeal. Now he sat rubbing circulation back into his footpaws as he spoke. Sleeping again, I was. Same as last time when the Marl Foxes stole my tribe's log boats. Huh. Haven't learned much, have I? Same puddle-headed beast as ever I was. That's me. When they had cut Burble down, Dan sat by Dippler and put a friendly paw about his shoulders. Don't blame yourself, Dip. We were all asleep. It wasn't your fault. Next time you'll be ready. Wait and see. I think you'll surprise yourself when the time comes. I certainly did. After what took place here today, I'll never be afraid of any creature living. What do you say, Song? The squirrel maid tossed her leafwood in the air and caught it deftly. Don't think tis a question of you being afraid any more, Dan. In the seasons to come, any foe beast facing you will be the one who feels the fear. Of that, I'm sure. As the afternoon wore on, the four friends sat on the bank discussing their next move. Burble was not happy about going back to the river. Tisn't the thing to do, you see. That old gray one and the river-ed tribe will scour that open water for days yet. Yes, yes, we'll only be like a butterfly flying into the mouth of a hungry crow, going straight into trouble, so we will. Song glanced up from the scroll that contained Friar Butty's rhyme, which she had been studying carefully. You could be right, Burb. The river might be a dangerous place for us. You say we weren't far off some rapids when your tribe were chasing us, is that correct? Oh, yes, yes, Missy. The old rapids are fast and fierce. Tis a good job we never had to face them, so tis. Yes, yes. Song tapped the parchment thoughtfully. Hmm. It doesn't say anything in this rhyme about going over rapids on the river this early. All it says is, Just follow as I run away. Discover the speechless hidden mouth. Alas, my friends, our ways part there. Go down green tunnel, bound in south, through trees with blossoms in their hair. Dan poured them the last of the dandelion and burdock cordial. So what does that tell us, Song? Think on it a bit, Dan. 
While we were following that river, did we see any streams or creeks running south before this one? No, I'm sure we didn't. There wasn't a break in the bank until I saw this side stream when they were chasing us. What are you getting at, Song? Well, tis just an idea, but I think this is the speechless hidden mouth we were looking for. Dippler, you know about waterways. What's your opinion? The Gwasim Shrew scratched his whiskers. Maybe so. The inlet does look a touch like a mouth, and all that foliage makes it a proper green tunnel. So if your poem says that's where our ways part, it must mean that is the spot where we part company with the river. Aye, I think you're right, Song. But Burble scoffed at the idea. Ah, will you listen to the wisdom of them? How can words on an old scrap of parchment be right? This is a dead end. Or is it myself as the only one can see it? Song shook the scroll beneath Burble's nose. Remember, though, this was written many, many seasons ago. Couldn't this have been a proper stream before that? Mightn't it only have become a creek after those trees fell and blocked it? Dippler butted in. Ha! Huh. But you forgot something, Missy. Aren't we supposed to be chasing the Marl Fox and his crew? Song stood up and stamped about on the bank. She was fast losing patience with the whole affair. Look, I don't care which way the fox has gone. We can't follow on the open river with Grey One on our tails. Another thing, we know the Marl Fox is bound for the secret island on the Lost Lake. This way we're sure to meet up with him. Burble, where do you think you're off to? The water bowl was already climbing over the fallen tree trunks that blocked the creek off. Don't get your paws in a tizzy, bossy tail. I'm just going to see if your idea is right, yes, yes. Well, are you coming? They climbed over the trunks and inspected the ground. Among the clumps of agrimony, sawwort, and saxifrage, the old stream bed was still identifiable by the narrow trickle of water filtering through the logs that had dammed it off. Song splashed about in it triumphantly. You see, I told you, this is the side stream we're supposed to take. Look, it's running south, just like the rhyme said it would. What do you say to that, fatty bull nose? Burble had only one word to say. Quarterage. They stared at him, repeating the word together. Porterage? Yes, yes. Have you not heard of porterage? Well, I'll tell you, my fine-furred friends. It means that we've got to follow this little water trickle till it becomes a stream again. Yes, yes. A carrion the good boat swallow upside down on our eds. Dan started climbing back over the tree trunks. Stands to sense, Burb. We'd never get anywhere trying to float the swallow in that tiny dribble. Come on, porters, let's try a bit of porterage. I'm game if you lot are. Fortunately, the swallow was a comparatively light craft. Shouldering their packs and placing the paddles flat across their shoulders, the friends turned her upside down, lifted her over their heads, then lowered her onto the outstretched blades. This meant that their heads were inside the upturned boat, and one had to follow the other blindly. Dan took the lead, being the tallest, followed by Dippler and Burble, with Song at the rear of the line. It was hard going, hot and stuffy inside the boat, where they were visited by various winged pests. However, they pressed on stoically, trying to ignore the hardships. Dunk! Youch! Watch where you're going up there, Dan. Sorry. T'was a big overhanging branch. Didn't see it. Yes, yes. Maybe you didn't see it, matey. But we felt it. Well, so did I. So stop complaining, will yer? Burb ain't complaining. He's debating. Creature's got a right to debate. 
water bowls as well as us shrews. Anyhow, how can you tell if we're going the right way, Dan? Put Ned, because I'm walking in a little stream, and me footpaws are soaking wet and soggy, that's how. Song, will you please sing a ditty or two to shut that pair up? Honestly, talk about Gabby. Gwossum and wafflin' water bowls spare me from them. Song liked the way her voice echoed inside the upturned boat. Oh, how could a hedgehog marry a mole? He's prickly, 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 and live with a squirrel all in a great hole, very tickly, tickly, tickly. And what if an otter could dance with a trout? He'd stay in the river and never come out. Pray tell me whatever they'd all think of me, inviting a bumblebee in for its tea. Why, they'd come in and join us, for goodness sake, for scones and trifle and blueberry cake, elderflower cordial and strawberry pie, oh, turn caterpillar to bright butterfly. Burble stubbed his footpaw on a stone, which did not improve his argumentative mood. Cha! Edgehogs and squirrels and bumblebees eating cake and supping cordial together? Don't make much sense, do it? Youch! Do you mind not walking on the backs of my footpaws, Missy? Sorry, Burb, and I'm sorry you didn't like my song. Tis only an old nonsense ditty my grandma Elayo used to sing to me. The water bowl trudged on unappeased. Oh, yes, yes, tis nonsense, all right. No mistake in that. Grr, listen, Mr. Wasp, keep away from my nose or I'll eat you. Dan could not restrain himself from laughing at Burble. Chatting to Wasp now, Burb? Come on, you old grouch. Let's see if you can sing us a song that makes sense. Burble sniffed. All water bowl songs make sense. Listen. A water bowl grows like an old bulrush stalk and learns to swim before he can walk. Just give him a paddle and lend him a boat. There's naught as nice as a bowl what's afloat. Go ruggle your tuckle and roggle your blot. Come flugle your wattle and pickle your swat. A water bowl's clever and smart and he's nice. He won't take a boat out onto the ice, but he'll live all his life in a comfy old cave. And when he dies, it'll do for his grave. So twangle me girdle and griddle me twog, right burgle me doodle and frumple me plog. Dippler tried to keep a straight face as he nodded wisely. Burgle me doodle and frumple me plog? Makes perfect sense. What do you think, Dan? A deep booming voice that did not belong to Dan rang out. Ho, 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 ho! Now I've seen everything, a singing boat. Hoo, hoo, hoo! The four friends whipped the swallow off their heads to see who it was. The hugest, fattest, most spiky hedgehog that any of them had ever seen was lying in an immense hammock, slung between a beech and an elm. Spikes and quills stuck through the coarse canvas of the hammock, making it look like a monstrous pincushion. He had two baskets, one on either side of the hammock, containing wild grapes and almonds. In his paw he brandished a giant mallet to crack the nuts with, and this he waved cheerily at the travelers. "'Good noontide to you. Fancy some grapes?' A few nuts, maybe? Come sit and rest yourselves, poor little waifs. Song smiled and waved back prettily to him, commenting to the others. We could do with a rest. What do you say, poor little waifs? With a grunt and a groan, the big hedgehog heaved himself out of the hammock and bowed politely. I go by the name of Saul. Full name's Sauler Tree, cause I'm the only hedgehog in these parts. Now, what be your given names, me little infants? Song introduced herself and her friends. I'm Song, he's Dan, 
And that's Burble and Dippler. Excuse me, sir, but shouldn't your name be Solitary? The big fellow waved a paw airily. Solitary, solitary. What difference, pretty one? Save that solitary is the name I gave myself, and I like it fine. Come, sit you down on my hammock. A more comfy berth you never found, eh? They sat on the hammock's edge, gently swinging back and forth. Apart from the odd spike that had to be removed from the canvas, they all agreed it was very comfortable. Saul smiled with pleasure. High deal, high deal. Now you help yourselves to grapes while I crack some almonds for you. Grow them all myself. Nothing better for putting a twinkle in your eye and a point to your spikes. The grapes were delicious, small but plump and juicy. Saul sat on a tree stump, lining almonds up and popping them gently with his giant mallet. Isn't it lonely, Mr. Saul, living alone in the midst of the woods with no beast for company? Dan asked. Saul passed them a great pawful of kernels, raising his bushy brows. Lonely? What's lonely? Great shells and vines. How could a body get lonely round here, little bushtail? I got birds to sing for me, sunshine, showers, fresh breezes to ruffle the hair of my lovely trees, clear water to drink. Oh, and croikle, too. He reached down by the side of the stump, and a small green frog hopped onto his plate-like paw. Saul grinned happily. Croikle, these are my new friends. Bid em good noontide, will you? The frog's tiny green throat bulged out. Croikle. This seemed to amuse Saul greatly. Ho, 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 ho! Tis all he ever says. Croikle. And who, pray, could argue with that? Listen to this. You're a great fierce beast who slayed thousands, aren't you, mate? The frog gazed at him with its small golden eyes. Croikle. Saul laughed until his spikes rattled, and the four travelers could not resist laughing along with the simple-hearted giant. He passed them more almonds and grapes. See? My friend's never in a bad mood, never argues or grizzles. Go on, ask him a question. Dippler winked at the little frog. Saul tells me you ate four barrels of grapes and almonds, true? The frog turned its gaze on the guasum shrew, as if it had heard his question and was considering the answer. Then it spoke. Croikle? Saul nearly fell off his tree stump laughing. Ho, ho, hoo, hoo, hoo. He said it weren't four barrels. "'Twas six. He encouraged the others to question his frog, commenting each time the tiny creature croaked. Song, Dan, and Burble took turns. "'Tell me, sir, where do you sleep at night?' "'Croikle?' "'Well, I never. He said that he kicks me out of my hammock and sleeps there every night. Hoo, 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 hoo. "'Is it true that frogs like to swim in the stream?' "'Croikle.' "'What, swim?' says he. "'Never.' I've got me own little boat, he says. Mr. Saul made it out of an almond shell. Ho, 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 ho. Sir, you look like a fine singer. Would you sing us a song? Croikle. Did you hear that? He just sang his favorite song, the shortest one ever written. My, my, what a clever frog. Ho, 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 hoo, hoo. The banter went back and forth until noon shadows began to lengthen. Song was enjoying herself, but she thought it was time they made ready to depart. Saul was busy crushing a grape, removing the pips and feeding it to Croikle, as she explained it all to him, but he nodded his head understandingly. Fear not, little uns. Tis all clear to old Saul. You want to find the stream going south, so as you can go a-sailing in your little boat.
Now it will take you best part of two days carrying the vessel, but listen to me, my dearies. I'll carry your boat and take you on a shortcut that'll have you on stream in a single day. So rest you now in my own for tonight, and we'll start out bright and early on the morrow, yes? The reply was eagerly given by the friends. Oh, yes, please, Mr. Saul. The hedgehog's dwelling was a long jumble of stone slabs, timber, branches, and mud chinking, built into the side of a rock ledge. It was very homely and comfortable inside, once Saul had stirred up the fire embers and fed them with wood and sweet-smelling peat clumps. Evening cast its calm, cool spell over all, and the four friends lounged around the fire while Saul stirred a cauldron of vegetable soup which stood on a tripod over the glow. Keeping his soft brown eyes upon the task, he began telling of his life. I lived here all my life. There were three of us, my good wife Beechtip, my little daughter Nettlebud, and myself. Ah, dearie me, it do seem a long time ago now. Anyhow, it was on a misty autumn time. I'll never forget it. I'd trekked back to the river seeking russet apples, as there was none hereabouts. Thought I might get a russet sapling to plant outside our door, so's we could grow our own. Well, on the second day out, it came on to storm, when it was too far to make it back home. So I made a shelter on the river bank below the rapids, and sat it out for three days. Then I returned here, laden with apples and a fine young sapling tree. Saul paused, gazing into the glowing peat fire, his face wreathed by aromatic smoke. He sighed heavily. Ah, lack a day. Vermin had raided my home. Twas all ruin and wreck, with no sign of the villains. Tracks washed out by storm, you see. My poor wife, Beechtip, lay slain. She were a gentle creature, couldn't fight to save her life. My little daughter, Nettlebud, was gone, taken captive by vermin. My name was Skyspike in those days, causing a great size and strength. But alas for me, I was never a warrior, couldn't raise my paw to hurt no living thing. Be that as it may, I went mad with grief and sorrow. Three seasons I roamed far and wide, always searching, seeking to find my darling Nettlebud, questing, wandering o'er woodland, water and moorland, but my poor baby was gone. Then one day in autumn, when leaves died all red gold and small birds were flying southwards to chase the sun, I found I'd roamed back to this place. I'll tell thee no lie, young friends. I sat here and wept for days, thinking on what had been. Then one morning I awakened to find the sun shining bright, and birds singing joyous songs to it. A great peace came o'er me, and I no longer wanted to spend my life wandering about. That was when I changed my name to Solitary, and decided to live out my season's ear. I rebuilt my house, reared little croicle from a tadpole I had found in the trickling water, and guess what? Saul pointed out of the doorway to a tree. That sapling I'd cast away weren't no russet. T'was a fine young almond tree. There tis yonder, see? So here I am, and here I'll stay. And allow me to say this. I'll never do another creature a bad turn if and I can't do him a good'un. Song smiled at the huge spiky beast. You're a fine and rare creature, Mr. Saul. Twenty. Mokin was up to his usual tricks. As dusk fell, the Marl Fox had ordered his crew to put in to shore and make camp, and now he sat in the branches of an elm, listening to his water rats talking, 
as they huddled in the lee of their log-boat on the river-bank. From his tether in the stern of the vessel, Fenno was urging them to desertion or mutiny. "'Listen, mates, now's your chance, while Mokin's away scouting downriver. Make a break for it while you still can, mates.' A rat named Gorm stared dully at the shrew. "'We ain't your mates, so shut your trap.' Fenno ignored him and carried on. "'See what happened today? One of you was bashed against the rocks and drowned getting over them rapids. The logboat was near wrecked, and we were almost lost altogether. But did your Marl Fox worry about that, eh?' "'Oh, no. All he was thinking of was that tapestry. Then Mokin had us breaking our backs, even on those paddles, to escape the Volcrews. "'You there. I saw him whack you a belt with his axe handle to make your paddle faster.' What sort of a leader is that, I ask you? The rat he was addressing merely shrugged. We serve the kin of the High Queen Sylph. Tis no business of yours. Fenno curled his lip at the water rat scornfully. Ha! High Queen Sylph. Look at yourselves, soaking wet and wearied to the limit, crouching there on a damp bank without a bite between you, or a fire to dry out by. You must all be crazy. Do you think your queen cares the drop of a leaf about you lot? The rat called Gorm banged the side of the logboat to silence Fenno. All your fine talk's doing you no good, Gwassum. Don't you know that Marl foxes are magic beasts? Twould do us no good at all trying to run from them. Where would we go? No creature can escape the magic of Marl foxes. Fenno strained against the thong that bound him to the boat. Magic, my whiskers. You water rats are really stupid. Not half as stupid as you, shrew. Fenno actually jumped with shock. Mokan was standing behind him, holding aloft a whippy branch he had cut from the elm with his axe. The shrew covered his head with both paws, crouching in a ball as blows rained heavily on him. Pain is the best teacher for stupid idiots. Marl foxes are magic. Say it. Say it. Ugh. Yog. Marl foxes are magic, sire. Yarg. Mokan threw the broken branch savagely at Fenno's head and kicked his sobbing prisoner brutally. "'You've learned a valuable lesson, Oaf. We've got all night. Shall I cut myself another switch to remind you of it, eh?' Crouching in the damp logboat bottom, Fenno wept brokenly. "'Mercy, sire, please. Marl foxes are magic. I won't forget, sire.' Mokan lost interest in his captive. Turning to Gorm, he said, "'Break out supplies and light a small fire.' Keep it sheltered in the lee of the boat, and don't let it smoke. The water rat bowed. It shall be done as you say, sire. Mokan stroked the intricately embroidered tapestry roll. Keep this dry and in perfect condition. High Queen Sylph would be angry if it were damaged. Queen Sylph was distracting herself by paying the slaves a visit. As her palanquin was borne out to the rear courtyard, she made small mewling noises of disgust, as she watched the steaming mess of porridge made from maize and chopped roots being delivered to the bars of the pen. Hungrily the starving slaves grabbed pawfuls and gulped it down. Oleg cracked his whip and snarled, "'Be still in the presence of Her Majesty, High Queen Sylph!' Immediately they quit feeding and huddled together in the darkness of the pen's back wall. Alarmed by the moody and unpredictable Queen's visit, they did not know what to expect." Athrock and his magpies strutted about in front of the bars, their wicked beady eyes watching the pitiful prisoners. Rat guards stood stiffly at attention. 
the odd quiver of a spear denoting that they were as apprehensive as the slaves at Silt's unexpected appearance. All eyes were on the silk-draped conveyance. Servants hurried to place torches and lanterns all around the palanquin. The stillness was ominous, as if every creature present was afraid to breathe. Nothing moved in the awful silence except for the eerie dancing shadows cast by the flickering torches. Harsh and grating, the High Queen's voice rasped out from behind the silken veils. Are they working hard for the food we give them? Oleg, the rat captain in charge of all slaves, replied stiffly, Yes, Your Majesty. Some in the fields and orchards, and others in your workplace, making things of beauty to grace your chambers. There was a further silence. Then Silt spoke once more. Hmm. Don't let them get fat and lazy, Captain. Remind them of the rules on my island. Oleg faced the cages and shouted out the rules, veins bulging from his thick neck as he did so. Work and you live, and remember there is no escape from here. Disobey, and you get fed to the teeth of the deeps. This is the rule of Her Majesty. I, Queen Silth. You stay alive only by Er mercy. There was a short silence. Then the voice from within the palanquin called out petulantly, Take me back inside to my chambers. I don't like it out here. There's only ugliness, nothing nice. I must be surrounded by beauty. Death will never visit where beauty reigns. Lifting the palanquin carefully, the bearers marched off with measured tread, halting suddenly as Silth screeched, Stop! There it is, at the upper chamber windows. Don't you see it, fools? The white coast. Captain, take a troop up there quickly and slay it. Hurry! Floating back and forth across the brightly lit window of an upper chamber, the fearful white apparition fluttered, howling, Queen Sylph, dark forest awaits your spirit. Death is all you have left now. Ooh! Oleg clattered off at the head of his troops, knowing that the specter would be gone when he reached the room upstairs. It was not the first time something like this had occurred. Blontor stowed the white ghost and its corner cupboard, and poured two goblets of plum wine. Sliding one across to the rat Wilke, the marl fox smiled maliciously, listening to the guards hastening up the stairs. She'll have frightened herself to death by winter, Wilke, and then we'll prepare a deadly reception for my returning brothers and sisters. Give me a toast, Wilke. The female water rat nodded over the rim of her goblet. To High Queen Lontour, next ruler of this island and all the lakes surrounding it, Long life and undisturbed sleep. Lontor quaffed her goblet's contents. Aye, I'll drink to that. After all, who could disturb my sleep? The white ghost? Wilka topped up Lontor's goblet from the wine flagon. How could the white ghost disturb my lady when he'll be lying at the bottom of the lake, wrapped around ex-queen Sylph? Hee hee! Pour yourself more wine, Wilka. Gregor stumped her way downstairs to find out what had been going on in her absence. The few days she had spent alone in her room had been irksome. Now recovered from her wounds, the blind badger was eager for company, longing to be part of the daily hum of Abbey life. Her tread was slow and sure, and she kept to one side of the stairs, using the wall as a guide. Every joint and crack of the ancient red sandstone, each paw-worn stair with its own small dip or hollow, the badger mom knew well. Redwall Abbey was her home, and she loved it so much that she felt every stone of it was part of her. 
Reaching Great Hall, Craig's sharp instincts told her things were not as they should be. She knew it was night time, and there were always red wallers about this late in the evening, but now there was a hushed silence over everything. Moreover, her senses told her that candles and lanterns aplenty were lit, for she could feel their presence, the slight warmth, a guttering flicker, the odd drip of melted beeswax from a brimming sconce, the fragrant odor of pine resin. All was not right. Moving silently into what she knew was the shadow of a thick stone column at the edge of the hall, the big badger felt about until her paw rested on the long pole of a brass-cupped candle-snuffer. Grasping it tight, she called out, "'Who's there? Speak if you know what's good for you. I don't like creatures sneaking about around me.' From somewhere out at the hall's center, a voice she identified as Friar Butty's whispered, "'One, two, three, now!' Music burst out everywhere, fives, drums, and all manner of stringed instruments with massed voices singing in harmony. Midsummer, midsummer, the solstice is here, and now we give thanks to the day. We joyfully sing like the birds on the wing, for old winter is still far away. The high sun of noontide smiles down on us all, sending warmth to the earth from on high. Soon the autumn will yield out in orchard and field where the bounties of nature do lie. Midsummer, midsummer, the solstice is now, in the midst of this season so bright. Yea, we sing, I we sing, hear our glad voices ring, far into this fine summer night. Dwopple and Blenny, the mole-babe, dashed forward. Seizing Craig's huge paws, they tugged her toward the feasting tables. Hee-hee, <laughs> we frightened you, Badger-mum, but then us singed nice for you. Boor, marm, do we come now? We am got gort eeps of vittles for ee. And Yuam can stay up late with usns. The blind badger allowed herself to be led to the festive table. Seating herself in the big abbot's chair, she took both dibbons on her lap, joking with the little creatures. I must say you did frighten me dreadfully, but that lovely song made me feel lots better. Thank you. Can we really stay up late tonight? Then I'll behave myself and be extra good. Mmm, I smell blueberry and almond turnovers. Pass me the dish, please. I'm so hungry, I think I'll eat them all. Dwopple shook his spoon severely at the massive old badger. Titch, titch, thought you said you was gonna behave. Friar Butty send you back up to bed if you naughty. Outside, the night was still, the day's heat still radiating from the sun-warmed stones of the wall-top. A half-moon stood clear in endless plains of dark velvet sky. At the center of the south rampart, Bargle stood talking to the shrew Mayan on reluctant guard duty. What do you think the chances are of Florian and his patrol coming up here to relieve us so as we can get to the feast? Bargle shook his head at Mayan's simple and trusting nature. You got more chance of sprouting wings and fluttering away like a butterfly, matey. Imagine old Florian and Skipper pushing woodland trifle down their faces, then saying all of a sudden like, Better hurry up. We gotta go and relieve the wall guards. Mayan tried to imagine it, then sighed regretfully. You're right, mate. Twouldn't happen in ten seasons aplenty. Oh, well, maybe they'll leave us some for breakfast. I hope. The four marl foxes crouched in the ditch. Behind them, a contingent of water rats waited, holding the siege ladder between them. Jeltor hauled himself stealthily up onto the path. When he held his voluminous cloak still, he was almost invisible against the ditch edge and the path. At his signal, the rats crawled out of the ditch, taking care to make no noise with the long, rough ladder. Silently, Jeltor fastened it to one end of the rope that had been left hanging from the protrusion beneath the battlements near the northwest corner. 
The ladder rose smoothly upward as several rats hauled slowly on the rope's other end. When the ladder was raised to its full extent, Jiltor maneuvered it firmly against the wall and nodded to the others waiting in the ditch. Bannon, Askrod, and Predak led the remainder of the water rats to the bottom of the ladder. Gripping his axe handle and tight clenched teeth, Jiltor began climbing. When he was halfway up, Predak allowed the rats to follow. The Gwasim Shrew guarding that area was looking over at Bargle and Mayan, not suspecting a thing. Swift and silent as a shadow passing across the moon, Jeltor slid over the wall top and slew the sentry. As the rats followed, he gestured to the wall steps in the northwest corner, whispering, Hide down there against the wall and wait for me. The first group of ten water rats padded softly down the stairs into the grounds of Redwall Abbey. Mayan yawned and stretched wearily. Let's hope that Prior Buddy thinks of us and reminds old Florian that we're up here, mate. Ooh, I don't know what's getting to me most, hunger or tiredness. Is that Flegum over at the far corner there? Looks like he's gone asleep. Bargle stared over toward the shrew in question, who was lying prone. Sleeping on the job, is he? Well, I'll soon... Rats! Look at mate. There's rats climbing over the wall. Log a log a log a log! Roused by the guasom cry, shrews pounded around from all sides of the wall tops, following Bargle and Mayan to the northwest corner. Jeltor cursed, grinding his teeth. Brought their lousy eyes. They've seen us. Bargle charged headlong across the ramparts, yelling out orders. Three to each wall gate. Mayan, take six and secure the main gate. Stop those vermin opening any gates. Splicker, bring the rest and follow me. Charge! Jiltor was in a quandary. He could not fight off the charging Gwasim, but neither could he climb back down the ladder against the stream of rats already on it, forging their way upward. Judging the situation hastily, he slipped quietly off down the wall steps. A water rat was halfway over the wall when he met a thrust from Bargle's rapier and fell back with a gurgle, plunging out over the heads of his upcoming companions. Bargle and three other shrews mounted the battlements, slashing with their blades at any rat foolish enough to attempt climbing further. Below on the ground, Vannon, Askrod, and Predak knew that the plan had been discovered, but they urged their troops on. Come on, get up that ladder. You at the top there. Attack. Get on the wall and keep them shrews busy. Fight them. Bargle draped himself across the gap between two battlements, and by leaning down as far as he could, managed to catch hold of the rope, still tied to the ladder top. The brave shrew hauled on the rope while his mates kept the attackers busy until the free end was at last in his hand. Leaping up, he yelled out commands. Some beast get over to the abbey and raise the alarm. There's no beast in the bell tower to warn them. The rest of you follow me. Bargle started running along the tops of the battlements toward the southwest corner, tugging the rope across his shoulders. Wily in the ways of battle, the other guasom caught on right away to what he was doing. Climbing up to join him, each one caught hold of the rope and ran with it, pulling furiously. With a loud grating sound, the ladder began heeling over sideways. Rats screeched in panic, caught in a jumble at the top of the ladder, unable to descend because of others clinging on and terror below them. Those lucky enough to be on the low rungs jumped for the safety of the ground, most of them landing on the heads of the bewildered marlfoxes below. Unable to topple further, the ladder fell awkwardly, spinning out away from the wall, laden with screaming vermin. It thudded to earth with a sickening crunch, snapping at its center, as it hit the ground in a cloud of dust and carcasses. Bargle jumped down from the battlements. 
Down into the grounds, mates. We don't know how many got in. The shrew running for the abbey to raise the alarm was brought down by an arrow. Mayen had his paws full defending the main gates against Jeltor and the ten water rats who had made it over the wall. Jeltor was fighting for his life, and he knew it. If he could not force Mayen and his six Gwasim away from the main gate, there would be no help from outside now that the ladder had fallen. The Marlfox fought like a demon, snarling in the face of his enemies as he wielded his axe savagely. Three shrews were laid low as Bargle and the rest of his sentries came thundering up to join the fight. Jeltor and his rats saw them coming and dashed away for the south wall gate, where only three Gwasim were on guard. The Marlfox's mind was racing. If he was fast enough, they could lay the three low and escape. Bargle went after them, signaling Mayan to stay with his command at the main gate. One of the shrews running with Bargle was halfway across the lawn, whirling a loaded sling, when he tripped. The heavy pebble shot off into the night. Smash! The stone took out a small window pane in Great Hall. Jangler, Russell, and Skipper were up and vaulting over the tabletops, even before the final shards of crystal glass had finished falling. Boracle was hard on their heels, blocking the doorway through which the trio had just exited. Friar, decent, slowly. Get those dibbons to the wine cellars. Kraga, you and the elders hold this door. Every other able-bodied redwaller, follow me. Florian brushed past him in high indignation. Humph! Just what I was about to say myself. Don't anticipate my orders in the future. Thunder in bad form, sir. Troglo Spearback could not help raising his eyebrows as he patted Boracle's back. Oh, dearie me, you've got Mr. Florian really roused now, mate. I wonder who he's going to attack with that bowl of puddin' that he's carrying. Jeltor had lost the fray. Bargle and his Gwasim hurled themselves upon the water rats with all the skill and ferocity of shrew warriors. They took no prisoners. Jeltor was backed up against the wall gate, surrounded by a half-circle of rapier blades, when Janglor, Russell, and Skipper arrived on the scene. Bargle staunched the leg wound grimly. Big old ladder they had, Skip. But I put paid to that. I think this Marlfox here is the last of them. Some beast held up a torch, and Skipper studied the Marlfox and its glow. Florian, take your guards up on the wall top and secure it. We'll search the grounds and make certain there ain't any more vermin prowling about. Jangler, bind this one and lock him in the gatehouse until we decides what to do with him. Jeltor flailed about dangerously with his axe. Put a paw near me and it gets chopped off. The half-lidded eyes of Jangler settled on the Marl Fox. Tough beast, ain't your fox? You're the one who was going to execute me for sending your sister where she belongs. The Marl Fox spat at the warrior squirrel and bared his fangs. Talk big with your army round, you windbag. You couldn't face me alone if I was bound and blindfolded. Skipper smiled pityingly at the Marl Fox. Oops, I think you just said the wrong thing there, matey. Jangler waved a paw at those surrounding the corner Jeltor. Back off, every beast. Do like I say and stand well away. Rustful shouldered his javelin and prepared to stride off. Best do like Janglor says. Where do you want us, Jang? Janglor's eyes never left the fox as he replied, Over yonder, out of the way. The squirrel warrior nodded at the marl fox's axe. You can keep hold of that thing. Now, let's do this proper. Walk past me, fox. "'about three tall tree lengths, out onto the lawn.' "'Jeltor was mystified, but he complied, "'feeling the squirrel's lazy eyes watching him "'as he paced off the distance. "'Right. That'll do, you vermin. Stop there.' "'Jeltor halted and turned to see Janglor "'whack the bolts back with two sharp movements "'and fling open the south wall gate. 
Jangler moved forward a few paces. Standing empty-pawed between Jeltor and the open gate, he addressed the fox. See? There's freedom. An open gate. All you got to do is get past me. Don't fret. No beast will try to stop you, only me. Jeltor spat on his axe blade and swung it expertly, feeling light-headed with confidence. What sort of fools were these abbey dwellers, leaving only a fat-bellied, sleepy-looking squirrel between a Marlfarks and his freedom? He ran a short distance forward, sprang into a crouch with the keen axe flat-bladed in front of him, and began stalking his prey. Jangler waited until Jeltor was less than a pace from him. Then, as the axe swung, he dropped to the ground, kicking out sharply. Jeltor went down on his tail with a grunt of surprise. He had never missed a beast with his axe at that range. A sickening pain shot through his left footpaw, and he scrambled upright, to find himself facing the squirrel whirling a stone-loaded sling. Limping, Jeltor took two sharp sideways chops at his adversary, snarling angrily. When I leave here, I'll take your head with me, Redwaller. Jangler countered a blow, the stone in his sling ringing off the axe blade. He swung and caught Jeltor in the stomach. Save your breath, bully. Are you going to talk or fight? The Marlfox fainted to draw Jangler off, then swung an overhead slice directly between his opponent's eyes. But the squirrel was not there. Jangler had moved his position so that he was standing alongside his assailant. The momentum of the swing buried the axe blade in the earth, and the thwack of the stone-loaded sling echoed off the south wall as it struck Joltor's skull. Jangler took the axe from the slain Marlfox's limp grasp, passing it to Troglo's spearback. This weapon's seen enough evil. Put it to work in your cellars, chopping up old barrel staves. Skip, get those slain rats. He hooked a paw in Jeltor's belt and dragged him outside the wall gate, where he dumped the dead Marlfox on open ground. Put them out of here with their master. I told them they could bury their own when they started this. When the gate was secured, they started back for the abbey, Skipper and Janglor supporting Bargle, who sported a makeshift bandage on his wounded leg. Rustful ruffled the shrew's ears fondly. That's a wound to show your grand shrews, mate. The tough Gwasim limped forward with all speed. Ha! Never mind that. Is the feast still going good? Me and McCrew been waiting on a relief since nearly noon, and we're starving. Florian called down anxiously from the wall top. I say, old chap, if you see a half-finished woodland trifle puddin', well, it's mine, so don't put a blinkin' paw near it, what? Right-o, mate, Bargle called cheerily back. I swear I won't touch your trifle. Can't say the same thing for man, though. He loves his trifle, nothing does. Cads! Trifle burglars? Have you no sense of honor, sirs? Leaving a poor creature up here in charge of your jolly worthless hides while you plunder his trifle? This'll go on your record, I warn you, great shrew-faced vittle vulture. Mayan began ragging Florian ruthlessly. Are you partial to mushroom and cheese flans, sir, or anything of that sort? Just you tell us what dishes are your favorite, Mr. Florian. The hare's reply was tinged with hopefulness. Well... Thank the seasons for a decent type of shrew, what? Yes, mushroom and cheese flan. That's jolly nice. Oh, let me see now. I like summer salad with hazelnuts, blueberry pudding, hot scones with meadow cream, lashings of the stuff. Er, apple pie, plum tart, heavy fruit cake with a wedge of cheese, anything like that. Maya nodded, as if making a mental note of it all. Well, don't you fret, sir. We'll remove all that jolly old temptation out of your way— so that your breeches'll still fit your... Don't forget to put that on our record, sir. 
They went inside, chuckling, with the air ringing to Florian Dougalwolf Wolfachop's invective. Blistering salad swipers! Confounded purloiners of puddings! You mop-pawed, rag-headed, bread-and-cheese bandits! I hope you all scoff too much and explode. See if I'll care. Ha! Pish and tush! I'll say. Fiddle-de-hay, and serves em right. Why, I've a good mind to go to sleep, and allow the flippin' place to be overrun with water-foxes and marl-rats, and what have you. Er, I mean, water-foxes and ragmats. Yes, that's what I mean. Er, no, tisn't. Twenty-one. Morning was high and bright by the time the travelers left Solitary's dwelling with their guide. Song had the feeling that though the hedgehog giant professed to be happy with his lonely existence, he would dearly have wished them to stay longer. In normal circumstances, the squirrel maid would have liked to, but there was much to be done, and now was not the time to linger. With their packs refilled from Saul's larder, they trudged off, their big friend in the lead carrying the boat swallow across his shoulders with ease. Dan figured that the path they were taking must once have been flooded by water, for thick fern beds interspersed with clumps of marjoram, woundwort, and hemp nettle grew around the slender trunks of young rowan, elder, and ash, which provided a veritable palisade on either side of the narrow path. Apart from the birdsong all around, there appeared to be no signs of other creatures. "'Looks like we got the woodlands to ourselves, mates,' Dippler remarked airily. Saul's reply caused them to look to their weapons. "'Not quite, me young dears. We're being watched.' Now, now, put not your paws near blade or sling. There's nothing a beast of my girth cannot deal with. Follow me. Look neither left nor right, and be not afeard. Oh, yes, yes. Keep close to the big feller. Though I don't see as how he'll defend us. Burwell whispered to Dippler as they hurried to keep up with Saul. Yesterday he said that twas again his nature to be a warrior or harm any living creature. Dippler kept close behind the hedgehog's broad back. He had confidence in Saul. Don't you worry, Burb. Mr. Saul will take care of us. Song's sharp eyes soon picked out the shapes flitting amid the screen of slim tree trunks. Whoever it was tracking them seemed well-versed in stealth, using sunlight and shadow skillfully, slipping between ferns and bushes. Whatever kind of creature comes at us, I'm not afraid, Dan murmured to her. This time they won't catch me napping, I'll wager. The pretty squirrel maid restrained Dan's sword paw gently. I know you don't fear them, Dan, but let's do what Saul says. Just follow and leave things to him. Look out! Here they are. There were three of them, a stoat and two weasels. Their appearance was eerie and barbaric. Stripes of yellow clay and green plant dye swathed the trio from ears to footpaws, providing perfect camouflage for the type of woodland they hunted in. A mace and chain dangled from the stoat's paw, while the weasels brandished fire-blackened cutlasses, they stood on the path ahead, boldly blocking the way. Grinning wickedly, the stoat twirled his mace and chain. Stay where you are. This is our forest. Who said yous could walk on our path? I never did, you cullies. The weasels were enjoying themselves. They shook their heads. Nah, we never gave them permission. Trespassing, that's what they're doing. Saul unshouldered the boat, placing it carefully to one side. His voice was calm and friendly. Me and my friends are travelers. We don't want trouble. The stoat turned to his weasel companions, putting on a mocking tone. Did you hear that, Buckos? They don't want trouble. Ain't that nice? 
Turning swiftly, he slammed the spiked metal ball of his mason chain against a thin laburnum tree, tearing off a chunk of bark. His voice hardened as he shook the weapon at the hedgehog. Well, you've already got trouble, whether you want it or not. Now, drop those food packs, and your weapons too, and leave the pretty boat where tis. Then run back the ways you came, and I'll let you off with your lives. But you'd better do it quick. Saul held up a large paw. I hear you, friend. Let me have a word with these young'uns first. Without waiting for a reply, Saul turned and addressed his followers quietly. Steady now, my little dears. I know you're warriors, and you could deal with yon vermin. But why waste life? They're only bullies and loudmouths, or they'd have acted before now. Leave this to Saul. The giant hedgehog turned back then and took a few resolute steps forward. Seeing the size of him reared up to his full height, the vermin trio fell back a pace. Saul's face was stern and unrelenting, and his voice rang like iron. You see those four young'uns back there? Well, each of them is a Redwall Abbey champion. They're born warriors. Any one of them could lay all three of you out. Both weasels looked apprehensive at this statement, but the stoat kept up his swagger. You're lying, Edgepig. Those four, ha, I'll wager that four seasons back their mamas was still tucking them in bed. Saul raised his bushy eyebrows, widening his eyes until he began to look quite insane, and his voice rose to a roar. But I only keep my friends for special occasions, and this ain't nothing special. Three painted popinjays like you, you're all mine. Saw's powerful paws began clenching and unclenching. His eyes popped even wider, and his voice swelled like thunder. Cause you've left it until too late to run away now. You must deal with me. I'm the son of a gut ripper and skull crusher, born in dark moon and storm. My enemies don't have graves. I et them all. First I'll bite off your ears and tails. Then I'll build me a great fire, a roasting fire. I'll cut me a sharp green spit, one that can take three vermin at a time. Then I'll get my skin and sword, and I'll... But the vermin were gone, whizzing away through the woodlands like minnows with a pike on their tails. Solitary sat down on the path, placing a paw across his eyes and shaking his head woefully. Oh, dearie me. Great vines and gravel. Deary, goodness gracious me. Song hurried forward and held his paw sympathetically. Mr. Saul, whatever's wrong with you? The giant hedgehog waved her away. Leave me a moment, my pretty maid. I've gone and upset myself with all that temper and shouting. It had to be done, though I don't like myself when I must resort to anger. Leave me, I beg you. Song went with her friends to sit a short distance from Saul. Dan's eyes were shining with wonder. Did you see him? Phew! Imagine what he'd have done if the vermin had stayed. I shudder to think. Dippler had enjoyed the encounter immensely. Once he was over the first fright of Saul's roaring tirade. He, he, he! Did you see their faces? I thought they was going to break all their teeth. They was chattering so hard, eh, Burb? Oh, yes, yes. Myself, I was hoping that good old Mr. Saul would skin him and roast the rotten toads like he said he would. Yes. Song tweaked the water bowl's ear. You bloodthirsty little maggot. Mr. Saul wouldn't have done any such thing. He knew they were only bullies, so he outbullied them. Look at him, poor creature. He's quite upset. However, Saul's depressed state did not last too long. He sniffed quite a bit, wiped his eyes, and stood up smiling broadly. 
Well, that's enough of that, my little dearies. There's plenty of creatures in this land to upset me, without my upsetting myself. Life is given to be lived happily. That's true enough. Picking up the mason chain that the stoat had dropped, Saul twirled it above his head until it was a humming blur. Then he flung it up and out. They watched in awe as it sailed out of sight over the treetops. About mid-afternoon Saul changed course slightly, veering off into an area where the trees were less thick, and small clearings and rocks dotted the land. I hope you don't mind, my dearies, but I got a little visiting to do. Twon't take up much of your time. Dippler sniffed the air appreciatively. Oh, lovely, scones. Some beasts baking scones, I can smell them. Sure enough, a wonderful aroma of fresh-baked scones hovered elusively on the hot afternoon air. Saul halted and called out in a gentle sing-song tone, Good wife Brim, are you at home? If in you are, tis only me. Now you won't sit all alone, cause I've brought some friends to tea. A voice, old and cracked through long seasons, answered him, If in that's who I think it be, what a den you're making. Seems to me I only see your face when I'm bacon. Laughing uproariously, Saul hitched the swallow farther up on his shoulders and broke into a lumbering run, with the four travelers trotting in his wake. Goodwife Brem was a small, thin otter, incredibly old. Her fur had turned a beautiful silver white. Song had never seen an old otter wife dressed so charmingly, from her poke bonnet and puff-sleeved gown to the flowery pinafore with dainty lace edging. The goodwife's home was properly built from baked clay and mud bricks, walling in a flat, almost square rock spur, which formed the roof. White limestones separated her vegetable and herb garden from a blossoming flower patch. The old otter left off gathering rows of scones from a window ledge where they had been cooling, and hobbled forward to greet her friend. Saul and Goody Brim hugged and kissed fondly. My old Goody Goody, prettiest otter and best cook anywheres. Saul, you big flatterer, your singing ain't improved none. So it hasn't, ma'am, but I got one ear can out sing larks. Saul introduced them, while Goody Brim kissed their cheeks and squeezed their paws right heartily for one so frail-looking. Fortune smile on them. Ain't they so young and beautiful, Saul? My, my, swords and slings and rapiers, proper young warriors all. Come in and sit. I was about to put the kettle on. Inside was the neatest, tidiest house they had ever seen. A brightly-hued rush mat covered the floor from wall to wall. Pottery ornaments graced the highly polished dresser. There were even embroidered linen headrests on the chairbacks. Goody Brim put a sizable copper kettle over the fire to boil. Then, rolling mint leaves and dried burnet rose hips, almost to powder, with a long round stone, she tossed them in a fat blue teapot. Tea at Goody Brim's house was very special. The travelers helped themselves to almond wafers and scones, spread with every kind of preserve from black currant jelly to gooseberry and damson jam. Saul hauled two bags from his pack. Brought you some grapes and almonds. Good crop this year. They explained their mission to the otter wife, who listened, sipping her tea and nodding, while encouraging them to eat more. When they had finished their tale, the old good wife spoke. The stream flows well not far from here. Saul will have you there by eventide, so don't gollop your food and rush off now. Lack a day. Young'uns are always in a hurry. Slow down. Tis better for you. Now then, pretty miss, with a name like yourn, I think you should carry a nice tune. 
Do you know one called Mother Nature, dear? Tis a great favorite of mine. Song answered without hesitation. Aye, I know it well, marm. My grandma Elayo taught it to me. Twas a long time ago, but I recall every word. Goody chuckled and winked at Saul. A long time ago, eh? Like is not two seasons back. When you're old as me, then you can talk about long times, my beauty. Come, sing for me. Song began tapping her football, and they all tapped along with her until the rhythm was just right to start singing. Who taught the birds to sing? Why, Mother Nature, dear. Who told the winds and breeze to blow, rain to fall and snow to snow, rivers to run and streams to flow? Oh, Mother Nature, dear. Who colored grass so green? Why, Mother Nature, dear. Who tells the moon come out at night and teaches stars to shine so bright that orders sun and clear daylight? Oh, Mother Nature, dear. Who makes the seasons change? Why, Mother Nature, dear. Who says the seas must ebb and flow, and tells each tree how tall to grow, then lets the days pass fast or slow? Oh, Mother Nature, dear. I see her plain and clear. She's all around us here. Song held the final note, letting it rise, holding it a touch longer, then ending with a double tap of her foot paws. Goody Brim was smiling, yet she wiped her eyes with a small kerchief. I never heard that tune sung so sweet in all my days. "'Twas a rare treat just to sit and listen to your voice, young missy." Saul rose reluctantly. "'That's true, my dear, but these young uns got a ways to go afore nightfall. We best leave now, if and we want to make it to the stream by twilight. So we'll be bidding you good-bye.' Goody Brim hastily started wrapping scones for them. "'Good-bye nothing. I'll walk with you as far as the stream. A stretch of the old paws will do me good.' Afternoon shadows were growing long as they strode through the woodland in double file, chatting away animatedly. Dan watched the old otter leaning for support on Saul's sturdy paw, both solitary creatures united for a short time. Song already had an idea of what Dan was going to say to her, but she let him speak his thoughts as they walked together. I can't help feeling sorry for Saul and Goody. You can tell they lead a lonely life by the way they love company and want us to stay and visit longer. I think they'd be far better off living at Redwall Abbey. There'd be lots of new friends there and things to do. I bet they'd soon forget their loneliness at the Abbey. Song had already pondered this idea. Ah, but you must remember, Dan, they're solitary creatures by choice. I'll grant you that they like visitors— but if they were to live at the Abbey, perhaps they wouldn't be able to get used to constant company and living night and day without the solitude they've come to love so well. Besides, Saul and Goody are old and set in their ways. I don't think they'd take so easily to a new life. Goody Brim turned and winked at Song. Right, my beauty. You show great wisdom for one so young. The squirrel maid felt her fur prickle with embarrassment. Oh, Marm, I'm sorry. I didn't realize I was speaking so loud. Goody's head nodded up and down as she chuckled. He he, you weren't. Sometimes my old paws let me down, but these ears of mine are sharp as the day I was born. What's more, when I hear your voice echoing round this great boat that Saul's carrying, it sounds a lot louder, I can tell you. He he. Burbel agreed with the old otter. Ah, yes, yes, missus. I carried that boat over me head with these three for nigh on a day. Do you know, they near drove me mad with their chattering and singing, echoing through me poor young ears. Yes. Dippler stared at the water bowl quizzically. 
Did I hear right, matey? Some beast near drove you mad by chattering? Are you sure it wasn't the other way round, eh? Several rivulets joined in a small valley to form the stream. In the gathering twilight they heard the water sounds as they trekked through the trees toward it. Simple pleasure showed on Saul's heavy face. You see, me little dearies, I told you I'd get you here before dark, and I was right, was I not? Placing the swallow on stream, Saul held it still while the four friends stowed their supplies, climbed into the vessel, and took up their paddles. Then Saul and Goody Brim bid them farewell. Go ye now, and fortune sail with you, my dearies. Aye, and make them scones last well. Twill be a long time till you taste any so nice. Should you return safe from your venture, be so kind as to call and visit old Saul again some sunny day. You must all come and see me, too, but stay a bit longer next time. Be careful now, go safe, and take our best wishes with you. The swallow cut her way out to midstream, with the four friends calling their goodbyes to the two good creatures waving from the bank. Thanks for everything, both of you. We'll come back, never fear. Hi, a guassum nose can set scones bacon anywhere, ma'am. Yes, yes. Tell me, friend Kreutel, to have more jokes ready when we call back this way, sir. Farewell, Saul. Farewell, Goody. We'll never forget you or the kindness you have shown us. Farewell. Watching the sleek craft slide downstream until it was lost in the nightfall, Hedgehog and Otter stood silent, tears dripping down their faces. Goody Brim passed Saul her kerchief. They got a long and dangerous way to go, but they're young and brave of heart. They'll make it. The giant hedgehog dabbed gently at his eyes. Wish they could have stayed safe with me and Kreutel. 22. Florian Dugglewolf Wolfenschop struck his most noble pose. Balancing high on the Midwest battlements, he leaned forward, shading his eyes with a paw, back legs stuck out straight behind, and his expression one of keen and courageous intelligence, as he peered searchingly in all directions. The fearless commander, master of all he surveyed, Hall clear, he called to the sentries in his most authoritative voice. The enemy hath fled from our gates. Nary a sign of one louse-bound rat or malicious marlfox to be seen in all this fair country, what? Deesom clasped her paws together fervently. Oh, thanks be to fortune. Is the fighting over now? Florian blew out his narrow chest, placing a paw upon his heart. The winds of war blow no more, madam. The foe-beast is vanquished. Routed by our valorous efforts, retreating in disarray, what, what? The fiendish mouse-babed Wapple narrowly missed the hare's tail with a stone from his sling. He scowled ferociously. War am talkin' bout. Florian cast a jaundiced eye at his one remaining foe. If you'd washed your pesky ears out, you'd have heard first time, O oh, small and horrible one. Victory is ours. Toll the bells. Strew rose petals round my paws, and prepare a great feast. Brother Melalot rolled his eyes skyward in despair. I had a feeling he was going to mention food. The rest of the Red Wallers, sitting on the gatehouse steps, looked to Kregga. Sister Slowey touched the badger's paw. What do you think, Badgermum? Is the fighting really over? Kregga deliberated before giving her answer. It could well be, friend. Another Marfox slain, and a good number of water rats— Perhaps they've had enough. They've not shown up today so far, and that must be a good sign. Gerbil Cellarmole jumped up and down with joy. 
She hated the notion, as most other Redwallers did, of continued strife. Oh, do say it, ye vermits be gone, marm. Ye poitin' doobies over, bain't it? Do ye say tis? Craig smiled. She could feel the hopefulness virtually radiating from the abbey dwellers gathered around her. Oh, all right, if you wish. I think the war's over. Joyous pandemonium rang out over the grounds into the sun-kissed morning. Victory for Red Wall! Sound the bells, sound the bells good and loud. A feast! Let's prepare a great feast in the orchard. Florian strutted triumphantly down the wall steps, bowing to all around in the most outrageous manner. Jolly well told you, chaps, didn't I? Fighting's over, what? Jangler sat on the northwest wall corner with his friends, Russell and Skipper. They watched the cheering creatures pouring over toward the abbey, eager to begin the preparations for the celebratory feast. Jangler's hooded eyes swept mossflower woodlands north of the ramparts. Let them enjoy themselves. I think I'll just linger around here for a few days yet. No point in taking chances, mates. Skipper tested a longbow that he had been restringing. Good idea. We're with you. Bannon's was the strongest personality of the three remaining Marlfoxes. She had ordered a retreat into the depths of South Mossflower. The vixen sat watching the water rats tend their injuries and cook food over an open fire, remarking noncommittally as Askrod came to sit beside her. We're fortunate there's no shortage of victuals hereabouts. Let them rest a while. We need to use brains more than weapons now. Askrod snorted scornfully. He snatched a roasted thrush from a passing water rat and sank his teeth into it. We need reinforcements more than anything, sister. We've barely got a hundred and twenty counting me, you, and Predak. Vannon stood up, brushing her cloak off. Then we'll just have to use the ferrets, won't we? Askrod spat a bone into the fire, wrinkling his face in disgust. What? You mean that scurvy bunch we rousted out of here last night? Raventail and his ragged crowd? They looked as though they'd seen enough fighting to last them many a long day. Anyway, ferrets have never served those of Marlfox blood. Surely you cannot be serious. Bannon adjusted the axe in her belt so it was ready to paw. I'm perfectly serious, brother. We can't be too choosy in times like these, and we need more soldiers. Those ferrets will join us, aye. They'll fight and die for us, too, when I put a bit of discipline into their backbones. You can come with me. Bring an escort of two score, well armed. Olog's patrol will do. Askrod tossed the roast bird aside, wiping paws upon his cloak. But we chased them off. They'll be long gone by now. Vannon pointed to the telltale wisps rising above the treetops to the south. They're still hanging about over that way. I've been marking the smoke of their campfire since early morning. Are you coming? Askrod signaled Olog's patrol and hurried to join his sister. But there was no more than a score of them. What use is twenty ferrets to us? Vannon strode confidently onward. A score is all we counted, but I'll wager they can raise three times that number. Sixty extra soldiers is not something to be sneezed at. Let's go and talk to this chieftain Raventail. When they reached the ferret camp, Vannon ordered Askron to stay concealed nearby in the woods with Olog and his patrol. Using all the considerable wiles of a marl fox, she made her way through the ferrets unheeded. Drawing as close to Raventail's fire as she could while remaining undetected, 
The vixen tossed a paw full of special ingredients from her belt pouch into the flames. Raventail shot up an alarm when the fire burst into a green sheet of flame, followed by a thick column of smoke. He was even more astounded by the appearance of Vannon, who materialized out of the haze. The ferret staggered backward, drawing his scimitar. Kayar! Where come are you from, fox beast? Vannon made a fearful sight, paws akimbo, revealing the axe she carried beneath her cloak from under which the smoke still wreathed and curled. Her strange pale eyes narrowed as she glared at the parent, calling out in a sepulchral voice, Be still, and know that I am the Marlfox. The power of great magic is within me. Raventail wavered, not sure what to do next. He looked to an old toothless ferret, reputed to be wise, and the old vermin nodded his head vigorously. He, too, was impressed by Vannon's appearance. Yea, yea. Me know about her mile foxes, raka raka, much, much magic. As if to confirm his statement, Askrod stepped out from a tree behind Vannon, causing widespread consternation among the ferrets. Kayar, see two beasts now, Shalaka, mile fox and mile fox. Vannon's lips scarcely moved as she whispered to Askrod, Well done, brother. We've got these ignorant savages' attention. She raised a paw imperiously pointing beyond to the woodland. Behold the warrior servants of the Mile Foxes! Alag and his patrol marched out of the trees in double ranks. The ferrets turned around to watch the smartly clad water rats. By the time Alag's soldiers arrived at Raventail's fire, both Mile Foxes had disappeared. Raventail circled the fire, utterly astonished. Kai-ar! Where go Mile Foxes? Askrod and Vannon had circled back to where Olive's patrol had been previously hidden. They emerged from the trees, walking very slowly and looking mysterious. The ferret chieftain grabbed the paw of the ancient one he had consulted before. Yea, yea, all magic Marlfox be big magic. Vannon muttered out of the side of her mouth to Askrod as they approached the awe-stricken raventail. Let's sit down and do business with this one, now that we've convinced him Marlfoxes are really magic. Florian was also impressing an audience at that moment. Armed with a soup ladle and a large wooden salad fork, he pranced about wildly in front of the Abbey Babes, performing a victory ode he had composed, in which credit for the rout of the vermin was due largely to the fighting prowess of one Florian Dugglewolf Wolfachop. Armed to the dirty mangy teeth, ten of them came at me. Ho, ho, me buckos, here, says I, only ten of ye? So I boxed their ears and blacked their eyes, then tied their tails in knots. I kicked their bottoms o'er the walls with javelins and slingshots. When suddenly behind me back, some foul beast shouted, Charge! And twenty-three came right at me. Those villains were quite large. So I got my trusty salad fork and jabbed them here and there. I left them weeping full of holes. Oh, save us from that hare! Well, I grabbed a flea and mile fox and punched him on the snout. Both his boots went flying off. I gave him such a clout. Those rats were dirty fighters. Out came the old soup ladle. The cowardly pack of blighters fled fast as they were able. I chased him, laughing bravely. Ha-ha, now, off you pop. I'm the warrior who saved Redwall, and my last name's Wilfachop. Unknown to the garrulous hare, Bargle and Man were watching the performance. The two Gwasim shrews sat concealed by a berry hedge, observing Florian's wild contortions as he declaimed his outrageous ode. They were not sure whether to scowl or laugh. 
Modest old beast, ain't he, mate? I wonder who taught him to dance. A mad caterpillar? Even a scalded frog couldn't prance about like that. I've never seen a creature's paws, tail, ears, and whiskers go in so many different ways at one time. Oh, ha, har, har. Old Florian's fell flat on his tail. I knew he would. Couldn't keep up a twirling jig like that. Sister Slowey, assisted by Rimrose and Elio, was checking up on Redwallers who had sustained injuries during the fighting. A line formed on the stairs to the infirmary. The patients, mainly shrews, who had slingshot or arrow wounds that needed redressing. Rimrose finished neatly bandaging a guasom paw. There you are, Splicker. Good as new. Keep it dry now. That cut is healing nicely. Next. Elayo and Slowey were applying a compress of wet herbs to the head of a mole who had been hit by a slingstone. Don't worry, sir. That bump is smaller than twas yesterday. Do you still feel dizzy at all? The mole touched a heavy digging claw to the swelling on his brow. We be fine now, thank ye, Morm. Don't feels like I gotten two heads no more, hor hor. There was a commotion on the stairway. Florian was pushing his way to the front of the line. I say, make way for a warrior, you chaps. Pish and tush. Load of scratches and bumps, what? A fellow could be dying for all you flippin' lot care. Out of the confounded way, sir. He came barging into the infirmary, but did a smart about turn when he saw three females in attendance. Er, er, harumph. Not to worry, ladies. I'll come back another time. Extremely busy. Lots to do. What, what? Alayo and Sister Slowey cut off his retreat to the door. What seems to be the matter, Mr. Florian? You never reported a wound. Sit down and tell us about it. Er, er, rather not sit down, Elio Marm. Florian blustered, backing up to the wall. Nature of the wound, don't you know? Er, ha <laughs> ha. Sister Slowey nodded understandingly. Oh, I see. You were wounded in the tail area. Why didn't you come here yesterday? Er, well, er, didn't feel so jolly bad then, you understand. Just today, though. Been giving me a bit of jip. Must have been a few arrows or a couple of spears got me. Forgot all about it in the heat of battle, you know. Chap doesn't like to cause a fuss. Rimrose began gathering herbs for a poultice. Oh, you poor creature, you must have been in great pain. Florian turned sideways, showing his noble profile and devil-may-care smile. Oh, twas nothing, really. Stiff upper lip, what? Winking and grinning at every beast about, Bargle and Mayan entered the infirmary. Each tossed a broken half of a wooden salad fork on the table. Mr. Florian, sir, what's Brother Melilot going to say when he sees what you did to his salad fork? I, I'll wager it smarted a bit when you fell and sat down on it like that. Must have give you a nasty jab in your backside, sir. Over the uproarious laughter from the shrews waiting in line, Elayo gave the hare a piece of her mind. You great flop-eared fraud, wounded by spears and arrows during the fightin' eh? You're a fiddle-faced fibber and a trickster. The infirmary door slammed before Florian could make good his escape. Wassum shrews crowded around the outside, peeping through the keyhole and pressing their ears to the woodwork to witness what was taking place inside. Er, I'll come back tomorrow, Marm. What are you doing with those bally-great tweezers? No, please, I beg you. Yeah! Bargle, man, hold him still. There may be splinters. Don't want to leave them in there, do we? Ooh, I say go easy there. Yow-chouch! 
Is that water hot enough yet, Rimrose? I want to make a nettle poultice. Can't be too careful with tail wounds. Eek! Assassins! Help me, some beast! They're torturing me to death! Ow, 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 ow! So brave and silent, ain't he, man? Woo! Fiends! Get off! Let me go! Ooh-hoo-hoo! Stiff upper lip, Mr. Florian. That's the jolly old spirit. Chin up and never say die, old chap. What, what? Brother Melalot and Ronktip were setting up the banqueting board in the orchard. Gubio Formol and Troglo Spearback upended a cask onto a trestle, and Troglo knocked home a spigot with his bung mallet. He held a beaker beneath the tap, allowing a small quantity of sparkling pinkish liquid to flow into it. Melalot took the proffered beaker and sipped. Best strawberry fizz cordial I ever tasted. Runktip sat on the ground, looping a thin wire about the big white celery cheese he was about to cut. Lend a paw to your brother. Tis too much for me to cut alone. Melalot clapped a paw to his forehead. Pear and chestnut plans. I've left six of them in the ovens. He hurried off, calling back orders. Troglo, help cut the cheese, will you? Formo, send some of your crew to collect those oat varls from the windowsills. They should be well cooled by now. Roop, Muggle, start loading the trolleys. Don't forget the salad. Oh, and see if you can find my serving fork. I don't know where it has gone to. Decent, ma'am. Would you be kind enough to top off the trifle? We'll find fresh chopped fruit on the big stone slab. Oh, dear, I hope those flans aren't burnt. Troglo and Runktip pulled the wire smoothly through the large cheese, then lifted off the moist white circular slice and cut it into four wedge-shaped chunks ready for the table. Runktip glanced sideways at the berry hedge. We're being watched, mate. Tis probably cheese robbers. Troglo took his barrel knife and cut a small piece from the cheese, held it up, and called out to the hidden creatures. You can have some cheese if any promises not to slay us all afore our work's done here. The fiendish Dwapple and his cohort, the mole-babe Wugger, emerged from behind the hedge. Both dibbons were practically unrecognizable, daubed from ears to tail with gray kitchen ash and flecked with black spots of charcoal. They wore gray blankets, purloined from the dormitory, as cloaks. Stumbling on the blanket hems, they leapt toward the cheese. Troglo struggled to keep a straight face. And who might you terrible beasts be? Dwapple turned his most fearsome scowl upon the big hedgehog. Us bees marmfloxes, and you can't see us, cause we be invisible. Troglo caught on to the game right away. He looked strangely at Runktip, who had also guessed what was going on. Did you say something, Ray? Runktip shook his spiky head vigorously. I never said a word. I thought twas you, mate. Dwapple sniggered gleefully as he and Wugger grabbed the cheese. It workin'. Told you they couldn't see us, hee hee. Wugger broke the cheese in two, giving half to his partner in crime. Her, very good. Usson's best varnish nail, like he marmfloxes. The heavy digging claws of Gerbold cellar mold descended on them. You and bain't a varnishin' nowheres, rogues. Why see he good enough to know you and be in gort need of a barth and sound scrubbin'? Both varmfloxes were hauled off, kicking and squealing, by the dutiful mole-wife. Added to the scent of the orchard, an aroma of wonderful food created an intoxicating atmosphere. Janglor, Skipper, and Rustful had been temporarily relieved by three good guasum, and were sitting together with Rimrose and Elio. 
All around them the buzz and chatter of happy creatures added to the festive spirit. Even the very-hued butterflies and bumblebees that hovered about the orchard seemed part of the enchanted afternoon. Gregor Badgermom created an instant hush when she stood to speak. Friends, red wallers, good creatures all, before we carry on to enjoy this sunny day, let me say a few words in the absence of either Abbot or Abbess. First, let us hope that the Marl Fox threat has gone from Mossflower Country. Brave creatures lost their lives in defense of our Abbey, and we must remember them always in our minds and hearts. But also we must resolve never to yield to evil, whether it be Marl Fox or any other vermin attempting to destroy the peaceful life of Redwall. Next, I feel we should give due thanks to our warriors, Jang Lur Swifteye, Rusful Raguba, Bargul Gwasim, Skipper of Otters, Boracle, and all of you who defended the Abbey, our thanks to you brave ones. There was a mass murmur of agreement, which broke out into hearty applause. Craigo waited before continuing. Also, we must live in hopes for the safety of Janglur's daughter Song, Rusful's son Danflor, and the young Gwasim Dippler. These we know now have gone to get back the tapestry, which is the very heart of Redwall. Fate and fortunes keep them well, and aid them on their quest. Now, before we begin, is there anything that you wish to ask me, friends? Trogdal Spearback's voice rang out strong and clear. Aye, ma'am. I want to know why you ain't our abbess. Every beast wishes you were. Roars of approval and loud cheers echoed everywhere. Skipper was forced to whack the table with his rudder to get order. Ahoy! Give Marm a chance, will you? Thanks, Marm. The floor's yours. Craigan nodded gratefully in the otter chieftain's direction. Well done, Skip. Redwallers, I once had command when I ruled Salamandestron, the great fortress by the sea. Now I wish to live out my seasons in peace. I can help and advise, but I will not rule. On that my word is final. So if there are no more questions, we will start the feast. Vargel held up a paw, grinning mischievously. Beg pardon, ma'am, but could you tell us why Mr. Florian ain't sitting down like the rest of us? Craig's blind eyes turned in the shrew's direction. Isn't he? I hadn't noticed. Mayhap Mr. Florian can throw some light upon the mystery, sir? Amid gales of laughter from all who knew what had happened, Florian glared daggers at the cheeky shrew. Flippin' spiky-mopped water beetle! Mind your own business, what? Chap has the right to stand or sit as he jolly well pleases, without your bottle-nosed inquiries, flamin' fat-bellied boat-robber. Shove some salad down that great gob of yours, and give it a flippin' rest. I was just about to do that, sir, Bargle shouted cheerfully back. But I can't find the salad fork no place. But we all trust you, Mr. Florian. You will find it. Adding insult to injury, Mayan roared out, Ah, you'll get to the bottom of things, won't you, sir? The outraged hare loaded two plates high with food and marched off, balancing a flagon of October ale between the platters. A frog's feather for you lot. I'll go and dine elsewhere. I'm not standing here to be insulted. Then sit down, if you dare. Redwallers held their aching ribs, sobbing with laughter, as much at Bargle's parting shot as at the sight of Florian Dugglewolf Wolfachop strutting off with a heavily bandaged rear end. 23. 
Late night turned extremely cloudy, leaving the four travelers paddling in complete blackness for long periods when the moon became hidden by heavy cloud banks. The stream had grown much deeper, wider too, and they could no longer feel the odd touch of paddle against stream bed. Dan caught the first overhanging branches that he could reach and hauled them into the bank. That's enough for one night, pals. The stream may get pretty treacherous in the dark. Let's make camp. Pulling the swallow up onto dry ground, they sat on a partially mossed rock shelf. Song peered about her, but could not make out much in the thick tree grove surrounding them. What do you think, Dan? Shall we chance a fire? The young squirrel was busy digging food out of their packs. Hmm, I don't see why not, eh, Burb? Ah, yes, yes, a bit of an old blaze always cheers things up, and we might see where we've landed, yes. Dippler went off to look for fuel, and was soon back, staggering under a load of wood. Found a stricken pine tree back there. Good dry stuff tis. Dan struck flint against his sword blade onto some dry moss, and soon they had a bright crackling little fire. Supper consisted of a few scones, some almonds and raisins, and a brew of goody brims, mint, and burnet rosehip tea. Only the immediate area of their camp was lit up. Beyond that, the woodland looked thick, dark, and impenetrable. Without warning, a rock whistled out of the night and struck Burbel a thudding blow between his shoulders. Dan and Song acted swiftly, dragging the water bowl into the shadows, while Dippler scattered the fire into the stream with the flat of his paddle blade. A mocking voice called out of the woodland to them. Yah, you ain't got your big edge hog with you now. We're coming to get yous, me little buckos. They recognized the voice immediately. It was the stoat whom Saul had chased off, and they had no doubt that his two weasel allies were still with him. End of Side 5 To continue, turn the cassette over. Side 6, Marl Fox by Brian Jakes Continuing on page 251 He called out again. No use trying to hide from us, young'uns. We'll get you. Stand where you are and drop your weapons. If you do, we'll make it quick. But move a muscle, and your dying'll be long and slow. Dan blinked his eyes hard, rubbing a paw into them to dispel the effects of the firelight. Song was already on the move. She launched the swallow back into the stream, and then she and Dippler helped Burbel into the boat. He appeared to be in considerable pain. Song pushed the craft clear of the bank. Burbel, are you all right? Yes, yes, I'm fine, Missy. Come on, we'd best get going. 
but the pretty squirrel maid had other ideas. Listen to me, Burb. Grab that branch hanging down yonder. Hold the swallow offshore and wait for us. But if any beast tries to get you or the boat, let go of the branch and drift off. We'll catch up with you downstream, all being well. Song and Dippler crawled back to where Dan hid in the shadows. The stoat was still calling. Naughty, naughty now. You've moved. We'll have to punish you for that, my little friends. Song grasped her leafwood stick. Dippler and Dan drew their blades. No use running from them. They'll only follow us. Let's do a bit of punishing of our own, mates. Remember what Saul said. They're only bullies and cowards. Split up and go three ways. Song crawled off into the trees toward where the stoat's last call had come from. She heard the whirl of a sling close by and the whoosh of a rock hurtling off toward their former position. A voice then, whispering low. It sounded like one of the weasels. "'Tis hard to see in this dark. Maybe they'd got away. "'Nah, they'll still be there,' the stoat replied, low but confident. "'Terrified out their wits, you wait and see. "'You take the left, you take the right, and circle in on them. "'I'll go straight in. "'We'll have on three sides with a stream at their backs, "'and then for a bit of sport, eh, Cullies?' "'Song hoped that her friends had heard. "'She stood up silently behind the broad trunk of a sycamore "'and held her breath. "'Within a hair's breadth she sensed one of the weasels stalking by. "'She stepped out behind the dark shape "'and hit out with the greenstone-topped stick, "'slamming it square between the weasel's scraggy ears. "'He fell without a sound. "'Song placed her paw on his chest. "'He was stunned but still alive. She hauled him into a sitting position, binding his paws behind him to the trunk of an ash with his own thonged sling. Then she undid the vermin's broad belt and gagged him with that. Dippler lived by the code of the Gwasim Shrews, who seldom took prisoners. The weasel who had gone to the right met his end at the point of the young shrew's rapier. Dan backtracked slightly, then stepped out in front of the stoat and took him completely by surprise. But the stoat was quick. He leapt to one side and began whining and pleading with the hard-eyed warrior with the deadly sword. "'Twas not but a joke, mate. Can't you take a joke? "'Twas just having a bit of fun with yous." Dan saw the stoat's dagger coming and dodged sideways. Then he leapt forward, striking down with the blade of Martin. The stoat fell with a shriek as Song and Dippler came charging through the trees. "'Dan, are you hurt? Did you get him?' Dan stayed the writhing stoat on the ground with his football. "'I'm all right.' Unfortunately, my aim was bad in the darkness, or this scum would have been dead now. The stoat groaned, then spat viciously at Dan. You wounded me bad, you stupid young fool. Couldn't you see it was only a joke? We wasn't going to hurt you. Dan placed his sword edge on the side of the stoat's neck. One more word out of your lion mouth, and your head'll be talking to your tail. How's that for a joke, eh? Song nodded back into the woodland. Knocked my vermin cold and left him gagged and bound to a tree. How did you fare, Dip? Dippler wiped his rapier with a pawful of grass. Old Wassum proverb. A dead enemy ain't an enemy no more. Sheathing his blade, he went to the stoat, calling aloud. Verb, tis me, Dip. You can bring her in shore now, mate. Dan took Song to one side. What do we do with the stoat? He said quietly. I couldn't bring myself to kill him. And we can't just leave him here. The squirrel maid watched the writhing, groaning beast as she sought for a solution. Go and get some river mud. Leave this to me. Dan fetched a good glob of mud from the shallows. Song knelt by the stoat, who was wounded deep in his right side. 
She tore off a strip of his tunic, slapped the mud on his injury, and placed the torn tunic in a pad on top of it. There, you'll live. Tomorrow you can free your friend. He's tied to an ash back there. Listen carefully to what I'm going to tell you, Stoat. The Stoat sneered and cleared his throat, as if he were about to spit at Song. She gave him a quick hard cuff to the face. Spit at me, and I'll leave you to my Gwasim friend. You heard his rule about enemies. From now on you'll have to learn to live with yourself. No more bullying, stealing, or villainy for you, Stoat. With that wound you'll probably limp or walk bent for the rest of your days. My advice to you is to build yourself a home, grow your own food, or harvest it from the woodlands, fish, do what you will, but learn to lead a quiet, honest life. When Song arose, the stoat lay sneering at her. Leave me alone, squirrel. I knows how to lead me own life, see? Dan tugged her away from the wounded vermin. Leave him. Some beasts never learn. He'll be an idiot all his life and end up a dead fool. It was not wise to stay any longer where they had camped. The four friends paddled off downstream and chose a campsite on the opposite bank. Too weary to do anything further, they dragged the swallow on shore, overturned the boat, and slept under it for the short remaining time until dawn. Morning brought with it another bright summer day. Eager to be off, the travelers breakfasted hastily. Soon they were paddling along in the center of the wide stream. Sitting behind Burble, the young squirrel maid could not help but notice the dark bruise at the base of his neck. Take a rest if you need it, Burb. We'll do the paddling. No need for that, thank you, Missy. I'm all right. Us river-ed voles are tough as old oak trees. Yes, yes, that's a fact. Dan shipped his paddle. No need for any of us to paddle, matey, he called back to Song. See how fast this current's running? May as well sit back and rest. We'll only need paddles to steer around rocks and things. By mid-morning the green tunnel of overhanging tree branches was showing signs of thinning out. When noon arrived they were sorry the shade had been lost, for there was little respite from the blazing sun as the swallow shot along on the swift stream. Dry, arid scrub and rock-strewn banks with little shrubbery growing in the dusty brown earth, stretched before them on both sides. Now they needed the paddles. The broad, deep stream grew treacherous, and sharp stone pinnacles began to appear, some with heavy drifts of timber, washed down by the water, piled up against them. On either side the stone sides of the banks rose higher, banded umber and fawn, worn smooth by the rushing torrents. The swallow's prow bobbed up and down as she sped between the steep walls of the gorge, there was little the travelers could do to arrest their furious progress. Dan and Dippler sat forward, plying their paddles this way and that to get the swallow around the pinnacles, while Song consulted the rhyme Friar Butty had given her, speaking it aloud to Burble. Then when the sky shows blue and light, and clear down to the bed you gaze, be not deceived by rainbows bright. Beware tall stones and misted haze. Song turned her eyes upward. We're no longer in the green tunnel, so there's the sky showing blue and light. Is the water muddy or clear, Burb? Ah, tis fast running, as you know. But still the stream's deep and clear. Yes, yes, very clear. I see the bottom deep down. Great seasons! Look at the size of those rocks ahead. They looked in the direction Dippler was pointing. Two enormous rock pinnacles, their tops thick with vegetation, reared out of the water farther downstream, like primitive sentinels. What lay beyond them was lost in a haze of mist, formed by water spray shooting high, as the stream divided three ways around the rock bases. The awesome spectacle was enhanced 
by a breathtakingly beautiful rainbow bridging the gorge. Suddenly Song seized her paddle, shouting out above the roaring waters, Bring her into the side. Find somewhere we can stop. Quickly. Backs bent and paddles digging deep, they fought the headlong current. Tacking and veering, drenched to the skin, the four friends battled to bring the frail vessel toward the high rock wall that formed one bank. Burbel spotted a possible place. There, see, yes, yes, there where the rift is. Backing water madly, they checked the swallow as she ran close to the towering cliff. All Dan could see for a moment was a wraith-like armored mouse, hovering in the mist ahead, his hollow voice blending with the roar of waters. The sword! Dan, my sword! Leaning dangerously out from the prow, Dan whipped forth the sword and thrust it instinctively into the large crack running up the rock face. Throwing his weight forward against the hilt, Dan pushed hard. The swallow hovered for a moment, then turned in a fast circle on the dashing waters until Dan found himself facing upstream. The boat had turned completely around. Straining against the mighty pressure, Dan held her firm. Song, do something quick. I can't hold her much longer. There was a ledge overhead. Song reached it the only way she could. With a bound she was on Burble's shoulders, thrusting herself into an upward leap. Her paws grasped the ledge, and she hauled herself upward, scrabbling to find holes in the rifted stone. She pulled and struggled until she was lying flat on the ledge, hanging over the edge. She held out her paws. Burble, throw me the stern rope. The river bowl threw the rope into her waiting paws, then made the other end fast by looping it around the rear seat. Song knotted the rope around a spur in the side of the rift, while the others tossed their paddles up onto the ledge. Dippler was first up the rope. He and Song leaned over to help Burble, with Dan following in the rear. As soon as they were safe from the thundering waters, the four companions hauled the swallow up to the rocky platform, with their supplies intact. Dan sat panting, his back against the sun-warmed rocks. He patted the hilt of the sword. Phew! Thanks to Friar Buddy's rhyme and this sword, we made it. See that haze down yonder beneath the rainbow? I'd take me oath that I saw a vision of Martin the warrior hovering there. "'Twas he told me to shove the sword into the crack. Song looked from the misted haze to the sword. I don't doubt that you did, Dan. That blade must be some powerful kind of steel to hold a boat and us four safe from those waters. I dread to think what would have happened to us if we'd been swept away between those two big rocks. I wonder what's down that way. Dippler was setting out a makeshift meal of scones and fruit. Let's have a bite to eat first. Then we'll follow these ledges downstream and see where the current leads. Burble found a flask of dandelion and burdock cordial and swigged thirstily at it, massaging the back of his neck. Aye, you three go off and explore a while. Yes, yes, I'll stay here and guard our gear. Me old neck's a bit sore. You didn't help matters by leaping all over me head and shoulders to get up on this ledge, Missy. You serpently didn't. Song helped the water bowl to rub his neck. Ah, poor old Burb. Never mind, mate. You'll live. But don't doze off now. Keep an eye on everything while we're gone. When they had finished eating, Song, Dan, and Dippler took the rope from the swallow and set off across the rocks to explore downstream. The grandeur of the scenery was awesome. Hurtling water, towering stone, and spray forever cascading through curtains of mist, over which the rainbow arched like a massive colored bridge. Traveling in single file, they made good use of the rope to span places where there were gaps in the ledges. Sometimes they rested in somber moss-strewn crevices where sunlight never reached. 
Other times they pawed cautiously over expanses of smooth banded stone, almost hot to the touch. Just beyond the two big rocks that stood center stream, the mist cleared, and they halted with gasps of wonderment at the sight. It was as if they were standing at the very edge of the earth. Billowing, leaping, roaring, vast masses of water fell abruptly downward into the shrouding fog of boiling spray far below. Dippler clasped his friend's paws, eyes wide as he stared down into the hurtling chaos, his shouts almost lost in the reverberating din. Look at that waterfall! Wow! They sat on the rock edge, drenched with spray, watching the awesome majesty of the waterfall. Dan pointed to the far side, where the bank ran out a short distance underwater, forming an incredibly swift shallows. There was a great bird pacing up and down the backside, watching the water intently. Great seasons! Look at the size of that feller. What sort of bird would you call him? Dippler had spent his life around waterways, though he had only ever seen the species once before. It was unforgettable. That's a fishing eagle. Tis called an osprey. The bird had a white crown of plumage, and its underparts, too, were snowy white. A mask, dark brown, almost black, stretched around its savage golden eyes, spreading back over shoulders and wings. It had a heavy hooked beak and fearsome talons. Silently they watched it prowling the bank. It struck once, but came back without any catch. Song was puzzled. Aren't they supposed to fly and swoop on the fish dip? Aye, that's what they usually do. Aha, look! The eagle struck the water again, but could not catch the fish it was chasing. It gave a shriek of temper and charged awkwardly into the water, one wing flapping to retain its balance. Dippler nodded knowingly. It can't fly, see? Keeps one wing close to its side. Must have been injured at some time, I reckon, Song. The pretty young squirrel maid was full of sympathy. Oh, the poor bird! Imagine having big, beautiful wings and not being able to use them. Oh, it's so sad to watch him. Diffler chuckled as he saw a brown trout leaping and squirming in the shallows as the osprey chased it. Poor bird! What about the poor fish, Missy? Mind, though, that trout's leading the eagle a merry dance. Maybe it'll escape. As the guasum shrew spoke, the trout gave a mighty leap and made it to deep water. The osprey was almost out of its depth. Squawking angrily, it stumbled and was swept into the wild, lashing deeps. Dippler put a paw over his eyes. Nothing we can do to save him now. Nothing's a goner. Before the words had left his mouth, Song was in action. Tying the rope hastily around her waist, she slung the end to Dan. Hang on to this. I'm going after him. Dan grabbed the rope instinctively, shouting, Song, no, you'll be killed. But the young squirrel mate had already plunged into the roaring melee of waters. 24. During the night the white ghosts, eerie sighing and wailing, echoed ceaselessly around the queen's bedchamber. Sylph crouched in her bed, gaunt and hollow-eyed, her voice reduced to a hoarse croak from shouting for her guards. Oh, Sylph, come to me, Sylph. There it was again. Sylph buried her face in a satin coverlet, knowing it was not a dream. When she ventured to peep out, all the candles had sputtered and died. Only a single lantern remained burning on the bedside table. The room had become an ill-lit cavern of shifting shadows, drafts and breezes moving the silk wall hangings like fluttering shrouds. Silt's voice was a piteous whine. Guards, help me! Where are my guards? Spectral tones answered her desperate plea. 
Gone, all gone. Lontour beckoned Wilka out of the room from which she had been impersonating the white ghost. That's enough wailing for now, Rat. There's no reason for any of the guards to be up here, since I dismissed them for the night. But just in case any beast tries to gain entrance, you stay at the head of the stairs and keep them away. Tell them the High Queen is very ill, and any creature coming up here against my orders does so under pain of death. Got it? Wilka nodded silently and went off about her task. Lontour took up the tray she had prepared. It had two goblets upon it, one with Silt's own drinking vessel, beaten from fine gold, with her personal crest embossed on its stem. The other was a plain serviceable pewter type. Lontour made sure the queen's goblet was on the far side of the tray as she carried it into the bedchamber. Silth cowered away from her, bunching the satin coverlet tight under her chin. "'Where are my guards? How long is it until morning light? The white ghost has been haunting me again. Did you hear it?' "'Well, did you? Speak, daughter.' Smiling benignly, Lontour perched upon the bed, placing the tray next to the lantern on the table. Her voice was that of a true marlpox, sweet as honey and deadly as an adder's bite. She removed the coverlet gently from Silk's chin. Don't upset yourself, mother dear. I sent the guards away, because I don't want them clanking and tramping about outside your door when you need rest. This white ghost, tis all in your imagination. Sleep will cure all that. Things will look better in the light of day. Silk seemed to regain some of her regal composure. She chided Lontour skeptically. Sleep? How can I sleep? You haven't the slightest idea how I suffer. I order you to stay here for the rest of the night to keep me company through the dark hours. What's this you brought, eh? Lontour held the tray out to her mother, taking care that she presented it so the queen's cup was nearer to the royal paw. Tis a harmless drink, made from warm damson wine and special herbs. It will help you to sleep. Silth sniffed the goblet without touching it. I don't care what it is, I'm not drinking any. Lontour moved the tray closer to her mother. Now don't be silly, mother. See, I filled a goblet for myself. I'm going to drink, aye, and enjoy it. She picked up the plain pewter goblet. It was halfway to her lips when the queen rasped out. Stop! Put that goblet back on the tray, I command you. With a look of long-suffering hopelessness, Lontour did as she was bidden. Silt smiled craftily at her. You placed the two goblets on the tray so that my personal one was closest to me, as if you wanted me to drink from it. Lontour smiled innocently back. But of course, Majesty, tis your own cup. None but the High Queen would dare to drink from it. Silt pushed the royal goblet across to Lontour. Here's a better idea. You drink from my goblet, and I'll drink from yours. What do you think of that? Lontour shrugged and picked up the golden vessel. A wonderful idea, Majesty. I've never taken wine from a queen's cup. Mayhaps I'll get used to it. Silt snatched the golden goblet before Lontour could taste it. No, you won't. That's mine. Now, let me see you drain the other one. Drink. Lontour's face blanched with fright. Her paw trembled as she picked up the pewter goblet. Silt cackled evilly. Drink it all, you wicked young schemer, or I'll have my guards feed you to the teeth of the deeps. Drink. Lontour was forced to swallow, her throat quivering fitfully, wine dribbling from the corners of her lips, her eyes wide with horror. Silt sipped at her own goblet, 
fully recovered from her former cringing self as she lectured her treacherous daughter. Did you think you could outwit a queen of Marlfoxes, my dear? I knew that you would put the poison in your own goblet. You thought I'd think it was in mine, the silly way you offered the tray so that my cup was nearest to me. I saw through your ruse, Lantour. I knew you wanted me to drink from your goblet, suspecting that mine contained the poison. So tonight you learned your last lesson. Never try to outwit a queen of Marlfoxes. Hee hee hee. Lantour had drained the pewter goblet. She put it aside and watched her mother, a smile suddenly beginning to play upon her lips. There, I've drunk it all as you commanded. Have you drunk yours yet, O、oh、High Queen? Surprised, Sylph looked up questioningly. Only a few sips. Why? Lantour removed the golden cup from her mother's paws. One sip would have been enough. You did just as I gambled you would. Your Majesty outfoxed herself. The poison was in your cup all the time. Queen Sylph's paws dithered helplessly for a moment. Then her body flopped limply back. Lantour plumped up the pillow behind her head and folded the satin coverlet neatly under her mother's chin. The queen murmured faintly through numbed lips, "Guards, where am I?" Lantour wiped away a dribble of wine from the corner of Sylph's mouth. "Hush now, Your Majesty. Go to sleep and remember your own words. Never try to outwit a queen of Marlfoxes. I am Lantour." High Queen of all Marlfoxes now, Silk blinked her dimmed, watering eyes. All power of speech had left her. Without a word, she slipped silently into the deepest sleep of all. Lantour washed the golden goblet out carefully three times, then she filled it with new damson wine and drank a toast to herself. Morning sunlight flooded the island as Wilka, the female water rat, wandered down to the field where the slaves were husbanding fruit and crops. Seating herself on the ground, she opened a flask of damson wine and poured two beakers. Captain Ullig, the slave master, saw her from the corner of his eye. He cracked his long whip expertly over the bent backs in front of him. Keep those heads down, you scum, or I'll teach you a lesson you won't forget the rest of your lives. Satisfied that no beast would dare look up, he joined Wilka. Thirsty work, eh? Wish I could lay me paws on more wine that tastes like this. Well. You didn't come down here for nothing, Wilka. What news up at the castle? She poured more wine for Ulig, keeping her eyes fixed on the toiling slaves as she spoke. There'll be lots more of this wine, much as you want, if you listen to me, slave captain. Ulig drained his beaker and held it forth for a refill. Oh, I? What is it now? Another surprise inspection from Her Majesty, or is the noise of this whip disturbing her royal peace? Oh no. The royal peace won't be disturbed ever again, Ulig. What do you mean by that? High Queen Sylph is dead. Long live Queen Lantour and her chief adviser, Wilka. Wine ran either side of Ulig's mouth as he slopped it down and held out his beaker for more. Ha ha! I'll drink to that. So you and your Marlfox friend finally finished off the old one. Clever, Wilka. Clever. Wilka's paw was like a vice as she grabbed Ulig's, restraining him from lifting the beaker to his mouth. Keep talking like that, and you're a dead rat! She hissed viciously. Queen Silt was slain during the night by the White Ghost. I knew all along that White Ghost was the spirit of her mate, returning to avenge herself for the treacherous way she slew him. Right? 
A thin smile crossed Oleg's cruel features. Right you are, Wilka. Every beast knowed that someday Silth'd pay for killing her mate. Lontor was his favorite daughter, so tis only fittin' that she rules the island now, with you to guide and advise her, of course, and me to command the army. Wilka released Oleg's paw and allowed him to drink. Well spoken, Oleg. You catch on pretty fast. Now there'll be a burying ceremony at the lakeside before long. What we need is for you to get every beast yelling, Long live High Queen Lontour! Oleg tossed the empty beaker aside and tilted the flask to his lips as he toasted the conspiracy. Long live High Queen Lontour! Wilka gathered up the two beakers. Not so loud, friend. No beast's supposed to know she's dead yet. One of the slaves, a sturdy female hedgehog, whispered to an otter working alongside her. Did you hear that? Silth's dead and Lontour's queen now. The otter labored on, not raising his eyes. Makes no difference to us, does it? One marlfox is bad as another to a field slave. The news would have made little difference to Mokan either. The marlfox, following his own secret route, found himself attacked by lizards. He had deviated by mistake from the river and to a water meadow, which, half a paddle's depth beneath the surface, was swamp. Berating the rat paddlers and the shrew fenno, he had them turn about, only to find that the way back to the river was blocked by a teeming horde of lizards, newts, and toads. The first inkling he had was when a rat and the prow fell overboard with a gurgle, his throat pierced by a sharpened, dried bulrush stem. Then the water came alive with reptiles swimming toward the logboat, while others hurled rush lances from the reeded shallows. Mokan crouched low and shouted frantic orders to his crew. Use your paddles. Don't let them aboard or we're lost. The logboat rocked from side to side as Mokan made his way to the prow, pushing past the paddlers. He seized the slain rat's oar and began wielding it energetically, making toward the twin tongues of land that formed the water meadow entrance. Smashing a toad over the head with his blade, the marlfox urged his water rats onward, as they alternately paddled or hit out at the reptiles, who attempted to board the logboat. In the stern of the vessel, Fenno gnawed on the thong like a beast in a trap. Slobbering and spitting, he chewed madly, straining the thong tight by pulling hard with his long neck. The rawhide snapped as they were passing through the jutting landspurs. Fenno bundled himself ashore and lay still among the reeds and bushes, watching the cold-eyed reptiles hurrying by, trying to catch the vessel before it struck open water. Mogan felt the pull of the current. Knocking water rats aside, he dashed to the stern of the boat. Paddle for your lives! Keep to the center stream! Go! Go! Slashing left and right with his axe, the marlfox slew a toad and a frilled newt who were clinging to the after end. Powered by panic-stricken rats, the logboat shot off downriver. It was long after midnight when Fenno risked moving a limb, shutting his ears to the horrible screams of a water rat whom the reptiles had captured, he crawled off stealthily through the undergrowth. Mokan forced his remaining nine rats to paddle all night. They halted at dawn on the bank of a dry sunburned field, but before he allowed them to eat, drink, or tend their wounds, the marlfox had them spread the precious tapestry out on the grass. Clean it, brush the edges well, and make sure the fringe is entangled. It must be kept in perfect condition for High Queen Silt. It is a thing of rare beauty. Mokan posted two guards, then, choosing a shady spot, he spread his cloak and lay down to rest, thinking of Fenno and the fate he would suffer in the hold of the merciless reptiles. 
Logan felt slightly cheated. He had planned on killing Fenno himself. Raventail surprised even himself. When he and his cohorts went out scouring the countryside to the north and east, they recruited nearly one hundred assorted vermin. Naturally, the Marl Foxes had promised Raventail anything his avaricious heart desired. Armaments, food, power, even the rule of a conquered Redwall. Vannon had assured the barbarian ferret that Marl Foxes had no need of the Abbey, because their home was in another place. She explained that the reason Redwall had to fall was because their creatures had murdered two of her kin. Raventail figured that there would be a catch to the agreement somewhere, but his overpowering greed got the better of him. Besides, he reasoned, with a hundred at his command, he could always turn the tables on his strange allies. Raventail was not a stupid beast. He took note of the fact that Vannon had made a serious mistake in her talks with him. She had admitted that Marlfoxes could be slain. Vannon, Askrod, and Predak sat surrounded by their water-rat soldiers, watching the vermin horde dancing and chanting around a blazing log. Evening shadows, combined with the eerie flicker of flames, cast a wild and primitive air on the proceedings. Weasels, stoats, and ferrets leapt and stamped, pounding the earth until a dust cloud rose around them, flinging their weapons high in the air and catching them expertly as they wailed their killing chants. Who be death? We be death. Here's the blade what stop your breath. Kayar Rakachaka. Wum, wum, wum. Plunder good, slayin' good. These de blades what shed your blood. Kayar Rakachaka. Wum, wum, wum. Over and over they repeated the chant, getting faster and louder as the tempo of their frenzied dance increased. There was a contemptuous, if slightly nervous, edge to Askrod's tone as he viewed the primeval proceedings. Stupid savages! What do they think they're doing? The flames reflected in Vannon's pale, immobile eyes. Working themselves into a blood frenzy, of course, brother. Here comes Raventail. Don't refer to them as stupid savages while he's around. Greetings, Chief Raventail. You have done well, my friend. These are true warriors you have brought us. The ferret cast a swift sidelong glance at Askrod, as if he had heard the Marlfox's insulting remark. Twirling his scimitar deftly, he thwacked it into the ground a mere whisker away from Askrod's paw. The Marlfox twitched. Raventail's red and black daubed face leered at him momentarily. Then he turned away to address Vannon. Kyar, magic fox. These beasts ready for war fight. Much slay, much kill. Better soon we go fight now. Fight now. Predak and Askrod looked to Vannon. Now? The vixen stood, drawing her axe. Well, they won't get it done chanting and dancing here. What better time than now? T'will be full dark when we reach the abbey. Our scouts report that they have been celebrating a victory. This is the time they'll least expect us. 25. Abbey bells boomed softly on the still warm air over Redwall. Grandma Alayo, in company with Sister Slowey, halted their evening stroll by the northeast wall corner. Jangler turned from the battlements, a half-smile in his lazy eyes. Now then, old mother, don't you go breaking into a gallop down there. Supper'll be about ready time you get to Cavern Hall. Alayo shook her stick at her impudent offspring. If in my rheumatiz would let me climb yon wall steps, I'd tan your tail for you, jangler Baybelly. Skipper winked at Rustful. He admired the feisty old squirrel. Ha-ha! That'd be a sight to see, mate. Stop there, marm, and I'll come down and lend you a paw. 
A spot of tannin wouldn't go amiss on this son of yours. Alayo shook her head, smiling up at the otter chieftain. Aren't you three coming inside for supper? Me and Sister Slowey baked a great blackberry jam roly-poly pudding this afternoon. Rusful Raguba gnawed his lip regretfully. With pear and honey sauce, too, I'll wager. Trouble is, by the time we got down there, Marm, old Florian Forkbottom would have scoffed the lot. Sister Slowey, normally quite a sedate old mouse, broke out into hoots of laughter. Hoo-hoo-hoo! Florian Forkbottom! That's a good un. Hoo-hoo-hoo! Alayo turned slowly in the direction of the abbey, lecturing her with mock severity. Now, now, sister, that's not very nice. Don't you dare call that poor hair Florian Forkbottom. Leastways, not before I do. Hee-hee. <laughs> Don't forget us three hungry beasts up here, ladies, Jangler called after the retreating figures. See if you can get supper sent out to us, please. Alayo waved her stick in acknowledgment. Skipper turned back to the wall, leaning his chin on it. Hmm. It don't look like there's much doing out there tonight, mates. Quiet as a butterfly's bedroom tis. Russell tested his javelin point lightly. Makes me nervous when it's this quiet. What do you say, Jang? You could be right, messmate. I don't like it myself. Too silent. Skipper was not a creature who favored inactivity. Pacing restlessly up and down the ramparts, he checked his sling and javelin. Jangler and Russell were older than the otter, more used to biding their time throughout the long hours of sentry duty. Russell watched Skipper testing the longbow strings and counting the arrows for the second time that night. Skip, will you stop hopping about like you got a thistle under your jerkin? What's up, matey? The big otter eyed Mossflower's vast thickness. Not even a leaf was stirring on the still air. There's something brewing out there, Russ. The whiskers are starting to twitch, and that's a bad sign. My old whiskers ain't ever let me down yet. Jangler's hooded eyes stayed intent on a new sling he was braiding. I know the feeling, mate. What are you going to do about it? A quiet little look around out there wouldn't go amiss. Stretching the sling against his football, Jangler nodded. So be it, if and that's what you want. We'll let you out by the east wall gate and keep our eyes skinned for you coming back. As the small door closed behind him, the otter chieftain slid off among the trees, armed with only his sling and stone pouch. He threaded his way southeast, using all his natural ability as a hunter, silent and capable. Troglo Spearback and Florian found themselves on dormitory duty. Troglo was used to unruly dibbons, but the hare was losing patience with the wide-awake abbey babes. Stiffening both ears and squinching his eyes menacingly, he adopted his no-nonsense voice. Listen here, you confounded curmudgeons. Get to sleep immediately. One more flippin' squeak out of you, and I'll do a spot of tail scalpin', what? Her, what be ye spotter tail scalpin', sir? Never you jolly well mind, you young rip. Just get to sleep. Will you scalper my tail too, Mr. Florian? Indeed I will, Master Dwapple. Double sharp, if you don't pipe down. Do you scalper tails too, Mr. Trago? Ho, ho, I'm known for it, young'un. Worstest tail scalper in Redwall, that's me. Now get back into bed with you. Immediately all the Dibbons deserted their beds and clamored around the two bewildered dormitory helpers, pleading with them to scalp their tails. It all sounded like great fun to them. Florian and Troglo were completely overwhelmed, being new to dormitory duty, and the hare threw up his paws in resignation. 
It's all too bally much. How are we supposed to cope with this savage mob of infants? What, what? Just leave them to me, sir. I invented scalping naughty tales. At the sound of Craig of Badgermum's booming voice, the Dibbons hurled themselves into the little beds and pulled the blankets over their heads. Craigus strode into the dormitory. Right, let's get started. Any particular one you'd like me to scalp, Mr. Florian? The hare shrugged carelessly. Not really, ma'am. Mayhaps you could just dish out a good general scalping all round, what? Craig's huge paws felt their way around each bed as she recited, I'll scalp their tails, I'll scalp their ears, then scalp some whiskers, too. No beast scalps like Craig does, and I've scalped quite a few. I love to see em turn and pale. Some'll weep, or some'll wail. Some'll grow up with no tail, when I'm done scalping here. So hush, my naughty dear, go fast asleep till morn. That's if you wish to waken up with tail unscalped by dawn. One more word, just one more peep. Woe betide those not asleep. They will call out, Mercy, help, when the badger starts to scalp. Silence reigned in the dormitory, apart from one or two false snores from those trying to prove they were really asleep. Tip-pawing out, Craig had closed the door. Florian gulped visibly. I say, Marm, that did the trick, what, what? I think a Marl fox would take a swift snooze rather than be scalped by you. Craig smiled as she felt her way downstairs. Bless their little hearts. The only beast I'd scalp would be one who tried to put a paw near my dibbons. Tis the sound of my big voice puts them in their place, that's all. So your roar's worse than your scalp, what? Jolly good idea. Craig bared her teeth and growled menacingly. But only to dibbons. I come down extra hard on braggarts and salad fork wreckers. Florian Dougalwolf Wolfachop nipped smartly behind Troglo, placing the hedgehog between the badger and himself. Indeed, quite right, too, ma'am. Can't stand those types myself. At the bottom of the spiral stairwell, they met Bargle. The shrew was scratching his head. Did a mouse pass by you on his way upstairs? Troglo shook his head. Which mouse? What was he like? Well-built, strong-looking feller. Can't say where I've seen him afore, but he looked familiar-like. Wearing armor and carrying a sword, too. Fine weapon. Bargle found his paw enveloped by Craig's huge mitt. What did he say? Did he do anything? Speak? Er, no, not really, ma'am. He smiled at me and sort of nodded, as if he wanted me to follow him. Went up these stairs. Craig pushed the shrew in front of her. Right, up you go. Let's see where your footpaws take you, Bargle. That could only have been the spirit of Martin the warrior. On the floor above the dormitories, Bargle halted, glancing down the passage. There he is, by that window. Hi there, matey. He dashed off down the passage. Can you see him? Craiga muttered to her friends. The stolid Troglo shrugged slowly. I don't see nothing, ma'am. Ain't no beast there. Florian started after Bargle. Chap must be puddled, what? Scoff too much supper, I think. Craig could not help remarking. Huh, if that were the case, you'd be seeing visions day and night. The window was merely a long, narrow, unglazed slit in the wall. Bargle stood by it, rubbing his eyes and blinking. I'd have took me oath he was here a moment ago, and now he's gone. Troglo stepped up to the window. Well, tis clear that Martin wanted us to look out of this window. Why else should he lead us up here? 
It needed but a single glance through the window to see what Martin had wanted to warn them about. Torches and firebrands were advancing on the abbey from the east, over two hundred of them. Bargill felt himself pushed toward the stairs by Florian. Er, er, no need to panic, old chap. Just because the foe beast is back, what? Dash on down and get some beast up to the valley bell tower. Sound the flippant alarm. Stand by to repel invaders. Turn out the blinking troops. Er, er, what else? Oh, tell them to pack me some tucker, to keep me going up on those walls, what? Nothing elaborate. Bowl of salad. Basin of trifle. Er, er. Craig's mighty paw stifled further babble from the excited hare. Harken, go downstairs quietly. Don't rush. Gather every able-bodied redwaller and report to Skipper and his friends on the wall top. They'll know what to do. Above all, don't toll the bells. The vermin will know we've seen them. If they hear an alarm, go swift and silent now. Askrod laughed aloud with exhilaration as the whir of blazing torches carried by charging vermin swept by him. Waving his own firebrand at Vannon, he called out, "'Tonight's the night we take Red Wall, I know it!' Pale eyes glittering in the torch flames, the vixen licked at her axe-blade, as if she were already tasting blood. "'Luck is with us. I feel it in my bones, brother. One of Raventail's ferrets says he just slew an otter, a big male, probably a Red Wall scout.' Raventail was leading the front-runners. His keen eyes glimpsed the unmistakable bulk of the abbey ramparts looming up in the darkness. Waving his scimitar, the barbarian ferret gave vent to an eerie howl, which was taken up by his followers. Killslay! Kayar! Fearsome-looking vermin, their faces painted heavily for war, leapt forward. Thrusting their torches on the ground, they whirled grappling hooks on ropes and hurled them up at the battlements. Torches clenched in their fangs, the first wave began hauling themselves up the ropes to the parapet. The three marlfoxes marshaled their archers in position, Predak herself taking a bow and calling orders. Shoot anything that moves on the wall tops. Cover those climbing the ropes. Jangler stepped back as another grapnel flew over the battlements and latched in a niche. All along the east wall the three-pronged metal barbs were clanking and grating as they bit into mortared sandstone cracks. The squirrel warrior's hooded eyes watched them carefully. When he judged the time was right, he signaled Rustful and Bargle. They're all in place. Tell Melalot and the others they can bring it up now, mates. Assisted by Rimrose, Alayo, Sloe, and all the kitchen helpers, Brother Melalot ascended the wall stairs. Each of them carried pan, pail, bowl, or any other variety of large container they could lay paws upon. They came up the steps slowly, so as not to spill the contents of their vessels. Russell Raguba took a bucket from Sister Sloe's trembling paws, nodding politely. Well done, ma'am. Now stand back down those stairs. You've done your bit. Leave the rest to us. All along the wall, Gwasim shrews were taking the vessels from the kitchen helpers and setting them on the battlements anywhere a grapnel was fixed. Jangler took a swift peek over the wall top, moving immediately behind a battlement as a volley of arrows whizzed by. He nodded at Bargle and Rustful. Their archers have the walls well marked. We'd best do it smart-like. There's all manner of scum coming up these ropes. Rustful steadied a large cooking pot with one paw. All carrion lighted torches, I hope. Jangler winked at his warrior friend. Aye, matey, pretty as a twinkling nest of fireflies. Let's give it to him. One, two, three, now! On Jangler's signal, a blend of heated cooking oil, vegetable oil, used as lantern fuel, and any kind of waste oil or grease from kitchen or repair shop was heaved over the top. 
The outside of the entire east wall lit up with a tremendous whoosh as the hot oil met the battery of blazing torches. Both vermin and ropes went up in a crackling sheet of flame. Jangler sat beside Russell and Bargle in the shelter of the ramparts, eyes streaming from the thick coils of black smoke wreathing about them. The squirrel warrior shook his head regretfully, raising his voice above the agonized shrieks of the vermin. "'Tis a terrible thing to happen to any beast, mates, terrible. Florian came scuttling up to join them, bringing a jug of cold mint tea, which they passed from one to the other. The hare wiped his mouth with the back of a paw. Hmm, dreadful, I agree, but the blighters brought it upon themselves. I say, move over, you chaps. The vermin will have something else on their belly mind soon. Here comes Formol with his stalwarts to chuck stones on them. Ha! Looks like my noon veilers have joined them. What ho, runk old lad? You taken to be in a mole now? Rup and Muggle stifled giggles at the thought. Her, her, twould take some doin' to be a spoiky mole, sir. Runktip helped the moles to lug large baskets of rock and masonry chunks over to the battlements. He winked at Florian. I'm as good a mole as the next one. We all are. Ain't that right, Boracle? The otter nodded stolidly as he hefted a basket. Aye, we certainly are, matey, and moles get better fed than performers, I can tell you. Florian snorted. Cheeky bounder. Go on, then. Be moles, all of you. See if I jolly well care. Runktip put on his best mole accent. Ger, Formole, sir, do usins be about ready nail? Formole waved a digging claw to his crew and the noon veilers. Her, moy arties, chuck a more good and hard now. On Formole's command, the joint crew of moles and performers grabbed the baskets and slung them forcefully over the parapet, scattering the contents on the attackers below. Rimrose and others brought cool, damp towels up to the defenders, who wiped their eyes and bathed their faces gratefully. Rimrose clasped Jangler's paw. Some beast told me that Skipper's out there. Oh, dear, I do hope he's all right. Do you think they've captured him? Jangler chided his wife gently. There you go again, worry, worry, all the time. First his song and her friends, now it's Skipper's turn. I tell you, beauty, that old river dog's safe as a nut in its shell. He'd have a good laugh if and he could see you now, frettin' and fussin' o'er him. Skipper can take care of himself better than I can, believe me. Rimrose bathed Jangler's heavy-lidded eyes carefully. Well, if you say so, I suppose Skipper's safe. I'm thankful that Song and those two other young'uns are well out of this. The squirrel warrior squeezed his wife's paw lightly. Those three? <laughs> I'll wager they're somewhere snug along a riverbank, feeding their faces and singing round a campfire. Rimrose smiled and nodded. Aye. And our song's the one who'll be doing the singing. Oh, Mr. Florian, let me bathe your eyes for you. They look sore. Florian adopted his brave face, though his eyes were indeed streaming from the oily smoke. Most kind of you, ma'am. Confounded little smudge in the corner of me left lamp here. Perhaps you can get it. Nothing like the thistle-down touch of a pretty squirrel. What, what? Mayen came from the south wall and reported everything quiet. Friar Butty, who had been watching the west wall, said the same. Jangler looked over to the north wall, where the Gwasim Shrew Splicker was stationed. What's wrong with old Splicker? Looks like he's listening hard over there. Go and see if anything's amiss, Margle. The Shrew slid off, crouching low. After a brief conversation with his comrade, he came hurrying back. Splicker reckons there's a steady noise over that way, coming from nearby. 
Sounds like they're chopping at something. Jangler and Russell went to the north wall to investigate. They crouched low alongside Splicker, listening to the steady ring of axe against timber. A leaf landed on Jangler's head. The squirrel studied it, then popped up to chance a quick scan of the woodland. He sat back down again, gnawing worriedly at his lip. Russell looked at him. Something's wrong, mate. What are they up to? Jangler passed him the leaf. Oak. They're chopping away at an old giant three-topped oak. If it falls, the wall could be breached. And then we'd have our paws full trying to stop them coming in. We'll need to get our thinking caps on, Russ. They could maybe fell a tree that size by tomorrow morning or midday. Somewhere in the depths of Mossflower Wood, Skipper gritted his teeth as he sat on a stream bank, tugging a broken spear from his leg. As he pulled, the otter chieftain was giving himself a good telling off. Unch, puddle-edded old Rivergo. That's what you are, matey. Fancy a great big lump like yourself getting caught off guard by a lousy painted varmint. Ooh, easy now, messmate. Out she comes. Ah, there now. Spirit spear ain't made that could lay a decent otter low. That'll teach her to jump quicker next time. And keep your eyes peeled, too. He sorted through the plants he had garnered from nearby. Hmm, dock leaves. Sanical and young burdock. That should do. Crushing them together with pawfuls of bank mud, he applied the cooling poultice to his injured limb and bound the lot with a strip from his jerkin. Little sister slowly'd have a fit if she saw this sloppy job, but it'll have to do for now. Right. Set sail, matey. In we go. He slid awkwardly into the stream. Once in the water, however, the otter swam slowly and gracefully away into the night, going in the opposite direction to Redwall Abbey. Only two creatures at a time could chop at the great oak. At first Vannon had set four to the task, but they got in each other's way until two suffered axe cuts. Raventail snorted impatiently at the marl fox. Kyre, ar, you say big tree be half dead. No take long, ya catcha. Bannon regarded the barbarian ferret disdainfully. The tree is half dead. Twill fall sooner or later. Patience seems to me a much better idea than charging in like your lot did, screaming and yelling with lighted torches to advertise your presence. What kind of stealth attack is that? They were ready for us long before we arrived at the wall. Raventail took a pace back, executing a scornful bow. Whoa! Big magic fox be clever or much much? Excusey me! Bannon ignored the jibe, signaling to two water rats. You and you, take over chopping. I'll make it work this time. As the water rats stepped in to take over from the two ferrets, currently wielding the axes, a big arrow from a longbow felled one of the vermin. On the wall top, Jangler fitted another shaft to his powerful weapon. Ain't much to aim at, Russ. But there's all we can do to stop him. Rustful Raguba sighted down the arrow on his bow, then let the string slack with a sigh. Cha! They could hide behind that oak and chop away all season. Not much we can do about it, mate. The tree is going to fall sooner or later, for sure. Act Three, The Queen's Island. Twenty-six. As the pounding rush of waters enveloped Song, she struck out wildly. Her world now consisted of a roaring, boiling melee, in which she was as helpless as a leaf in a hurricane. 
Water battered her eyes shut, gushing up her nostrils, down her ears and into her mouth. Without warning, a powerful pair of talons latched onto her paws like a drowning swimmer clutching a twig. Something hard struck her body, a jagged peak of rock sticking up underwater. Heavy, sodden feathers flapped slowly, embracing her. The squirrel maid forced her eyes open for an instant and found herself facing a huge hooked amber beak. Then an eddy caught both Song and the osprey, whirling them around the rocky pinnacle like a pair of spinning tops. There was tension pulling at Song from the rope tied about her waist, but then it slackened off with frightening suddenness. The side of Song's head thudded against the rock, knocking her senseless. On the rocky edge of the waterfall, Dan felt the rope go slack. Numbly he drew in the line, stunned by what had happened. Behind him he could hear Dippler yelling hoarsely, "'Song, where are you? Song!' Dan sat down with a groan, covering his eyes with both paws, trying to blot out the awful realization of tragedy. Dippler slapped him hard across the face, shouting at him over the roaring noise of falling waters. "'Get up, mate! Keep an eye on the place where she went down. I'm going to get Burble on the boat. Wait here!' Galvanized into action, Dan sprang upright. He found a broken branch and tied it to the rope's end. As Dippler raced away, he saw Dan throwing the branch out into the water cascade, roaring, "'Grab the branch if you're there, Song! Grab the branch!' Dippler clambered off over the wet stones, muttering aloud, "'Leastways he's doing something instead of sitting there in a blinking trance.' Song twisted and turned. Grandma Alayo was standing right in front of her, talking, but her voice sounded strange. Rimrose and Jangler had tight hold of Song's paws, and Alayo was speaking to them. Rrr, should have threw them back in. Not fishes, rrr, no, only trouble. Gluck, gluck. Now Alayo was forcing Rimrose and Jangler to release their grip on Song, though her parents' paws felt unusually sharp and strong. Alayo was speaking again. Rrr, use your beak, dumb duck, use your beak. Rrr. The squirrel-maid's eyes opened slowly. She could not focus properly and seemed to be viewing things through a haze. Small snake-like creatures with long, narrow beaks surrounded her head. One pecked Song sharply on her nose-tip. Song sat up, shaking her head, sending the creatures scattering. When her vision cleared, a big bird to one side of her was cackling, Gluck, gluck, gluck. Can't eat them, not vicious. Gluck, gluck. The small creatures were not snakes. They were long-necked cormorant chicks. Her paws were freed by a full-grown male, obviously the father. Rrr, we catch fishes, Gluck, Gluck. You catch big eagle. The mother cormorant, whom Song had taken to be a layo, chanced to peck at the offspring. It did not stir. Gluck, Gluck, this bird deadner than dead fish, methinks. The male cormorant's strange blue eyes blinked scornfully. Reek, eagle alive as me and you. Wait and see. Song lay recovering her senses as the two cormorants began an argument, hopping about and fanning out their wings, while the chicks scurried this way and that to avoid being danced on or batted by an outstretched wing. Rah! Eagle alive? Squiddle too! Rrr! Not in my nest, thank ye. Gluck! They'll eat my egg chicks! Gare em out! Gluck, gluck! Don't be a daft duck! Eagle and squiddle won't eat egg chicks! I saved their lives! Rrr, rrr, Glock, such a beak, save their lives, wreck. I say, get them out, not staying in my nest, squiddles, eagles, chuck, not stopping here. 
While the furious debate raged on, the little chicks never let up their ceaseless cries. Glick, 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 glick. Song took stock of her position. She was at the center of a large, untidy twig-and-grass nest, sprawled atop a rock shelf, somewhere downstream. To her left she could vaguely see the falls and hear their distant roar. On other parts of the ledge were similar nests, all occupied by cormorant families. At odd moments one of the birds would plunge off the ledge into the broad, deep stream, disappearing underwater for quite a while, then suddenly bobbing up a good distance away, usually holding a wriggling fish in its beak. Beside her the osprey opened one flecked golden eye. Immediately all activity ceased, the cormorants frozen in fear. The big fish eagle's dangerous beak opened wide. Song held her breath. It was a frightening sight, but then the osprey retched, spewing forth a fountain of water. Shaking its body vigorously, the big bird struggled into a standing position. Both the fierce eyes were open now, and Song quailed under their savage scrutiny. A heavily taloned claw placed itself lightly on her paw. You're a bonny beast, lassie. You saved the life of McGraw, and I'll no forget it. What name do you go by? Song shook the taloned claw warmly. I'm called Songbreeze, sir, but you may call me Song. Something resembling a smile hovered on the eagle's fierce face. Ach, don't be calling me sir, Song, my lass. I'm known by the name of mighty McGraw, but McGraw'll do just fine. Then the eagle turned to the male cormorant, nodding politely. And my thanks to you, good bird, for pulling us fra yon water. The female cormorant averted her head, speaking as if to no beast in particular, as she hugged and plumped her feathers. Rrr, squiddles and eagles can't stop here. Gluck, gluck, no. McGraw fixed her with a murderous stare. Do you know say? Well, my compliments to you, ma'am. Me and my good friend will no stay longer than the time it takes us to walk away from here. Though, if you look doing your beak at us like that again, I'll eat you for sure and give your mate a bit of peace. Good day to you now. Come on, Song, my wee lassie. Song followed McGraw as he limped from the nest, nodding a silent and grateful farewell to the male cormorant as she went. Making their way along the bank, they left the rocky area and sat to rest on a mossy sward. Night was beginning to fall. McGraw nodded his head in both directions. Well, which way, new Song? The squirrel maid looked back toward the waterfall. I have three friends, but I parted from them at the top of the falls when I jumped in after you. They'll be searching for me now, I expect. Perhaps we'd best stay here until they come along this way to find me. What do you think, McGraw? Aye, we'll do that. Though I'm powerful hungry, the new. Song undid the broken rope from about her waist, surprised that her leafwood stick was still thrust into it. You stay there and rest, Mr. McGraw. I'll go and find us some fruit and berries. Should be some hereabouts. The osprey squinched his eyes up in disgust. Fruit and berries, did you say? You'll poison yourself for sure, lass. You go and search out your ain victuals, and leave me here to fish. And don't call me mister. The name's McGraw, Deacon. Song had not strayed far when she found blackberries and some fine apples. As she returned to the bank, McGraw averted his head politely and swallowed. A good spot, this. I got myself a plump wee grayling. But fear not, Song, tis gone now. I mind how the sight of flesh-eaters can upset those who live on roots and berries and such nonsense. They wonder they cannot fly. As night drew on, the strange pair sat by the stream, 
telling each other their life stories. When Song had told McGraw about the quest she and her friends were on, he perked up immediately. It turned out that the osprey was a wanderer, a lone, wide-ranging eagle. He had come down from the far northeast. In his travels he had discovered a big inland lake, where the fish were plentiful. All pike, but that made little difference to him. He was very partial to a big pike. But one night, when McGraw was resting in a partially constructed nest he was building on the lake shore, he was ambushed by a mob of magpies. The birds took him completely by surprise and thrashed him. The osprey managed to escape with three things, his life, a broken wing, and a massively injured pride. He had traveled far from the lake, finally settling on the falls as a place where other creatures could not bother him. McGraw stared at the stream, his wild eyes glittering with the light of vengeance. I'll swear on my mother's egg. I'll find that lake again. Aye, some day I'll gang back there and meet we young magpies to settle my score with them. Mock my word, Song. They'll wish they'd ne'er been hatched when the wrath of mighty McGraw descends on them. Ach, but what can a bird do with a broke wing? Can you tell me that, Song? The squirrel maid stroked McGraw's wing, which flopped uselessly at his side. She had come to like the big osprey immensely in the short time she had known him. He was fierce but well-mannered, a true warrior. Also, she loved the way he pronounced her name as Song. Well, you could come with me and my friends when we get together. We're searching for the lake, too, you know. How would you like that, McGraw? The osprey blew out his chest to alarming proportions and winked slyly at his new friend. I'd like that fine, lass. Burble, Dippler, and Dan did not rest that night. Each of them was convinced that Song was dead. Just one look at the mighty waterfall was enough. No beast could go over its edge and live, but none would admit it, so they kept up brave faces, reassuring each other. Now that Dan had snapped out of his despairing mood, he was acting like a confident leader. Right. You know what Mr. Florian would say? There's only one valley thing for it, chaps. What, what? We'll scale down the cliffside, lower the jolly old boat on what's left of our rope, and get to the bottom sharpish. Though Burble and Dippler felt as if leaden weights had been implanted in their chests at the loss of song, they agreed with a great show of false optimism. Yes, yes, and I'll wager the first old creature we find down there will be the bold song, eh? Ha-ha, right, and she'll say, What took you lot so long? You should have come down the quick way like I did. It was the worst night of their lives, climbing down a spray-drenched cliff face, with the waterfall pounding along on their left side. Dan found that the broken length of rope proved invaluable. He would lower himself down, then have the swallow lured to him before guiding the other two safely on their descent. No easy task by night, even though the rocks on that side were not smooth. But with great good fortune, lots of rests on ledges and good cooperation between them, combined with Dan's great climbing skills, they had covered halfway by dawn. Stopping on a small crag, they made a scratch breakfast. Dippler peered down. He could see the pool below the falls through the misty spray. I'd say we could make it by midday if things go all right. Yes, yes, midday, or even just before. We'd best save some vittles. Miss Song will be about ready for lunch when we arrive. Dan sighed heavily, but managed to force a smile. Come on, you two. Let's get going instead of guzzling. About mid-morning, Song confided her thoughts to McGraw on the stream bank. Suppose they went right by us during the night. We didn't have anything to make a signal fire with, and my friends could quite easily have rowed past in our boat, not knowing we're here. 
McGraw flapped the useless wing at his side. Aye, you could be right, Song. What do you suggest? The squirrel maid stood up, pointing downstream. I think we'd do well walking slowly along the bank in clear sight. I'll bet they find us before the day's through. The osprey rose and walked along with her. Ach, anything's better than squatting in one place, or sitting in yon fussy old cormorant bird's nesty. Did you hear her? McGraw could not help chuckling as Song imitated the cormorant. Rrr, squiddles and eagles not stay in my nest, Glock, no. They not fishes, Gluck, Gluck, eat up my egg chicks. Rrr. Ha, ha, ha. Did you mind the look on yon laddie's beak when I threatened to eat his wife? He looked fair happy, so he did. Mokin could see the lake in the distance. The morrow fox stood on a hilly rise where the river flowed downward toward the huge body of water. He watched the wild rapids plunging down to the lake, thinking. Now he had come this far, there was no point in having the log boat wrecked with himself and the tapestry aboard. He chose two of his remaining water rats. You and you. Get in the boat and take it down to the lake. The rest of you, pick up that tapestry. Be careful with it. We'll walk along the bank and meet the boat at the lake's edge. Stolidly obedient, one of the two rats got into the log boat and picked up a paddle. However, his companion took one look at the pounding, rock-strewn rapids and stayed where he was, safe on shore. Mokin patted him on the back reassuringly. What's the matter, afraid of a little rough ride? The water rat's eyes were wide with fear as he nodded dumbly. Mokin shrugged, smiling at the rodent. You don't have to go if you don't want to. Stay here. The morrow fox's axe flashed in the sunlight as he slew the unfortunate beast with a single hard blow. Still smiling, he pointed to another water rat. Would you like to stay here with him? The rat leapt into the log boat and seized a paddle. No, sire. I'll take the boat down to the lake. Mokin stowed the axe back in his belt. Good. We'll meet you by the shore. Dan and his friends reached the bottom of the falls at precisely midday. They searched the area as best they could until nigh on late noon. Dippler and Burble came back from their reconnaissance to find the young squirrel seated despondently on the ground, shaking his head. There's not a sign of song or that osprey, not a feather, a scrap of rope, nothing. Ever the optimist, Burble nodded in agreement. Yes, yes, that only means one thing, Dan Mibucko. Song's alive and safe somewheres. Yes, yes, you know what they say. No news is good news. Dippler flung out a paw in the direction of the water. Then which way do you think she's gone? Dan was suddenly struck with an idea. The swallow should tell us. Let's get away from this area to where the water's smoother. Then we'll launch her and see which way she carries us. The current goes the same way for anything on the water, right? Yes, yes. Good old Dan, you're right, mate. Finding a good spot, they launched the boat and sat in it, leaving their paddles shipped so that the water could carry them along. When they were out in the main stream of the wide swirling pool beneath the waterfall, Dan pointed off to his right. Look, there's a broad stream running off that way. Maybe that's the way Song went. Dippler watched the prow of the swallow nosing along in the water. Maybe, but it ain't the way we're bound, pals. Look dead ahead. There was another high cliff in front of them. The water was running straight into a cave beneath the cliffs opposite the falls. The swallow picked up speed, and they braced themselves. The current was sucking them toward the dark hole. Had they launched the swallow on the other side of the pool, they would have run into the stream. But the realization came too late. 
Dan grabbed his paddle, shouting, Backwater! Try to turn her, or we'll go right into that hole! But they could not fight the inevitable. Hard as they tried, the little boat was sucked into the dark gaping hole, despite their heroic efforts with the paddles. One moment they were sweating and striving in the bright sunlight. Next instant they were swept into the black chasm and into another waterfall, which plunged straight down underground. 27. Troglo Spearback and Friar Buddy were in the kitchens, making oatmeal scones for breakfast. Troglo pulled trays of the hot scones from the ovens and laid them out in neat rows. Old Friar Buddy followed him up, making a sloping slice into the top of each scone, until the whole batch was ready. Then Troglo took an earthenware jar and a wooden spoon, and starting at the first tray, he began filling the slice in each scone with a gob of thick fawn-colored honey. Friar Buddy followed, placing a thin slice of crystallized plum in the honey. They worked dutifully and well, until Florian Dugglewolf Wilfachop sauntered into the kitchens, sniffing the air appreciatively. I say, you chaps, something smells jolly good, what? Troglo menaced the gluttonous hair with his honey spoon. Them's for breakfast, Mr. Florian. You put a paw near our scones, and I'll raise a lump on it with this here spoon. Florian managed a look of outraged innocence. Steady on, old lad. I'm no blinking scone robber. I merely popped in, so to speak, to see if you needed any assistance. No need to accuse a chap of felonious intentions on your scones. Friar Butty continued his work, keeping one eye upon the hair. Well, we don't need any assistance, so to speak, thank you. I thought you were supposed to be up on the wall tops defending us from vermin attack. What are you doing down here? Florian continued to sniff the aroma of fresh-baked scones, striding up and down the kitchens with an air of exaggerated boredom, getting closer to the cooling trays all the time. Doing down here? Me? Oh, this and that, you know. Gets rather tedious standing on a flippin' wall top all night, watching those vermin types chopping away at a tree. Jolly boring, what? Buddy looked up from his work. Which tree? What's going on up there? Florian pulled a wry face at the stout Troglo, who had placed himself in front of the scones. Over by the north wall, great old three-topped oak, half dead but amazingly thick. Those bally villains are hacking away at it with axes. They want to fell it so that it'll fall against the wall and provide a road into the abbey for them. Fiddly dee, it'll take them all season to chop that monster down. I say, what are you chaps smiling at? Nothing to be happy about, really. If that tree falls, you'll have a mob of vermin in here, pinching your breakfast scones, what? Troglo put down his honey jar and spoon. Big, half-dead, old three-topped oak at the north wall, do you say? Rather. Great blinking hunk of a thing. Must be nigh on a squillion seasons old. Friar Butty relinquished the crystallized fruit. Still smiling broadly, he wiped both paws on his apron. Tell me, how long have they been chopping at the old oak? Oh, not too long, really. Couldn't say for sure. Why? Troglo was making for the door, a huge grin on his face. Come on, buddy, we got to see this. The old recorder followed him eagerly. Florian pursued them, snatching two scones from a tray. Wait for me, chaps. Ooh, ooh, these scones are scorching hot, what? Jangler Swift-Eye paced the ramparts, arrow on bowstring, quivering with frustration. Can't see the scum to get a clear shot, Russ. Russell Raguba sat down, covering his ears with both paws. Chop, chop, chop. 
The sound of those confounded axes is driving me mad, Mickey. Butty, Troglo, and Florian climbed the north wall steps, with Craga, Formol, Gubio, and his mixed crew of moles and moon veilers following behind. Troglo peeped over the battlements and laughed aloud. Ho, ho, ho! Any moment now, they be in for a real surprise. Jangler looked at the cellar hog strangely. I don't see nothing funny in all this, mate. Neither'll you if that oak falls atop the wall. Craga placed a placating paw on the angry squirrel. I'm sorry, friend. Let me explain. That old tree is rotted right through its middle due to big stinging termites. If it weren't night, you could see the hive, too, and the fork where the three tops meet. The largest honeybee hive in all mossflower rests in yonder oak, but we've never been able to get at the honey because of the bees and termites. The bees guard their hive, and the termites guard the tree. As soon as the vermin strike soft wood, they're in big trouble. Poor old Gubio shook his head. Them bumbly bees, and termiters be a taking the arter solstice nap. Her, woe to ye who wakes em up, sir, Buroi. Boracle peeped over the wall top, his curiosity aroused by the news. When can we expect something to happen, Marm? Craga felt about until she found somewhere comfortable to sit. As soon as the axes stopped that hard chopping noise and hit the soft rotted wood. As Vannon watched two new axe beasts take the place of two weary ones, Raventail scoffed. Kyar, we be old beasts by time Big Tree fall. The Marl Fox ignored the jibe, listening to the steady ring of axe blades against Oakwood. Chop, chop, chop. One of the water rats wielding an axe stopped suddenly, wincing as he rubbed curiously at his cheek. Bannon glared at him irately. What have you stopped for? Something stung me, Marm. Idiot, get back to work, or my axe will sting your neck. Chop, 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 thunk, whoop. The Marl Fox's pale eyes shone triumphantly. Ah, now we're getting somewhere. Swing those axes harder. As she spoke, Bannon drew in her breath sharply. Raising her left footpaw, she flattened the big termite that was biting her. At the same instant, her right footpaw was attacked by several more of the angry insects. In no time at all, Bannon was hopping from one paw to the other, swiping at termites. Raventail stepped back, laughing. Kaya ha ha ha! Big magic fox dancing loco loco. Both water rats had ceased chopping and were slapping their bodies all over. Maddened by the fiery stabs of pain, an ominous buzzing filled the air. Raventail was still laughing as a swarm of bees descended on his head, where they went to work with a vengeance. Now the very air hummed, and the ground was alive. Insects flooded from the tree-topped oak, biting and stinging anything they encountered. The moment they felt the first stings, Ascrod and Predak fled the scene, leaving Raventail, Vannon, and the waiting crowd of barbarians and water rats to their tormentors. The would-be invaders screamed and roared, some throwing themselves flat on the ground, unwittingly escaping the bees, only to writhe amid the termites. Others tried to scale trees, driven almost crazy with agony, as bees swarmed all over them. Those who fled were pursued by the bees, and they ran as if they were dancing some insane jig, slapping at the termites that clung doggedly on. Bushes were trampled, low-hanging branches snapped, and the night air rang with screeches and yells. Troglo's spearback began herding every beast down from the wall, cautioning as they went. Go easy now. Don't hurry. Move slow and stay calm. Those bees ain't flown up this eye yet, but they soon will. 
Dawn arrived in pale rose-washed sky, scattered with small cream-hued clouds. Craig Badgerbaum stood in the abbey doorway with Elayo, listening to the massed chorus of birdsong resounding in the woodlands. Elayo looked over toward the north wall. Birdies sound happy and joyous this morning, Craig. Aye, so they do. I hear thrushes, blackbirds, finches, and robins, too. All manner of our feathered friends. Do you know what they're doing, Elayo? Oh, yes. They're thanking the vermin for giving them such a fine breakfast of bees and termites. Kind of the faux beasts, wasn't it? Indeed it was, though I don't think they'll be bothered about birdsong right now. Mud poultices and dock leaves will be more their concern this fine morning. Let that be a lesson to the rogues, I say. None of ours were stung, were they, Craig? Only one. That was Florian, who had a smear of honey on the tip of his nose. That'll teach him to steal scones. Hush, here he comes now. The hare looked a comical sight, with his nose swabbed in a poultice of dock-leaf, motherwort, and pond mud. He strode toward the pond in search of fresh mud, pursued by several dibbons and troglo, who had made up a little ditty about the incident, which he sang with evident gusto. Oh, there am I, a little bee, a-living in my old oak tree, when some bad varmint with an axe deals my ome a good few wax. Oh, buzz, says I, now what's amiss? Good gracious me, I can't have this. So buzz, 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 I flies right out, wags my sting and looks about. Buzz, 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 who can I sting? Whoever did this wicked thing. So right up in the air I fly, and there the villain I espy. Buzz, 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 the one I chose had honey smeared all on his nose. Buzz, 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 aye, that's him there, that horrible funny-looking hare. Steal my honey, that ain't fair. You're going to pay the price, proud sir. Buzz, 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 so down I goes, and stings him hard upon his nose. I made him leap and howl and wail, and that's the sting in my small tail. Buzz, 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 I tell you, folk, stay clear of my old three-topped oak. Alayo chuckled as she described the scene to Craig. He, 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 the dibbons are dancing round Mr. Florian, and whirring their paws as if they was wings. Hear him making buzzing noises. I won't repeat to you what that hare's a-saying. Craig smiled. You've no need to, friend. I can hear him. Florian was stumbling over dibbons, holding the poultice still and shouting at them. Away, and leave me in peace, you pint-sized rotters. Get from under me paws, vile infants. And you, Troglo, sir, there's nothing funny in a warrior getting his hooter nipped by a confounded buzzing insect. Shame on you and all your ilk, sir. You're a bounder and a polywoggle, and a dreadful singer to boot. So there, what? Troglo retaliated by quickly composing the first line of a new ditty. I'll sing you a ballad of a fork from a salad. Clapping both paws over his ears, Florian dashed off, yelling, Yah, you great overstuffed pincushion, bad form, add an insult to injury. Go away and leave me alone, you fatty needle-bottomed cask-thumper. Rustful joined the listeners at the doorway. Poor old Florian. Don't have much luck, does he? Ho, 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 ho. Askrod and Predak were the least hurt of the besieging army. Raventail was unrecognizable, his head completely misshapen by stinging lumps, made uglier with a thick coating of pounded dock and stream mud. Bannon was so full of poison from termite bites that her footpaws had swollen like balloons. Askrod shook his head. Who'd believe it, sister? the injuries that insects can inflict. I took count a while ago. Six are missing, either stung to death, 
or run away after being driven mad. Friedak viewed the scene in grim silence. After a while, she gripped her axe handle resolutely. We're not going to be defeated, brother. This thing has gone too far. There has to be something simple, a thing that every beast has overlooked. Redwall Abbey can be conquered. I know it can. Ascrod was impressed by his sister's fervor. I believe you, Predak. But what's the answer? Everything we've tried so far has failed, and two marl foxes are slain. Predak looked about her desperately. Leave these fools to nurse their wounds. Come on, we know that no creature alive can outwit a marl fox. We're going back to Redwall. We'll lay low and study it carefully from every possible angle. We won't rush into any harebrained scheme. We'll stop and watch and listen, take note of everything, until we come up with a simple foolproof solution. Ascrod stared levelly at the vixen. Yes, I believe we will, sister of mine. Remember that rhyme our mother used to recite when we were little more than cubs? The morrow fox cannot be bested, either in cunning or stealth. Whenever there is power to be seized, plunder, land, or wealth, when other minds are slumbering, the morrow fox is wide awake, figuring how and where and when to deceive, to slay, to take. Invisibly, by the magical guile, slyly, with less than a sound, count your paws, make sure they're yours, when the morrow fox is around. Like smoke on summer wind, Ascrod and Predak vanished from the camp into the thicknesses of Mossflower, back toward Redwall Abbey. The mouse-babe Dwapel and his partners in crime, mole-babes Wugger and Blinny, had become marl-foxes again. Daubed with flour and ashes and wearing gray blanket cloaks, they trundled into the kitchens and loaded a full plum pudding onto a cart. Believing themselves invisible, they hauled the cart away, looking back over their shoulders and giggling. They made it safely out of the kitchens, only to be halted by the javelin of Rusfold Raguba. Ha-ha! You didn't know that I'm the only beast in Redwall who can spot marl-foxes, did you? Now prepare to be slain. Dwapel blew a sigh of frustration and seated himself on the cart. Ruskell could not help smiling at the little fellow. Pwah! Us all is getting catched, cause we not real marm-foxes, I oppose. If you don't slain us, we gives you some puddin'. Ruskell relieved them of the pudding and took it back to the kitchen. He gave them a candid chestnut apiece. It ain't nice to steal, you know. If you want victuals, you've only got to ask, for no beast goes hungry at Redwall. Another thing, being marl foxes isn't good either. You do better being Redwall warriors, like Martin on the tapestry. Wugger seated himself on a pile of flour sacks. Your dan be fetching e tarpesty back yours, sir. Bait that so? I spec dan'll be back soon. Do e, sir? The squirrel warrior seated himself beside the mole-babe. A tear coursed down his craggy features, and he turned his head aside quickly, hoping the Dibbons had not seen it. I hope he will, little un. If any beast brings back the tapestry, it'll be my dan. He's a raguba, you know, bravest of the brave. Dwapel popped a plum out of the pudding and munched it. Will marm floxes be back, Mr. Rusbull? Mr. Flory say they am all goed, and not come back here no more. Rusbull stroked the mouse-babe's head pensively. Mr. Florian and lots of others say they won't be back, and certainly no beast in this abbey wants to see that lot return. But you take my word for it, little feller. There's a world of difference between what we'd like and what we get. No beast knows that better than I. 
Take it from me, all of you. Those marl foxes will be back, and they're vermin with them, I'm certain of it, sure as I'm sitting here talking to you. The Dibbons shook off their blanket cloaks and began dusting themselves down. Come on, Wug. Us gonna be Red All Warriors. What does Red All Warriors look like, Mr. Rustbull? Rustbull looked at the Dibbons standing boldly before him. Just like you three, mates. Now go on with your Off and play. He watched them scampering off, thinking of his own son Dan when he was their age, innocent, fearless, and happy. Then Jangler peered around the kitchen entrance at his friend. Come on up on the wall, matey. There's something I think you should see. 28. Things happened so fast for Dan and his friends that it was difficult for them to recall the incident later. Clinging to the boat sides, paddles forgotten, they shot into the underground waterfall like an arrow from a bow. The swallow was such a light craft, she was whipped over the torrent's edge and flung straight into the Stygian gloom. Noise like none had ever known echoed and reverberated around them. Darkness was everywhere. Breathless and battered by heavy spray, the three companions felt their boat spin through the air, down, down, down. There was a sudden impact. The swallow struck an underground ledge with a rending crunch. All three were flung from the boat, half-stunned, into a whirling, sucking miasma of dark, icy water, far below the earth's surface. Dan felt himself rushed along on a mighty current, bumping into rocks and scraping against slime-covered side channels, being swept always on a downward path. End of Side 6 To continue, change side selector switch and turn the cassette over. Arrow Fox by Brian Jakes Continuing on page 303 His paws were bruised and torn from trying to grasp at passing objects, Completely disoriented, he grabbed at anything. A shattered wooden spar met Dan's grasp, and he seized it, holding tight as he felt himself spilled over the top of another steep downfall. Striking the side, the spar flicked back at him, wiping out his senses with a sharp crack to his head. Darkness and silence enveloped the young squirrel. Dan awakened gradually. Far away he could hear the muted roar of the waterfalls. It was cold, and some beast was anxiously patting his face. Dan, me old mate, wake up. You can't die and leave me here all on me own. Come on, Dan, I'm begging your mate. Wake up. If you die and leave me down here on me own, I'll never speak to you again, so there. Opening his eyes, Dan found himself staring into Dippler's tear-stained face. Despite his aching body, the squirrel smiled. You muddle-edded little ragbag. You'll never speak to me again if I die? That's a good un, mate. The Gwasim Shrew hugged his friend heartily. You know what I mean, Dan. Dan clasped Dippler's paw. Of course I do, matey. Straightening up, they both took stock of their surroundings. The underground river flowed by on their right. They had been washed up on some rocks that skirted a huge pool to the left. Pale green phosphorescent light bathed the immense cavern, and stalactite and stalagmite formations decorated the far reaches of the pool's edge. However, they were of little interest to Dan and Dippler, whose eyes roved the strange place searching for the water bowl. Dippler voiced his thoughts. I wonder where old Burble's got to. Cupping both paws around his mouth, Dan shouted, Burble, are you there, mate? Echoes of the call bounced back from all directions, but there was no reply. Only the distant boom of the falls, 
and a steady plot of water dropping from the high cavern ceiling into the pool. It all sounded very eerie. Dippler gave Dan a worried glance. Poor old Burb. What if he's... The young squirrel placed a paw to the shrew's lips. Don't even mention it, Dip. Come on. Maybe he's been washed farther down river. Don't fret. We'll find him. Keeping close to the river edge, they pressed onward, sometimes wading waist-deep, other times jumping from rock to rock. Dippler followed Dan. He was in a gloomy mood and took every opportunity to let his companion know it, voicing his thoughts aloud as they went. Huh, I've gone and lost my blade. What sort of guasa must I look like, without a rapier by my side? It's all right for you, mate. You've still got that great sword slung over your back. Poor old me. I've got nothing to defend myself with. Dippler's voice re-echoed about the tunnel they were sloshing through after leaving the cavern. And I'm so wet and cold that I don't think I'll ever get dry and warm again. Blinking head's aching, too. Dan waded forward, trying to ignore Dippler's complaints. Proper little ray of sunshine, aren't you, Dip? Moaning ain't going to do us any good. One more word out of you and I'll die and never talk to you again. Help! You're off me, you dirty great hooligan! Help! Echoes of Burble's voice boomed all around the tunnel. Dan drew his sword, looking about wildly. It's Burb. Which way are those sounds coming from? Dippler pushed past Dan, stumbling and splashing ahead. Well, he wasn't back where we were, so he must be up that away. The tunnel opened out into another vast cavern. Like the previous one, this also had a rock-bound pool, but far larger than the first. They scrambled up onto the rocks and saw Burble. The water bowl was clinging fiercely onto a stalagmite at the shallow side of the pool, flat out in the water. He was caught by the tail, and a veritable monster of a fish was trying to drag him into the deeps. The fish was a barbel, white as snow and completely blind from living in the dark subterranean depths. It was a fearsome sight, with a head as wide as Dan was tall. Dippler hurtled into the shallows and grabbed Verbal's paws as they slipped from the smooth, rounded stalagmite. He began a tug-of-war against the barbel with Burble roaring in a panic, gripping the young Guasim's paws, trying to lever himself forward, as Dippler dug in, bending over backward, grunting as he tried to heave his friend away from the huge fish. The water bowl felt his wet paws slipping from Dippler's grasp as the monstrous barbel pulled, dragging him farther into the fathomless pool with it. Don't let him get me, Dip! Pull! Pull! Dan, help! he shrieked. Dan dashed forward and tripped, cannoning into a stalagmite the limestone column snapping as he struck it. Scrambling upright, the young squirrel hurtled onward, booming echoes of his shouts ringing round the cavern. Hold on, Burb, I'm coming. Red wall! Without thinking, Dan had seized hold of the broken-off stalagmite, unconscious of its weight. Sloshing into the shallows, he swung the cylindrical chunk of limestone like a club, whacking the fish a mighty blow on its jaw. The barbel's awesome mouth flew open, and Burble shot forward, collapsing in a heap atop Dippler. Dan let go of the stalagmite and leapt to safety, landing upon his two friends in a jumble of thrashing limbs. Like a steel trap, the barbel's mouth slammed shut, trapping the stalagmite in its jaws. It slid backward, completely stunned. Slipping from the shallow rock ledge, the leviathan of the pool dropped back into the depths. Slowly it sank from sight in the green, translucent water, leaving behind a spiraling trail of carmine from its injured mouth. They lay exhausted, shuddering with shock and fear. Dan sat up first, massaging his limbs briskly, wide eyes riveted on the still pool. Ugh! What an evil-looking monster! 
Are you all right, Verb? The irrepressible Vole inspected his skin tail ruefully. Yes, yes, twas a big and all right. Pity we couldn't have dragged it ashore and ate it. I'm starving. Dan burst into laughter at the gluttonous water bowl. Ha, ha, ha. Trust you, Burb, always thinking of your stomach. Burble shook himself indignantly. Ah, now, you're wrong there, bucko. I was thinking of the big fish's stomach, and what it'd be like living inside it. But thank you, Dan. That's a useful old club you swung there, yes, yes. Dippler was in agreement with the water bowl. Burb's right, though. I'm starving, too. What I wouldn't give for one of old Goody Brim's scones spread with honey and cream. Dan took a glance at their surroundings. As for me, all I'd like to see is the sunlight shining on trees and woodland again. This place gives me the creeps. The three friends lost all sense of night or day in the gloomy caverns deep in the mountain. They followed the course of the river, hoping that somewhere it might flow out into the open. However, there was always the dread in their minds that it would flow into ever deeper underground caves and keep going down. Hunger, cold, and weariness pervaded their bodies, but they strove onward, knowing they could not afford to lie down and sleep in the bitterly low temperatures of the subterranean regions. Dan began bobbing his head slowly from side to side as they progressed along a winding stone corridor. Diffler, who was walking behind him, grumbled, Keep your head still, mate. I'm starting to feel dizzy watching you shaking it from one side to t'other all the time. But Dan continued moving his head. I can see a star shining up ahead. Leastways it looks like a star. But maybe tis just a vision I'm so tired. The shrew pushed his way in front of Dan. Let me take a look, mate. Ah, you're right. There is something glimmering up ahead. Looks a bit like a star. Come on. Pushing their exhausted limbs, they stumbled ahead. The light grew larger, and then Burble shouted joyfully, Yes, yes, I see it clear now. That ain't no star. Tis a gleam of daylight. It's daylight, I tell you. Renewed energy flooded their bodies, and they ran toward the light, laughing and rubbing their paws together like gleeful divans. Leaving the river course, they climbed upward over piles of stony debris, sliding back in the deep, dusty shale. Dan used his sword, digging the blade in and hauling himself up, until he reached the light. The young squirrel placed his eye against the hole and peered through. I can see the outside. We're on the lower slopes of the mountain at the far side. Stay back and I'll see if I can widen this hole with my sword. He stabbed at the hole and was immediately rewarded. A big chunk of rocky earth, with grass growing on it and a sprig of heather, tumbled inward. Dippler and Burble moved it out of the way, and sunlight flooded in. They laughed and cried at the same time, letting the warm sun beam in on their dust-grimed faces. Yes, yes, that's the good old sun, all right. Go on, Dan, give it a good dig with your blade. Several more stabs of the sword brought soil, rock, grass, scree, and mountain herbage tipping in upon them. Spitting soil and grit, they climbed out into the sunlit afternoon and sat blinking in the unaccustomed warmth and brightness. Behind them the mountain reared, high and forbidding. Below was a woodland with a broad stream running through it. Dippler pounded Dan's back, raising a cloud of dust from him. We did it, matey, we did it. Now for some vittles. I'll stake me name there'll be fruit and berries growing aplenty amid those trees down there. What do you say, Burb? Oh, yes, yes, and they'll still be there while we're sitting about on our tails up here looking at them. Come on, let's eat. Stumbling, rolling, and scooting on all fours, they bumbled their way down from the lower mountain slope into the peaceful green canopy of quiet woodland. 
Dan made a little camp on the stream bank. He found flint in the soil and used dried moss with his steel sword blade to get a small fire going. Dippler and Burble were soon foraging about. Ha-ha! Apples and blackberries! Loads of them! Yes, yes, I've found wild strawberries and a plum tree, too. They bathed in the warm stream shallows, getting all the dust and dirt of their ordeal out of their fur, drying off around the fire. Dippler shouted out with the sheer joy of being alive, his cheeks swollen with a great mouthful of apple and plum. Good old Mother Nature. Thanks for the feast, Marm. With the fire in front of them and the summer sun on their backs, they gorged themselves shamelessly on sweet, ripe fruit. Soon eyelids began drooping, and they tossed the mess of apple cores and plum stones into the stream and lay down gratefully. Dan Meat, I'm glad you never died and you're still talking to me, murmured Dippler. Oh, are you, Dip? Well, that's nice. But let's remember there's someone missing. Poor Song. Will we ever see her again? For a moment the two friends were silent. Eventually Dippler put his arm around Dan. Don't worry. She's a real warrior, that'n. I wouldn't be surprised if one bright morning she doesn't just come strolling by. Just then they were rudely interrupted. Will you both be quiet? Yes, yes. And if you don't go to sleep, I'll kill the two of you and never talk to either of you again. Lying on their backs in the peaceful noontide, the three weary travelers snored uproariously. It was the snores that betrayed their presence to a creature roaming the woods. Fennel. Dippler was wakened by the point of a rapier pressing against his throat. The Gwasim Shrew opened his eyes to be confronted by his hulking former comrade. Fennel's brutal features split in an ugly grin, and he leaned close to Dippler, keeping his voice low. You and your mates snore too loud, Gwasim. I had a feeling we'd meet up again some day. Quiet now. One peep out of you and you're dead. We've got a score to settle, me and you. Despite Fenno's warning, Dippler managed to whisper, Promise you won't harm my mates? Fenno stared into Dippler's hard, unfearing eyes. I ain't promising nothing to you, Dippler. Logalog's little pet, twas you started all this trouble for me. Now get up on your paws. Make one false move and I'll slay your friends. Dippler rose slowly. Behind Fenno he could see Burble still snoring loudly, but Dan had one eye open, and he winked at Dippler. Fenno kept the rapier point pressed to Dippler's throat, so Dan had to be careful of his next move. Rising silently behind Fenno, he suddenly grabbed the big shrew by both ears and pulled him roughly backward. Fenno could not keep his balance and fell flat on his back. Dippler's footpaw was speedily on Fenno's rapier paw, stopping him from wielding the blade. The bullying shrew sneered up at him. So it takes two of you, eh? Why not wait the other one? Then all three could gang up on me, cowards. Dippler looked across to Dan, his eyes bleak. Stay out of this, mate. Tis my fight. Dan nodded his head, then drew his sword and tossed it over. So be it, friend. Here, borrow my blade. Burble sat upright, rubbing his eyes. Can't a beast get a bit of sleep round here? What's going on? Dippler caught the sword, cautioning Burble. Nothing to do with you, Burb. Stay out of it. This is personal. Dan and Burble moved away from the two shrews, and Dippler took his footpaw from Fenno's rapier. The big shrew sprang upright, swishing his blade. Now I'm going to slay you like I did old Logalog. Dippler was unused to the heavier weapon, but he leveled it at his enemy. You can't kill me like you murdered Logalog. I'm facing you, Fenno. You stabbed Logalog in the back. 
They circled each other, blades flickering, each looking for an entrance. Benno was a skilled sword beast. I'll chop you to ribbons before you can swing that clumsy thing, he taunted. Dippler parried his strike awkwardly and stood waiting for the next thrust, trying to accustom his paw to the blade. You're a bully and a murdering coward, Fenno. You always were. Fenno swung and fainted. Bringing his rapier slashing down across the young shrew's footpaw, he grinned nastily. Bit by bit, I'll carve you nice and slow, young'un. As he spoke, he leapt forward, swinging sideways, aiming across his adversary's eyes. Dippler was ready this time, and he swayed backward, chopping the heavy blade down and breaking Fenno's rapier into two pieces. Fenno was quick. He jumped with both footpaws on the flat of the sword and head-butted Dippler. The young shrew saw stars and fell flat on his back. Fenno grabbed the sword and dived at Dippler. Desperation and a quick turn of speed aided the younger shrew. He rolled over at one side, seizing the broken rapier and leaping upright. Fenno hit the ground in a cloud of dust. Dippler brought the broken rapier down forcefully with both paws as the hefty shrew rolled over. Breathing heavily and hardly able to lift his head, Dippler stood over the body of his enemy. Shouldn't have let you turn over, Fenno. I should have gotten you in the back the way you killed Logalog. Dan retrieved his sword. Kneeling, he examined the hilt of the broken rapier protruding from Fenno. Dip, this is your sword. I recognize the hilt. The young shrew took a glance at it. That's my blade, all right. How did that scum come to be carrying it? I lost it back in the caves. Burble pondered a moment, then held up a paw. Ah, I've got it. Yes, yes. Your rapier wasn't a great heavy blade like Dan's. Twill have been swept straight through yon mountain by the river into that stream. I'll wager that's where the big shrew feller found it. On the bed of the stream's shallows. Yes, yes. Dippler picked up the bottom half of the blade and flung it into the stream, where it sank and went rolling away with the current. Aye, perhaps you're right, Burb. Doesn't make much difference now, though, does it? No rapier could stand up to the steel and Martin the warrior's blade. Dan slung his sword over his back, into the belt that carried it. Right yard, Dip. The sword ain't been made that could best this blade. Later that afternoon they followed the stream bank away from the mountain. The going was easy, and they covered a fair bit of ground by nightfall. Dan was about to suggest they make camp, when Burble gestured for silence. They stood quiet while Burble listened. He pointed to an ash. Stay there by that tree. I'll be back soon. Keep quiet now, and keep your heads down while I take a look around. Dan caught Burble's paw. Hold hard there, mate. What is it? There's something you're not telling us. The water bowl sniffed the air, his nose pointing downstream. I've been smelling a water meadow up ahead for a while now. Yes, yes, I'd know that heavy scent anywhere. But there's something else, Dan. Something not very nice. I don't like it. The young squirrel unshouldered his sword. Well, you're not going alone, Burb. Whatever it is, we'll face it together. Come on, stay together and go quietly. Late afternoon was slipping into evening when they sighted the water meadow on their right. It was landlocked on the near side, though a narrow gap at its far edge filtered out into a river some distance away. The scent of water lilies, crowfoot, and bulrushes, mixed with the smell of rotting vegetation, was heavy on the air. Dippler's voice sounded unusually loud in the sinister stillness that hung over everything. Yuck! So that's what you could smell, eh, Burb? Burble glanced back at his friends as he pushed forward into a high fern thicket. Ah, no. Twas something far worse than that. They navigated a path through the ferns, 
the ground squelching under their footpaws as they skirted the water meadow. Burble steeled himself and thrust forward from the sheltering ferns. Smells stronger now. Somewhere around here. Yah! He had walked straight into the half-decayed carcass of a water rat, dangling from the limb of a crack willow, its grinning skull seeming to mock at them through eyeless sockets. Dan froze. So that's what you could smell. Two sharpened bulrush spears came whizzing out of nowhere, one burying itself in the earth alongside Dippler, the other narrowly missing Dan's head. Drums began pounding, and more spears came hissing through the air. Burble glimpsed the horde of lizards, newts, and toads thrashing their way through the watery margin toward them. Oh, great seasons of slaughter. Run for it, mates. Foul-smelling ooze squirted under paw as they fled, flattening ferns and leaping over rotting tree trunks. A fearsome high-pitched wail arose from the reptiles pursuing them, and the drums throbbed louder. Dan made sure that whenever possible he kept hold of Dippler and Burble's paws as they ran across the marshy ground. Behind them could be heard the slithering and keening of the cold-eyed hunters, growing closer by the moment. Burble stumbled and fell flat in damp brown sedge, spluttering and coughing. Run for your lives! I can't go no further! Roughly, Dippler dragged the water bowl upright. We're sticking together, mate. Move yourself! Stumbling and gasping, they dragged Burble along with them. Two toads and a lizard, who had come from a different angle, leapt out in front of them, spears at the ready. Clasping paws, the three companions charged straight at them, tumbling them flat before they had a chance to use their weapons. Dan felt the toad's stomach under paw, the breath whooshing out of the reptile as the young squirrel ran right over him. Into a grove of trees they pounded, dodging between the trunks, bulrush spears clattering off the branches around their heads. Dan knew they could not run much longer, but he staggered onward, looking wildly about for some place to hide. There it was, a huge rotten elm trunk lying flat on a deep, leaf-carpeted depression, which had probably once been a stream. Down there, quick, under the fallen tree. They flung themselves under the dead woodland giant, quickly scooping out the thick sodden loam and building it around them. Dan pushed the other two farther under, drawing his sword and fighting his way in alongside them. Surrounded by the nauseating odor, regardless of wood lice and insects that crawled over them, they lay, scarcely daring to draw breath their hearts pounding frantically, hoping fervently that the hunters would not discover them. Moments seemed to stretch into hours. Then Dan heard the rustle of dry leaves. The drums had ceased, and the reptiles had stopped their wailing. Now there were slithering sounds. The pursuers were in the disused stream bed searching for them. The three friends gripped one another's paws tightly, knowing that twilight had fallen over the area, giving them a slight hope that they might be bypassed. The water meadow dwellers communicated with each other in a series of sibilant hisses and soft clicking noises, no language that the three friends could distinguish. Then they could sense the reptiles on the log above them. A bulrush spear probed into the hiding place, scratched Dippler's back and raked Dan's paw, poked about in the wet underloam, scraped against the log's underside, then withdrew. Dan, Dippler, and Verbal lay motionless, knowing that the stream bed was swarming with toads, lizards, and newts. The foul air was stifling. Black mud and a soggy compound of long season's dead leaves pressed in on them. They were trapped. 29. Askrod sat out on the flatlands in front of the abbey. It was a warm, moonless night. The land was still and calm. A shudder of delight shook the marl fox. He had solved the problem. 
Redwall's main gate was only held shut by a long wooden bar set in open-topped holders, two on either side of the double doors. One good push upward by four strong creatures holding a spear through the central crack between the doors would knock the bar out of position. Askrod had spent an hour at twilight, peering into the crack, even testing the theory by quietly shoving in his axe blade and pressing upward. The bar had budged slightly. His plan would work. All that remained was for Predak to return with the army. The Marlfox listened to the warm toll of Redwall's muted twin bells, softly ringing out the midnight hour. With any luck, Predak would arrive with Vannon, Raventail, and the others in the dawn hour, when all was quiet, and the Redwallers would still be abed, suspecting nothing. Blending with the landscape so that he was almost invisible, he lay flat and watched the night sentries idly patrolling the wall-top. By dawn, if they were not relieved, those guards would be practically slumbering. A single skylark began its lone song in the half-light as the vermin army arrived. Under Vannon's directions, they filed along the ditch that ran along the west side of the path outside Redwall. Askrod slid into the ditch, gesturing toward the still figures of the shrews who were acting as wall guards. See, just as I figured, they're dozing nicely. I'll wager that apart from a few cooks, that whole abbey is still sleeping. Raventail pawed keenly at his cutlass. Be sure you write this a time, magic fox. Kayar. Askrod shot the fairy a withering glance. Don't worry, my ragged friend. My plan will work. All you have to do is follow orders. Leave the thinking to Marlfoxes. Raventail licked the stained blade of his cutlass. Magic fox give order. Me and my beasts kill kill plenty. Predak gave a long, narrow spear to four water rats she had personally selected. Big, rough-looking beasts. Right. Let's get it done. You four, follow me and Askrod. Vannon, wait here until you see our signal. One wave of the spear. Then come quick. No yelling war cries and shouting to let them know we're here. Clear? Vannon's pale eyes scanned the waiting horde of bandaged and poulticed vermin, making sure they had heard the order. Just get the gates open. We'll come silently. Old Friar Buddy had passed a restless night in the gatehouse. It was close to dawn when he guessed the reason he had only slept half the night. He had dozed off and missed supper. The recorder never slept well on an empty stomach. He decided to have a good early breakfast while helping in the kitchen. The ancient squirrel left the gatehouse and began walking across the lawn toward the abbey. But he had scarce gone a score of paces when there was a dull thud and the gate bar hit the ground. Friar Butty turned and found himself peering through the half-light of dawn at six creatures, two marlfoxes and four water-rats, one of whom was waving a long spear. Dark shapes poured out of the ditch and into the open gateway. Butty ran as fast as his aged limbs would carry him toward the main building, shouting, "'Attack! We're being invaded! Sound the alarm!' Russell was up and about early, helping the breakfast cooks. He was coming out of the door with an apple basket in one paw, heading for the orchard, when he heard the cries. The water rat carrying the spear was chasing Buddy, trying to cut him down before he reached the abbey. Racing hard, he was barely a paw's length behind the old recorder when he drew back the spear, ready to stab forward. Russell's apple basket caught him full in the face at the same instant that the squirrel warrior's flying kick struck his stomach. Russell grabbed the spear and flung it, bringing down a ferret who was leading the charge. Seizing Buddy's paw, he dragged him headlong into the abbey and slammed the door shut, Russell's roaring boomed through Great Hall as he shot home the bolts on the big door. Wake, Red Wallers! It's an attack! They're inside the grounds! Jangler Swifteye came bounding downstairs, furious. 
First night we're not on watch, Russ, and therein. Gwasim shrews, red wallers, and the noon-veiled players came hurrying into Great Hall, some half-dressed, others still in night attire. Jangler pushed them this way and that, yelling, Shove the tables over to the windows and defend them. Troglo, you and Melalot get all the weapons you can muster. Florian, take your creatures and barricade the door. Guard it. Sister Sloy, see the dib and stay upstairs out of the way. Russell, get to an upstairs window and see what's going on out there, mate. Craig Badgermom felt blindly about her until she touched Janglor. What can I do to help? Alayo and Rimrose took the blind badger's paws. You come upstairs with us. We'll see what we can do from the upper windows. An argument had broken out on the front lawn between Ascrod and Raventail. Dawn was up, the rosy glow illuminating the two quarreling creatures. Barbarian oaf! I said to come silently when the signal was given. Watch you mouth, Magic Fox. We came plenty, plenty quiet. Old Mouse running away did much shoutin'. Kayar, that one shout-shout. Vannon interrupted the dispute. He's right, brother. We charged without a single sound. It was the old Redwaller who alerted them. Askrod was not in a good mood at their failure to get inside the Abbey building. He turned on his sister, snarling. Who asked you? There were eight sentries on that wall, but the stupid ferret and his gang slew seven of them, so now we only have one hostage to bargain with. Perhaps you'd like to side with Raventail and slay him, too. The Gwasim Shrew man lay on the grass, wounded and bound. He kicked his legs, catching Raventail. Aye, go ahead and slay me, Slime Snout. I'm tied up, and you've got me outnumbered. Shouldn't be too hard for a hero like you. The barbarian parrot began kicking man repeatedly. Kayar, I'd kick you plenty good for that. Askrod dragged Raventail roughly off the shrew. Idiot, you kill that shrew and I'll slay you. Raventail brandished his cutlass under the Marlfox's nose. Yuck-a-chuck, that'll be the day. Come on, Magic Fox, you want to fight Raventail? Me fight plenty good, Kayar, plenty good. Predak dragged them apart. What's the matter with you two? We should be fighting the Red Wallers. Let's concentrate on getting inside the Abbey. Russell came downstairs, grim-faced, to make his report to Janglor. They're all over the place out there, and our main gates are wide open. Bartle's dead, and six other shrews who were on Walgard. They've got man. He's still alive. What do we do? Jangler sat on the bottom stairs, gnawing at his lip. Well, we can't break out and fight them. They've got us far outnumbered, matey. Then there's the Oldens and the Dibbons to think of. Looks like they've got us boxed in. Florian was crossing the hall. Shards of crystal glass exploded on the floor stones around him, and the hare dodged quickly to one side, his ears standing up with indignation. They're slinging stones at the windows. Vandals? Wreckers? He spread it across to one of the tables set by the windows. Leaping upon it, he began returning the stones that had fallen on the table. Scruffy-necked bog-splatchers, take that, and that too! Ha-ha! I say, you chaps, I got one, right in the fizzog, what? Jangler whipped the sling from around his waist. Well done, Mr. Florian. That's what we can do, Russ. Strike back at him. Let me up the scum. Redwallers lined the broken windows, slinging stones and hurling anything that came to paw at the attackers. However, the vermin fought back with slingstones, spears, and arrows. Jangler stooped to help a mole who had been hit by a spear, only to find that he was dead. The squirrel warrior gritted his teeth, calling out to his friend, Russell, go and get those longbows!' Russell came hurrying back with bows and quivers. "'One of them's missing, Jang. I can only find two. Wish old Skipper was here to lend a paw. He could shoot a bow, that'n.' Jangler set shaft to bowstring, 
and standing tall, fired through the broken panes. From outside came a scream. So can I when I'm roused, mate, so can I. A dozen or more vermin lay transfixed by arrows when Askrod decided to drop back a bit. He called a halt and ordered a large fire to be lit in the center of the lawn. When it was blazing, he stood boldly in front of it and hailed the abbey. Red Wallers, listen to me. You're surrounded. Come out. Florian Dougalwolf Wolfichop gave the answer. Come out? Never, sir. Why don't you come in and get us, what? We could come in and get you if we wait long enough. But by then there'd be a lot of you dead, and your young ones would be starving. If you don't come out immediately, we'll kill the prisoner we took. Without turning his head, he addressed his next remark to Vannon. Bring the shrew over here. Jangler sat on the table edge, looked at Russell, then placed his head in both paws. I don't want to see or hear any of this, mate. You know what they'll do to poor old man. At a dormitory window, the missing longbow was in the paws of the blind badger Kraga. Rimrose was amazed. She had never seen a longbow drawn so far back. The arrow was stretched to its very tip on the string. Kraga kept her face straight ahead, listening to Elayo. Down a bit and left, Kraga. Now up a touch, just a mite. That's it. The shaft's well lined on that villain's head. The badger released the string with a mighty twang. The arrow carried on straight through the fire, across the lawn, and out through the open gates onto the flatlands, despite the fact that Askrod was the first target it passed through. Raventail snatched up a bow and thrust a rag-bound arrow into the fire to set it alight. Troglo's spearback ducked as the blazing shaft zipped in through a broken window. Raventail's horrendous message fell upon the Redwaller's ears as he screeched savagely, "'Burn, Redwall! Kayar! Burn, burn, burn!' Cutting dark, smoking trails, flaming arrows began whirring in through the windows. Formal Gubio alerted his crew. Her, giddy buckets of water and wetted sacks! Asen now!' Russell stared ashen-faced at Florian and Janglor. "'They means to burn this abbey down with us in it!' Another volley of blazing shafts came flying in. Redwallers dashed hither and thither amid the smoke, dodging arrows and flapping away at burning tapestry hangings with wet sacks. Formol and his crew were trying to set up a bucket chain from Great Hall to the kitchens, but the mole leader shook his velvety head in despair as he passed buckets of water. Her lack a day! Usen's going to run short of water soon! Craiga came pounding downstairs to hold a hasty conference with Janglor and Russell. They agreed with her plan immediately. Jangler ordered the scheme into action, quietly and without fuss. Splicker, arm your shrews. Froglo, get all the able-bodied redwallers together and see they have weapons. Mr. Florian, go to the windows and tell them we're coming out. Florian leapt up on the table, calling to the attackers. Truce, you chaps. I say truce. You can pack in trying to burn the old place. We're coming out. Hold your fire. Predak signaled the archers to cease firing and called back to the abbey dwellers. Come out unarmed, all of you, right now, or I'll order the archers to double their fire. Florian's head popped into the frame of a broken window. Keep your shirt on, Marl Fox. We've got wounded and young'uns to carry out. Just give us a tick, and we'll be there. A pitifully small group had gathered by the door, armed with anything that came to paw. Craiga placed her paws about Jangler and Russell. You're sure you want to do this, my friends? Jangler's hooded eyes gazed levelly at the big blind badger. Wouldn't have it no other way, Marm. You just hold that door and stop em getting to those inside here. Craig's great striped head nodded solemnly. Never fear, Jangler, swift eye. 
I'll hold the door as long as Redwall Abbey stands. It has been a pleasure knowing you. Jangler bowed gallantly. The pleasure was all mine, ma'am. Open the door, Raguba. Raventail watched as the Abbey door opened slowly. No more than two score Redwallers filed out, but he saw the glint of weaponry as the door closed behind them. There they stood, facing the foe-beast in the morning sun. The barbarian ferret grinned in anticipation. Kayar, they beasts come out to make fight. Florian Dugglewolf Wolfenchop had momentarily forgotten all his dramatic eloquence and posturing. He raised a sharpened window-pole and roared as he began to dash forward. Charge! And charge they did, giving full voice to the time-honored war cries as they hurtled toward the vermin army. Raguba! Logga, 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 log! Red wall! Bannon stood confidently, watching them come. The vixen drew her axe, remarking to Predak, So the day of reckoning has finally come. Now they will pay with their miserable lives. The marlfox fell halfway to the ground, propped up by the otter javelin that had slain her. Otter crews from far and wide charged over the abbey lawns, headed by Skipper. Give them blood and vinegar, mates! Red wall! They flung themselves upon the foe-beast like a mighty tidal wave, engulfing all in its path. Big brawny otters, both male and female, tribal tattoos decorating the sinewy paws that wielded sling, javelin, and longblade, a rousing cheer rang from the abbey's dormitory windows as Dibbons and elders shouted their heroes on to victory. Give em glug and vinegar, Mr. Flory. Come on, Janglor, my big fat son. Show em you're a swift eye. Her, you em give em bilios or skip. Rustful matey, that marl fox is sneaking away. Quick! Predak had almost made it to the gatehouse when Rustful came pounding up. The vixen slipped up the west wall steps, shedding her cloak and causing the squirrel warrior to trip on it. She dashed along the battlements, straight into the waiting grasp of the otter boracle. He set his paws on a death grip around the marl fox's neck. Now you must pay for killing my brother Elikim. Raventail fought like a demon until he was backed up against the abbey door. Florian could not resist stretching past the ferret chieftain and striking the door with his pole. Vermin leader outside, come to call on you, marm, what? The door opened slightly. Raventail managed a whimper of fear as Craig's paws shot out and snatched him inside. That was the last any beast ever saw of the barbarian Raventail alive. Skipper dashed up to the wall top and waved his javelin. You vermin, throw down your weapons and you'll be spared. Right, mates. Surround them and pen them at the northwest corner. Slay any who still want to fight. The remaining vermin hastily threw away their weapons. They were herded into the wall corner, where they sat, paws upon heads. Skipper was about to come downstairs when he noticed Baracle lounging against the battlements. Aye, aye, matey. What happened to your moral fox? The Noonvale otter shrugged, glancing over the wall. Vanished. You know the way moral foxes can disappear, Skip. Skipper knew it was a long drop from the battlements to the ground below. He nodded at Boracle, straight-faced. I, I know how moral foxes disappear. Friar Buddy watched the apprehensive faces of the two-score wretched vermin who had thrown down their arms. The recorder's voice was stern. You have no need to fear. We at Redwall keep our word. Your lives are spared, which is more than you or your masters would have done for us, had you won the battle. We do not have prisoners or slaves at our abbey, so you will be released. You will be split up into eight groups and let free at different times, five to go one way, five to go another, until Redwall is rid of your presence. 
Brother Melanot will give you each two days' provisions. That is all. Florian Dugglewolf Wilfachop, restored to his ebullient self, checked Buddy. No, no, it ain't. Begging your pardon, Friar, sir. Allow me a word with these malicious miscreants, will you? My thanks. Right. Listen up, scurvy vermin types. Pay attention at the back there. You will clean this abbey and its grounds thoroughly before I allow you to leave, understood? All together now, say yes, sir. The reply was half-hearted. Florian wagged his cane at them. Not good enough, you villainous chaps. Now speak up, or I'll come amongst you and liven up your ideas a bit. What, what? Mayen stumped up, a poultice bandaged on his shoulder. The tough Gwasim shrew winked at Florian. I'll lend your paw, sir. I can see one or two rascals here who aimed kicks and blows upon me earlier today. Now listen to me, you cowardly lot. I ain't tender-hearted like Mr. Florian. So if I gives you an order, you'd best jump to it, or I'll make you wish you'd been slayed in the battle. Understood? Let me hear you all say yes, sir. The mass reply was crisp and clear, as if with one voice. Yes, sir. Jangler and Russell sat with Rimrose and Elio in the orchard, listening as Craga explained everything to the Abbey Dibbons. You are all safe now, my little ones, and so is Redwall. Once again we can live in peace and good order. Bad creatures tried to take our abbey from us, and we had to do battle with them to preserve our way of life. Dwapple wrinkled his tiny nose. Thara why Mr. Flory and Jang and Rusbull and Toglo was laden all the vermits out on the lawn. I no liked that. I was frightened. Good job skipped comed with all hotters. Craig had nodded in the mouse babe's direction. None of us liked it, Dwaffle, but we had to do it. Either that or let those evil creatures capture our abbey. But now there is a lot of mending to do. Wugger the mole babe piped up helpfully. Usins do he mendin, marm. Me and Doppel get big ammer and he nailers. Fix habby all good. Bangity bang bang. Reaching out, Craiga took Wugger upon her lap. That's very kind of you, sir. But there are lots of different kinds of mending. Broken hearts, bad memories, hasty tempers, and departed friends. All of these need seeing to, before the peace and the seasons grow upon us like soft moss and smooth all the edges of war away, so that you may sleep safe and calm in your beds at night. Rimrose sat holding Jangler and Elayo's paws. She sniffed, unable to check the tear that strayed from her eye. If only our song were here. Where do you suppose she and her young friends are now? Craiga lifted her head in the direction of the squirrel wife's voice. I have dreamed that they will be back before the autumn leaves come down. Don't worry. Wherever your daughter and Dan are, and young Dippler too, I'll wager they're either impressing some beast with their good manners, or giving a fine account of themselves. Those three are a tribute to their upbringing, wherever they are. 30. It was night at the margin of the water meadow. Dan lay crushed beneath the rotten elm trunk, listening to the noise above. It became so loud that he was able to whisper to his friends, I wonder what all the din's about. Dippler spat out dead leaves and grit. We ain't fooling no beast, mate. Our tracks lead right to this tree. I bet they're doing some kind of victory dance up there, probably getting the cook pot ready for us. Burble was inclined to agree with his shrew friend. Yes, yes, sad but true, I say. 
Still, I think it'd be better getting captured by some old reptiles than laying under this rotten stinking thing all night. It's worse than when we was hiding up the creek from the riverheads. Wait, what's that? Dan listened carefully. Silence, that's what it is, Burr. Silence. Maybe they didn't know we were here after all. What do you think? Shall we go out and take a look? Dippler started scrabbling at the soggy loam to free himself. Anything's better than this. Lead the way, Dad. The dried-up stream bed was deserted, save for the carcasses of several reptiles. The three friends hurried off into the undergrowth, where they sat wiping themselves down and breathing the sweet night air gratefully. Burble tugged a woodlouse from his fur. Away with your wriggly thing. I ain't no rotten tree trunk. Well, tis thanks to whoever drove the reptiles off back there, yes, yes. A thousand thanks. Ah, save your thanks, laddie. There may still be some of these leathery reptiles aboot. An osprey emerged from the bushes. Surveying them with a distinct twinkle in his rather fierce eyes, he raised his beak and called, "'Or here! They're sair bedraggled and stinky-tay, but they're or here!' There was a lot of bush rustling and paw steps, and then, unbelievably, a figure they'd lost hope of ever seeing again emerged from the undergrowth at a full dash and threw herself upon them, bowling them over in a laughing, joyful heap. "'Song!' Ha, 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 so here you are, you foul-smelling, lovely creatures. A fat, stern old squirrel and a big, rough female hedgehog hauled Song swiftly off her companions. Dan, Dippler, and Burble lay sprawled on the ground as the old squirrel wagged a paw at Song. No time for that now, Missy. Let's get him out of here. You can introduce us when we're downriver. Phew, and downwind of them, too. They smell pretty ripe. Song glanced at the muddy state she herself was in from embracing her lost friends, and turned to the old squirrel. Looks like I'll have to take a bath too, Grandpa. There were more hedgehogs, over a dozen of them, hulking, rough-looking beasts. They surrounded the friends as the party hurried off through the woodland at the water meadow's edge. Dan trotted alongside Song, amazed by the turn events had taken. Did I hear you call that old squirrel Grandpa? You surely did. Soon as I saw him, I recognized those lazy eyes. He's my father's father, Gorjo Swifteye. Take a look at him yourself. He's much older than my dad, of course, but you'll see the resemblance is unmistakable. Dan snatched a peep at Gorjo as he turned to converse with the leading hedgehog. Aye, now I see him properly. The likeness is clear. Who's the big rough-looking hedgehog he was talking to? I know you'll never believe this, Dan, but she's my aunt. Dan stumbled and almost fell. Your aunt? Song was still smiling as they trotted steadily through the night-shadowed woodlands. Aye, my Aunt Torab. It's a long and complicated story, but here's roughly what happened. My Grandpa Gaudjo was a prisoner on the island in the secret lake for many seasons, but he managed to escape. Says he's the only beast who ever did. Anyhow, he made it back to the mainland, but he was completely lost. Then he stumbled upon Torab and her band of friends, fourteen in all, half-grown young hedgehogs from three different families. Their parents had been slain by marl foxes. Grandpa had lost his family, too. He didn't know where Elayo and little Jangler had got to. So he became their dad, and has lived with them ever since. And McGraw and I just bumped into them yesterday. I still can't quite believe it. The odd-looking group had now reached the river on the water meadow's far fringes, and they turned south along the bank. Dippler looked back fearfully at the huge osprey hobbling in the rear, protecting the group's back. I hope that big fish eagle's on our side, Song. The young squirrel maid winked at the apprehensive shrew. That's the mighty McGraw. 
I have trouble understanding all he says, but since we went over the falls together, we've become the best of pals. You'll like him, Dip. You will too, Burb, once you get to know him. The water bowl glanced back at the fierce-eyed McGraw. Ah, yes, yes, Missy, I'm sure I will. Tis a fine, powerful bird he is. We'll have to keep him well-fed, though. Yes, yes, I'd hate to be around when that feller feels hungry. They halted before dawn at a hidden inlet. A screen of bushes and trees was pulled aside, and Dan, Dippler, and Burble gave a delighted shout. The swallow! The beautiful little boat was in the process of being repaired. It stood upside down on the wide-planked deck of a sprawling hedgehog raft. Turov and the hedgehogs were about to dash aboard when Gojo held forth a javelin barring their way. Remember your manners. We've got guests. Turov made an impatient curtsy to the friends. Pretty. Come ye aboard and welcome. Once they were aboard, the hedgehogs charged onto the raft and fought to get through the narrow doorway of a big cabin built to the vessel's center. Gorjo shook his head wearily. Back! Get back, all of you! Now what have I taught yer? Sheepishly, the big spiky beasts stood away from the cabin door, the males bowing reluctantly to the females. Marm, I pray thee enter. Once Torob and the other hogmaids were inside, the males began fighting each other in the doorway again. Gojo smiled. You'll have to excuse them. They're fine hogs, but they love to fight. Huh! The trouble I had rearing them was no beast's business. A squirrel dad with fourteen hedgehog sons and daughters? Who'd believe it? Still, I got me a pretty young granddaughter now, so things are looking up, eh, Song? Song hugged her grandpa while Dan looked the swallow over. How did you find her, sir? Gorjo stroked the sleek resin-varnished hull. Swept down river out of the mountains, she was. Full of holes and almost broken two pieces. That's why we were searching round the water meadow. I figured if you were still alive, then that'd be the place you'd land in. Enough join now, you young'uns. Time to eat. But first you must jump in the creek and wash the dirt off. You ain't coming to my table smelling the ways you do. McGraw! The osprey waddled up and dealt Song a buffet with his good wing, toppling her over the deck rail into the water. Again you'll get a good scrub, lassie. Who's next, eh? However, before he could raise his wing again, Dan, Dippler, and Burble had thrown themselves into the water. Ah, now, you've no need to be helping us in, sir. We'll be after scrubbing ourselves, thank you, yes, yes. Morning sunlight streamed through the cabin's two unshuttered windows as they took breakfast with Gorjo Swifteye and the hedgehogs. The food was good, hot cornbread with hazelnuts and apple baked into it, and a salad of celery, lettuce, shredded carrot, and white button mushrooms, with beakers of hot mint and dandelion tea to wash it down. McGraw took himself out into the river for a fish breakfast. Gorjo peeled a fat pear with his dagger, outlining his future plans to the reunited friends. Every beast I've come across has a score to settle with the Marlfox brood. Myself, Torob, and the family, McGraw, and yourselves. So I've decided that the time's come when we travel over to that island. Queen Silth and her offspring have come to the end of their bullying, thieving, murdering rule. I'm out to clear the earth of their blight. Torob stared at Gorjo over a steaming beaker of tea. Thou hast tried it before, father. Tis too difficult. Gorjo tapped the tabletop with his dagger. Aye, we've always been defeated. Not by the Marlfoxes, but by the lake. A day and night's long sail, with the water teeming with pike, and that Athrock and his magpies patrolling the skies. 
The mall foxes were always waiting with their water rats once we'd been sighted by magpies, and they could stand us offshore with arrow and sling until we were forced to turn back. By the fur and fang, if only I could get onto that island and free the slaves, we'd overrun Silt and her forces. I never figured how to do it until my pretty song arrived with her secret weapon. The squirrel maid put aside her food. You mean our eagle, McGraw? But, Grandpa, he can't fly. Gojo's lazy-hooded eyes flickered. Are you sure, my young beauty? I've been watching your eagle. There ain't a pinion feather missing from his wing, and it is not broken anywhere along its length, that wing. I've studied the way McGraw carries it, sort of flopped down and still. Now I know more about fixing injuries than most beasts. Ask Torob and her crew. The fish eagle's wing's not broken. Tis dislocated, where it meets the bird's body. I can reset the wing, put it back in its right place, so he can fly again. Do you know say, Gorjo? Well, I'm willing to try it, if he'll make my wing able to fly again. McGraw had been standing near the cabin door, listening to what Song's grandpa was saying. He ambled in, his savage golden eyes flashing. I'd like it fine to get my beak and talons into yon magpies what did this to me. So tell us the rest of your grand plan, y'all tree-hopper. The creatures in the cabin crowded around the table as Gorjo Swifteye outlined his scheme, sketching on the tabletop with the point of his dagger. It was a risky proposition, calling for stout hearts and warriors who would not flinch from danger, but it was a good plan. Song watched her grandpa, the stern face and lazy eyes, deceptively quiet voice and perilous easy-going manner. Recalling Jangler Swifteye, her own father, she knew now where he had inherited his bravery and skill as a warrior. Pride flooded through the young squirrel maid. Swifteyes were a breed of creatures to be reckoned with. An otter and an aged mouse watched from the slave pens in the courtyard of Castle Marl as the funeral procession of Queen Silth passed by. In the lead strode the Marlfox Lontour, clad in a purple velvet cloak trimmed with silver. She wore a polished wood mask with grieving features etched upon it. Behind her marched the elite guard, armored in shining black, purple pennants hanging from their spear points and shield bosses, blacked with fire smoke. Next came the palanquin, draped with white silk curtains, inside which rested the body of the High Queen Sylph, founder of the Marlfox dynasty, wrapped tight in the cloth that had once masqueraded as the White Ghost. The entire thing was borne on the shoulders of threescore paw soldiers with bowed heads and measured steps. All around and about the procession, Athrock and his magpies flew, carrying weeping willow twigs in their claws and cawing harshly over the sound of musicians playing dirges on flutes in time to a steady drumbeat. The otter shook his head in disgust, whispering to the old mouse, Look at that and walk it in front, Lontour. Ha! She's laughing behind that mask, matey. I'd wager a season's vittles on it. What a sham it all is. Every beast on the island knows Lontour killed her own mother. Take my word for it, Cully. There ain't a beast walks under the sun wickeder than a marl fox. The aged mouse tugged his otter friend's whiskers. Still that kind of talk, pal. If Wilka or Ulig hears you, they'll have your ed for sure. Banks of torches blazed on the plateau at the lake edge, where the bearers set the palanquin down. Musicians ceased their playing, and Athrox's magpies fell silent as they perched on the nearby rocks. All that could be heard were the fathomless waters lapping at the steep island sides 
and night breezes causing the torchlights to whir softly. The water rat Wilka stepped forward and presented Lontor with a scroll, specially written for the occasion. The Marafox unrolled it ceremoniously and read its contents in a voice artistically choked with emotion. No more on our isle will your presence be, or your voice sound like some silver bell. Like summer smoke you have gone from me. My grief is too mournful to tell. Great High Queen Silth, we commend you with loving care to the deep. May the guardians of waters attend you and silent depths of sleep, knowing that I, who rule in your place, draw all of my wisdom from you. May show to all a merciful face, to your memory, always true. Ulig, the former slave captain, took three paces forward, signaling with his spear point to the bearers standing immediately behind the palanquin. They lifted the rear carrying pole slowly as the music started again. Tilting at a forward angle, the palanquin was raised above the bearers' heads. White silk hangings at the palanquin's front blossomed out, and Silt's wrapped body slid with a dull splosh into the lake. The body had been weighted with stones and sank down into the dark waters. All was calm for a brief moment. Then the long, sleek glint of pike flashed in the torchlight as the ever-ravenous predators rushed to the spot and shot down into the deeps, pursuing the grisly object. Lontour removed her mask, and spreading both paws wide over the waters, she called out in a high-pitched whine, High Queen Sylph is dead! Immediately Wilka and Ulig shouted aloud, Long live High Queen Lontour! Long live High Queen Lontour! The cry was taken up by the attendant crowd of water rats until it became a chant. Lontour inclined her head to one side, smiling shyly, as Ulig gestured for silence. What can I say to you, my loyal subjects? I accept. Ulig and Wilka were about to lead the cheering when the logboat nosed up to the plateau and Moken leapt ashore. Moken had been watching as usual. He never made a move without first studying the situation shrewdly. From out on the lake he had seen his mother's body being committed to the deep. Making for those he knew to be the two main conspirators, Moken seized Ulig and Wilka by their throats. They blanched in fear. Moken spoke in a low, grating tone, so none but the two water rats could hear. So this is how you sell out behind my back. Shut up and listen hard. When I give you the nod, both of you get every beast shouting, and here's what you'll shout. Bontour was beginning to feel uneasy. Of all her brothers and sisters, Moken was the slyest of Marlfoxes. She watched him carefully. He came to her, his face wreathed in smiles, and clasping her paws, he shook them joyfully. My little sister, High Queen Lontour, what a happy homecoming for me! Lontour tried to break Moken's grip on her paws, but he was far too strong. He clasped her more tightly. What fortune that I should return the very moment you are proclaimed queen! Alas, I knew our poor mother's days were numbered, but she'll rest peacefully, knowing she has you to rule in her stead. But wait, I brought back a thing of great beauty for our mother. It shall be my gift to you, High Queen. Here, let me show it to you. While he had been talking, Moken had maneuvered Lontour to the edge of the rock plateau. He called out to the rats who were dumbly sitting in the log boat, awaiting orders. Open the tapestry, spread it wide. Captain Ulig, tell your bearers to bring forward the torches. Let every beast see the prize I have brought from afar to celebrate the start of High Queen Lontour's reign. 
The onlookers gasped in wonderment as the fantastically woven tapestry of Martin the Warrior was unrolled in the torchlight. All eyes were upon it when Mokan made his move. With a quick flick of his paws, he pushed Lontor into the lake. She screamed once, thrashing about in the wet shreds of her mother's shroud, which were floating up to the surface. Had she remained still, Lontor might have been pulled to safety. But anything that moved in the waters was fair game to the pike shoals that hunted there. The lake water boiled briefly as the heavy predators struck. Then Lontor was gone. Mokan nodded to Wilka and Ullig, and they shouted as though their lives depended upon it, which indeed they did. A sign! Tis a sign! Mokan is the rightful ruler! Hail High King Mokan! Hail High King Mokan! The last Marl Fox of all turned to face his army, with a look combining tragedy, innocence, and surprise. She slipped. I tried my best to hold on to her, but she slipped. Alas, I could do nothing to save her. Lontour was taken by the spirit of the lake. Wilka and Oleg appealed to the crowd. "'Tis a sign. The lake judged her unfit. Aye, Mokan rules. Hail High King Mokan! Soon every beast joined in, shouting themselves hoarse until the den rang across the island. In the slave pens, the otter shook his head woefully at the aged moss. So that one's back, eh? I wonder how Mokan murdered the murderer. I think I'd sooner be a slave than a mile fox. You live a little longer. The old mouse shrugged, resting his head against the bars. Don't be too sure of it, pal. How long do you think we're going to last with Mokan as king around here? 31. Morning sunlight shimmered on the river. McGraw, balanced on the rail of the raft, watched by every beast aboard. The osprey flapped his reset wing experimentally. Then, slightly doubtful, he set his fierce eye upon Gorjo. My wing still hurts. Are you sure that's fixed? Sure, I'm sure, the old squirrel warrior assured his patient. The wing's bound to hurt, to stiff through being idle. I'll have to try using it. Go on. McGraw launched himself from the rail, flapping madly. He flew a short distance, then crashed into the river. Torob and Song extended a long punting pole to him, and McGraw grabbed it in his beak, allowing himself to be pulled up onto the bank. He stood shaking water from his plumage. Ugh, I can fly. I'm sure of it. But you lot are making me nervous, standing there watching me. Gang aboot your business, and leave me to myself. Sure, I've seen everything now. Burble muttered to one of the big hedgehogs, an eagle who's too shy to fly. Yes, yes, that's the blinking limit. Dan threw a paw about the water bowl's shoulders. Oh, let him be, Burb. Come on, Torob and the gang are going to show us how to make hodgepodge pie. In the cabin, the hedgehogs were tossing anything they could find into a cauldron, which sat squarely atop a pot-bellied stove. The four friends had never seen anything like it. Torob and her gang went at the business of making hodgepodge pie with wild abandon, singing in gruff, off-key voices. What they lacked in melodiousness, they made up for in volume. Gorjo had heard it all before, and he clapped both paws over his ears to gain a little peace. Oh, you take an odge and I'll take a podge. If any beast asks us why, just tell him that some clever cooks are making hodgepodge pie. We start with an hazelnut and a leek. "'cause they're what we likes best, "'and though they don't look much to speak "'till we toss in the rest, "'Odgepodge, Odgepodge, good old Odgepodge, "'that's the pie for me. "'I'll scoff it at supper time, 
a wolf at cold for tea. Oh, savage a cabbage, tear a turnip, rip ripe radishes too. Chop up chestnuts, they're the best nuts. Chuck in quite a few. Dandelion ransom, mushrooms handsome, beetroots nice and red, and watercress that's more or less with pie crust overhead. Oh, hodgepodge, hodgepodge, good old hodgepodge, northwest, east or south. You can shove it up your nose, but I suppose tis better off in your mouth. Who loves an hodgepodge? Hedgehogs. Surprisingly enough, when it was served at midday, it looked good and tasted even better. Gorgio fought the hedgehogs off, wrapping paws with his ladle and muttering darkly about manners. Then he dug through the thick golden pie crust and ladled out portions to them all, steaming hot and delicious. Dippler scraped his platter clean and winked at Torob. Great stuff! I'll have to remember that recipe. What's it called? Podge podge pie. Yakarig. A blood-curdling scream caused them to leap from their chairs. Gorjo went racing out of the cabin, dagger at the ready. Sounds like something being torn apart by wild beasts. Hustling and shoving, they piled out onto the deck of the raft. The wild cry cleaved the air once more, and a dark shadow fell over them, causing every beast to duck as something large hurtled by. Song was knocked flat on her back, but she lay there pointing skyward, shouting with joy, "It's the mighty McGraw! Look, he's flying!" With his tremendous wing spread stretching, closing, backing, and flapping. The osprey flew as none had ever seen such a big bird fly. Soaring, wheeling, plummeting, and twirling out of dives like a corkscrew, McGraw put on an exhibition of flight for his earthbound friends, sometimes skimming so low that his wing pinions clipped their ears. Song felt her heart soar with the eagle. She was thrilled that his wing was healed due to her grandpa's skill. Go on, McGraw, fly, fly, fly! And McGraw did just that. Winging up into the blue until he was a mere speck in the summer sky, he turned and did several victory rolls. Folding both wings tight to his side, the eagle dropped like a thunderbolt toward the raft. And for a breathless moment, Song thought he would smash into the deck. But he spread his wings again, and a mighty talon shot out as he swooped and landed on the rail, where he stood with both wings spread to their extent. For the first time since she had met her friend, Song saw the fish eagle in his element. Filled with the exhilaration of his own savage strength, McGraw flapped his wings, shouting aloud his challenge: "I'm the eagle which can outfly a lightning flash. My egg was broken by the thunderstorm. Kariga, McGraw rules the skies to the world's edge. These talons are mighty, McGraw. Quid plow a field of rocks? Oh, weep, ye foe beast! There's a brawny bird a coming your way. Karag." Gorjo nodded in admiration of McGraw's brave display. I take it you're about ready to go to the lake. The fierce golden eye winked at him. Ay, laddie, I ken you'll be coming wi' me. Gorjo's swift eye picked up a long raft pole. He nodded at McGraw and his crew. This very day, out on the river, it was broad and fast flowing. The hedgehogs would not let Song or her friends use the raft poles, so they worked on the swallow. Putting the finishing touches to their sleek craft, Torob and the others formed two lines, port and starboard, and they punted deep with their poles. Gorjo sat on the stern rail, using a broad paddle as a rudder to steer the sprawling vessel. By midnoon, they were cruising free along a wide, calm stretch, while the crew sat eating cold hodgepodge pie and drinking cider, watching the raft drift steadily downriver. 
Song joined her grandpa at the stern rail and showed him her parchment, torn, tattered, and barely decipherable from the batterings it had endured. Grandpa, tis not very clear now, but there were a few lines of the rhyme here. Let me see now. Ah, here it is. And should you live to seek the lake, watch for the fish of blue and gray. Betwixt those two's the path you take, good fortune wend you on your way. Gojo's hooded eyes scanned the waters ahead. Aye, the fish of blue and gray. I know em well. You'll see those fish afore twilight. I'll say nothing, pretty one. See if and you can spot em. You're young and sharp. Twilight came as a relief after the long hot day, gold and crimson flakes of dying sunlight dancing on the waters. Song had positioned herself on the forward rail of the raft. She watched keenly from side to side, taking in all, searching for the signs. From the cabin window she could see Grandpa Gaudio and her friends observing her. The young squirrel maid paid attention to the tiniest details, rocks lining the banks, trees growing either side, any patches of bare earth. Then she sighted the fork ahead, a rock that was so large it was almost an island in mid-river, causing the waters to part and run both sides of it. The left fork wound off sharply east, the right one curving slightly west, but farther down river straightening to flow due south. It was on the right fork of the island rock that Song spotted the fish. It was a natural spur of the grayish-hued rock, sticking out at an awkward angle, high up. Curiously, it closely resembled a trout, for the shrubbery growing atop it looked like the fish's small dorsal fin. Where the eye would be positioned, there was a crack in the stone, with a thick spray of delicate blue-flowering wall speedwell growing out of it. "'Ahoy, me beauty!' Gojo called from the cabin window. "'Which course do we steer? Has the fish showed you yet?' Without turning, Song held up her right paw. "'Take the west fork and sail to you south, Grandpa!' Gojo chuckled as he emerged from the cabin to attend his steering paddle at the stern. "'You're a born swift-eye, gal. West and south it is.' Night had fallen when the lake came into view. The river was running steep and fast, with outcrops of rock poking dangerously from its surface. Gojo gave the order to his crew. "'All pause on deck. Pull her over these rapids and keep your eyes peeled for those rocks. Lively now!' Song and her companions found themselves standing alongside the burly hedgehogs, pushing and punting with the long raft poles. Burble was slightly tardy, lifting his pole, and was thrust up into the air, the raft rushing by him. Dippler saw him rise and shouted a warning. Water bowl overboard! Er, I mean, up in the air! Turab and one of her burly sisters were aft. They snatched Burble and the pole, heaving them back onto the deck before he was left clinging to a pole in mid-river, as the raft went on without him. Song and her friends were laughing about it when the big craft began to buck and plunge. A hedgehog shot by, looping them all to the raft with a stout rope. Spray struck their faces, and Dan yelled above the den, Look out, here we go, mates! Song would have been frightened, had it not been for the confidence she felt and the skill shown by her grandpa and Torom's crew. Instead, a wave of exhilaration swept over her as the raft virtually flew down the rapids. Turning and heaving, sometimes head down, other times bow up, night-dark water crested with star-swept spray rushed by in a blur. McGraw balanced firmly on the forward rail, calling directions. Rock's coming up ahead. Swing to your left. Left, left! No, awa' right a wee bitty. Hold her steady, laddie, steady. Without warning, a waterfall came up, 
and they shot straight over the top, right out into space. The breath was whipped from their mouths as they stood frozen, still holding on to the raft poles, water roaring at their back. The raft landed flat with an ear-splitting splash. Gojo wiped water from his eyes and shrugged carelessly. Well, this is the lake. We've arrived. Even in the darkness they could feel the immensity of a vast body of water, calm and smooth as a mill pond in the warm summer night. Every beast aboard collapsed into a sitting position, dog-weary and gasping. Gojo was first to recover, and he paced the deck sternly. Come on, me babies, up on your paws. We're sticking out like a bandaged ear if an any foe beast shows up. Let's get her ashore and into some cover. Jump to it, crew. They chose a spot farther east on the lake shore, where trees grew thick, willows on the fringes dipping their branches into the water. Waist-deep in the lake, they levered the raft on shore with the punting poles. Burble stumbled and spat out a mouthful of muddy liquid. A proper old slave driver that grandpa of yours is, Song. Yes, yes, a right old whipcracker. Gojo's hooded eyes appeared over the stern, staring straight at the grumbling water bowl. What was that you were burbling about, Burble? Er, uh, twas nothing, sir. Yes, yes, nothing. We're all doing a fine grand job down here, enjoying ourselves, yes. Dawn was streaking the lake with beige and pink amid low-lying cloud banks. The stillness was eerie. There were no sounds of singing birds over the far-reaching inland sea. From stem to stern the raft was covered with boughs and fronds, tufts of vegetation and shrubs. Song thrust a final willow bough into the cabin chimney-top and climbed wearily down to the deck. She threw her grandpa a limp salute. All covered, sir. Permission to sleep? A smile hovered around Gaudjo's slanted eyes as he nodded at the exhausted crew. They had worked hard and well. Hmm. Well, all right. Permission granted. You can all sleep standing on your heads with one eye open. Dippler bit his lip with feigned emotion. Oh, sir, you're too kind to us ungrateful wretches. Gaudjo tweaked the shrew's ear. Aye, maybe I am. So I'll stay awake and cut the throat of any crew member found snoring. How'll that do you? Dan sniggered. Better cut your song's throat right now. Ooh, you listen, Dan Floor Raguba. You're the snorer, not me. Oh, yes, yes. Dan's a grand old snorer. But I think the champion's got to be me good mate Dip. Yes, yes. Ha! Huh. Strike me blue. Look who's talking. Any beast out on that lake would think it was a foghorn if you kicked off snoring. Who, me? Oh, you fibber. Water bulls don't snore, tis a fact. Gaudio shook with laughter as he watched the indignant young creatures. The old squirrel cut short the dispute with a wave of his paw. Ha! Snore. You think you can snore? Now, Torob and these hogs, they can snore. I'll be surprised if there's a leaf left on any tree within the area by the time they're done snoring. Huh. You ain't heard snorers until you've slept in the same cabin as my family. I should know. Tis me who's had to suffer these many long seasons. Torab gave Gaudjo an affectionate pat, nearly knocking him flat. Thou sayest the nicest things, ancient one. Song giggled. Give him another pat, Auntie Torab. Whether through excitement or overtiredness, the occupants of the cabin had difficulty in getting to sleep. Dippler propped himself up on a cushion. Come on, Song, give us a little tune. Mayhap that'll help us to doze off. Your grandpa ain't heard you singing. 
Song recalled a ditty of her grandma Elio's that reminded her of the joy she felt at watching McGraw fly. I sit alone and wish that I could be a bird up in the sky. I join the breezes that do blow whichever way they chance to go. Far o'er the waves across the sea I drift along quite happily, or maybe out on field and fen I'd circle round some forest glen. I envy bee and butterfly. Maybe the birds could tell me why I wipe a teardrop from my eye. I sit alone, for I can't fly. In actual fact, it was Godjo who was wiping a teardrop from his eye, his mind wandering back over the seasons. Elio, my wife, used to sing that. Almost as pretty as you do, Song. Of course, she was much younger in those days. Song stroked the old gray head of her grandpa. She's still young at heart, you'll see. Giorgio stretched out, closing his eyes. Maybe I will, if we live through what lies ahead, youngin. Outside it began to rain, softly at first, increasing as a breeze sprang up over the vast reaches of the hidden lake. One of Silth's ceremonial cloaks, held on the spear points of two soldiers, provided cover for Mokan against the driving rain. The Marl Fox was in high spirits, far too cheerful to allow a wet morning to ruin his joy. Striding across a high-walled roof at Castle Marl, he peered over at the ground far below. Set it up here. With the aid of twelve slaves, Wilka and Oleg staggered forward, bent beneath the weight of Queen Silth's palanquin. Grunting and groaning, they strained upward until it rested precariously atop the wall. Wilka and Oleg stood bareheaded in the rain among the slaves, awaiting King Milken's pleasure. He flicked a paw dismissively at them. You two, shove it over. It needed only a slight push, and then there was several seconds' silence, broken by a rending crash. The Marlfox giggled like a youngster as he stared over the wall-top at the smashed palanquin on the ground. I always hated that thing. Tell some beast to burn what's left of it when the weather clears up. Right, follow me, come on, come on, all of you. Wilka and Oleg exchanged apprehensive glances before running in the wake of slaves and soldiers after Mokan down the winding slopes of the castle's corridors. The Marlfox rushed helter-skelter in the lead and arrived at the door of Castle Marl's main chamber, smiling and exhilarated. What took you so long? Ha-ha, <laughs> getting too fat, Oleg, and you, Wilka. Inside, all of you, step smartly now. A big carved oak chair had been set in the center of the floor. Mokan practically skipped over to sit on it. He banged his paws down on the chair arms. What do you think? Not bad, eh? Of course, it's not a real throne, but it'll do until I have one made. The throne of High King Mokan. Ha, ha, ha. I like that. If my fool brothers and sisters have survived, they'll meet a fine welcome if they try to return. He waved imperiously at the two water rats who had been holding the cloak aloft with their spears. You've been with me since I left Redwall Abbey, right? The two stolid guards nodded silently. Mokan leapt up, energy surging through him, and smiling and winking at the two dullards, he clapped their backs heartily. Tell me your names. Speak up, don't be afraid. Tulum, er, sire, er, majesty. Durlo, your majesty. The Marl Fox paced a circle around both rats, looking them up and down approvingly. Good, honest soldiers, faithful and obedient. Just what a king needs. Durlo, you are now my personal adviser. Tulum, I promote you to be commander of my army. Adopting a look of mock sadness, he nodded at Wilka and Oleg. 
Loyalty brings its reward, you see. I always told you, never trust a vixen. And now look what Lontor has brought you to. Oh, don't look so glum. I found an important job for you both, so cheer up. The two water rats managed to put on uneasy smiles. Mokan winked mischievously at them. You can hang my beautiful tapestry for me. Hmm, let me see. That wall over there should do. Tulum, Durlo, see to it that they hang it good and straight. Use your spear butts to chastise them if they don't. Ulig, I'm sorry, my old friend. I can't afford an untrustworthy captain. So you're back to being a rank-and-file soldier again. Wilker, you've had it too easy for long enough. It's backed into uniform for you, I'm afraid. Right, that's that. I'm off to see what the cooks have prepared for my breakfast. I'm famished enough to eat a meal fit for a king. Fit for a king. Good, eh? Ha, 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 ha. Moken paused at the door and pointed to the slaves. You'll find that nothing escapes your new king's notice. Work hard and well, I may free you from slavery and promote you to be soldiers in my army. Tell your friends this. And you soldiers, if I find you to be slow and lazy, then I'll take away your uniforms and make slaves of you. Let your comrades know this. But remember this, all of you. Even think of playing me false, and you'll find out the lake still possesses teeth. Make sure every beast knows that. The door slammed, and the self-proclaimed King Moken could be heard trotting off down the sloping passage, laughing at the echo of his own voice. I'm feeling hungry today, hungry! Ha 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 ha! The slaves were left in a bewildered group by the door, murmuring quietly to each other. Never heard nothing like that in all the time I've been here. Aye, he's as mad as his mother was. It must be the sudden power gone to his brain, I think. Huh. I'd sooner be dead than serve a Marl Fox as a soldier. Crazier than his sister was, if you ask me. Who's bothered about what we think? No beast asks a slave anything, mate. They tells them. A water rat soldier prodded the speaker roughly with his spear. Stow the gab there. Silence, you lot. Back down to the pens with you. Quick march. One, two, one, two. The hefty hedgehog maid, who had made the final remark, muttered to her companion, a grizzled old shrew. See what I mean, friend? Tulum gestured at the rolled tapestry. He felt nervous and unsure at issuing orders to creatures who had formerly been his superiors. Er, pick it up. Without any argument, Wilka and Oleg bent to lift the tapestry. Suddenly Tulum was seized by a wave of confidence he had never felt before. Inflating his narrow chest, he realized that he really was commander of the army. A slow grin suffused his normally expressionless features. Be careful you don't damage it, you clumsy fools. Durlow joined him, eager to exploit his newfound powers. Aye, or you'll feel our spear handles, you butter-pawed oafs. As Wilka and Ulleg staggered to the wall with the tapestry slung carefully between them, Tulum and Durlow grinned at each other and swaggered boldly behind the subdued pair. They had begun to realize that power was a mighty intoxicating thing to possess. 32. Gray afternoon cast its pall over the lake. Sheeting rain swept back and forth, causing the surface to spatter under a ceaseless bombardment of drops. When the raft had been pulled clear of the shallows, Gaudio dropped a piece of trout, donated by the McGraw, into the lake. It drifted beneath the water for a moment. Then two pikes struck, dragging it under as they fought for possession of the morsel. 
Torab watched over the old squirrel warrior's shoulder. Methinks tis time we sought out the bows, father. Gorjo wiped fishy paws on his jerkin, nodding agreement. Aye, daughter, this is where the pike shoals start. Sharp bows with thin, sharp arrows were fetched from the cabin. Torab and six other hedgehogs notched shafts to their bowstrings and began firing arrows in a sloping direction at the water. Soon a pike was hit. It thrashed about close to the surface, vicious and hook-jawed, a real lake monster. The arrow had wounded it, causing a blood trail in the water, and with terrifying speed it was attacked by a horde of other pike. The hedgehogs shot arrows furiously into the shoal, hitting the big fish indiscriminately, until Gorjo gave the order to stop firing. Song had watched the whole thing from a cabin window. She did not like to see any living thing slain needlessly. The squirrel made question to Grandpa as he stamped into the cabin, shaking rain from himself. Why were you shooting at the fish, Grandpa? Gorjo sat down at the table, wriggling a paw in his damp ear. All part of the plan, my young beauty. This lake's swarming with pike. They've tried to attack us before now. You don't realize how big and dangerous some of those fish have become. So the plan is to shoot one. The pike are natural cannibals. They'll go for that un and eat it. So we shoot a few more, and pretty soon they come far, far and wide to feed on them. Song shuddered. Ugh, how horrible. Gojo shrugged, pouring himself some hot mint and dandelion tea. Ah, it is not a pretty sight, but that's the nature of pike. They'll fight who are eating their own so fiercely that they bite each other, causing more blood to flow. Before you know it, Nearly all the pike in the lake are gathered there, snapping and ripping each other to bits. While their bloodlust is on them, they won't bother us or our raft. McGraw watched the rainy skies from the window. What a waste of good food! Nary a sign of the magpies out on yon lake yet. Maybe inclement weather's keeping them close to hame on their isle. Gorjo sipped his tea gratefully. The weather's on our side, and the wind's driving us toward the island. With luck. We may make land by the morrow's dawn. Burble picked up a small stringed instrument from the corner where he was sitting and twanged it. Can any beast be after playing this thing? Mayhap song will give us a titty. Yes, yes. A huge male hedgehog relieved Burble of the instrument. Nay, river mousey, sound doth carry far o'er waters like these. Song pulled a face at her friend. He's right, you know, river mousey. You'll have to recite us one of your river mousey poems, nice and quiet now. Burble's fur actually bristled with indignation. Sure, I'll recite nothing while I'm being insulted. If any beast calls me river mousey once more, I'll fight him. Yes, yes, so I will. I don't call you tree walloper, do I? Song laughed at her bristly companion. Call me what you like. I don't care, river mousey. Dipper burst out laughing. Ha ha ha! River mousey, that's a good un. Burble rounded on him with a wicked grin. Who asked you, Boat Bottom? The cabin became a verbal battleground as, laughing and giggling, they hurled insults at one another. Ho, 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 Boat Bottom! That's a great name for you, Dip. Who is it now, Dan Flower Broomtail? Ha, ha, ha! Gorjo joined in. He, he, Flop Ears is a better name for that un. Or Popple Paws. He, 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 he. Popple paws yourself, old baggy barrel belly. Ya ha ha ha! Torab poked her head round the cabin door. Be there any within to relieve the watch this day? She was greeted with a barrage of impudent merriment. Go away, spiky bonce. I push off, needle nose. 
Out in the rain with you, soggy hog. Go and watch yourself, squelch spines. The burly hogmaid grinned and called to McGraw, What about thee, binnacle beak? Dropping down from the window, McGraw spread his massive wings and glared about him savagely, raising a hooked talon. Which was that you call it me, marm? Nary a beast livin' makes sport of the mighty McGraw. End of Side 7 To continue, turn the cassette over. Side 8, Marl Fox by Brian Jakes. Continuing on page 351. A moment later they were all out on the deck, soaking in the rain, gazing at the locked cabin door. Verbal sighed. Sure, and I wonder why tis that eagles don't have any sense of humor at all. We had to run for our lives there. McGraw sat alone in the locked cabin, muttering darkly. Nay, beast speaks ill of Miller McGraw's egg chick. You'll stay out in the elements until you apologize to me. Apart from the skies lowering darker a little, noon, twilight, and evening remained virtually the same. Sheeting rain driving southward in heavy curtains over the lake surface as far as the eye could see, with a moderate wind spurring the raft ever onward toward the island. McGraw had been placated, but he deserted the cabin, choosing to stay on deck beneath a canvas awning, watching for sign of magpies. Gaujo lashed the tiller in position and joined his crew in the warm, cozy cabin, where a cheerful fire glowed within the pot-bellied stove. He lifted the lid from a cauldron, sniffing the simmering aroma. By the seasons, that smells good and decent. What is it? Dippler checked the contents, sprinkling in a pawful of sweet-ground arrowroot to thicken up the sauce further. That's a seagoing recipe, sir, called Skillion Duff. Logalog used to make it for the Gwasim when we followed the waters down to the great ocean. Torab hovered about the young shrew impatiently. "'Twill soon be ready, I trust." Dippler added more of the arrowroot and stirred it slowly. "'Aye, soon now. The skilly is a thick sweet sauce with all manner of good things in. That big puddin' floating about in it is the duff, stuffed with wild plums, damsons, blackberries, and chopped chestnuts, all cased up in a bowl of spongy pastry bit like a great dumpling. Nothing like it to cheer up a body on a rainy old night, you'll see. The entire crew voted Dippler's skilly and duff delicious, some of the big hedgehogs noting down the recipe for use on winter nights. The Gwasim shrew recalled a comic seagoing monologue concerning the dish. Aboard the good ship Wobble Chop, I sailed when I was young, first in line and feeling fine when the dinner bell was rung. Our captain had a foghorn voice, and boots as big as me. Stand by, me lads, here comes a ship. Tis a pirate craft, cried he. Woe, Skillian Duff, that's the stuff to keep nearby when things get rough. The pirate captain was a rat. His name was Itchy Scratch. Upon his nose, why goodness knows, he wore a red eye patch. All too, you dozy lubbers, I'm fat and bad and tough, and I smells plunder on the air. What might be Skillian Duff? Woe, Skillion Duff, that's the stuff us water beasts can't get enough. Well, I tell you, my word is true. Our crew got quite upset. To rob a sailor's dinner was the worst thing we'd heard yet. 
So we put down our bowls and spoons, then armed ourselves with slings. We slung at those old pirate rats, a dozen kinds of things. Woe, skilly and duff, that's the stuff to eat while fighting sea rats gruff. That pirate captain he got shot by a barrel load of peas. What blackened his eyes and stung his thighs and fractured all his knees. We hit the crew with onion skins, big cabbage stalks as well. With hard crust pies and horrible cries, they splashed into the swell. Woe, skilly and duff, that's the stuff when vermin crews you must rebuff. As Wobblechop sailed away that day, we sang a jolly song. The bottle-nosed cook with laughter shook as the dinner bell went bong. I'm old and fat with a greasy hat, but this to you I say. I must have scoffed a score of bowls of skilly and duff that day. Woe, skilly and duff, that's the stuff. When winter winds do howl and puff. High King Moken slept, though not peacefully or well, that night. The Marl Fox's dreams were a nightmare of disjointed visions. Lontour, the sister he had slyly murdered, kept trying to drag him into the pike-infested lake, smiling wickedly at him and repeating a hollow chant. Never trust a vixen, never trust a vixen. He turned to run, but was confronted by the brothers and sisters he had deserted. Their faces pale and wan, they pointed accusingly at him, murmuring, Blood for blood, a marl fox lies slain. Some beast must pay. Blood calls for blood. He fled from them, and seeking safety, found himself leaping into his mother's palanquin. However, he was surrounded not by a silk curtain, but by the tapestry from Redwall Abbey. Stern-faced and fearless, the mouse-warrior figure stepped out from the tapestry and raised his magnificent sword. Panic such as he had never known seized Moken. With the blood in his veins like ice water, he hurled himself from the palanquin. Time stood still, and the marl fox stumbled slowly to the ground, only to find himself confronted by others. A grim-faced young squirrel, wielding the same sword that the warrior mouse had brandished. A squirrel-maid, armed with a rod tipped by a glowing green stone. A great black-and-white eagle, talons spread, beak open. Creatures he could not identify, a water vole, a shrew, hedgehogs, all gathered around him, and his mother's voice echoed mockingly in the gloom. Hail, High King Moken, last of the Marl Fox brood. Grabbing his cloak, he hid his face in it and screamed. But the scream died to a whimper as the cloak tightened around his throat, threatening to strangle him. No, please, no! Moken woke on the floor of his bedchamber with a silken sheet, which had become caught on a bedpost as he rolled about trying to escape the dark world of fearful slumber wrapped tightly about his neck. Throwing open the chamber door, he glared wildly at the two water-rat sentries, standing immobile in the flickering torchlight. They gazed back dully at the new high king, panting, disheveled, with a bedsheet draped around his neck. Slamming the door, he retreated back into the bedchamber, taking a deep draft of wine from a pitcher and tossing aside the sheet. Then he stood at the window, letting the rain cool his fevered brow, staring out into the dark wet night. What acts of murder and treachery had his own mother committed that she too always slept uneasily? Was this what it was like to gain the power of kingship? 33. Gojo had taken the last night watch on deck. The rain slacked off to a steady drizzle before dawn when the old squirrel warrior returned to the cabin. Checking that the stove fire was burned down to white ashes, he unshuttered both windows. McGraw stirred from his perch on a shelf. 
I can, it'll be a big day today, Alden. Dojo Swift-Eye was still nimble and strong, despite his many seasons. He took down a short lance from the motley array of weaponry hanging from the wall. Aye, friend, twill be a big day, shorter for some than others before tis over. Come on, crew, stir yourselves. The island of Marlfoxes is in sight. Song stared around herself in the half-light. Her grandpa and the hedgehogs were ready and armed. Burble sat up, rubbing sleep from his eyes. Well, whatever happens later can wait, Hissius. I'm hungry right now, so I am. Dippler and Dan were already at the table, helping themselves to warm fruit cordial and oat cakes that had been baked the night before. McGraw hopped up to an open window. Nay use of waiting for yon Maggie Pies to find us, I'm thinking. This time I'll catch them napping. Good luck. See you later. Launching himself from the windowsill, the great eagle sailed off into the rising dawn-streaked skies. Gaujo addressed his remaining crew. Friends, you all know what to do. Dan, we'll give you and Torov until mid-morning. Is the swallow ready? Dan strapped the sword across his back, nodding to Torov and the other four hedgehogs he would be traveling with. She's ready, sir. Well stocked with weapons, too. Gaujo shook the young squirrel's paw heartily. Luck go with you, Danflora Raguba. Song, Dippler, and Burble pushed the boat out from the raft's port side. Sitting behind the hedgehogs, Dan waved his paddle. See you later, mates, I hope. The three friends waved to him silently, then stood by their polling positions at the side rails. Gorjo called out from the stern, where he sat plying the tiller. No time to waste, crew. Let's get there quick as we can. All eyes were fixed on the mysterious island, looming up, dark and forbidding, with Castle Marl dominating its rocky landing plateau. Owing to the previous day's events, when the rule of the island had changed so swiftly, the castle courtyards, front and back, lay silent. Moken had let the guards celebrate, and they were not yet up and about. In the slave pens the captives were beginning to stir. An old mouse stood with his face pressed to the bars. Behind him a grizzled otter hauled himself stiffly up from the damp straw that served them as bedding. "'What's happening out there, matey?' The mouse was joined by a sturdy hedgehog maid. Well, it ain't breakfast, that's for sure. Where's the guards today? Still sleeping, I suppose. They'll appear all in good time. After all, we ain't going nowheres, are we? Called a squirrel slave from the back of the pen. The mouse chuckled humorlessly at his dry remark. Right enough there, friend. We may as well make the best of our extra rest. Better than toiling in the fields, drenched by that rain we had yesterday. I'm still damp all over. They sat in silence for a while, watching the clear dawn rise, thankful that the rain had ceased. The otter suddenly cocked his head on one side, listening. What was that noise? I heard a funny sound. Probably my stomach telling me mouth it's time to eat. Catching the hedgehog's paw, the otter silenced her. No, it wasn't that, mate. Listen. Something metallic clinked against the back wall top, then clinked again as it fell back. There was a whirring noise, followed by a brief silence. A thick knotted rope flew down past the bars, with a three-pronged grappling hook tied to its end that hit the courtyard stones with a ringing clank. Dumbfounded for a moment, they stood looking at it. Then the hogmaid moved swiftly. Grabbing a piece of wet sacking, she lay flat and flopped it through the bars. It caught on the grapples, and she pulled it back in until the hook was in her reach. Her paws shook with excitement as she held on to the rope and the grappling hook. The old mouse gazed at it in disbelief as the other slaves crowded round. Why'd any beast want to throw that to us? 
Wedging the hook firmly between the bars, the otter gave the rope three sharp tugs. He, too, was shaking all over. One thing's sure. It ain't marlfoxes, water rats, or magpies. Whoever it is, they must be friends. Let's help them. Dan came shinning over the back wall. At the top he gave a swift look around, then signaled down to the hedgehogs below. A moment later he had dropped down into the courtyard and was staring into the pen at the emaciated slaves pressing forward to the bars. Unshouldering his sword, he flashed them a quick smile. Good morrow to you, mates. I'm Dan Raguba. Any beast fancy being liberated today? Raising the sword high, he swung it down energetically, shearing the lock from the slave pen door with one mighty swipe. Slaves stood gawping in amazement. Dan swung the door open as they found their tongues. Did you see that? He chopped off the lock, and his blade ain't even nicked. By thunder, that's some kind of sword, mates. Dan Raguba. What sort of name is that? I know. I've heard it afore. That un's a mighty warrior. I'm with him. Woe to the beast who stands in the way of a Raguba. A shudder of pride ran through Dan. He strode into the cage and was surrounded by creatures trying to shake his paw, all of them with tears in their eyes at the unexpected arrival of help. Torab followed with her hedgehogs, bundles of arms strapped to their backs. They passed out spears, slings, blades, and javelins to the eager captives. An otter spoke for his fellow slaves as he loaded stone into sling. Just say the word, Dan. We're with you all the way, mate. Dan closed the door, hanging the broken lock back in place. Sit tight here, friends. You'll get the word soon enough. Overhead, a harsh screeching of bird call cut the morning air, followed by a mighty flutter of wings and the hunting call of an eagle. Feathers fell like a miniature snowstorm into the courtyard. Dan had no need to look. He knew the mighty McGraw was wreaking vengeance upon his enemies. Magpies shrieked harshly with terror. More feathers swirled to the courtyard stones and floated into the pen. Slaves ran to the bars, clutching at them as they struggled to catch a glimpse of retribution being visited on the hateful birds, straining and craning their necks upward, pushing against the bars. An eagle! Tis a great eagle up there, hunting magpies! There was a thud on the pen roof, and the huddled carcass of Athrock rolled off under the stones below. The eagle's slain! Athrock! Look, look! From above, the osprey's war cry could be heard as he pursued magpies out across the lake. Remember me, my bonny bairns. I'm no half asleep and helpless now. I'm the mighty McGraw. Death on wings to you. Kariga! Guards came tumbling out of their barracks, still sleepy-eyed, buckling on armor and stumbling over weapons. Dan kicked open the slave pen door and hurtled out with an army of slaves brandishing weapons behind him. Charge! The raft thudded in against the rocky plateau. Song and her grandpa leapt ashore as mooring ropes snaked out behind them. Securing the raft, Gaujo was forced to duck as a small cloud of magpies sped low overhead, pursued by the mighty McGraw. They fled out across the lake with the eagle hard on their tails like some avenging beast. Gaujo gripped Song's paw as the sound of Dan and his slave army, giving their battle cry, rang out from the castle above. Stay by me, pretty one. The family had never forgive me if anything happened to you. On the double crew. They charged up the slope toward Castle Marl, slamming the gatehouse door shut as they passed, and locking the half-awake guards inside. As they burst into the front courtyard, Song caught a glimpse of Mokan at an upper chamber window. At once she remembered the original purpose of their quest. Dip, Burb, 
There's the Marl Fox. Come on, that's where the tapestry must be. For Moken, it was like a continuation of his nightmare. There below in the courtyard of Castle Marl, the creatures he had fled from in dreams were staring boldly up at him. Fear gripped the Marl Fox, and he looked about wildly, seeking an avenue of escape. The shrew logboat he had arrived in still lay moored to one side of the rock plateau that served as a jetty. That was it. Dashing from his room, he motioned at the two guards posted outside. Follow me. Slay any beast who tries to stop your king. They ran obediently with him, along the corridor sloping upward to Wilka's former room, which now belonged to Tulum, commander of the army. Vulcan burst in on the slumbering rat. Rouse yourself, fool. Foe beasts are at large in the castle. Tulum rushed to get his new armor on over a voluminous nightgown, then hefted his heavy spear. Er, sire, your word is my command, er, your majesty. Muster the soldiers, every one. Sweep these invaders from my island. Slay them, or take them prisoner. I will see you when this incident is finished. Fail me, and you will go to serve the teeth of the deeps. Go now. You two go with him. When they had gone, Moken dropped his heavily embroidered cloak of kingship and slunk swiftly down to the main chamber. There he donned his old cloak of dull brown and green weave. Immediately a transformation came over him, and his pale eyes glowed. Now he was a proper Marlfox once more, and every beast knew that Marlfoxes were magic and visible. Blending in with the stones of the wall, Moken slipped off down the back corridors. Burble panted along with Dippler in Song's wake, staring around in puzzlement. Dip, will you look at this place? There's neither step nor stair anywheres. Tis all slopes, Yusius. Song rounded on the pair and pulled them into a darkened alcove, beckoning them to silence as the sound of clanking spears against breastplates reached her ears. Some beast dashing down to the courtyard. Stand by. Tulum and the two water-rat sentries came into view, hurrying clumsily down the slope. Song whispered, One each. Wait until they pass. No sooner were the three vermin past the alcove than Song and her two friends hit them from behind. Amid a resounding jumble of weaponry and armor, the three rats crashed headlong into the wallstones and slid down senseless. Song could not resist a slight giggle. Sounded like some beast tripping into a broom closet at Redwall Abbey. Come on, the Marlfox's room must be somewhere up this passage. Go careful now. They'll have heard the noise. There were other chambers either side of the torchlit passage, but Song knew right away that the one with ornate double doors would be the chamber where the Marlfox had been sighted. Dippler and Burble had armed themselves with the sentry's spears. Brandishing her leafwood stick, Song gave them a quick nod. They charged the doors, yelling their battle cries. Logga, 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 log! Waylahoo! Red Wall! The doors were not locked. In fact, they were not even closed properly, and they slammed inward under the force of the charge. Song, Dippler, and Burble exploded into the chamber, heads over tails in a mad jumble. The squirrel maid was first upright, ready to do battle, but feeling rather foolish at the instant realization that she was facing an empty room, Dippler and Burble sat up, gazing around the chamber in awe. Silken hangings, burnished metal mirrors, incense burners, and satin cushions were everywhere. The water bowl scurried over to the large carved oaken chair that was serving as the High King's temporary throne and plumped down on it. Yes, yes, this is a grand old chair, so tis. I always promised myself one of these... I think I'll plunder it. Song and Dippler were not listening. They were staring at the great red wall tapestry, hanging in all its glory. 
Martin the warrior's likeness seemed to smile down on them both. Dippler clasped his friend's paw. Wait till Dan sees this, Missy. You've completed your quest. Pride flooded through song. It had been a long and perilous journey, but they had completed it successfully. Snapping out of her reverie, she rousted Burble from his plundered throne. Come on, Cushy Tail, up with you. We need this chair. She and Dippler dragged it over to the wall where the tapestry hung. Climbing onto the seat, they began taking down the heavy object, with Burble hopping about protesting. Ah, go easy now. Don't scratch the woodwork. Watch how you treat me, lovely old chair. Yes, yes, be careful. Rolling the tapestry up, they stood it behind one of the doors. Dippler tore down a silk wall hanging and draped it over the prize, effectively hiding it from view. There it should be safe enough here for the moment. What's up, Song? What are you looking round like that for? Where did the Marl Fox go? There's another thing, too. Have you noticed that it's gone quiet out there? Burble looked up from the chair he was covering with drapes. Yes, yes, you're right there, mate. There should be a grand old battle raging round this castle by now. But there's not a single peep from outside. Well, now, there's my plunder all wrapped up nice and tidy. Let's go and take a look. As soon as Dan and his party had charged, the guards fled back into their barracks and locked themselves in. Torod posted two hedgehogs and several freed slaves in front of the barracks, calling in a loud voice so the water rats could hear, Stay thou by here. Slay any who come out. She turned with a shrug to the bemused Dan. Mayhap yon vermin do not move without command from some captain or marlfox. They bear the look of beasts who be not overburdened with much intelligence. Dan took a parting glance at the dull-faced soldiers penned within their own barracks. I, I think you're right, Torob. Let's go and see how Gorjo and the others are faring at the front entrance. Oleg and Wilka were in the main barracks, demoted to the rank and file. When they saw Gorjo and his small force enter the courtyard, both vermin grasped immediately their chance of being restored to favor. After a hasty conference together, they took up weapons. Oleg faced the horde of soldiers, who were lounging about awaiting orders from Tulum, who had not yet appeared. Arm yourselves! There are enemies within our gates! Hurry! The rats looked at him, but made no move. Wilka shook her spear at them, haranguing the indifferent vermin. You heard him, idiots! Pick up your weapons! One, bolder than the rest, sat down on his bed. You ain't officers no more. You're only the same as us. We ain't taking no orders offen you. Wilka's brain was racing as she challenged the speaker. Us, common soldiers? Don't be stupid. Who told you that? Slightly unsure of himself, the water rat pointed out one of his comrades. Er, he did. Oleg did not hesitate. He slew the vermin who had been singled out with a sharp spear thrust. Turning on the rest, he shook his head pityingly. Him? What did he know about it? Barrack room gossip. You all know me and Wilka here. King Mokan asked us to pose as common soldiers for a while, just to sniff out any traitors or rebels who was still loyal to the impostor Lontour. We're still in command here, so pick up your weapons and follow us, or it'll go hard on you. Gojo and his party were about to enter the castle when the main barrack doors burst open and vermin began charging toward them. The old squirrel warrior turned to face the foe, backed by his ten big hogs, and rushed the enemy with a blood-curdling shout. Gojo! Their quills bristling with the madness of combat, the hedgehogs threw themselves headlong into the water rat flanks, flailing out with long heavy clubs, smashing any spears that came close 
hacking and thrusting with short, broad cutlasses. Roland Circle! Form a Roland Circle! yelled Gorgio above the melee. The water rats did not fight with the same ferocity as their opponents, but they outnumbered them more than ten to one. Two of the hedgehogs were down before Gorgio succeeded in joining his small force into the rolling circle. Shoulder to shoulder, cheek by jowl, they fought, facing the vermin horde, turning like a wheel, plowing hither and thither into the foe-beast ranks. A spear blade slashed down across Gorgio's paw as the hedgehog on his right side was overwhelmed by the crushing force of vermin. The old squirrel sighed as he slid in the blood flowing from his paw. They had underestimated the number of enemies. In a short time his column would go under. Raguba! Strike for freedom! Dan and his slave army came charging to the rescue. They hit the vermin's flank like a tidal wave, changing the face of the battle completely. Ulig and Wilka had fallen to the rear, careful not to be in the front line. Now, when the huge mob of reinforcements arrived, they saw defeat looming. That's torn it. Let's get out of here, Wilka muttered to her companion. A huge paw smacked down on Ulig's shoulder, and he was knocked flat by a burly hedgehog maid. She smiled grimly at him as she raised a loaded sling and spoke the last words Ulig was ever to hear in his life. Well, well, even it ain't Ulig the slave captain. A crowd of slaves cornered Wilka. She had nowhere to run. Look, mates, tis Madam Iron Mighty, Londor's old pet. Aye, she had me beaten just for looking at her. Remember she had our rations cut when twas too cold for us to work? I remember that was a hard winter. I vowed if ever I got the chance I'd pay her back some day. Now the time's come. Wilka's final shriek as they fell upon her was so piercing that it actually caused a lull in the fighting. Song and her two friends emerged into the courtyard just as Wilka screamed. It was a critical moment. The water rats ceased fighting and dropped their weapons, an uneasy murmur arising from them at the sight of their two leaders lying slain. Taking in the situation at a glance, the young squirrel maid tried a desperate gamble. Raising the leafwood high above her head, she strolled boldly among the vermin, calling out, Surrender, and you will not be harmed. The morrow fox is gone, and your leaders are dead. Surrender, I command you. Surrender. Sit down upon the ground, all those who want to live. Whether it was the authority carried by her voice, or the fact that the slow-witted vermin were conditioned to obey orders, Song never knew. She looked about, trying to hide her astonishment. Every vermin soldier was seated firmly on the ground, watching her. Verbal's outburst almost ruined the moment. All except you four. Yes, yes, you're fine big buckos. I want you to carry me nice old chair down there and... Ouch! Torov had silenced the water bowl by treading heavily on his footpaw. She glared at him ferociously. Seal thy foolish mouth, River Mousy. Meanwhile, Mokan hurried along the damp rock passages that ran beneath Castle Marl, holding a small lantern. The tunnels wound many different ways in maze-like patterns, but the Marl Fox kept unerringly to one passage, sure of his destination. It was a rusty metal door, small and set low at the rear of an alcove. Mokan gritted his teeth as he prized with his axe blade, forcing the door to squeak in protest as it was wrenched open. He held the lantern ring in his teeth as he scraped through the doorway and began the long upward climb along a tunnel carved into the solid rock. At the top he slid aside a flat slab and emerged into broad daylight. Tossing the lantern into the tunnel, he drew his cloak tight and took off along the boundary where the woodland grew down to meet the rocks. A sudden sound caused him to pause, then move silently back into the shade of a rowan and become almost one with it, using the Marlfox art of camouflage. 
Durlow passed by him, glancing fearfully back at the high side wall of Castle Marl. Vulcan materialized behind the water rat and dealt him a sharp blow with his axe handle. Durlow sprawled on the ground, one paw to his injured shoulder, the other held to his face, as he cringed to avoid his master. I wasn't running away, Majesty. I was... er... don't kill me. Vulcan kicked him contemptuously. Get up, you whining oaf. Follow me and do as I say. Shortly afterward, they lay among the loose rocks close to the plateau. Vulcan's axe blade pressed between Durlow's shoulder blades as he whispered orders. Get down there fast and paddle that log boat over here. I'll be waiting for you. Hurry. Gojo allowed Song to bandage his paw as they strode behind the vermin to the lakefront. Grandpa, will you keep still, please? This wound has to be bound, and I can't do it while you walk. The old squirrel warrior winked at her fondly. My little song, the sweet voice of reason. Time for all that when we finished this job. At the water's edge, the defeated rats were made to pile up their armor and weapons, helmets, breastplates, and shields in one heap, spears, slings, bows, arrows, and swords in a separate array. Dan took command of the disposal. You creatures have no need of armor. On an island such as this, there will be no need to attack or defend from this day forward. So step up smart now, and let's see you sling all this gear into the lake. Gojo admired his neatly bandaged paw as Song skimmed the shield out over the water. It skipped four times, then sank with the noon sun glinting off it. The old squirrel warrior watched as it disappeared from view, butted from side to side by the hooked snouts of curious pike. Well, Missy, there goes the garments of war. That was a good idea of yours. Tis nice to have a clever granddaughter. Song was as tall as her grandpa, so it was not difficult to throw an affectionate paw about his shoulders. Aye, and it isn't so bad having a good old grandpa. The weapons were next to go. Dan noticed that some of the vermin were actually enjoying it, laughing as they aimed their spears far out into the lake. Ho, ho, mate, mine went further than yours. Well, watch this for a good throw. Ha! Last time I'll ever polish my spear for guard duty. Remember how Ullig used to have us beaten for parading with a dust speck on our spear blades? I curse his memory. This was his sword. I hope it rusts to nothing in the waters. The polished blade flashed in the sunlight, splashed into the lake, and was lost to sight forever. Mokin was concealed by high shelving rock at the side of the plateau as he climbed down to the waiting log boat with the laughter and cheers of his defeated army ringing in his ears. Durlow crouched nervously at the water's edge, keeping a wary eye on the pike, watching him hungrily from just below the waterline. He held the stern of the log boat steady for the Marl Fox. Mokin pushed past the water rat and jumped into the waiting craft, which wobbled perilously for a moment and then settled. Seating himself, Mokin readied his paddle nodding to Durlow. Get in. I ain't going with you, sire. Mokin stared at his subordinate in disbelief. What did you say? A look of stubborn resolution was in the water rat's eyes. I said I ain't going with you, Marlfox. A quiver of rage shook Mokin. When this is over, I'll be back, he snarled. Mark my words, rat. You'll be screaming for death before I'm finished with you. Durlow gave the logboat a hefty shove, shooting it out onto the lake smiling happily at the irate Marlfox. "'Your killing days are over. Bad luck go with your majesty.' The last of the water rat's weapons had been cast into the lake when Mokin hove into view, paddling furiously. 
Diffler was first to sight him and hopped about wildly. Look, the Marlfox! There he goes! Vulcan paddled like a wild beast to get out of weapon range. Dan ground his teeth in frustration. He's getting away! Gajo, what'll we do? The old squirrel shook his head. We can't do anything, Dan. The Marlfox is out of range. No beast could throw a spear that far. Suddenly every beast leapt to one side. A whirring noise filled the air. Whrum! Whrum! Take this with you, vermin! A former slave, the burly young hedgehog maid, raced forward to the rocky plateau brink. She was swinging an iron slave chain in both paws. Faster and faster she whirled it, until it became a blur. Song pulled her grandpa down flat, narrowly avoiding the broken manacles at the chain's end, as the lengths thrummed louder and louder. Rum! 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 The hogmaid released the chain, and it whizzed out over the lake, a whirlwind of metal. She was carried forward by the mighty throw, slipping off the plateau into the water. Like lightning, Torab and two of her brothers yanked her back, a pike clinging to her footpaw. Mokan was just turning his head to look back as the chain struck him, wrapping around his neck in the blink of an eye and whipping him straight into the water. The teeth of the deeps, the ravening pike shoals that preyed upon any living thing that was cast into their domain, closed in. Long silver bodies, bristling dorsal fins and ferocious ripping teeth, threshing the water to foam. So ended the reign of High King Mokan, last of the Marl Foxes. A mighty cheer rose from the freed slaves. The water rat stared blankly for a moment, then joined in wholeheartedly. The young hedgehog maid sat inspecting her footpaw, and Song sat down beside her, eyes shining with admiration. That was a mighty throw, miss. You must possess great strength. What do they call you? My name is Nettlebud. Song shook her paw warmly. I know your father well. He'll be overjoyed to see you. Verbal scurried about, reassuring slaves and water rats, as McGraw came swooping down to land on the plateau. Don't fuss now. My friend won't harm you. He's on our side, yes, yes, and we're thankful for that. Folding his massive wings, the osprey nodded at song. Weel, lassie, I take it the battle's o'er. You'll no be seeing magpies round here, Nemer. No beast doubted the fierce fish eagle's word. Diffler eyed his log boat, floating empty out on the lake. I could take a dozen or so in the log boat when we gets it back to land. Any beast want to come with me? I'm going home. Home. The beautiful word meant everything to the creatures gathered by the lake's edge. Some of the freed slaves broke into sobs and wept at the thought of it. Gorjo was one of those who could not hold back a tear. Dan thought of Redwall and his father, and his own eyes filled. Look at him blubbering, Song, Diffler whispered. Bet you can't start every beast weeping by singing something nice and sad. Song tweaked the Gwasim Shrew's ear. You heartless little horror, bet I can. Just give me a moment to dry my eyes. There on the rocks of the sunlit island, the young squirrel maid's voice rang out into the late summer afternoon. Please gaze round our garden, remember me there, and always be faithful and true. Then look to the sunset and know that somewhere tis I who will be thinking of you. Home, home, I will come home, back to the ones I love best. Home, home, no more to roam, my weary heart will find rest. So leave the door open and keep the fire bright, as I recall it was always. It may be evening or dawn's welcome light, 
I'll wander back one of these days. Home, home, I will come home, ere the long seasons have passed. Home, home, no more to roam, peace we will find there at last. In the hush that followed, Song noticed Dippler weeping. 34. Rimro sat at the Abbey Pond's edge with Crega, Sister Slowey, Alayo, Deesum, and Gerbold Sullermole. Between them they were candying nuts and fruit, shelling hazels, almonds, and chestnuts, slicing apples and pears, removing stones from plums, damsons, and greengages, and selecting berries. These they layered in pottery jars, pouring in honey, then sealing the tops with bark circles and beeswax. Sister Slowey watched a crew of moles carrying ladders out of the abbey. They finished fixing all the window panes, Craigamarm. The blind badgermon nodded fondly. At last Redwall is restored to its former glory, and our beautiful tapestry will soon be back where it belongs. I can stand in the center of Great Hall and feel it. I know I can. Gerbold placed another full jar to one side. Her, that beat a long job, all right. This daisy lars day of season, boy, my reckoning. Rimrose looked up from her work. The last day of summer? Surely not. You said that Song and her friends would be back by then, Craiga. The blind badger pulled the stalk from an apple and began slicing it expertly. That's what my dream told me, Rimrose. Maybe summer has a few more days to run yet. Are you sure your calculations are right, Gerbil? The mole-wife nodded solemnly. There bain't no mistakes in my calucations, marm. Alayo reassured Gerbil hastily. Oh, we ain't questioning your reckoning, marm. Matter of fact, summer does seem to have gone on quite long this season. Oh, by the way, has any beast seen Mr. Florian and the Dibbons today? They was aunting us yesterday— Pinching nuts and dabbing their paws in our honey, getting up to all sorts of roguery they were. Wonder where they've gotten to. Deesum nodded in the direction of Mossflower Wood. Very pickin'. I heard Mr. Jangler and Mr. Rossville say at breakfast that they'd go along with Florian to keep an eye on the Dibbons. Huh. Rather them than us, I say. Imagine having charged that lot in the woodlands. I'll wager they come back filthy with their smocks all snagged and ripped. Rimrose poured honey into a jar, chuckling. Mr. Florian will be glad to get Dwapple and his gang back here, I should imagine. Is that them now coming in the main gate? Dearie me, just look at the state they're in. A band of dibbons charged across the lawn, stained red and purple with berry juice. Janglur and Russell followed, towing a cartload of baskets. Florian followed up, breathlessly trying to take a headcount of the Abbey Babes. Five, six, seven... Be still, you blighters, what? Come back here, back, I say. Young sirs and missies, line up correctly. Oh, confound the blighters, I've gone and lost count again. Er, uh, three, four, five... Stop dodging about there, Dwapple. I've gone and counted you twice again. You should be five. Or uh, was it four? No, three, that's right. Now, three, four, five... Sister Sloy took a correct count as the Dibbons ran toward her. Mr. Florian, sir, I've got a count. There's twenty-two in all. Is that how many you went out with? Dwapple swiped a strawberry and dipped it in honey. Course not. Twenty-two's Nora, right? Us went out with twenty-three. This morning, Mr. Rusbull counted them twice. Rusbull and Jangler took a swift count, which tallied with Sister Slowey's. They dropped the cart handles. Once missing, Chang. 
We'll have to go back to the woodlands. No, you stay here, Russ. I'll go. Rimrose hurried past them both. You take a rest. I'll go. There's some cold mint tea setting in the pond shallows. Help yourselves. You deserve it. Florian Dogglewolf Wolfenchop was first to the tea jug. Ah, oh, jolly good. Cold tea after a flippin' day chasing those ruffians round bush and shrub. Nothing like it. Rimrose found the divan, a baby dormouse named Guff, with enormous ears. He had toddled right on past the main gates, and was close to the end of the wall, going south. Rimrose caught up with him, though he started to run, and she had to chase him. She swept the tiny fellow up into her paws. Where do you think you're off to, my little button? Guff pointed a very stained paw south down the path. Gonna zing down dur. The good squirrel wife translated Guff's baby talk. Going to sing down there? Why do you want to do that? The dormouse babe looked at her as if the answer was obvious. Cause dots where all a singin' bees. Rimrose did not doubt the divin's word. His large, sensitive ears could pick up sounds far better than hers. She stood there holding the little creature, listening for quite a while, until her ears too picked up the noise. It came from many voices raised heartily as they came through the woods, roaring out an old ballad called Seven Seasons Gone. Rimrose felt her paws trembling as she lowered Guff back to the path. Excitement and many differing emotions crowded in on her, so that she could hardly put her words together correctly. Tell them, Abby, er, Abby, go, tell them, Janglor, tell my daughter coming home. Quick, Abby. Guff nodded. He understood perfectly. Dibbin spoke like that all the time. It was no problem. He trundled off toward Redwall while Rimrose dashed the other way, her skirts and aprons flapping as she yelled herself hoarse. Song! It's song! My daughter's coming home! Soon the dust cloud was seen rising above the trees, tramping paws keeping up with the old marching ballad. Strung across four pikestaffs, borne by Song, Dan, Dippler, and Gojo, the great Redwall tapestry provided a fitting banner as they bellowed the words. Seven seasons gone, oh, seven seasons gone, but now I'm coming home, my dear old mate, over valley, hill, and field, and me footpaws didn't yield. Get some victuals on the table, I can't wait. Go to the left, right, left, go to the left, right, left. Seven seasons gone, oh, seven seasons gone, have the little ones all growed up big and strong? Is me father in the chair? Do his snores ring through the air? Now I'm going to wake him up with this old song. Go to the left, right, left, go to the left, right, left. Seven seasons gone, oh, seven seasons gone. I've been fighting, roaring, marching all the time. But I'm coming home to you to give you a hug or two the moment that I've supped a jug of wine. Go to the left, right, left, go to the left, right, left. Bong, boom, bong, boom, bong, boom. The bells of Redwall Abbey tolled out like melodious rolling thunder. Chores, rest, recreation, and duty were forgotten. Redwallers poured out onto the path outside the gates to see the brave sight. Aprons waved and cook's caps were flung into the air. Craig seized Friar Bunny and sat him upon her mighty shoulders, yelling, What do you see, friend? Tell me what you can see. The old recorder's voice squeaked with eagerness. I see Song, Dan, and the young Wassum. What's his name? Dippler. There's an old squirrel marching alongside them. Looks like a seasoned warrior to me. I see a rank of hedgehogs, biggest I ever set eyes on. Must be close to a score of them. Right behind them there's squirrels, mice, moles, even some otters. 
They're smiling, laughing, singing, pounding the dust up high as they come. Oh, Craigamarm, did you ever see such a sight? Craigamarm chuckled at the thought of a blind badger seeing any sight, but she understood her friend's jubilation. No, I never saw such a sight, Friar. What else do you see? I see Martin the warrior. They've done it. They've brought the great tapestry home to Redwall. Rusfold grabbed his son's paws with a fierceness Dan could feel, dust settling on their faces as they stared intently at each other. Dan, that night, I'm sorry. Dan seemed to have grown taller and broader. Forget it, Raguba. Rusfold held his son at paw's length. No, Dan, you're the Raguba now. Let me look at the son who's made me proud to see a warrior standing before me. Jangler and Rimrose hugged Song so hard she could scarcely breathe. Oh, Song, Song, thank the seasons you're back safe. Well, Missy, I'll bet you've sung some songs and been through a few adventures since you left your old dad and mum. Ha ha, you're even prettier than when you went away. Song found herself looking over Jangler's shoulder at her grandpa and Elio, staring at one another like two creatures in a dream. Gorjo Swift Eye, is it really you? Ay, tis me, Elio, me dear, older and grayer, though maybe none the wiser. Bet I'm a sight to make sore eyes sorer, eh? Oh, no, Gorjo, you look handsome, all silver-furred and well. Ay, but not half so pretty as you, Elio. You've not changed a single hair. Wait, is that our son Janglor? You could wager on it, Gorjo. That apple never fell far from the tree. He's the breath out of your mouth. Go to him. Thank you, I will. Oh, Torab, bring your crew over here. Elio, I want you to meet your other sons and daughters. The old squirrel wife looked up at the big hedgehog surrounding her and shook her head in amazement. My sons and daughters? Great seasons! You there, you look too big to be any beast's son. The giant hedgehog bowed, his face wreathed in smiles. Ho, ho, ma'am. I ain't your son. I'm just a visitor. My name's Solitree, and this is my daughter Nettlebud, and our friend Goodwife Brim. She's a fine cook, I can assure you, ma'am. Dippler found himself chatting to many Gwasim friends. Poor old Pargle. That's another log-a-log we lost, mates. Who's chieftain of the tribe now? You, man? Or Splicker, maybe? I'm sure you've chosen another log-a-log -log since I've been gone. Mayan shook his head ruefully. No, mate. Bargle was only acting, Logalog. We can't make a new chief until we catch up with that murdering Fenno. Dippler looked puzzled. Fenno? Surely you weren't thinking of making that blaggard into a Logalog. Oh, no. But Gwasim law states clear that a new chieftain can't be appointed until the old one is avenged, Splicker explained. The guerrilla union rule is that when a Logalog dies by the paw of a Gwasim shrew... Dippler interrupted him, as shrews invariably do when debating. Listen, matey, you've no need to go hunting Fenno. I caught up with that murdering scum and slew him with my own sword, even though it was snapped in half. He's deader than last season's grass, and good riddance to the villain. Every beast turned as the shrews threw up their paws and pointed their snouts toward Dippler, setting up a shout. Logga, 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 log! The young Wassum shrew stood totally embarrassed. Ahoy, mates, steady on there. What's all the shouting about? A venerable old shrew named Marglow came forward, carrying something wound in bark cloth. 
You're only a young'un. Stands to reason you're not expected to know all of the Gwasim law, so I'll quote some to you. The paw of the shrew that slays the beast, who made our chieftain fall, will wield the sword of Gwasim and be logalog over all. Marglow unwrapped the bark cloth from a short rapier. Diffler recognized his dead leader's blade straight away. The oldster presented it to him ceremoniously. From this day forth your name is forgotten in our tribe. Take the chieftain's blade. Hail Logalog of all Gwasim. Every beast on the path in front of Redwall set up an ear-splitting cheer. Skipper waved them to silence. Would you like to say a word to your tribe, Logalog, me old mate? Come on, don't be shy. The new Logalog thrust the rapier into his belt. Ahem. Now let me see. Er, yes. Gwasim. I'm only young, but I'll try to be as good a logalog as our olden was. Fortune smile on his memory. But I've been thinking, no more log boats for us. We're going to build new vessels, light and swift and easy to carry over land. Soon now I'll take you to see my friend Chief Burble, boss of the Riverhead Water Bulls. He's the bucko who'll show us how to make boats, like the Swallow, neatest little craft ever to sail a stream. Oh, and there's another thing. I won't stand to see any young'uns in our tribe pushed around or bullied or made fun of. Er, uh, that's all for now, but I'll think of more to say to you later. Dan strode over to congratulate his friend. Well said, Logalog. I think you'll be a great chieftain. Craig's searching paw reached Dan. What about you, Sir Raguba? Have you got any plans? Who, me? Er, uh, no, not really, ma'am. Oh, I'm sorry, here's your sword back. Sorry I borrowed it without permission. Jangler's lazy eyes flickered as he murmured to Gorjo and Russell. Just watch young Dan's face when Craig tells him the news. The blind badger's paw closed tightly over Dan's, holding the sword there. Every beast heard what she had to say. The sword of Martin is yours now, for as long as you shall defend this abbey with it. Dan Floraguba, I name you Champion of Redwall. Before the cheering could start anew, Skipper's paw shot aloft. Belay the roaring, mates. There's more to come yet. Now, is there a song breeze, swift eye, among us today? Well, if there is, you better get yourself over your smartish. Willing paws ushered song forward until she was standing alongside Dan in front of Craig of Badgermum. Looking slightly bemused, the squirrel maid whispered to her friend, Hope they're not going to ask me to sing. My mouth's full of dust from that long track. Alayo twicked her granddaughter's ear. Manners, stop whispering and listen to what the badger mum has to say to you, missy. A hush had fallen on the crowd. Curious onlookers at the back stood on tip-paw to see and hear what Craiga was about to say. She did not keep them waiting. Song, you are to be the abbess of Redwall. The crowd went wild with delight. It took Skipper solitary... Torab and several stout hedgehogs to restore order, and a degree of quiet. The pretty squirrel-maid sat down upon the dusty path, completely dumbfounded, as Craig continued. Redwall Abbey needs someone like you, miss, young, bright, and courageous. Dan is our champion, and he will have his father, Janglor, and Skipper to advise him. You, as abbess, can always look to your grandma, your mother, or to me for help. We will happily assist you in your decisions— Song stood up slowly, her eyes searching Craig's face. But why me? 
There are many Redwallers who have lived here far longer than I have, Sister Slowey, Friar Butty, Troglo Spearback. It is an honor far beyond my wildest dreams, ma'am. Tell me, why do you choose me as abbess? The blind badger gave her reasons readily. While you were gone, I was visited in my dreams by Martin the warrior. This is what he told me. Four chieftains from the isle return, but one with his own tribe will stay. Three will return back to this place, on summertime's last day. The river beast to rule his kind, where once his errors were maligned, but this to you I say, look to the young two went from here, a-questing for my tapestry, the Raguba and Swift Eyes maid, champion and abbess they shall be. Florian Dugglewolf Wolfenshop bent a leg, twirled his fluffy hat, and produced the most elaborate bow any beast had yet witnessed. Truth will out, my dear companions, ah, yes. Who among us would doubt the words of Martin the warrior? Splendid chap, absolutely first-rate, what-what. Ahem. Would you kindly bestow upon these rustic creatures a few pearls of newfound wisdom from your rose-petal lips, O abbess song thing me? A puzzled look crossed Song's face, and Friar Butty muttered, He wants you to say a few words, Missy. Sorry, abbess. Song was lifted onto the Noonvale troop's cart. She looked down at the expectant faces, gazing up at her, and took a deep breath. Would you like a feast? A roaring cheer arose. Yes, yes, a feast. Holding up her paws for silence, the young squirrel-maid smiled sweetly. Well, you'll just have to wait. Tis autumn tomorrow, and the harvesting must begin. As abbess of Redwall, I'll have no idle paws or gluttonous faces about me while there's work to be done around my abbey. Dan Raguba, I give you as champion permission to liven up any slackers, tug of the ear, swift kick in the tail, that sort of thing. And you visitors... We'll see if we can't find you some useful chores, washing pots, scrubbing floors, and what not. Oh, yes, you'd better watch out when you hear the swish of this abbess's robe. Song stared solemnly at the crestfallen faces staring up at her, and then she gave a hearty giggle. Hee hee hee, stop looking at me like frogs at a funeral. What's the matter? Can't you take a joke? Listen, here are my first four official words to you as abbess of Redwall. On with the feast! Cheering and laughing, they pushed the cart across the lawn to the abbey. Florian, bringing up the rear, chatted away to Rimrose. Phew, ma'am, greatly relieved, that's what yours truly is. I thought we'd voted in a right young terror to run the jolly old place, what? A proper new brush sweeps clean, Stickler. Good job your pretty daughter was only joking, what, what? Nothing like a sense of humor, I always say. Chap should always be able to take a joke or a bit of ribbon. Ouch! A pebble from the fiendish mouse-babe's sling clipped Florian's tail-bob. The hare dashed off after Dwapple, shouting threats. Assassin, rapscallion, fig-doodle, pollywoggin, savage infant? Yes, you, sir. I'll kick your little tail ten times round Great Hall, if I catch you. I'll chuck you in with the flippin' apples and trample you to cider. I'll... Er, uh, no, no. Put that sling down. There's a good little chap. Help! Florian flew in behind the merry cavalcade and slammed the abbey door shut. Epilogue Extract from the records of Redwall Abbey, written by an apprentice recorder under the direction of Friar Butty. What a feast we had that day, and the three days following it. My word! I thought Mr. Florian could clean a platter, 
until I watched those big rough hedgehogs tucking in. "'Twas a good thing there was more than enough, for Redwall lived up to its name for providing lavish hospitality to every beast within its gates. Abish Song's first feast was a rousing success. I declare there never was such an array of food, ten kinds of cheeses, twelve different breads, all crisp and fresh, cakes, puddings, flans, trifles, tarts, and crumbles in abundance. Oh, those scones! Goody Brim baked batches of them, assisted by the giant Solitary and his long-lost daughter Nettlebud. Solitary is the jolliest of creatures now that he has his daughter back. He brought with him a sack of almonds and a basket of dried grapes as a gift to our abbey. There was a last summer salad at the feast that had to be balanced between two tables because of its size. October ale and strawberry fizz were very popular, but then so was every other drink. Have you ever tasted skilly and duff? The guasum made pans of the stuff. It is very delicious and difficult to stop eating. However, the serious trencher beasts, Skipper, Florian, Troglo, and some others, went on to sample the mole's famous deeper-never turnip and tater and beetroot pie and the otter's formidably spicy hot-root soup. Excellent entertainment was provided by the Noonvale troupe, though our poor abbess was called upon to render ballad after ballad. I thought they would never let her sit down to eat. Martin the warrior's tapestry was hung in its former position amid all the jollity. That feast! Red Wallers will tell of it in song and story for generations to come. It was a strange and exciting adventure our travelers had to relate. We listened eagerly to the tale of how they quested to bring back our stolen tapestry. Dibbon sat wide-eyed as Gaudio told them of the lost island at the center of the great lake and of how it was conquered. He said that now it was a place inhabited by water rats who lived there peacefully in the castle, learning to farm the land for their food. All the slaves were freed, some to return to their homes, others being part of the force that came back to Redwall. Now that the curse of the Marl Foxes was lifted from the island, it was a pleasant place to be, ruled over by a great fish-eagle, whom all spoke well of. Abbess Song said that the bird's name is Mighty McGraw. She wanted him to come to the abbey with her, but he refused. We laughed at the curious speech of McGraw, and our abbess herself has written down his parting words to her. This is what he said. Leave my island? Ach, away will you, lassie. I'm king of this place, Dickin. A top young castle is my perch. A bird would be Uta is mine to leave a fine broad lake, full of bonny pikefishes, so easy to catch and good to eat. I'll bid you farewell. Goin' away, back to your abbey, and eat all manner of dreadful fruit and vegetables. Maybe I'll gang a ruin to see you one day. I had great difficulty understanding this, but Dwapel and the Dibbons didn't. Often we have to bring them down from the wall-tops, where they stand watching for a visit from the one Dibbons call Mig Aw Hegel. It is mid-autumn now, and the trees shed tears of brown and gold as their leaves fall softly to the quiet earth. We gathered in the last of our orchard's russet apples yesterday. Mr. Florian and his troop decided to travel on. It was a sad parting, but after all they are strolling players. Well, scarce half a day's journey down the path, their cart fell entirely to pieces. Since they had eaten all the provisions they had been supplied with, Florian traipsed boldly back at the head of his troop, and inquired if dinner was ready, what what. So the wandering Noonvale companions are installed in Redwall once more. Abba's song was informed by Florian that it might take a season or three to build a new cart. 
We are all very fond of the old rascal. He may stay with us as long as he pleases. Logalog has taken his shrews off to see the Riverhead Water Bowl tribe, where they will learn how to construct a new fleet of boats, lighter and faster than their old log boats. I hear Burble, the Riverhead chief, is a very odd and humorous young water bowl. His full title, I am told, is Chief Burble Big Throne, holder of Leafwood and commander of the boat Swallow. Dan could hardly tell me for laughing of how Burble plundered his throne from the Marl Fox's castle and insisted on bringing it back home on Gaujo's raft, polishing it the entire trip. We look forward to a visit from both Riverheads and Gwasim at our midwinter festival. What more is there to tell? Redwall's harvest is in. Days grow short, and birds are flocking together in the trees for their long flight to the sunny places. Skipper and his otter crew are hauling in dead tree trunks from moss-flower wood, fuel for the abbey fires. I dearly love a good fire, particularly on some cold winter night when snow is driven by howling winds outside. We sit around a cheery blaze in Cavern Hole, roasting chestnuts, singing songs, and telling tales, happy together in the warmth and safety of our beloved home, Redwall Abbey. They say our bells can be heard from afar at any time of day or night. If you are traveling across the flatlands, through the woods, or along the path, you may hear our twin bells. They will be calling you to come and join us, and we would be pleased to see you. Do call in some day. You will be made welcome by all who dwell within our walls. Rimrose Swifteye, apprentice recorder to Friar Butty, at Redwall Abbey in Mossflower Country, and never too old to learn new skills. Curtain. This narrative has been edited by Florian Dugglewolf Wilfelchop, actor-manager impresario, who insists that the entire tale is a drama, which he will be later performing as a play, hence the three parts being named as acts rather than books. We crave your indulgence for this deviation. End of Marl Fox by Brian Jakes Read by David Palmer in the studios of the American Printing House for the Blind, Louisville, Kentucky, for the Library of Congress, April 2000. Published by Philomel Books, a division of Penguin Putnam Books for Young Readers, 345 Hudson Street, New York, New York, 10014. Further reproduction or distribution in other than a specialized format is prohibited. If you found any cassette in this book to be defective, please place a rubber band or piece of string around that cassette for identification. Place it in the container on top of the front stack of cassettes.